Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. But my name is Joe, and I'm an alcoholic. And it's truly by God's grace and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that comes from a book called Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm Sober Today. And for that, I'm very, very thankful. And I'd like to read the preamble. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and to help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We're self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. Does not wish to engage in any controversy. Neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. And I'm very excited about being here this weekend. Are you? Yeah. Oh, good, good. We're going to have a lot of fun. I'm going to tell you a little story before we kick it off about this little duck. He goes into the grocery store and he asks for the produce manager. He walks over to the produce manager and said, Do you have any grapes this morning? The produce manager said, No, we're out of grapes. So the next day he walks in there and he said, do you have any grapes this morning? He said, no, we don't have any grapes. The next morning he walks in and he said, do you have any grapes? He said, I've told you twice now, we don't have any grapes. One more time, I don't have any grapes. If you come in here one more time looking for grapes, I'm going to staple your feet to the floor. So the next morning he walks in he said, do you have any staples? He said, no. So you got any grapes? <laughs> My friend Charlie. Are you through? Mm-hmm. My name is Charlie. I'm a very grateful recovering alcoholic. Because I'm a member of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And with the grace of the power that I found in the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink for 13,134 days today. One day at a time, and for this I'm very grateful. Great to see you guys. You look great. You know, I'm really, really happy to be back up in this part of the country and and see a lot of old friends that, that I've known for years and years and years. It really amazes me when these things take place. I'm glad to be up here to be able to meet a lot of new friends. Um, those of you I haven't met yet, I, I sure want to shake your hand before the weekend's over. Please, please be sure and, and come up to us wherever we are and introduce yourselves and let's shake hands and make each other welcome. We're really, really glad to be here. I like to tell a little joke myself once in a while and, and uh, we try to do this to get some humor started and, and, and keep, keep people laughing once in a while and, and if we tell a joke and it isn't funny, go ahead and laugh anyhow. <laughs> Makes us feel better, makes you feel better, and makes everybody else feel better. And the story I like to talk about, many of you have heard it before, is a, is about the brain surgeon. And the brain surgeon developed a way to transplant the human brain in its entirety. Been doing it with other organs of the body for years. He found a way to do it with the brain. And this older fellow went to him and said, Doc, I've got a problem with my brain. I can't think and I can't remember and I can't figure things out. 
do you think you might be able to help me? The surgeon said, well, let's give you a physical exam first and see what kind of shape your body's in. So he gave him a good physical, and he said, oh, yeah, your body's in great shape. He said, I believe I could transplant a brain in your head, and everything would be just fine. The old man said, well, what do you have to offer? And the surgeon said, let's go up in the display room, and I'll show you what we have in stock at the present time. They go up in the display room, and he said, in this case over here, I have the brains of an attorney. And he said, I could transplant this in your head, and I'm sure it would be all right, and it'll cost you $20,000. The old man said, well, do you have anything else? And the surgeon said, oh, yeah. This case over here, I have the brains of a doctor. He said, I could transplant this in your head. I'm sure everything would be great. It'll cost you $50,000. The old man said, well, do you have anything else? And he said, oh, yeah. In this case over here, I've got the brains of an alcoholic. He said, I could transplant this in your head. Everything would be great. It'll cost you $100,000. The old man said, I don't understand this deal. 20000 for the attorney's brain, 50000 for the doctor's brain, and 100000 for the alcoholic's brain? The surgeon said, why, hell yes, man. It's brand new. It's never been used before. <laughs> I think most of us will go to the grave with about 50,000 miles left on the original warranty. We never did touch, you know. <laughs> Gail, thank you for that presentation. I've seen a lot of presentations on AA history, and I don't mind saying right here in front of God and all these people, that's the best I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. You did a good job. She has retired from school teaching. She loves to travel. And I have a feeling she's getting ready to start doing a lot of it, too. When people start hearing about this and seeing about it, you're going to be a very busy lady. That's great. We always like to say as we start one of these things that we do not consider ourselves to be the gurus of the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous. Don't consider ourselves to be the experts on anything at all. We're just two old drunks met together several years ago, found we had a mutual interest in the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous. We studied it together for quite some time. Hopefully we've learned a few things about it. And those few things we've learned about it, we just love to be able to share them with other people. We do not attempt to speak for AA as a whole. And you are most certainly free to agree or disagree with anything that we say throughout the entire weekend, as you see fit. In fact, if you hear us saying things that can't be reconciled with what's in the big book, we suggest you just don't pay any attention to those things at all. (laughs) And we'll try to keep most of our comments centered on the book itself. We are fully aware of the fact that the mind will only absorb about what the rear end will stand. And some of these sessions do become quite long. And if you feel the need to get up and walk around a little bit, please feel free to do that. That's not going to bother us at all. If you feel the need to go smoke a cigarette, get a cup of coffee, please feel free to do that. That's not going to bother us. 
Or if you feel the need to go get rid of a cup of coffee, <laughs> please feel free to do that. There's no sense in anybody sitting there suffering in, in silence. And uh, we're going to try to keep this thing just as informal as we possibly can. Now, I don't know about you guys, but Joe and I intend to have a good time. And hopefully you're going to have a good time too during the weekend. That's what we're all after. By the way, we're not going to take a break tonight because we'll just be here too late. So we're going to try to go all the way through to the, the doctor's opinion before we finish tonight. Okay. Now, uh, Gail gave us a, a, a good rundown on the history of the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, we always like to go back and look at just a little bit of that history ourselves. And if we can really see and understand what these first AA people had to go through before the big book was written and while it was being written, I think it'll make it a lot easier to understand the book itself. So we're going to look at a little bit of the history that comes right out of the book. And if you guys are ready, let's go to uh, Roman numeral number 15, XV, and let's go to the last paragraph on that page. And we'll spend just a few minutes talking about a little bit of our history behind the book. There's one thing that helped me when I noticed this in Bill's writings, and he does the same thing in all of his writings. So anytime you read things about that Bill wrote, he does three particular things each and every time. First of all, he'll tell us what the problem is. He'll give us a solution to that problem. Then he'll give us a practical program of action to implement the solution that he just, talk, just described. He does it over and over. Lack of power, that was my dilemma for a second. Can we hear me now? Okay. Bottom of the page, Roman numeral page 15. The spark that was to flare in the first AA group was struck at Akron, Ohio, in June 1935 during a talk between a New York stockbroker and an Akron physician. Of course, we know the New York stockbroker is this fellow named Bill Wilson. I think we're treating him pretty good when we call him a New York stockbroker. He really wasn't. He was a New York City stock speculator. He made his living out of selling fast, talking to slow-thinking people. We don't want to take anything away from Bill Wilson. He was a great man. But we all need to understand he's a real alcoholic, just like all the rest of us. And he thought and he acted the same way all we alcoholics do. Of course, we know the Akron physician is this doctor named Dr. Bob Smith who lived in Akron, Ohio. Now, six months earlier, the broker had been relieved by his drink obsession by a sudden spiritual experience following a meeting with an alcoholic friend who had been in contact with the Oxford groups of that day. Later on, when we get into Bill's story, we're going to see where Bill had a meeting with an alcoholic friend a fellow named Abby Thatcher. And Abby Thatcher was an old school friend buddy of Bill's. They did a lot of drinking together. And Abby Thatcher came to Bill in Bill's kitchen and gave him what turned out to be two very vital pieces of information. Abby said to Bill, Bill, people like you and I that have become absolutely powerless over alcohol, if we're going to recover from that condition... We're going to have to do it through the aid of a power greater than human power. He said, we've all tried all human powers, the doctors, the ministers, and et cetera, and it hadn't worked for any of us. And he said, I've been attending meetings with a group of people called the Oxford Groupers, and they told me that if I could have a vital spiritual experience, that during that vital spiritual experience I would find the power 
greater than human power. He said also, Bill, they have outlined a practical program of action. And they promised me that if I would imply that practical program of action in my life, that I would find that power and I would be able to overcome my alcoholism. And he said, look at me, Bill. I've been sober for two months. And this made a great impression on Bill because he knew about Abby Thatcher and he knew I had how Abby drank. And he always said, if I ever get as bad as Abby Thatcher, I'm going to quit drinking. <laughs> and here's Abby Thatcher sitting in Bill's kitchen, stone cold sober, and Bill is about two-thirds drunk himself at that time. And what Abby really gave to Bill, first he gave him the solution to alcoholism, the vital spiritual experience during which we find the power greater than human power. Then he also gave him the practical program of action necessary to be able to find or have that vital spiritual experience. So two of the things that Bill had to know came to him through Ebby Thatcher coming out of the Oxford groups themselves. But there was some other information that Bill had to know in order to recover from alcoholism. He's also been greatly helped by the late Dr. William D. Silkworth, a New York specialist in alcoholism, who is now a kind of no less than a medical saint by AA members and whose story of the early days of our society appears in the next pages. From this doctor, the broker to learn the grave nature of alcoholism. Again, when we get into Bill's story, we're going to see us where as far back as the summer of 1933, Bill was placed in the town's hospital in New York City for withdrawal from alcohol by Dr. Silkworth. And after Bill's mind had cleared a little bit, Dr. Silkworth sat down with Bill and began to explain to him these ideas that he had gained about alcoholism. And he said, Bill, I do not believe alcoholism is a matter of willpower. I do not believe it's a matter of moral character. And he said, I don't think sin's got anything to do with it. He said, I really believe people like you are suffering from an illness. And he said, it's a very peculiar illness. It's a twofold illness, an illness of the body as well as an illness of the mind. And he said, through my experiences with working with many people like you, I have become convinced that your body reacts differently when you put alcohol in your system. He said, I really believe that when you put any alcohol, whatever, into your body, it produces an actual physical craving that demands more of the same. And he said that craving is so strong that it's beyond your ability to control the amount you're going to drink after you once start drinking. And he said because of this physical craving, you will never again be able to safely drink alcohol. But he said that's only half of your problem. He said, I also believe that people like you have developed what we call an obsession of the mind. And he said an obsession of the mind is an idea that overcomes all ideas to the contrary. And he said an obsession of the mind is an idea that is so strong it can make you believe a lie or believe something that isn't true. And he said, now the truth is you can't safely drink alcohol. And said from time to time you know you can't safely drink alcohol. And from time to time, you swear off drinking. 
saying that you'll never take another drink as long as you live. But he said, after a while, your mind begins to think about taking a drink. And the next thing you know, you've convinced yourself that it's okay to drink. And then you'll take a drink, and then you'll trigger the craving, and then you'll end up drunk all over again. He said, you can no longer safely drink because of your body, nor can you stay sober because of the obsession of the mind. Therefore, you have become absolutely powerless over alcohol. And for the first time in his life, Bill Wilson understood his problem. You see, he always thought it was willpower. He thought it was moral character. He thought it was sin. Why would he not? That's what everybody had told him up until that time. And when Dr. Silkworth gave him his information regarding this physical craving and this obsession of the mind, for the first time, Bill understood his problem. And he said, now that I know what's wrong with me, I'll never have to drink again. Self-knowledge will fix it. And we know that shortly after Bill left that hospital, his mind told him it's okay to drink. Took a drink, triggered the allergy. A year later, 1934, in the summer, back in the town hospital for the second time. And this time, Dr. Silkworth pronounced him incurable and told Bill's wife, Lois, this guy is going to die during DTs or he's going to become a wet brain within a short period of time. And Bill overheard that. And he said fear sobered him up for a bit when he left the hospital. But on Armistice Day, 1934, his mind told him it's okay to drink. And he took a drink and triggered the craving and couldn't stop. And this is when Ebby came to see him. So self-knowledge didn't fix the problem. It's very important that we know and understand the problem. But knowing about it doesn't fix it. It's only when Ebby brought him the solution, the vital spiritual experience, the program of action from the Oxford group, that Bill was able to apply that program, had a spiritual experience, and recovered from alcoholism. So basically, he had to know three things. What is the problem? What is the solution? And what is the program of action? And based on that, he could recover from alcoholism. Heavy began to take Bill to these Oxford group meetings, and Bill liked the Oxford group meetings. He really did. But a book said that though he could not accept all the tenets of the Oxford group, he was convinced of the need of moral inventory, confession of personality defects, restitution to those harmed, helpless to others, and the necessity of belief in and dependence upon God. He liked that idea about helping other people. But prior to his journey to Akron, he had broke and worked hard with many alcoholics on the theory that only an alcoholic could help an alcoholic. But he succeeded only in keeping sober himself. So Bill set about to help all these alcoholics that he could find. He began to go up and down the streets and sing them up out of the gutter, take them to the Oxford group meetings. Sometimes he'd even go into a bar and pull them off the bar stool and take them to the Most of them didn't want to go, but Bill was taking them anyhow because trying to help other people stay sober was helping Bill. And after about six months of this activity, he went back to uh, Lois and said, Lois, no one seems to want what I have. And she said, well, I don't understand, Bill, but uh, obviously you're trying to help those people help you stay sober. So maybe you talk to Dr. Silkworth. Maybe he can give you some ideas on that. So he went to see Dr. Silkworth and told him, said, I've been trying to help all these drunks stay sober, but nobody seems to want what I have. And Dr. Silkworth said, yeah, Bill, I've heard of some of those shenanigans you're pulling out there on the street. 
you're trying to shove that great spiritual experience down the throat of an alcoholic and they just won't buy it. He said, why don't you do for them what I did for you? Why don't you talk to them about the illness of alcoholism? Explain to them about the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. And if they will accept that, then maybe you can talk to them about your spiritual pleasures that you had. He said, Bill, every alcoholic I know has two questions. Number one, why can't I drink like I used to without getting drunk? And number two, why can't I quit drinking now that I want to quit? And he said, if you will explain to them this craving that occurs in the body after you have a drink, if you will explain to them the obsession of the mind, you'll get their attention. And he said, after you get their attention, then you can talk to them about spirituality. And we don't think it's by accident that the very next person that Bill talked to happened to be Dr. Bob in Akron, Ohio. And we know that Bill had gone there on a business venture. And we know the business venture fell through. And Bill's in the lobby of the Mayflower Hotel. All of his business partners had left him, counting the money in his pocket and didn't even have enough money to pay the hotel bill. Low, sad, and depressed. And he looked through the door off the lobby into the bar. And I would imagine that the lights were low in the bar. The smoke was probably thick. The laughter was great. And surely they had a jukebox going in there and a little music playing. And Bill said, I believe I'll go in there and I'll be with people of my kind. And I'll feel better. But as he started to go through the door, his mind said, Bill, you can't do that. If you go in there, you're going to drink. And if you drink, you're going to be in serious, serious trouble. So in desperation, Bill made a few phone calls came in contact with this lady named Henrietta Cyberly and said, I'm a rum hound from New York, and I need an alcoholic to talk to here in Akron to keep from getting drunk myself. Do you know anybody? And she said, oh, yes, we do. Yes, we do. She said, we have a doctor here, a well-known doctor, and a serious, serious case of alcoholism. Let me see if I can get hold of him, and I'll set up a meeting for you. And we know that Henrietta called Dr. Bob's house and talked to Ann and told Ann about this guy from New York City that might have an answer to alcoholism. Can you bring Dr. Bob over here and we'll have a meeting here for him? And she said, I would love to. But she said, you know, tomorrow is Mother's Day. And said, he's brought me home a potted plant and he's potted under the kitchen table. (laughs) She said, I'll try to get him over there tomorrow. So the next morning, she gets Dr. Bob up and tells him about all this great deal, and Dr. Bob don't want to go over there. He's he's hung over. He's sick. He's not feeling good at all. And he said, I'm not about to go over there. And she said, oh, yeah, you are. <laughs> and he said, no, I'm not. And she said, oh, yes, you are. And maybe this is where Eleanor really started. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. But finally, finally, Dr. Bob said, I'll go over there, and I'll give that guy 15 minutes of my time, and then I'm coming home. And we know they went over there and sat down in a room by themselves. And five hours later, they came out of that room. And Dr. Bob said, this is the first man that I've ever talked to that knows what he's talking about when it comes to alcoholism. Now, why would he say that? Because he was able, through the sharing of his own experiences and through the knowledge that he had learned from Dr. Silkworth, 
he was able to help Dr. Bob see what his problem was. See, Dr. Bob knew the solution. He was a member of the Oxford groups. He was trying to have a spiritual experience. He was trying to apply their program of action, but he had never been able to apply it to the depth necessary to recover until Bill Wilson sat down with him and didn't talk about Dr. Bob's drinking at all. He said, let me tell you about my drinking. And he began to share his own story with Dr. Bob. And he talked about the many, many times he stopped off in the speakeasy and going to have a couple of drinks and then go home and have dinner. And he said something would happen and I'd be unable to stop drinking and I may not get home that night or the next day or the next night either. Dr. Bob said, my God, man, that's what's been happening to me. And Bill said, well, there's a little doctor in New York City that explained this thing to me, and he said it's an actual physical craving that alcohol produces in our body. And because of that, we can't control the amount we drink after we once start. He continued to talk about the many, many times that he had sworn off drinking. He said, now, I've got a tremendous amount of willpower. I've been able to do anything I wanted to do in my entire lifetime, but said when it comes to alcohol, from time to time, willpower is non-existent. He said, I may wake up one morning with a terrible hangover and swear I'm never going to take another drink as long as I live. And by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm sitting in the bar half drunk wondering how I got Dr. Bob said, my God, man, that's what's been happening to me. And Bill explained to him from Dr. Silkworth the idea of the obsession of the mind. And because of that, we're absolutely powerless over alcohol. Now, our book says... This physician had repeatedly tried spiritual means to resolve his alcoholic dilemma, but had failed. But when the broker gave him Dr. Silkworth's description of alcoholism and its hopelessness, the physician began to pursue the spiritual remedy for his malady with a willingness he had never before been able to muster. He sobered never to drink again up to the moment of his death in 1950. Now this seemed to prove that one alcoholic could affect another, as no non-alcoholic could. Through Bill sharing his story with Dr. Bob, Dr. Bob could see what his problem really was because he identified with Bill immediately. It also indicated that strenuous work, one alcoholic with another, was vital to permanent recovery. Bill Wilson didn't go see Dr. Bob to sober up Dr. Bob. Bill Wilson went to see Dr. Bob to keep Bill Wilson from getting drunk. And thank God it worked. And Bill stayed sober, and Dr. Bob got sober. So it proved the very two things our whole fellowship is built upon, that one alcoholic could affect another as no non-alcoholic could, and then working with another alcoholic is vital to our own recovery. It's been going on ever since then. So hence the two men set to work almost frankly upon alcoholics arriving in the ward of the Akron City Hospital. One night Dr. Bob said to Bill, and Bill, by the way, had moved in with Dr. Bob and stayed there about three months. He said, by the way, uh, Bill, if we're going to get, do this thing, we better get busy. He said, get busy doing what? He said, well, you said helping drunks would help us. I need, let's find some drunks to work with. He said, I don't know any drunks in Akron, do you? And he said, well, no, not really, but I know a nurse down at the Akron City Hospital. Surely she'll know a drunk that we could work with. So he called up the head nurse and asked her if, asked her if she knew of a drunk that they could work with. Said, yeah, we've got a corker. Had him strapped down to his bed there in the ward of the Akron City Hospital back. 
Some of y'all may know what a ward is in those days. Is when you couldn't afford a private room or a semi-private room, they'd put you at the end of the hall with some screens around you. If it looked like you were going to die, they would take you off the ward and put you in a private room. So Dr. Bob said to this lady, you have this drunk? He said, yes, I do. We want to come down. We've got this fellow from New York who seems to have a solution for alcoholism. We want to try it out on this fellow. She said, oh, wait, by the way, Dr. Bob, have you tried this solution on yourself? Because <laughs> yeah. she knew that he had a drinking problem, too. And he said, yes, I have, and I'm staying sober. So they put this guy on the ward, took him off the ward, and put him in the private room. And the next day, Bill and Bob show up to visit. Now here comes these two guys along, and they both now know three things. They both know what the problem is. They both know the solution. They're both applying the program of action, and both, oh, both of them have recovered from alcoholism. The book says, Hence the two men set to work almost frantic upon alcoholics arriving the ward at the Akron City Hospital. Their very first case, a desperate one, recovered immediately and became AA number three. And Gail had his picture beforehand and is sitting down here in front of us, the man on the bed. And this is Bill and Bob sitting there talking to this fellow named Bill Dotson. And they didn't talk to Bill Dotson about Bill Dotson's drinking. They talked to Bill Dotson about their own drinking. And through the sharing of their story, they transmitted the information that they had received from Dr. Silkworth about this physical craving of the body and the obsession of the mind, and Bill Dotson immediately identified with them. After they got his attention, they talked to him about spirituality. They talked to him about the need for the vital spiritual experience. They talked to him about the program of action as they had applied it in their lives and that they had recovered from alcoholism. Two days later, Bill Dotson says to his wife, Get my clothes out of the closet. I'm going home. And he got up and he dressed and he went home. He applied this little program of action coming out of the Oxford groups, had a vital spiritual experience, sobered up, never to drink again up to the moment of his death. This work at Akron continued through the summer of 1935. There were many failures, but there was an occasional heartening success. You know, when we look back at that period of time, we've got to realize... And in the summer of 1935, these guys really didn't know very much about what they were doing. Just about everything that they tried was something brand new. And they would try something, and if it, if it worked, then they would, they would keep it. If it didn't work, they would discard it. You know, one of Dr. Bob's favorite things was to fill them up with sour kraut juice mixed with honey. And the sauerkraut juice had the had the vitamins and stuff in it necessary to help the body, and the honey made it possible to drink the damn stuff. You know? <laughs> Every once in a while, one of these guys would fall over dead. I can almost see Bill turn to Bob and say, "Oh shit, let's don't try that again." You know? <laughs> and as we look back at that period of time, I think we need to give credit to those that they failed with that summer too. They probably learned more from their failures than they did from their successes. When the broker returned to New York in the fall of 1935, the first AA group had actually been formed, though no one realized it at the time. What he left behind him in Akron was a few individuals staying sober. They were members of the Oxford group, and they were called the Alcoholic 
group of the Oxford group or the drunk squad of the Oxford group. And they always had problems from the very beginning. The Oxford group was really not into the business of sobering up drunks. What they really wanted to do was work with the more elite members of society like Firestone Sun or like the mayor or like the governor and etc. And they were really not too interested in working with alcoholics. They're having a hard time with the alcoholics because the alcoholics would go to the Oxford group meetings and tell dirty jokes <laughs> and smoke cigarettes and drop ashes on the floor and spill coffee and all that kind of stuff. And the Oxford groupers had this thing called the four absolutes. And you were to practice absolute love, absolute purity, absolute honesty, and absolute unselfishness. And the drunks were having a hell of a time being absolute anything except drunks. <laughs> so they had a little friction from the very, very beginning, and that's why they really started calling them the alcoholic squad or the drunk squad of the Oxford group. By late 1937, the number of members having substantial sobriety time behind them was sufficient to convince the membership that a new light had entered the dark world of the alcoholic. The people began to stay sober, not only in New York, in Akron, Cleveland, people around were staying sober. They began to think that maybe, just maybe, possibly they might have this answer to the age-old question of alcoholism. A new light had entered the dark world of the alcoholic. A second small group promptly taken shape in New York. And besides, they were scattered alcoholics who picked up the basic ideas in Akron and New York and were trying to form other AA groups. No AA group at that time, just a drunk squad of the Oxford group. It was now time the struggling groups sought to place their message and unique experience before the world. This determination bore fruit in the spring of 1939 by the publication of this volume. And Gail did a great job with this. And she talked about the history, and we know they met together. Bill was back there in Akron in 1937 and was visiting with Dr. Bob. And, and they counted the number of people that were staying sober. And there was a few of them in Akron. There was a few starting to come in up in Cleveland and a few back in New York. Bill had gone back to New York, and when he did, he applied there what he learned to do with Dr. Bob, and sure enough, people started sobering up in New York. And they counted approximately 40 people staying sober on these three little pieces of information. And I think maybe for the first time they began to realize, you know, we really, we really might have found the answer to this thing called alcoholism. And if we found the answer to it, then what are we going to do about it? You know, they could have decided that they were going to franchise it there in Akron and then sell the thing just as well as, as anything else. Everybody was broke in those days. Everybody was trying to make money. And Bill and Bob hashed it around, and maybe, maybe this is the beginning of, of, of the group conscience because they decided that they didn't really want to make that decision. And they called a meeting where there was approximately 18 people at that meeting. And the purpose of the meeting was, is, you know, if this thing is really working, what are we going to do with this information? Are we going to hold it for ourselves selfishly? Are we going to try to sell it? Are we going to try to give it away? And what are we going to do? And coming out of the Oxford groups, there was the idea that if you're going to keep this stuff, you got to give it away. You're going to have to give it to other people. So so the idea really began to change then as to how can we give it away to the greatest number of people. And as Gail showed us, they decided to build a chain of hospitals. 
Now, this is in the midst of the depression. Nobody's got a dime, but we're going to build this chain of hospitals all the way across the United States where any alcoholic that needs to be detoxed can go in. In those days, you could hardly get in a hospital to be detoxed for, for alcoholism. And I'd almost bet money that Dr. Bob was going to be the head doctor, too. <laughs> and they decided this information, not just everybody would be able to carry it. So what they really needed to do was hire and train a group of missionaries to send them out across the country carrying this great message of recovery. And I'll bet money Bill Wilson was going to be the head missionary just as sure as anything. And then somebody said, well, you know, this information we've got that we've developed in the last two years, we've been carrying it by word of mouth one to the other. It's already becoming garbled. And sooner or later, if we keep carrying it just by word of mouth, it'll become changed to the point where it'll be of no good to anybody. What we really need to do is put it down in the written form so that the alcoholics in the future will have it as we know it today, referring back there to 1937. And then he said, you know, the Oxford groupers have written several spiritual books. And they sell quite good. And back in the 1930s, books did sell good. That was in the days before TV. Uh, yeah, yeah, there was a time before TV. There really was. And, and, and they said, you know, if we could write a good book, really explaining what alcoholism is as we know it, and really explaining what the solution to it is as we know it, and really outlining the program of action as we know it, then this would be the first book ever written, first comprehensive book ever written on alcoholism and recovery therefrom, and surely, surely it would become one of the world's bestsellers. And then we could take the profits from the book, and then we could build the hospitals, and then we could hire and train the missionaries. Well, thank God the book is the only thing that came out of it. (laughs) As we all know, the book didn't sell very good, And for years and years, they didn't have any money. Therefore, we never did build the hospitals, nor did we hire and train the missionaries. And it turns out we didn't have to, did we? Mm -mm. Because we got hospitals all over the United States and Canada and all over the world now that'll detox alcoholics. And we got counselors working in all of those areas, which would have been Bill's job as a head missionary to carry that message to all those people. So we didn't have to do that, but we did. Write the book. And Thank this, God we did. So the membership had then reached about a hundred men and women. Well, after they had the book written and they decided to title the book and call it a book, it ought to have a, it ought to have a name. Gail mentioned that earlier that one of the names they considered was The Way Out and found that there was some 11 or 12 other titles called The Way Out but decided not to use that one. Uh, someone said, well, let's call it Comes the Dawn. Great title. Sounds like a good title for a book, doesn't it? Comes the dawn. And they considered that and decided, kicked that out. And somebody said, well, let's call it a hundred men. Yeah. Yeah, the guys like that. Boy, a hundred men. Doesn't that sound like a title, a good title for a book? Well, then a woman joined the group. <laughs> well, they couldn't call it a hundred men and a woman, so they kicked that out. <laughs> Bill said, well, let's just call it the Bill W. movement. <laughs> Well, that didn't last long, and as the story goes, somebody said uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, Anonymous Alcoholics, uh, that kind of took hold, Alcoholics Anonymous. So the very 
first Alcoholics Anonymous the world has ever seen was a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And in that book called Alcoholics Anonymous was a story of the first hundred men and women to show us precisely how they recovered from alcoholism. That was the purpose of the book. And then it says, this fledgling society, this drunk squad of the Oxford group, which had been nameless now, began to be called Alcoholics Anonymous from the title of its own book. So we have two Alcoholics Anonymous, don't we? We have a book called Alcoholics Anonymous, and we have a fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous. Two different things. Now, in 1939, the program in the book Alcoholics Anonymous and the program in the fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous were exactly the same because the first 100 put in this book the things necessary for them to do in order to be able to recover from alcoholism. No quarrel between the program and the fellowship and the program in the book. They were exactly the same in 1939. The book began to go out across the country. And the first person in the state of California got a copy of this book, read it, studied it, did what it said, recovered from alcoholism, and started an AA group. First person in Texas did the same thing. First person in Michigan. First person down in Florida. First person in Maryland. All the great growth of the, of the fellowship began to come from the book itself. And then gradually over a period of years, as the fellowship got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, they began to experience something in the fellowship then that the first 100 didn't have. They began to experience the great strength and power that comes from large numbers of men and women who have joined together and have escaped from a common disaster. The first 100 didn't have that kind of fellowship. Just a few little groups scattered around. No great power through the fellowship itself. But as the fellowship began to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and people began to stay sober based on power of the fellowship, they then began to question the severity of the program in the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. They began to say, you know, Maybe we don't need to do all these things this book says. Uh, Maybe we don't need to turn our entire will and life over to the care of God as we understand it. Maybe we can give Him the alcohol and we'll keep the rest. Uh, Do you mean we really, really need to share all of that stuff with another human being? God already knows about it. We already know. Why should we share it with another human being? You mean, you mean we have to get rid of all of our defects of character? Mm. How in the hell will we make a living if we get rid of all of our defects of character? <laughs> you mean, you mean we've really got to make amends to all those people we've harmed, even those that have harmed us worse than we did then, and we hate their guts? <laughs> and they begin to say, well, maybe we don't need to do all that. Maybe we can treat it as a cafeteria. Maybe we can take what we want, and maybe we can leave what we want. And through that and through the fellowship, we'll be able to stay sober. And slowly, 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 the fellowship began to move away from the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. Then came the great advent of the treatment centers. 
Now, now please don't get us wrong. We have, we have nothing against treatment centers. They serve a very useful, worthwhile purpose. But in most treatment centers, they're going to have to have something in there in order to be able to qualify for state aid and federal aid and et cetera. They're going to have to have more in there than just the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. So the mental health associations got involved, and we began to bring in the psychologists into the treatment centers and the psychiatrists into the treatment centers. And then people going through the treatment centers began to come into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they wanted to talk about what they had learned in a treatment center, which is normal. Anybody would want to do that. And we began to hear words and terms in AA that we'd never heard before. We began to hear first about chemical dependency. Then we began to hear about dual addiction. And then we began to to hear about polyaddiction. And and then we begin to hear about significant others. <laughs> and and then we begin to talk about meaningful relationships. <laughs> and then we begin to hear, talk about all kinds of sex and things going on. You know, they begin to talk about everything except what's in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And and some of those some of those meetings you go to today, they're still out there. Some of those meetings you go to today, if they didn't read the preamble before the meeting, you wouldn't know what kind of meeting you're in. Because <laughs> they talk about everything except alcoholism and recovery therefrom. You know. Now, the instant that happened to us, we went from a life-changing program, which is contained in the big book Alcoholics Anonymous, to a non-drinking program. And people then begin to measure success by how long have you been sober rather than by the quality of that sobriety. And you see a lot of people in AA today have been sober several years, but I wouldn't give you 13 cents for the quality of their sobriety. They're always mad and upset and raising hell with everybody. They're staying sober, but they haven't changed their lives. And AA originally was founded as a lifetime-changing program that came to us through the Oxford groups and always brought God into the picture so we could make the changes necessary to not only just stay sober, but to be able to completely recover from that condition known as alcoholism. Now, what we're going to talk about this weekend is we're not going to talk about the program and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. We're going to talk about the program in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And thank God the program in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, has never been changed from the time it first appeared in the first edition in 1939. It's the same today as it was in 39. And it works just as good today as it did in 39. And the people who who use this program, their lives actually change. They don't just stop drinking. They become entirely different people. Joe? I was down at the club a few months ago, and there was an old fellow. There was 30 people there talk, uh, having a meeting. I guess it was a meeting. But uh, they had some kind of a meeting, and I was there to meet somebody. 30 people for one hour. This one guy talked for about 30 minutes of that hour. You know him. You've seen him. <laughs> 
old timer friend there was named Dick. I punched Dick. I said, Dick, what's he talking about? He said, I don't know. He never says. <laughs> Many years ago, I called my sponsor, Franklin. I said, Franklin, my program's not working worth a darn. And he said, well, Joe, tell me what you, about your program. I said, well, I'm mad at the people in the group, and I'm mad at my wife, and I'm mad at the people I work with, and I'm pretty well mad everywhere. And he said, well, Joe, you, your program's working just the way it was designed to work. <laughs> he said, have you ever tried working the program? And there's a lot of difference between my program and the program. And thank God we're going to talk about the program today. Now let's look at see some of the successes that they were having when the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous were working the program from the book called Alcoholics Anonymous. Let's see the kind of success that they were having. Roman Nuba, page 19, XXIX, the very last line. He said, while the internal difficulties of our adolescent period were being ironed out, public acceptance of AA grew by leaps and bounds. For this, there were two principal reasons, the large number of recoveries and reunited homes. These made their impressions everywhere. Of alcoholics who came to AA and rarely tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses. And among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. Other thousands came to a few AA meetings at first decided they didn't want the program. But great numbers of these, about two out of three, began to return as time passed. If my math is correct, that's 75% of those people ultimately stayed sober who came to Alcoholics Anonymous. We and really tried. And really tried. We can't even fantasize about 75% today, not in my area. I don't know about up here. 50%? No way. 25%, don't think so, 10, less than 10, 5 maybe, I don't know. But I do know this, and I've seen this with my own eyes, saw it the other night over Thomas's group. When people are applying this program to their life out of this book, the recovery rate goes up, and our people are happy about it. And we've got pockets of those people all over the country, and the movement is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and you guys are part of the movement. And all we're asking for you to do is to take this book and the knowledge you gain from this book back to your group and share it with your group and see if we can get that recovery rate to start coming back up. I believe we can do that for sure. I've seen it happen. There's a little pamphlet in AA right there. Thank you. Everybody ought to have one. Everybody ought to read one. It was written by Bill Wilson and published in February 1958. Good information in there for everybody in Alcoholics Anonymous. But right here, on the third page, right up there, I'm going to read what it says. It said, sobriety, freedom from alcohol, through the teaching and practice of the 12 steps, is the sole purpose of an AA group. Now, what do you say? Sobriety, freedom from alcohol, through the teaching and practice of the 12 steps, is the sole purpose purpose of an AA group. It's not just one of the purposes. It's the only purpose in the world to have an AA group, to practice and teach of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Bill Wilson said that right here. It's not to sit around and talk about group therapy, is it? You know, I think I can truthfully say today that 75% of the people that come to AA today and really try the program in the book Alcoholics Anonymous recover from alcoholism. 
Now, that doesn't mean 75% of them are doing it. But those that are doing it recover from alcoholism. And why aren't the others doing it? Because nobody's telling them they need to. The old-timers are saying, well, those guys come out of treatment, and they want to talk about everything except alcoholism, and we don't want to talk about their kind of stuff, and we're just going to stay home. And when the old-timer does that, they abdicate their responsibility for AA and turn it over to the sickest of the sickest who are the newcomers, and then they stand back and say, look what they're doing to our AA. (laughs) That's our responsibility. Mine and yours, okay? Another thing they didn't know in the early days is people today can go to a meeting three or four times a day. We stay sober on the fellowship and leave the program in the book. There's a lot of power in the fellowship. I know a lot of people have to go to a meeting every single day, two or three times to stay sober. Well, thank God they're able to do that, but I couldn't do that, you see. Is that all the preaching we're going to do, Charlie? That's all the preaching. No more preaching. <laughs> Hope you don't believe that. Now that we know just a little bit about it, let's uh, let's look at the table of contents, and we're going to put a little picture up here on the screen, and in your little handout pamphlet you got when you registered, you have a copy of these pictures also, and if you can't see them too good from the back of the room, they'll you got them right there in front of you. And we, we, we studied this book for quite some time until we began to realize that the book was really written to convey those three basic ideas that we've been talking about. Or you might say it's really written to, to reach three goals. And the first goal in this book is what is the problem? Before you can recover from anything, you've got to understand what the problem really is. And prior to uh, Dr. Silkworth coming along in the 1930s, nobody ever understood the problem of alcoholism. They all thought it was willpower, moral character, sin, and etc. And very, very few alcoholics ever recovered from it. So this idea, this, these ideas from Dr. Silkworth, meant so much to Bill Wilson and so much to the first 100 people. And when I got ready to write this book back in 1937, the first 40 did then, turned out to be 100 by 39, they went to the doctor and they said, we would like to take this information that you you have given to us and, and put it in this book with your permission. And he said, well, that'll be fine if you want to do that. And they said, would you be willing to write some of this information for us? And he said, yes, I would be glad to with one provision. You can't use my name in it. He says this is absolute heresy as far as the medical profession is concerned. They don't want to believe the fact that it's an illness. And if you put my name on it, they'll throw me out of the medical profession just as sure as anything. So in the first 16 printings of the big book, it just says the doctor's opinion, dash, dash, dash. No no Dr. Silkworth in it. Now, in 1956 and 57, the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, had recognized alcoholism as a full-blown disease. And when they came out with a second edition in 1955, Dr. Silkworth said, you can put my name in it now. (laughs) So the second edition, third edition, and fourth editions always got Dr. Silkworth's name in it. Didn't have it in the first edition, though. And uh, 
So we, we think, we think there's primarily two, two chapters in the big book that's going to be able to show us what the problem really is. And first is the doctor's opinion. And there we get the same information that he conveyed to Bill Wilson. Then in chapter one, Bill's story, we're going to be, have an example, a classic example of a guy, of a, of a practicing alcoholic. And we're going to be able to see his craving that developed in his body after he took a drink. We're going to be able to see his obsession of the mind. We're going to be able to see primarily everything we need to know to understand the problem in the doctor's opinion and Bill's story. We'll pick some of it out of chapter 2 and 3, but most of it, the doctor's opinion and Bill's story. And there we're going to be able to see that we are absolutely powerless over alcohol. And we might just, for the time being, boil step one down to one word. We're powerless. We're going to be able to see why and how we're powerless through that part of the book. And that's really dealing with step one. Now, if we are powerless over alcohol, then obviously the answer would lie within power. And we got three chapters that are designed to show us that power and the need for that power that is greater than human power. Chapter 2, chapter 2, there is a solution. And he's going to talk to us about the power of the fellowship and the power of the vital spiritual experience to help us overcome alcoholism. Chapter 3, he's going to talk more about alcoholism. He's going to explain to us exactly what's going to happen to us if we don't find that power, because he's going to talk about the insanity of alcoholism and how it will return if we don't find that power. And then also he's going to show us some ideas, new ideas about that power. In chapter 4, we agnostics. One of the greatest pieces of spiritual information I ever read. Let me discard some old ideas about God and then start operating on some new ideas and let God prove to me that there is a kind and a loving God rather than hellfire and brimstone. So chapters 2, 3, and 4 are all going to deal with power, and that's step 2. Can you believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity? If our problem is powerless, if the answer lies within power, then we just need to know one more thing. How do you find that power? And we've got three chapters. Chapter 5, how it works. Chapter 6, into action. Chapter 7, working with others. That shows us how to find that power. And there we're going to find the last ten steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, steps three through twelve. And we get through with those, then we have found the power, and we can recover from alcoholism. You know, when I first started reading this book, I had no idea that it was written in a certain sequence to convey certain ideas. I read it more or less as you read a novel. I read Bill's story, and I kind of agreed with it a little bit, but not a hell of a lot. I read chapter 2, there is a solution, and I sure didn't want any part of that, because that talked about God. I read chapter 3, and it talked about insanity, and I knew I wasn't crazy. 
And I read how it works, and I sure as hell didn't want to do those things. And then I'd go back in the back of the book, and I'd read a story, and that was kind of interesting. I'd just jump back and forth, around and around. But if we begin to look at this book, as laid out in a certain sequence, to convey these ideas in the same sequence that the first 100 had to know them, what is the problem, what is the solution, and what is the program of action, then it becomes a very fascinating book because you'll be able to see how one chapter ties to the next chapter, how one paragraph ties to the next paragraph, giving us these ideas as we go through to bring about these three different ideas or these three main goals of the big book. In the doctor's opinion, one of the most important chapters in the book, the first 16 printings of the of the, of the big book about cost and you can check it out, but looking over here, it was on page one. It wasn't in the Roman numeral section. 1955 for some unknown reason. We don't know why or how. They took the doctor's opinion off of page one, put it in the Roman numeral section, and put Bill's story on page one. And the fellowship got away from the doctor's opinion. But this book is laid out, like Charlie said, in a certain sequence to bring about certain ideas. I was in the printing business. I owned a printing company that printed books like this. I've sat in on many, many conversations about the way I lay out a book. And I didn't think this book was laid out in any particular manner. <laughs> After all, a bunch of old drunks wrote it, so what would they know about a book? The way I figured. I was very open-minded, you see. <laughs> Come to find out, it's laid out. In a pers- they had a lot of good professional help doing this. As Charlie said, and I believe this, every paragraph and every chapter is right where it's supposed to be that leads us to the next and to the next and to the next. I mean, pretty much the way Bill received it himself. His first experience with getting sober was with Dr. Silkworth, the doctor's opinion. He learned through sharing with Dr. Bob about his story, and so he shares his, his story for identification so that we can identify with another alcoholic. He gives us these solutions. There is a solution. Most of us are not going to like that solution any more than he did. Remember, he was aghast, that solution. So it tells us more about alcoholism, more about what's going to happen to us unless we accept that solution. And he gives us chapter 4, probably one of the most important chapters ever written, I believe, the chapter we agnostics. Gnostic means knowledge. You put the ag in front of any word, it means without. Those of us who are without knowledge, and certainly that's what I had. And the knowledge that I did have was that of a 7-year-old boy when I arrived here, and you can imagine what it was. I needed some more information, better information that I had. And it tells us how it works. Into action, not into thinking. (laughs) Don't think, please don't think. (laughs) Into action. Then once we've had this experience and recovered, then we can work with other people. We can carry this message to other people. And back on page 45, it said the main object of this book was enable me to find a power greater than myself which would solve my problem. Didn't say it would help me solve my problem. I find the power, and the power will solve the problem. And that's the way the book is written, just that way for us to do those things in that, in that order. Okay, now let's go to Roman numeral 11, XI. And let's look at this second paragraph for just a moment. A couple of ideas here. He said, because this book has become the basic text for our society, and has helped such large numbers of alcoholic men and women to recovery, there exists a sentiment against any radical changes being made in it. Therefore, 
The first portion of this volume describing the AA recovery program has been left untouched in the course of revisions made for both the second and the third editions, and now the fourth. The section called The Doctor's Opinion has been kept intact, just as originally written in 1939 by the late Dr. William B. Silkworth, our society's great medical benefactor. Okay, a couple of little ideas. Because this book has become the basic text for our society, and when I see the word text, I think I'm alerted to the kind of book that I have in front of me. Now, many of us remember textbooks from school. Every time I used to be in high school, they'd talk about a textbook. For some reason, I'd think about cheating. I don't know why that was. And many of us didn't like the idea of textbooks, because that means you've got to study and you got to take tests and the possibility of failure and all that kind of work. But a textbook really is nothing more than a way to convey information from the mind of one human being or a group of human beings through the written word to the mind of another human being, thereby increasing the knowledge of the user of the textbook. A textbook is usually assumes that the reader of the book will know very little about the subject matter. It usually starts at a very simple level. Then as the knowledge of the reader increases, the information presented becomes more difficult. You know, we're all familiar with the textbook on mathematics. And let's say that my friend Joe here knows nothing at all about mathematics. He can't add, he can't subtract, he can't do any of those things. Oh, he can count. Uh, he could probably count to 21 if he's standing there naked and got everything where it's supposed to be. He might make 21. 20 and a half, actually. <laughs> and I hand Joe a textbook on mathematics, and I say, I want you to go to Chapter 5 and work the algebra problems. Well, he go to Chapter 5, but he just sees a bunch of marks on paper. He has no idea what that means. But if I say to Joe, Joe, Chapter 1 deals with addition and subtraction, the value of numbers, addition and subtraction. If you'll read that chapter and study it and ask questions and let me help you, by the time you're through with chapter one, you'll be able to add and subtract. And sure enough, he learns how to do that. And I say, now that you know how to do that, how to add and subtract, now then you can go to chapter two and you can learn how to multiply and divide. And he does that. And then I say, now you can go to chapter three. And you can learn about fractions and decimals, and he does that. And we gradually prepare his mind for the algebra problems in Chapter 5. I think one of the greatest mistakes I see being made in AA today, the newcomer comes in, we hand him the big book, we say go to Chapter 5 and do what it says, and you'll be okay. That's what they told me when I first came to AA. And the newcomer goes to Chapter 5, and immediately they run into a bunch of algebra problems. They run into the 12 steps. And step one said, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Our lives had become unmanageable. The newcomer said, man, I ain't powerless over nothing. They have no idea what we're talking about. Step two says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could be source to sanity. Newcomer said, man, don't tell me I'm crazy. Sure, I do stupid things when I'm drunk, but when I'm sober, I'm like other people. They have no idea what we mean by that statement. If you're not powerless and you're not nuts, then you don't need to be thinking about turning your will and life over the care of something you don't understand in the first place. And we present them with an impossible situation. 
If we can do nothing else at all this weekend, I hope we can be able to see the value of the doctor's opinion and the first four chapters. The doctor's opinion and the first four chapters, they teach us how to add and subtract. They teach us how to multiply and divide. They teach us about the fractions and decimals, and they prepare us for chapter 5 because, you see, chapter 5 starts with step 3. And it's hard to start with three unless you got one and two behind you. Standard textbook theory. Standard textbook sequence. Presenting it in, 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 a, in a sequence, increasing our knowledge with each chapter until we're ready then for chapter five when we get to it. It's amazing the writers of this book thought so much of steps one and two that they used the doctor's opinion in the first four chapters to explain steps one and two. Very important. The other thing that's so important here is there's this a sentiment, a sentiment against any radical changes being made in it. You know, this book here, the recovery section of the book, the first edition, the recovery section of the second edition, the recovery section of the third edition, and the recovery section of the fourth edition has never been changed. They're exactly the same. And I think that's the greatest miracle in Alcoholics Anonymous today. You know how we love to change things. And anybody that's ever read this book has rewritten it in their mind at least twice. (laughs) But collectively, we've never found it necessary to change the recovery section of this book. I wonder why. Anybody want to venture an idea? Does it work? It works, doesn't it? It works just as good today as it did in 1939. Why? Three reasons. Number one, alcoholics have not changed. (laughs) They're doing the same thing today they did in 1939. They get into jailhouses. They get into car wrecks. They get into hospitals. They get into divorce courts. They get into insane asylums. Call them treatment centers today, the insane asylum. (laughs) And they get into graveyards. They're still doing the same fun things today that they did in 1939. Haven't changed a lick. Alcohol hasn't changed. It's the same today as it was in 1939. The names have changed. The bottles have changed. The colors have changed. I saw one not long ago called Peach Fuzz. (laughs) I wondered, what in the hell is Peach Fuzz? But if it had alcohol in it, it'll make you drunk as sure as anything. Human nature never changes. It's the same today as it was thousands of years ago. And that's what this book really deals with. It deals with alcoholism, it deals with alcohol, and it deals with human nature. And therefore, it works just as good today as it did in 1939. Never found it necessary to change it at all. Let's go to the forward of the first edition for just a moment. Roman numeral 13. And it says, I, I, I. And it says, we. There's that great big word in Alcoholics Anonymous, we. We can do what I cannot do. We can help me stay sober, which I couldn't do. Big word. We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, two different things. Later on tonight, we're going to separate the body from the mind and talk about them in great detail. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered, it, 
is the main purpose of this book. And anytime you see italic, Charlie calls it squiggly writing, but don't let him throw you. It's, it is italic. Anytime you see italic in this book, it means it's very, very important. We ought to read, read it again and consider what it's trying to say, say to us. To show the alcoholics precisely how we are recovered is the main purpose of this book. We see words like precisely, specifically, exactly, with clear-cut directions on how to recover from alcoholism. Now, this is not a book going to tell us just about how to recover from it. It's going to tell us precisely, specifically, exactly, with clear-cut directions on how to recover. And if I do that the way they say, then I should expect to be able to recover from alcoholism. For them, we hope these pages will prove so convincing that no further authentication will be necessary. We think this account of our experience will help everyone better understand the alcoholic. Many do not comprehend that the alcoholic is a very sick person. And besides, we're sure that our way of living has its advantages for all. Two little ideas out of there. Number one, we are more than 100 men and women. Most books I read have been authored by one person. And I read a book authored by one person. If I see something there I don't agree with, I say, well, who in the hell are they to think they're smarter than I am? And I just ignore it. But if I do it with a big book, I'm not going to be arguing with one person. I'm going to be arguing with 100 people. The first 40 said, Bill, we want you to write the book. You've been sober longer than anybody else. You know more about it than anybody else does. But they said, Bill, this is not to be your book. It's to be our book. And as you write those chapters, we want to see them. And we'll add to, delete from, and change around whatever we want to. When we're through with it, it'll be the collective knowledge, experience, and wisdom of all 40 of us, which turned out to be 100 by the time the book was published in 1939. So if I'm going to argue with what this book has to say today, I've got to remember I'm not arguing with one person. I'm arguing with 100 people. And these 100 people have recovered from the same thing that's killing me, a hopeless state of mind and body. That brings in the word recovered. And we hear fights all over the world. Is it recovered or recovering? Can you really recover from alcoholism? Well, I hope you can. Because if we can't, we're going to be in bad, bad shape, aren't we? Before I came to AA, I lived in a hopeless state of mind and body. I could not keep from drinking, nor could I drink without getting drunk. And I almost destroyed me under that condition. I came to AA, and I got sober, and I worked this program. Now, I no longer live in that hopeless state of mind and body. I cannot safely drink alcohol. But by golly, I can stay sober. And I don't live in that hopeless state of mind. Nor could I drink without getting drunk. And I almost destroyed me under that condition. I came to AA and I got sober and I worked this program. Now, I no longer live in that hopeless state of mind and body. I cannot safely drink alcohol. But by golly, I can stay sober. And I don't live in that hopeless state of mind and body. I'll always be alcoholic, but I have recovered from alcoholism. And the main, the main purpose of this book, to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered, 
is the main purpose of this book. And it's kind of like making cake. Uh, let's say we go to an AA potluck meeting and somebody's made a strawberry cake. And that's my favorite, by the way. If you ever make me one, that's what I'd like to have. <laughs> and I bite into that cake and it's just perfect. The texture's right, the moisture's right, the taste is right. And I say, who made this cake? And you being a good cook, you'd say, well, I, I made it. And I'd say, well, will you tell me how to do it, how you did it? And you'd say, sure, I'll be glad to. And you sit down and you write out for me a precise set of directions on how to make that cake. You tell me the ingredients to put in it, the quantity of the ingredients to put in it, the sequence in which to mix them together, the temperature at which to bake it, and how long to bake it. And if I take your directions in my kitchen and I follow them exactly as you've laid them out, when it comes out of the oven and cools off and I take a bite of it, I think I can expect it to taste exactly like your cake tasted. But if I take your directions in my kitchen and my keen intellectual alcoholic mind begins to work, I might say, well, now, I don't think it needs three eggs. It ought to have five. <laughs> instead of two cups of sugar, we ought to put three in it. Yeah, instead of, instead of baking it at 375, I'm going to bake it at 450. Mm. Instead of baking it for 20 minutes, I'm going to bake it for 30. When that thing comes out of the oven and cools off, you betcha I'm going to be biting into a piece of cake. But I wonder how closely it would resemble your cake, which was my reason for making it in the first place. A precise, specific, clear-cut set of directions on how to recover from a hopeless state of mind and body known as alcoholism. I've never seen anybody fail that followed this precise method outlined in this book. Bill? My book said that many do not comprehend that the alcoholic is a very sick person. And when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I stood in the back of the rooms and I looked down at my feet. I had become everything I detested in a human being. I'd compromised every principle known to man and God, and I didn't feel good. I didn't have any understanding that I might be a sick person. I thought I was a no-good rotten SOB. That's the way that I felt. We were in a hotel room, and I guess it was mine in Tulsa, Oklahoma, 1975, Charlie and Joe and I, Tony and Phyllis and some others. Charlie said that night that alcoholism is not a matter of willpower, not a matter of sin, not a matter of low character. And I said to myself, well, it's none of those things. What in the hell is it? See, I've been running around AA for a couple of years there, treating it as, it as if it was a moral issue. And he said it's an illness, an actual illness. And then we were introduced to the doctor's opinion, which we're going to do now. And this doctor's opinion set me free. The idea that I had an illness rather than a moral issue intrigued me, you see, set me free. I was in a place one time a few years ago talking, and this old timer come up to me. He jumped me real, he's one of those guys in a, in a fellowship who's a guardian of the fellowship through the traditions, and we need him, and I loved him. And he said to me, he said, what are you reading? I said, well, I'm reading the doctor's opinion. And he said, well, what book did you get it out of? I said, well, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had a little one, and I showed it to him, and he turned around and left. The next day he come up to me, and before he got to me, he started crying. He walked over and said, Joe, I've been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous for 39 years. And I didn't know that that chapter was in the book. And he said to me, when I get back home, I'm going to find me 
a group of people who want to study this program in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm going to do that. You see, he said, I, I, 39 years, 39 years, and he didn't know. The one chapter that got moved back into the Roman numeral sections, and we all know we don't read Roman numeral sections, do we? <laughs> we missed the most important chapter here. What is our problem? And I needed to know that because it set me free from being a no-good, rotten SOB, full of sin, lack of willpower, everything. Set me free from that. That's the, what the doctor's opinion will do. You know, alcoholism isn't anything new. Mm-hmm. Alcoholism has been with the human race as far back as any recorded history that we can possibly find. I think one of our oldest parts of recorded history is to be found in the Bible. And in the Bible, there's a chapter in there called Proverbs. And Proverbs is written by a fellow named Solomon. And you all know Solomon was a very, very learned individual. Everybody came to him to get their problem solved. Probably the first social worker the world's yeah, ever known. Yeah. <laughs> and apparently somebody asked old Solomon one time about, about we alcoholics. And he describes this in Proverbs. He says, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has redness of eyes, they that tarry long at the wine. Everybody was a wino in those days. Mm -hmm. They didn't have the hard stuff yet. Then he went ahead to describe it some more. He said, you'll be as one who lieth down in the midst of the sea. Remember how you used to go to bed at night and that old bed start moving around on (laughs) you? Or sleepeth at the top of a tall mast. You sway back and forth. And he said, You shall say they have beaten me and I felt it not. Remember how you used to get up in the morning and you got bruises all over you and you don't remember how they got there? He surely knew some of us men. He said, And thine eyes shall behold strange women. And thy heart shall utter perverse things. Like, trust me, honey. <laughs> Please. Honey. But then he said the most descriptive of all. He said they will arise in the morning and seek it yet again. Almost a perfect description of alcoholism as we know it today. But Solomon didn't have any answer for it. And throughout our entire history of humankind, people have been trying to find the answer to alcoholism. You know, there was a doctor in England well over 500 years ago named Dr. Trotter. And he, he was one of the first to come up with the idea that, that alcoholism is a disease. He really didn't understand why, nor did he have any solution for it other than just don't drink, period. There was a doctor who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence here in our country named Benjamin Rush. And he wrote a paper on alcoholism. And he described we alcoholics. And he said it was a full-blown disease. But he didn't have any solution for it either. And it was only in 1930 when Dr. Silkworth went to work at the town's hospital that we began to see some information being developed about what alcoholism really is. Now, Silky had always loved to work with alcoholics. Even in medical school, he was interested in alcoholics. 
But when he got out of medical school, he couldn't make a living working with alcoholics. You know, doctors didn't want to work with us in those days, and they still don't like to work with us today. And the doctor says the one reason they don't want to work with us is, is we'll never tell them the truth. And we certainly don't. And they say they, they never do what we tell them to do, and we don't. But they say the main reason we don't want to work with them is they don't pay their bills. <laughs> so Silky went off into another field, really, and worked in it for years. And then finally, finally, due to, due to the Depression, due to the great stock market crash, everybody was trying to find somewhere to work. And Dr. Silkworth agreed to go to work for a guy named Charlie Towns at the Towns Hospital in New York City, and I think they were paying him something like $30 a week room and board. And from 1930 to 1934, he worked with many, 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 many different alcoholics. And through practical experience, he began to develop these ideas that he had about this actual physical craving that develops in the body of the alcoholic and it doesn't in the normal drinker. He began to develop his ideas about the obsession of the mind. And, and because of that information, we have seen literally millions of people since 1935 who have recovered from alcoholism. And prior to that time, very few alcoholics ever recovered. Once in a while, one would in a church setting that nearly all of them actually died from alcoholism. And I don't think we people in AA today really realize what a great debt that we owe to this doctor because he was willing to work with people like us. Most doctors would not work with people like us. He was willing to, to gain the experience necessary to be able to develop these ideas. And then after AA started, he worked with thousands and thousands of alcoholics up until the moment of his death. And I don't think we really realize the debt of gratitude we owe this little doctor. Let's look at him for just a few minutes. Let's go to Roman numeral 23, and let's talk about the doctor for just a little bit, and then we'll be through. Is it this one right here? You know, uh, in the old days, uh, today, if you engage in scientific research, you use a lot of rats for your experiments. Dr. Silkworth used us, human beings, for his experiment. Silky work with drunk. Yeah. He said the doctor's opinion, Roman numeral page 23, or I guess it's 25 in the fourth edition. We try to keep yeah. up with that. Yeah. Yeah. So we have Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in the book. Convincing testimony must surely come from the medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of our members and have a witness our return to health. A well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction, gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. Remember, this used to be on page one. Now, to whom it may concern, I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. In late 1934, I attended a patient who, who had a, been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I'd come to regard it as hopeless. In the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics. Of course, he's referring to Bill Wilson now. Impressing upon them that they must, must do likewise for still others. This became the basic 
the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. I personally know scores of cases who were the type with whom the other methods had failed completely. These facts appear to be of extreme medical importance because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherent in this group. They may mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. These men may well have a remedy for thousands of such situations. You may absolutely, you may rely absolutely upon anything they may say about themselves. I'm not quite sure about that. <laughs> I agree with everything you said except the last yeah. statement. Yours very truly, William B. Silkworth. The physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. <clears throat> Excuse me. In this statement, he confirms what we have suffered in alcoholic torture must believe. Now, there's no must in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous that I'm aware of. But there's a lot of musts in this book, and there's one of them. We must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. Now, this is the first time we can find anywhere in written history a reference to the fact that the body is affected as well. Everything up until this point dealt with the mind only. Weak will, moral character, sin. But now he's saying that the body is quite as abnormal as the mind. I think he's saying two things. The body is abnormal when it comes to alcohol, and the mind is abnormal when it comes to alcohol. And we're going to talk about those two abnormalities before we're through. The abnormal reaction to alcohol, both physically and mentally. The first thing we'll talk about is the body. We separate it from the mental, and then we'll talk about the mental a little bit later. It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality, or were outright mental effectives. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us, but we're sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out the physical factor is incomplete. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us, as lame in our opinions to its soundness may of course mean little. But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that the explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. Okay, now if the purpose of a textbook is to transfer information from the mind of one human being or a group of human beings through the written word to the mind of another human being, thereby increasing the knowledge of the user of the book. And I think that's what they're for. And it stands to reason the transference of that information is going to be based upon the understanding of the words that are used in the book. If the writer uses a certain word and has a certain understanding of it, the reader of the book reads that word but has a different understanding of it, then the information that comes through is going to be garbled and incomplete information. And it seems as though there's a certain few key words in the big book that many of us have had difficulty in the past understanding them the way the writer understood them. And I think the first one is this word allergy. Now, most of us, before we come to AA, we've got a preconceived idea about allergies. I know I did. 
And I knew if you were allergic to something and you got around it or you ate it or you drank it or whatever, there would be some physical manifestation or indicator of that allergy. For instance, if you're allergic to strawberries and you eat them, you break out in a rash. The rash being the physical manifestation of that allergy. If you're allergic to milk and you drink it, you have a bad case of dysentery. The dysentery being the physical manifestation of that allergy. If you're allergic to certain plants, such as ragweeds, you get around them, your eyes itch, your nose itch, they water, and you begin to sneeze. The itchy, watery eyes, the sneezing, those are the physical manifestations of that allergy. So I knew if you were allergic to something, there would be some manifestation that you could see. So I come to AA, and they say, Charlie, you're allergic to alcohol. You'll never be able to safely drink it again. And I said, how in the hell can I be allergic to alcohol? I'm drinking a quart a day. (laughs) How can you possibly drink that much of something you're allergic to? And I said, besides that, when I drink alcohol, I don't break out in a rash. I don't have a bad case of dysentery. Once in a while I would, depending on what I've been drinking, but usually I didn't. Nor did it make my eyes, nose itch, water, and cause me to sneeze. And I said, I don't understand what you're talking about. You need to explain that to me. And they said, well, you don't need to understand it. All you need to know is you just can't drink it and keep coming to meetings and you'll be okay. Well, today I think I know why they told me that. I don't think they understood it a bit better than I did. (laughs) And I would go from person to person to person to person trying to get somebody to explain this allergy to me, and nobody would. They said, I forget the damned allergy. Another guy said, I'll agree with you. We can't be allergic to it. Another one said, just keep coming to meetings and you'll be all right. Now, if you've got a cute intellectual alcoholic mind like I have, and you've got a question like that dangling out here in front of you, If you don't get the answer to it, it's going to drive you out of your mind sooner or later. And one day, in sheer, complete desperation, I went to a source of information that has never failed me since that time. I went to a dictionary. (laughs) And I looked up the word allergy. And I found several definitions, the same as you do with any word, depending on how you use it. But I think I found the one that fits me exactly. It said an allergy is an abnormal reaction to any food, beverage, or substance of any kind. An abnormal reaction. So I immediately began to look back through my drinking history to see where I was abnormal when it comes to alcohol. And I suddenly realized I don't know what's normal and what's abnormal. (laughs) The only thing I know about drinking alcohol is the way I drank it. And the way those people drank it who drank with me, and if they didn't drink like I had, we didn't drink together. So in order for me to find out what's normal, so I can see if I'm abnormal, I have to go to the normal, social, temperate, moderate drinker. Those that drink alcohol, and those that never get in trouble with alcohol. And I ask them to describe to me, how do you feel whenever you have a couple of drinks of alcohol? And they say something like this, well, we can come home from work, tired, tense, and wrought up from the day's work. We can have a drink or two before dinner, and we get kind of a relaxing feeling. 
and we go ahead and have dinner, and then we probably won't drink anymore that night. No, I don't feel that way when I drink alcohol. <laughs> when I take a drink of alcohol, as it passes my lips, my lips begin to tingle. It hits my teeth, and they kind of chatter up and down. It strikes my tongue, and I feel it begin to grow and expand and swell. It hits my cheeks, and they flutter in and out. At the same time, it's passing through my sinus cavities into my forehead, and I begin to get a feeling in my forehead, which is absolutely indescribably wonderful. Now, I haven't even swallowed the damn stuff yet. I just got it in my mouth. When I swallow it, you know what happens. As it goes down through my esophagus, my chest begins to grow and expand and get bigger and bigger. Hits my stomach and just literally explodes like a bomb. I feel it immediately racing through my arms and they get longer and longer. Hits my fingers and they begin to tingle and vibrate. Same time it's racing through my arms, it's racing through my legs. They're getting longer and longer and I'm getting taller and taller. And it hits my feet and toes and I have to get a hot, intense, burning, exciting, get up and go somewhere and do something feeling. I don't understand a relaxing feeling when you have a couple of drinks of alcohol. <laughs> These people told me some information that absolutely blew my mind. They said, Charlie, Charlie, whenever we have a couple of drinks, we begin to get a slightly tipsy, out of control, beginnings of a nauseous feeling. And they say, we don't like that feeling. Therefore, one or two drinks is all we want to drink. And how many times have you tried to get them to drink more than a couple? They say, oh, no, no, I feel this already. <laughs> or, no, 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 it's making me dizzy. No, 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 it's, it's beginning to make me sick. We don't want any more. <laughs> now, here's where I react to it abnormally mentally. When I put it in my system, it goes to my stomach and immediately spreads throughout my body and races to my brain. And when it goes into my brain, instead of getting a slightly tipsy, out-of-control feeling, I begin to experience a very exciting, in-control feeling. They have two drinks, and they don't want to go to bed. I have two drinks, and I want to go to town. <laughs> Today I realize a slightly tipsy, out-of-control feeling is normal. For the normal drinker, alcohol is a sedative. It's a downer. It's supposed to give you a slightly tipsy, out-of-control feeling. But for we alcoholics, it's not a downer. It's an upper for us. It's a stimulant. And it excites us. And we want to get up and go and do things. So I react to it abnormally mentally. But then they said it gave them a nauseous feeling. And they said, we don't like that feeling of nausea. So we don't want any more. I put it in my body and it goes into my stomach. I don't experience a feeling of nausea. What I experience is an actual physical craving that demands more of the same. Their body says, puke it up. Mine says, put some more in here. And that craving is so strong that I can't control the amount that I drink after I once start drinking. Today I realize the normal reaction to alcohol, it's a destroyer of human tissue. 
and you put something in a body that will destroy human tissue, the mind and body working together experiences nausea and says, let's puke it up. But for we alcoholics, it doesn't do that. When we put it in our body, instead of saying puke it up, it simply says, put some more in it. And we react abnormally, both mentally and physically, when it comes to alcohol. The only difference between normal and abnormal is what are the majority of the people do. Nine out of ten react that way. One out of ten reacts the way I do. Therefore, we are considered to be allergic to alcohol. Both mentally and physically, we are abnormal. I didn't know that until I talked to those social drinkers. And they gave me that information, and it like to blew my mind. You know, today I just love to watch it. I love to watch social drinkers. And the best place in the world to watch them is in an airplane. You got them close, they can't get away from you. <laughs> and, and they'll order a drink from, from, from the flight attendant and they bring it in a little bitty bottle. Yeah, five bucks today. Not, not a drink in that bottle, five bucks for that bottle. And, and they'll take that bottle and they'll get a mixer with it and they'll pour it in that glass full of mixer. And then they go through what I call a stirring ceremony. <laughs> they sit there and they stir and they stir and they stir and they stir. And you know what they do when they get through stirring? They lay their little stick down and pick up their magazine and start reading the magazine. <laughs> I'm sitting over here saying, why don't you drink the damn stuff? That's what you're doing. <laughs> now, if there's any such thing as alcohol abuse, I think that's it, right? <laughs> So if you think this big book is enlightening and surprised what you might find it in it, try one of those dictionaries. It's amazing what's in there. And so let's read this again now that we have that description. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out the physical factor is incomplete. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. As layman, our opinions to its soundness may, of course, mean little. But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. He explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. He explains to me, for instance, why I would go down with a bar with every intention of having maybe two drinks and go home. Well, the next thing I know, it's midnight or one or two o'clock in the morning or the next day or next week and years ago, but the next month and whatever. But that's why what happens when I drink. It's virtually impossible to describe or to guarantee what I'm going to do once I take a drink because of the allergy of the body and sets up a craving beyond my mental control and it's more important than anything else in my life it has been proven to be that way and that interests me I needed to know that information explains many things which, which I couldn't otherwise account now he explains that here on that page a good textbook a good textbook never tells you anything but what it doesn't back it up with additional information to prove the point let's now go over to Roman numeral 26. Or 28. Or 28 in the fourth edition. And we're going to talk about this allergy again just a little bit. So we believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic, I was diagnosed as a chronic alcoholic. I didn't like that diagnosis. I understand it today, but I still don't like it much. <laughs> chronic simply means doing the same things over and over and over. So I was a chronic alcoholic. Is a manifestation of an allergy, and that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. The average temperate drinker is not allergic to alcohol. 
only alcoholics are. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence to reliance upon things human, the problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Okay. The manifestation of the allergy to strawberries is a rash. You can see it. The manifestation of the allergy to milk is dysentery. You can see it. The manifestation of the allergy to ragweeds is itchy, watery eyes, sneezy. You can see it. The manifestation of the allergy to alcohol is referred to here as the phenomenon of craving. He calls it a phenomenon because he didn't understand why. He says the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So the manifestation of our allergy is the actual physical craving that develops in the body after we've had a drink or two of alcohol. The only way an alcoholic can crave alcohol is to put it in the body first. Then the phenomenon of craving develops, and then we can't stop drinking. And in the context of the big book, when you see the word craving, in the first 164 pages anyhow, it's always referring to the body, never to the mind. I hear a lot of people say, I came to AA and I craved a drink for two years. Now, in the context of the big book, that's the wrong use of that word. They needed a drink, they wanted a drink, they desired a drink. But the only way an alcoholic can crave alcohol in the context of the big book is to first put it in the system. Then the phenomenon of craving develops, and then we can't stop. You cannot see our allergy. You can only feel it. And only alcoholics feel it. Normal, social, temperate, moderate drinkers never experience the phenomenon of craving. Only we alcoholics experience it. That's why they will never be able to understand us, because they don't know anything about this phenomenon of craving. They never experience it, therefore they'll never understand it. So that's the real main allergy to alcohol, is we react to it entirely different physically than normal people do. Now, again, he's not going to tell you anything, but what he backs it up. On Roman numeral 28, or 30 in the fourth edition, he's going to talk about five different kinds of alcoholics. And he's going to drive this point home again about the phenomenon of craving one more time. He said the classification of alcoholics seems most difficult and much details outside the scope of this book. He said there are, of course, the psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. By the way, there's five different types of alcoholics he's going to describe here. There's probably a lot more different types of alcoholics, but lack of space, he just talks about five. Today, I realize there's as many different types of alcoholics as there are people in this room here tonight, but he's going to talk about five. There are, of course, the psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. We're all familiar with this type. They're always going on the wagon for keeps. They're over-remorseful, make many resolutions, but never a decision. We call that type one. There is a type of man who is unwilling to admit that he cannot take a drink. He plans various ways of drinking. He changes his brand or his environment. Type two. 
There's a type who always believed that after being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, he could take a drink without danger. Type 3. There is a manic-depressive type who is perhaps the least understood by his friends about whom a whole chapter could be written. Type 4. I always thought I was the next one, a type 5. Then there are types entirely normal in every respect. Then that describe Charlie? Except in effect alcohol has upon them. They're often able, intelligent, friendly people. I used to read that, and I'd think, well, how did he know so much about me, anyhow? <laughs> now he makes this point. All these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been by any treatment which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. Now, I think what he said is this. If all we alcoholics in this room tonight should take a drink, God forbid that happened, but if we did, we would not all react exactly the same. In just a little bit, one of us would be crying in our bureau, the world not treating us. In just a little bit, one of us will be right up on top of a table hooping and hollering and dancing and cutting up and having a good time. In just a little bit, look back in the far corner, there'll be two of them back there getting in a fight, just sure as anything. Look over in this corner, there'll be a couple over here, one putting the make on the other. We tend to do that too when we drink. We would do many, many different things. But if we're real alcoholic, there's one thing every one of us would do we would start looking for a second drink. The phenomenon of craving has developed, and now we've got to have a third drink, and a fourth, and a fifth, and a sixth, and on and on, till we're drunk and sick and in all kinds of trouble. And it really doesn't make any difference whether we were born with it or whether we drank ourselves into it. I think I was born with it. I drank alcohol for 26 years. I don't ever remember taking one drink of anything that had alcohol in it. Alcohol, it one always led to two to three to six to eight to ten. Joe drank with relative safety for several years. Finally, though, the same thing happened to him that happened to me from the very beginning. Every time he tried to drink, he ended up drunk and sick and in all kinds of trouble. So it doesn't make any difference whether we're born with it or drank ourselves into it. Nor does it make any difference how long it takes us to get drunk. You know, this phenomenon of craving developed to the point in me that if I would take a drink, say, at 8 o'clock in the evening, by midnight I found a policeman and I'm in jail somewhere. Some of you might have one or two tonight, three or four tomorrow night, five or six the next night, and it may take you a week to find your policeman and get in jail. But what difference does it make? The first drink is what triggers it off. And we end up drunk, and, and I know that's true. Because if you and I could drink without getting drunk, we wouldn't be here tonight, would we? We'd be out there somewhere drinking without getting drunk. And this is what we've really got in common in AA. This is the real identification thing in AA. This is why we need to be talking about nothing but alcoholism in AA. Because this is the thing that every one of us has experienced. And every one of us understands it. And every one of us has gone through it. And this came to us from Dr. Silkworth. Now, if I don't want my allergy to hurt me, 
then the only thing I've got to do is just don't drink. Right? If I don't take a drink, my allergy can't hurt me. And we're going to look at a picture here for just a moment showing this allergy. And let us say that, let us be the first to say this little picture we're going to look at is not AA information. You know, AA doesn't get involved into uh, why we're allergic. If we did, it would create controversy within our fellowship. But there's information that's come out in the last few years that has proven the doctor's opinion. Back in the 1930s, they didn't know much about metabolism. Today they do. Today they know if you take a piece of beefsteak and put it in your body, the mind and body recognizes what it is. Certain organs of the body produce some enzymes. The enzymes attack the beefsteak and start breaking it down. And the body has the ability to separate it into usable and non-usable items. The vitamins, the amino acids, the carbohydrate, things necessary for the body, it retains. The rest of it, it gets rid of through the urinary and intestinal tract. It'll do the same thing with a liquid that it does with a solid. And it'll do the same thing with anything you put in it, providing it's not a deadly poison that kills you before it can be metabolized. That center picture shows the normal, social, temperate, moderate drinker. This is a thing we picked up several years ago from a study a doctor had been doing for a long time. The normal social drinker puts alcohol in the system. The enzyme production starts. The enzymes attack the alcohol. And they break it down first to a material called acetaldehyde. Then after a period of time, it's broken down to diacetic acid. Then after a period of time, it's broken down to acetone. And in the final stages, it becomes a simple carbohydrate made up of water, sugar, and carbon dioxide. The body will use the water, any excess, it will dissipate through the urinary intestinal tract. The sugar is energy, calories. Empty calories, by the way. None of the amino acids, none of the vitamins, just energy. And the body will burn it as such and store the excess as fat to be used at a later date. The carbon dioxide will be dissipated through the lungs. In the normal social drinker, the metabolic rate is approximately one ounce per hour. It'll vary with different people, but approximately one ounce per hour. And if they don't drink more than an ounce per hour, they can't get drunk. And they very seldom drink more than one ounce per hour. You see, they get that slightly tipsy, out-of-control beginnings of a nauseous feeling. It's very difficult to get one of them to drink more than an ounce per hour. If you're with one of them and they're drinking more than an ounce per hour, you better stand back because they're going to puke on you after a while. <laughs> Let's look at the left-hand side of that picture. Now, that's we alcoholics. We put it in our system. And it seems as though the enzymes in our system necessary to metabolize alcohol are not there in the same quantities or qualities as they are in the body of the non-alcoholic. 
It goes into our system. The enzymes attack it and break it down to acetaldehyde, then to diacetic acid, then to acetone. Now, it seems as though the enzymes necessary to break it down from acetone to the simple carbohydrate are simply not the same qualities or quantities as they are in the body of the non-alcoholic. And it stays in our system a much longer time as acetone. Now, it's been proven today that acetone ingested into the human system that remains there for an appreciable period of time will produce an actual physical craving for more of the same. It goes through that stage so rapidly in the non-alcoholic, the craving never occurs. stays in our body long enough to produce the actual physical craving, and that demands a second drink. Now we take a second drink. We've got the acetone, most of it, from the first drink still there. Now we add the acetone from the second drink, and the acetone level goes up. And when the acetone level goes up, the craving becomes harder. And that demands a third drink. We got most of the first, nearly all the second. Now we add that in from the third, and the acetone level goes up, and the craving becomes harder. At midnight, after 20 drinks, (laughs) we're laying out in the parking lot. They run over us and broke our leg. And they come running up to us and say, can we help you? And we say, my God, yes, give me another drink. (laughs) We're craving it harder at midnight after 20 drinks than we were at four in the evening after one or two drinks. That explains to me why I never got enough. I never did drink all the alcohol I wanted to drink. No, I drank more than I needed a thousand and one times, but I never got all that I wanted because the more I drank, the more I crave, and the more I crave, the more I have to drink. Now, that wouldn't be so bad if it never got any worse. But you and I know not only are we in the grips of an illness, it is a progressive illness that always gets worse, never better. Probably for two reasons. Number one, alcohol is a destroyer of human tissue. The longer you drink, the more you drink, the more tissue you destroy. And it seems as though the first organs of the body that alcohol begins to destroy are the liver and the pancreas. Today they know that the organs of the body that produce the enzymes necessary to metabolize alcohol are the liver and the pancreas. And as we begin to destroy them, the enzyme production becomes less and less. The craving becomes harder and harder. The drinking becomes harder and harder. And the resultant trouble becomes harder and harder. I think another reason for it is the aging process. You know, we know as we get older, the body begins to shut down on the production of everything. And believe me, that's true. I'm experiencing a lot of that now in these last few years. And if I'd take a drink tonight, I wouldn't start where I left off X number of years ago. If I'd take a drink tonight, the craving would be harder, the drinking would be harder, the trouble would be harder because of the aging process. So not only do I have an illness called alcoholism, I've got a progressive illness that always gets worse whether I drink or whether I don't drink. And how do I know that? 
I talk to every guy that's been in AA for a number of years and gets drunk. And I make it a point to go see him and say, was it any better this time? Always, hell no, it's ten times as bad as it was five years ago or ten years ago or twenty years ago. And this explains to me why I can no longer safely drink alcohol. Until I saw this kind of information, I, I just knew there had to be some way I could drink without getting drunk. And I down there kill me trying to drink without getting drunk. And now that I can see this, I can accept the fact I can no longer safely drink alcohol. Now, if that was my only problem, well, we'd pass the hat and everybody throw a dollar in it and we'd get up and go home, wouldn't we? But I got another problem too. I got another problem too. I, I got a friend who is allergic to of all things fish. And every time he eats fish, his throat swells up. He almost chokes to death. He ends up in a hospital. Now, the fact that he's allergic to fish, though, is beside the point. If he didn't eat fish. But he's got something in his mind that doesn't work right when it comes to fish. A light bulb that doesn't come on or a switch that doesn't work or something. Because from time to time, his mind tells him it's okay to eat fish. And he'll eat the fish, and he ends up in the hospital every time. And I'll bet it nearly always starts like this. Well, I haven't had any fish in 90 days. Surely I could have one piece of fish. All right, so is rock cod have been eaten. If I'd eat nothing but bass, everything would be okay. We might even say it's them damn people I've been eating fish with if I just change my crowd. Whatever the reason, his mind gives him permission to eat fish. I'm the same way when it comes to alcohol. Left on my own resources. Something in my head doesn't work right. The light bulb doesn't come on, a switch doesn't close or something, because from time to time my mind tells me it's okay to take a drink of alcohol. And then the allergy takes over, and then I die. So we're going to find as we go through the book that this physical allergy thing is very important for us to know, but that's not our real problem. Our real problem centers in the mind telling us it's okay to drink rather than in the body that ensures that it's not okay. Let's look at the mind for just a little bit and then we'll be through. So the doctor says the only relief he has to suggest is just don't drink. So now we're going to talk about the most dangerous part of the illness. And the most dangerous part of the illness is not when we're drinking. It's when we're sober. You know why? Because we're thinking about drinking. That's the most dangerous part of the illness. So let's move backward now to the Roman numeral page 26 in the third edition and Roman numeral page 28 in the fourth edition. And we'll talk a bit about the, uh, about the, the mind, the obsession of the mind. It says that men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Many alcoholics are highly offended when you tell them that. They say, oh, no, 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 that's not the reason I drink alcohol. They say, the reason I drink alcohol is I love the taste of alcohol. I wouldn't argue with them whether they do or not, you know. I love the taste of cold beer. Always have, all my life, as far back as I can remember. I also love the taste of cold mountain spring water. I never did sit down and drink a case of cold mountain spring water. (laughs) 
Alcohol did something for me that Cold Mountain Spring Water doesn't do. Always on the outside of the crowd looking in. Always wanted to be a part of and knew I could not be. You ladies, I was absolutely scared to death of you. I was just tongue-tied when I got within 20 feet of one of you. And one night at a high school dance, somebody gave me a drink of moonshine whiskey. And all those fears disappeared. And I was allowed to ask a girl to dance with her. Danced with her and didn't make a fool of myself. I was allowed to ask to take her home from the dance. I was allowed to get in the back seat of a 36 Chevrolet with her and do some things I'd been wanting to do for a long, long time. I love the effect produced by alcohol. And if it made me slightly tipsy, out of control, and nauseous, I wouldn't like that. But you see, it excites me, and it turns me on, and it lets me do those things I never could do before. It lets me just as good be just as good as anybody else. It lets me be whatever I wanted to be when I was drinking. I love the effect of it. You know, we can all identify with that effect, but there are many, many other effects by which we drink too. Sometimes we overdo some of those things we always want to do and get in a little bit of trouble. And we wake up the next morning, we have a little guilt, shame, and remorse. And we call for another drink to get rid of the guilt, shame, and remorse. And we know that alcoholism is a progressive illness. It gets worse over a period of time. And we drink for many, many other effects. In the end of my drinking, I drank for the sickest effect of all. was total oblivion. I just wanted out of it. There's only one thing wrong with a total oblivion. You wake up. Right? And you have to start drinking all over again. There are many, many effects by which we drink. He said the sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, that it cannot after time differentiate the true from the false. I got why I didn't know the true from the false about my drinking. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. My alcoholic life became normal to me. The abnormal became normal. And the bars that I went to and drink in, if they didn't drink in that bar somewhat like I did, I didn't go in those bars. And the people that I ran around with, if they didn't drink like I did, I didn't run around with them. The abnormal had become normal to me. I didn't know the truth and the false. I remember one morning my wife, Phyllis, stand up there, honey, just a minute. Phyllis. That's Phil. She's my wife. She she has a chronological birthday Sunday, by the way, and soon soon she'll have uh, thirty years of sobriety too. Thank God. So, how many how many times you've been married to Phyllis? Well, she only claimed once, but I divorced her twice, and it wasn't even my turn. So. <laughs> I remember one morning we woke up and come to what drunks do. And I said, Phyllis, do you realize most people don't drink like we do? You know what she said to me? She said, bullshit. <laughs> I don't talk that way. That's what she said. She said, bullshit. Everybody we know drinks like we do. Well, that was the truth, you know. That was, And I didn't know that. <laughs> to them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. It became normal to me. And this is what we are when we're not drinking. They are restless, irritable, discontented. And I put a few other little words in there, too, full of guilt, shame, and remorse for some of the things I did while drinking. Remember when you were brand new, they said to you, hey, if you don't drink, you're going to feel better. You're going to feel resentment better. You're going to feel anger better. (laughs) 
You're going to feel a lot of things better because we don't have the alcohol to kill the pain, you see. That's why it's important to get on through these steps as quickly as possible because I don't suffer well. I mean, I still don't suffer well. I certainly did in those days. i got to find some relief for some of that guilt, shame, remorse, that restless, dis- irritable, discontentedness. If I don't, I'm going to have to go back to drink because I know there's a solution for that. It's recorded right up here on the hard drive. It's still there. It doesn't go away. He said, unless they can again experience a sense of ease of comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. My neighbor, he drank with impunity. He drank like I did, but he never did get into trouble I got into. So he was drinking with impunity. He said, after they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, then we take the drink. And then the phenomenal craving develops. They pass through the well-known stages of esprit, emerging remorseful, with a firm resolution not to drink again. Now this is repeated over and over and over and over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of recovery. Entire change of ideas, emotions, and attitudes while not drinking. Unless that can happen, there's very little hope for a recovery. Bill called it a spiritual awakening, a spiritual experience, and talks about a personality change. But here Dr. Silkwood called it a psychic change. We're talking about all talking about the same things. Unless that can happen, there's very little hope for my recovery. And another thing that I've learned too, you can't heal a sick mind with a sick mind. Can't think your way out of it. The more we try to think our way out of it, the deeper into it we get. You see. Go ahead, Charlie. Okay, we made up this little drawing to more or less indicate not only the physical side, but also the mental side of alcoholism. And over here on this physical side, we could all see why we can't safely drink. Now, for years and years, alcohol was my friend. For years and years, it allowed me to function in society. It allowed me to do the things I wanted to do. and allowed me just to be as good as anybody else, period. But after several years of drinking, and we know it's a progressive illness, the drinking began to get worse and worse. The drunks became longer and longer. The resultant troubles became more and more. And I did what most alcoholics do. Whenever the alcohol began to be a problem for me, I never really considered quitting drinking. What I said was, Charlie, you're going to have to learn how to control your drinking. You're going to have to cut down on the amount you drink with the end result that every time I tried to control my drinking, whether it was changing my brand or whether it was going from beer to wine, wine to whiskey or whiskey to vodka, or whether it was buying a half a pint or a quart, every time I tried to control my drinking while drinking, I ended up drunk every time. Any of you guys ever try to control your drinking while drinking? Mm -hmm. I can see now why it was impossible for me to do so. Now that I know about the allergy, and now that I know about the progression, I can see why not only could I not control my drinking while drinking, 
but the drinking just got worse and worse and worse and worse. I'm a slow learner. After three, four, five years of it getting worse and worse and worse and worse, not being able to control my drinking while drinking, then I pulled out the most useful tool that an alcoholic has, which is willpower. And I said, well, since I can't seem to be able to control my drinking while drinking, then what I better do is just quit drinking. Period. Just quit drinking. Now, I would come off of those drunks, and I would be restless and irritable and discontented. I'd be filled with shame and guilt and remorse and resentment, and I didn't feel good. And over here is my emotional barometer. And as the days went by without any relief, as the days went by doing nothing about the way I felt down here, getting more and more irritable, more and more mad at my wife, more and more trouble with my kids, more and more trouble at work, I'd get to thinking about, well, now, Charlie, you know, maybe you're not a real alcoholic. You know, after all, you've been sober now for several days. You could probably have one or two drinks and get by with it. I always can remember if for the problem, how a drink always solved that problem for me. And I'd get to thinking about taking a drink, and I'd take a drink, and I'd trigger the allergy. And I'd end up drunk, and I'd come off remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. And I said, okay, now, you're really going to have to use your willpower now. And I said, sick them, Will. We're through with that damn drinking. And I put willpower right in there between the problem and one drink. I put willpower between the problem and the solution. And I got up the next morning, I was restless and irritable and discontented. Filled with shame, fear, guilt, and remorse, didn't feel good. But by God, I wasn't going to drink to change it. And a day or two later, I began to think about, you know, maybe I could take a drink and it would be okay. Or maybe it really wasn't that bad. Or maybe this time she won't file for divorce. Or maybe they really won't come and get me this time. <laughs> And I'd, I'd get to thinking about taking a drink because I knew one or two drinks would make me feel good, but then I'd run into willpower. The willpower said, no, sir, we're not going to drink. We're through with that drinking. And I wouldn't drink that day. Next day I get up and I'm still restless, irritable, and discontented. Haven't done anything to change this down on the bottom. I'm getting more and more upset with everybody around me. And I want to feel better. And I only knew one thing that would make me feel better. And it was that magic that comes from that first one or two drinks. And I'd be thinking about the great sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by taking a couple of drinks. And I'd say, well, maybe, maybe I'm not alcoholic. Maybe I could drink. And I'd run into willpower. Willpower says, no, sir, we're not drinking. And I wouldn't drink that day. And I'd go that way for a week or two weeks or three weeks. And life's getting more and more hellish all the time. 
and more and more trouble with my wife and my kids and my neighbors and my bird dogs and everything around me could get along with nothing. And I wanted to feel better. I only knew one way to feel better. And I got to thinking about taking a drink. And I said, man, you've been sober now for 90 days. Surely, surely you could have one drink, but a hit old willpower again. Willpower said, no, sir, we're not going to drink. Don't you remember the last time you went to jail? Don't you remember last time she filed for divorce? Don't you remember last time you had a car wreck? And I wouldn't drink that day. But I'd get up the next day. And I'm still restless and irritable and discontented. And I want to feel better, and I only know one way to feel better, and that's take a drink. And I'd get to thinking about taking a drink, and my mind began to center on one thing only. The great sense of ease and comfort is going to come by a couple of drinks. And it centered on it so strong that it pushed out the jailhouse. It pushed out the divorce courts. It pushed out the car wrecks. And I could only see one thing, what alcohol was going to do for me. See, that's the reason willpower don't work for people like us. Because just before we take a drink, the mind sees nothing wrong with taking a drink. The idea of what we're going to get from the drink is so strong that it pushes out all ideas to the contrary. And we don't remember the jailhouses and the divorce courts and the car wrecks. And we think only about taking a drink. And suddenly, the idea of taking a drink went through willpower, burned right through willpower. I took a drink and triggered the allergy, and I was off and running again. I repeated that cycle over and over and over and over and over. I came to AA, and I knew that with my superior strength and intelligence, that I didn't have to do all these things that you guys were doing. And I knew that now that I knew what was wrong with me, that I knew about the allergy and the obsession, that with my intelligence and willpower, I wouldn't have to do what you did. And 90 days later, I got drunk. And I came back to AA, and I knew damn good and well I didn't have to do those things that you guys did. And six months later, I got drunk. And I came back to AA, and I knew I did not have to do what you guys were telling me I had to do. And nine months later, I got drunk again. And I damn near died from alcoholism. There is nothing any more miserable for an alcoholic than to try to stay sober left on his own resources. That is the most miserable time of my life. And I look at people in AA today, new people coming in, and they haven't got into the program yet. And they still got that obsession to drink. And I just sit there and almost cry for them because I know what they're going through. See, somewhere, I somehow, I have to find a way to live to keep my emotions below the level that causes me to take a drink. If I could become a little less restless, a little less irritable, a little less discontented, if I could get rid of some of this shame and fear and guilt and remorse, then maybe I could run around sober and not feel so bad 
that it requires me to take a drink in order to feel better. Now, how do I go about doing that? Well, that's what recovery is about. That's what the program is about. Because when I came off of that third drunk almost dead, I came back with a different frame of mind. And I picked up the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I began to work the program out of the book. And I'm no longer restless, irritable, and discontented. I'm no longer filled with shame, fear, guilt, and remorse. I'm sober and I feel good. I've got peace of mind, serenity, and happiness. And that's the only reason I don't drink. See, that's what recovery is about. I think it's easy to see. If you can't drink because of this allergy, and if you can't quit because of this obsession, then you become absolutely powerless over alcohol. And that's all step one is about. And that's what we've been talking about tonight, is step one. And those of us can make that admission, conceive our animal self, that we're alcoholic and we're never going to be able to drink like other people, that there's a possibility that we can recover from alcoholism. I've been asked to tell you that we're going to start in the morning at 9 and we run to 12. We come back at 1.30. We'll run to 5. There's nothing on tomorrow night. Tomorrow night's free. Joe, you got anything else? That's all I got. Okay, that's all we've got for tonight. Thank you all for being here. Do we want to close in the usual manner? I saw standing. Don't try to make a circle. Just. Uh, this time the story is about the alcoholic, the Al-Anon, and the Alateen. And by the way, do we have any Al-Anons in the room this morning? Oh, yeah, I have several. Okay, great. They had been to an AA convention, and on the way home they decided to take go out through the countryside and, and see a little bit of different different views and things rather than go home the regular way. And as they were going home that afternoon, they got out in the country and, and they got lost out there. And they couldn't find their way back out. And finally, finally, they stopped at a farmer's house, walked up to the door, knocked on the door. Farmer came to the door and they told him the situation. And he said, well, it'll be easy for me to tell you how to get out of here. He said, it's not that difficult, but he said, it's really, though, it's getting so close to dark that you're probably going to get lost again. Why don't you just spend the night here at the farmhouse, and you can get up and leave in the morning? And they said, well, fine, yeah, that'd be great. But he said, we've only got one problem, though. I can only sleep two of you in the house. One of you will have to sleep down in the barn with the animals. The little Alateen said, well, let me go down and sleep in the barn with the animals. I love animals, and they love me, and everything will be just great. So they all go to bed with the Alateen down in the barn. Sure enough, in about an hour, knock on the door. Farmer goes to the door, and there stands the Alateen. He said, man, I can't sleep down there. He said, the pigs are grunting, the cows are mooing, the horses are stomping their feet, and their chickens are clucking, and I just can't sleep. The alcoholic said, well, come on in and go to bed. I'll go down in the barn, and I'll sleep with the animals said, I was born and raised on a farm. That'll be no problem for me. So they all go to bed with the alcoholic down in the barn. Sure enough, about an hour, 
knock on the door, and there stands the alcoholic, and he said, man, I can't sleep down there either. He said, those pigs are grunting, the cows are mooing, the horses are stomping their feet, and their chickens are clucking, and I just can't sleep. The Al-Anon said, well, I knew. That would be up to me to handle the situation. <laughs> she said, you guys come on in, and I'll go down in the barn, and I'll sleep with the animals. So they all go to bed with the Al-Anon down in the barn, and sure enough, about an hour, knock on the door. The farmer goes to the door, and there stands the pigs and the cows and the chickens. <laughs> to a black belt Al-Anon <laughs> that's got 38 years in the Al-Anon fellowship and every time I tell that joke she just gets mad her nails <laughs> we love Al-Anon we really love Al-Anon I think it's the best thing ever happened to AA you know any new person I work with if they've still got a spouse I do everything I can to get that spouse involved in Al-Anon makes it a lot easier for we alcoholics to stay sober. You know, you Al-Anons can't make us sober and, and you can't make us drink. But you can make us thirsty as hell once in a while. So <laughs> I, do, I do my best to get them involved in Al-Anon. No? Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Enough fooling around. We uh, spent a lot of time last night talking about the doctor's opinion. And we could see that uh, that our problem with alcohol was not weak will, that it wasn't moral character, that it wasn't sin, that we actually had an illness, and it's a twofold illness, an illness of the body and as well as an illness of the mind. And we found that we had become physically allergic to alcohol. And every time we put alcohol in our system, it produces what Dr. Silkworth referred to as the phenomenon of craving. And it was impossible for us to control the amount we drank after we once start drinking. We also found out that was only part of the problem, that we also had what we call an obsession of the mind, an obsession of the mind being an idea that overcomes all ideas to the contrary. And it really didn't make any difference how badly we wanted to stay sober. It didn't make any difference how badly we exerted our willpower. From time to time, the obsession of the mind would tell us that it's okay to drink. And believing at this time is going to be different. Believing at this time we're not going to get drunk. We take the drink, we trigger the allergy, and we end up drunk over and over and over and over. And we could see that if we couldn't safely drink because of the body, if we couldn't keep from drinking because of the mind, then we've become absolutely powerless over alcohol. And for most of us, for the first time in our lives, that's the first time we knew what was wrong with us. Because you see, we always thought it was willpower too. We always thought it was moral character. We always thought it was sin. Why would we not? That's what everybody had told us up until that time. And I think we people in AA are the luckiest alcoholics in the world. Because we're the only alcoholics in the world that know what's wrong with us. All the rest of them out there, they still think it's willpower. They think it's moral character and they think it's sin. And eventually, if they don't find AA, they're probably going to die from alcoholism. So for the first time, we really see and understand 
what our problem really is. Now remember, Dr. Silkworth gave that to Bill Wilson. And just before Bill went to Akron, Ohio, he talked to Dr. Silkworth. And he said, I've been trying to help other alcoholics here in New York City, and none of them have responded. I must be doing something wrong. And Dr. Silkworth said, well, why don't you explain to them the exact nature of the illness? Why don't you tell them what I told you? that every alcoholic wants to know, why can't I drink like I used to without getting drunk? Why can't I stay sober now that I want to stay sober? He said, explain that to them, and you'll get their attention. Then you can talk to them about spirituality, not by accident. The very next person person Bill talked to happened to be Dr. Bob. And he did something with Dr. Bob that he hadn't been doing in New York City. He sits down with Dr. Bob, and rather than talk about Dr. Bob's drinking, Bill says, let me tell you about my drinking. And he began to share his own story. And as he shared his story, he talked about this thing called the physical allergy. He talked about the fact that every time he started drinking, he'd be unable to stop, and he'd end up drunk when he didn't want to be drunk. He talked about his own obsession of the mind that irregardless of how hard he tried on willpower, from time to time his mind would tell him it's okay to drink, and Dr. Bob identified with him immediately. Then Dr. Bob, already being in the Oxford group, he began to apply their program to a depth they never had before, and he recovered. And they learned at that particular meeting the value of one alcoholic sharing with another alcoholic. Immediately... They went to see this guy named Bill Dotson, and they sat down and shared their stories with Bill Dotson. And as they shared their stories with Bill Dotson, then Bill Dotson could see his problem too. And he could see that it wasn't willpower, moral character, and sin. For the first time, he understood the hopeless condition of mind and body known as alcoholism. Then he applied the program of action, and he recovered So from that time on, any time they talked to a newcomer, they did it by sharing their stories. Now, the Oxford group, people call that making a visit. Today, we call it a 12-step call. But when the big book was written and came out in 1937, 38, and 39, they knew they wouldn't be able to go make a one-on-one visit to the first guy in California. They wouldn't be able to make a one-on-one visit to the first guy in South Dakota. So they knew that the big book had to be complete enough to do the entire job that they would normally do on a one-on-one basis during the visit. So they said, now we've already told them about the doctor's opinion. Now then, we need to show them an example of a guy that had this alcoholism thing this physical allergy, this obsession of the mind, we need to share our story with them just like we do on a one-on-one visit. So they said what we need to do now is put the story of one of we alcoholics in the big book so that that new guy in California will be able to identify. And, of course, they decided to put Bill's story in here. A lot of people say we couldn't identify with Bill. Because after all, he was a New York City stock speculator, and we were not. 
After all, he was a night school lawyer, and we were not. In my part of the country, they say, yeah, and he was a Yankee, too, and that had something to do with it. <laughs> a lot of the women say we couldn't identify with him because he's a man and we're a woman. But if we carefully look at Bill's story, if we're a real alcoholic, male or female, young or old, whatever our occupation, we're going to be able to identify with Bill Wilson. We're going to be able to see that he thought and he felt just exactly like the rest of we alcoholics, that he made decisions and took actions just exactly like the rest of we alcoholics. And we're going to be able to see the progression of his illness. We're going to be able to see him starting out with fun drinking like most of us started with. We're going to be able to see his drinking becoming more serious as time goes by, beginning to drink all day and almost every night. Then we're going to see him progress to the point where he was drinking for absolute necessity in order to live. No fun involved at all anymore. And then we're going to see it progress to the point of where he's drinking for absolute, complete oblivion just to get out of the picture. And any real alcoholic is going to be able to identify with Bill Wilson. And then we're going to see the greatest thing of all. We're going to see him affect a recovery from that condition known as alcoholism. And if we're brand new, never had any contact with this little fellowship, the book is all we've got. And we read Bill's story and we identify with Bill and we see him recover, then here is the beginning of belief and the beginning of hope that we're enough like this guy that if he could recover from this condition, just maybe, maybe we could too. So as we look through Bill's story, let's look for identification. Let's look for progression. Let's look for the beginning of belief and the beginning of hope. Joe? I love Bill's story today. It tells the whole story about Cause Anonymous in this one little story. But unfortunately for me, when I come into A, I picked up this book not knowing that I'm supposed to identify with Bill. I'd seen pictures of Bill early in my sobriety, and my thought was, what's an old man like him going to tell me about staying sober. <laughs> you see, I had an open mind. <laughs> After all, he was about 43 years old when this book was written. I wasn't that old. He, looked, he looks very young today at 43, I can tell you that. <laughs> but uh, not knowing I was supposed to identify, I just read a little bit of his story and I just closed my mind to it. But as time has gone by, I've learned to study Bill's story. Bill's story has a whole story about Alcoholics Anonymous in it. I began to see that Bill was a lot like me and most alcoholics that I know. Had a very optimistic attitude, Bill did. He was a very hard-working individual, just like most alcoholics are. He has lots and lots of willpower, like most alcoholics are. My wife said, I've got lots of willpower, but I never used much of it. But I got it. A self-made man, that's what Bill was, a great man. Those ordinary attributes, he became very successful in his own right. But as we said, Bill's story tells us what he was like, how he learned he was sick, and most importantly, how he affected the recovery. The whole story of Alcoholics Anonymous is in Bill's story. Let's go to page one, chapter one, Bill's story. War fever ran high in the New England town to which we new young officers from Plattsburgh were assigned. We were flattered when the first citizens took us to their homes. 
making us feel heroic. It was love, applause, war, moments sublime with intervals hilarious. Has anybody but me ever had moments sublime with intervals hilarious <laughs> while drinking? I love Bill's story, and I love the way he writes. I was part of life at last, and in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. I forgot the strong warnings and prejudices of my people concerning drink. In time, we sailed for over there. I was very lonely again turned to alcohol. We landed in Win- we landed in England. I visited Winchester Cathedral. Much moved, I wandered outside. My attention was caught by an old dog on, on old tombstone. Here lies a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death drinking cold small beer. A good soldier never forgot whether he dies by musket or by pot. Now, for you younger guys, this pot we're talking about is not this wacky weed that we use today. He's referring to a pot of beer, and that's the way it used to be served in England and still is in many, many cases. So he's talking about a pot of beer. I have a picture here of this uh, tombstone in Winchester Cathedral. Somebody would like to come by and look at it. The name on it is Thomas Thatcher. 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 I don't know if there's any correlation between the two, but it's kind of interesting. And I have some other photos here. Here's the gatehouse that Bill and Bob met in that we talked about last night. The uh, directory of what she made the phone call. Uh, Dr. Bob's uh, tombstone. If you haven't seen that, it's worth seeing. William B. Silkworth's tombstone. Bill and Lois at East Dorset, Vermont. Spiritual experience. There's a little bucket right there. You take your little ship, your little sobriety ship, put it in that bucket and find one just like it, take it with you. Kind of called uh, Pass It On. Bill and Bob as young people. Bill and Abby Thatcher was some of the pictures around here. Abby Thatcher, the forgotten man in Alcoholics Anonymous. Charlie and I were in, uh, in Albany a few years ago, about three or four years ago. And we learned that he was buried there, Abby was. I thought he was down in Texas. But he's in, in Albany. We went out to see his grave. And the weeds were up over our head. No one had been there in a long, long time. The guy was with us. He had the, in charge of a lot of money. And so he paid the cemetery money to keep this grave cleared off so people can come by and visit. If you're interested, it's in Albany, New York, the Statuary Cemetery, Lot 56, if you're interested in seeing that. Without him, there's no AA. Without any of these men and women, there's no AA. See, talk about last night's slender threads. I call it seconds and inches. You know, for instance, if Bill had, had went in that bar and had a drink or two or three, rather than going down and making that phone call, we wouldn't be sitting here seconds and inches. Abby hadn't brought Bill the message seconds and inches. We wouldn't be here either. All these people, very, very important. But on this morning, which I failed to heed, 22 in a veteran of foreign wars, I went home at last. I fancied myself a leader. For had not the men of my battery given me a special token of appreciation, my talent for leadership, I imagine, would place me at the head of vast enterprises, which I would manage with utmost assurance. He said, I took a night law course and obtained employment as an investigator for a surety company. The drive for success was on. I proved to the world that I was important. I already identified with Bill Wilson. That's <laughs> all I ever wanted to do was succeed at something and prove to the world that I'm important also. Every alcoholic I've ever known, that great driving force to show them we're just as good as they are 
I certainly identify with Bill Wilson. My work took me about Wall Street, and little by little I became interested in the market. Many people lost money, but some became very rich, or not I. I studied economics and business as well as law. Potential alcoholic that I was, I nearly failed my law course. At one of the finals, I was too drunk to think or to write. Though my drinking was not yet continuous, it disturbed my wives. I can identify with them. How many wives yeah. have you had? I've had two of them. Two of them? Yeah. How many times have you been married we've, to them? We've been, we've been filed for divorce seven times between the two. It's another story. <laughs> we had long talks when I was sheltered for boating by telling you that men of genius conceive their best projects when drunk, that the most majestic constructions of philosophic thought were so derived. Charlie said last night that we make our living selling fast talk to slow thinking people. Bill's trying to sell some of that right here, but we all know Lois didn't buy that. <laughs> By the time I'd completed the course, I knew the law was not for me. The inviting Mel Strong of Wall Street had me in his grip. Business and financial news were my heroes. How this alloy of drink and speculation I commenced to forge as a weapon had one day turned into flight like a boomerang and all but cut me to ribbons. He said, living modestly, my wife and I saved $1,000. He went into certain securities in cheap and rather unpopular. I rightly imagined that they would someday have a great rise. I failed to persuade my broker friends to send me out looking over factories and managements, but my wife and I decided to go anyway. I had developed a theory that most people lost money in stocks through ignorance of markets. I discovered many more reasons later on. Bill became really one of the first real investment counselors on Wall Street. The time he's referring to here is in the 1920s. Stock market was on a roll. Just about everybody was making money. All you had to do was buy stock, hold it, let it go up in price, sell it, take your profits, buy some more. And you only had to put out about 10% margin. You get all the rest of it. You can buy it on credit, etc. And Bill began to say, look, Sooner or later, this bubble's going to burst. Sooner or later, we're going to have to start making our decisions on what to buy based on fact rather than speculation. He said, I don't have the money to do this, but if you guys would back me financially, I'll go out and I'll visit these companies personally, and I'll look at the plant, I'll talk to the employees, I'll examine the books wherever possible, and then I'll write up reports and send them back into Wall Street. And then we'll start making our decisions based on fact. And they said, no, Bill, thank you. We don't need that kind of information. We're making about all the money we want to make anyhow. Well, you know how we alcoholics are. If we get a good, good idea, we're going to carry it through come hell or high water. doesn't make any difference. He said, my wife and I decided to go anyway. I developed a theory that most people lost money in stocks through ignorance of markets. I discovered many more reasons later on. We gave up our positions, and off we roared on a motorcycle. And that picture is around here somewhere, right here behind me, I think, of them traveling on that motorcycle. The sidecar stuffed with tent blankets, a change of clothes, three huge volumes of the financial reference service. Our friends thought a lunacy commission should be appointed. Well, perhaps they were right. I had had some success in speculation, so we had a little money. But we once worked on a farm for a month to avoid drawing on our small capital. 
That was the last honest manual labor on my part for many a day. We covered the whole eastern United States in a year, traveling up and down the eastern seaboard, visited approximately 100 of the largest companies. At the end of it, my reports to Wall Street procured me a position there and the use of a large expense account. These guys on Wall Street that had the money saw these reports, and they said, oh, yeah, man, this is great information. They put him on the payroll, gave him a large expense account. The exercise of an option brought in more money, leaving us with a profit of several thousand dollars for that year. Our bills from a little town up in Vermont called East Dorset never really had anything before in his life. And all of a sudden, here he is on Wall Street, got him a good job and a good expense account. He's exercised an option, made several thousand dollars, a lot of money back in the 1920s, a lot of money today, but especially then. And he said, for the next few years, fortune through money and applause my way, I had arrived. How many of us have done the same thing? You know, this literally worked our tails off. And the day we succeeded, whatever it was we're trying to do, what a great feeling that is. My judgment and ideas were followed by many to the tune of paper millions. The great boom of the late 20s was seething and swelling. Drink was taking an important, exhilarating part in my life. He doesn't know he's alcoholic. He just knows that he loves to drink. There was loud talk in the jazz places uptown. Everyone spending thousands and chattered in millions. Scoffers could scoff and be damned. I made a host of fair-weather friends. Now, we know, as an alcoholic, his drinking is going to be progressive. He says, my drinking assumed more serious proportions, continuing all day and almost every night. The remonstrances of my friends, my friends terminated in their row, and I became a lone wolf. No people began to say to Bill, you're drinking too much. Bill, you need to cut back. Bill, you're costing us money. Bill, why don't you quit? And he did the same thing the rest of us did. He said, to hell with them. I don't need them anyhow. And now he's beginning to operate on his own. There were many unhappy scenes in our sumptuous apartment. There had been no real infidelity for loyalty to my wife, helped at times by extreme drunkenness, Kept me out of those scrapes. I always believed everything Bill wrote, but I'm not too sure about that one. <laughs> Bill wrote a little book called As Bill Sees It. Lois wrote one called Lois Remembers. <laughs> and her account of this situation a little better than his. Let's go over to page four, first paragraph. Here's old Bill now, man. He's doing good. And he's making a lot of money. Hang around no jazz places uptown. I used to like to hang around no jazz places. Chattered in thousands, talked in millions. Didn't have any money, but we talked a lot about it. Spending money I didn't have, trying to impress people I didn't like. Man, I did a lot of that. But old Bill got lots of willpower, a lot of hope, a hardworking, optimistic man, self-made man, doing great. On page four, abruptly in October 1929, hell broke loose on the New York Stock Exchange. After one of those days in front of I wobbled from a hotel bar to a brokerage office. It was 8 o'clock, five hours after the market had closed. The ticker still clattered. I was staring at an inch of tape which bore the inscription XYZ32. had been 52 that morning. Well, I was finished, so were many friends. The papers reported men jumping to death from the towers of high finance. That disgusted me. I would not jump. 
I went back to the bar. He had a solution for that problem, see? My friends had dropped several million since 10 o'clock was so hot. Tomorrow was another day. And as I drank, that old fierce determination wind came back. How many of us have done the same thing? Come out of the hospital or the jailhouse or the divorce court, low, sad, and depressed, stop off in the bar and have a couple of drinks. And as the alcohol courses through our veins, we say, we'll show them. By God, they're not going to treat us that way. And we're off and we're running again. That old fierce determination to win came back. Next morning, I telephoned a friend in Montreal. He had plenty of money left, and I thought I'd better go to Canada. Bill was a drunk. He wasn't stupid. He went where the money was. It's all up here in Washington, D.C. Yeah, it's all here now. Yeah. It used to be in Canada. It's all invested in those buildings out there. <laughs> By the following spring, we were living in our accustomed style. I felt like Napoleon returning from Elba. No St. Helena for me. But drinking caught up with me again, and my general friend had to let me go. This time we stayed broke. And we see the progression. The drinking is gradually worse and worse. Now we've reached the point where we really can't even hold a job because of our drinking. We went to live with my wife's parents. That's got to be a real come down for a guy like Bill. Lots of ego, lots of success. Can't even afford an apartment for he and his wife. So he has to go live with his wife's parents. He said, I found a job and then lost the results as a brawl with a taxi driver. Mercifully, no one would guess that I was having no real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. My wife began to work in a, in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. i become an unwelcome hanger on these brokerage places. Those brokerage places were built and made a lot of people with a lot of money. Well, he used to be welcomed. Now they're saying to Bill, Bill, you don't look good. You don't smell good. You're not making us any money. Why don't you just go on down the street and hang around down there a little bit? You see, not even welcome at the brokerage places. We used to make a lot of money for a lot of people. Now then we begin to drink for an entirely different reason. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. We're not drinking for fun now. We're drinking because we have to drink in order to live. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day, and often three got to be routine. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. A tumbler full of gin followed by half a dozen bottles of beer would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation, and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. Remember last night, Dr. Silkworth said we really cannot differentiate the truth from the false. What we're doing is absolutely normal to us. We see Bill's life going to hell in a handbasket already. Bill can't see that. Things are real bad for Bill, but they're going to get worse. Gradually things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at the low point of 1932, and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prodigious bender, and that chance vanished. It's a story within itself. The guys that really had the money, they knew how good Bill was at putting these deals together. They went to see Bill, and they said, Bill, we've got a, we've got a deal we'd like to have you work on. Great opportunity for you and us both. Now, the only thing is, if you're going to get involved in it, you've got to stay sober. You can't drink. 
And Dale said, oh, don't worry about that drinking. I'm through with it. You don't have to worry about that at all. And he began to work on this deal. And a matter of months went by, and he stayed sober, and he's gradually put this thing together. And just a night or two before it was to be successfully completed, they're sitting around in a hotel room. Somebody passes around a bottle of Applejack. This was in Prohibition days. Came to Bill, and Bill said, No, thank you, I'm not drinking. Went right on by him. In a little while, the bottle came back to him. And the guy next to him said, Bill, you don't understand what's in this bottle. He said, this, this, this is, this Applejack in this bottle is called Jersey Lightning. Finest Applejack in the world. You better have a drink. And Bill's mind said, hmm, I've never tasted any Jersey Lightning before. <laughs> and no more thought than that, he grabbed the bottle, took a drink, triggered the allergy, couldn't stop drinking, and blew the whole deal. Now the importance in it lies within the next statement. I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. First time Bill really could realize what alcohol was doing to him. For the first time he could see the truth behind it. I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. So he trotted out his most useful tool. He trotted out his willpower. And he said, sick them, Will. We're through without drinking. We're never going to take another drink as long as we live. You know, people try to tell us we're weak-willed people. Don't you believe that? We are strong-willed people. Weak-willed people do not become alcoholic. Third time they puke, they quit drinking. <laughs> the alcoholic knows there's got to be some way to drink without puking, and we damn near kill ourselves. Trying. we got lots of willpower. See, so Bill doesn't, he doesn't, hasn't learned yet what we learned last night. That anytime there's a battle going on between the willpower and the obsession of the mind, the obsession of the mind will win out each and every time because it's stronger than our will. Let's see what Bill did with willpower. He said, shortly after I came home drunk, there had been no fight. What had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. Anybody in here besides me identify with Bill Wilson? You betcha. Someone pushed a drink my way and I'd taken it. Was I crazy? See, if your willpower doesn't work, you begin to question your sanity. Am I just crazy? Is that it? I began to wonder if such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. But renewing my resolve, I tried again. Some time passed and confidence began to be replaced by cocksuredness. Ah, I could laugh at those gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time I was reading on the bar asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time. But it might as well get him good and drunk then. And I did. Anybody ever done that like Bill did? I have. The remorse, horror, and hopeless. So the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raised uncontrollably, and there's a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dared cross the street lest I, lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My riding nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me the market had gone to hell again, well, so would I. The market would recover, but, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. 
Should I kill myself now? No, not now. Then the metal fog settled down. Jim fixed that. Two bottles and oblivion. So we see the progression of Bill. He started out trying to use his willpower to stay sober. Couldn't do it. He began to question his sanity and still couldn't stay sober. And then he begins to think about committing suicide. You see, two pages earlier, Bill was laughing at those people who were jumping out the window of the towers of high finance. Two pages later now, he's contemplating committing suicide himself. Should I kill myself? No, not now. Then Bill was drinking for the sickest effect of all, which is total oblivion. He just wanted out of it. And those of us who drink for oblivion understand only one thing wrong with that is you wake up. You have to do it all over again. And that's where we find Bill at this time. The mind and body are marvelous mechanisms for mine endured this agony two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. Again, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weekly. There were flights from city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape. Then came the night when the physical or mental torture was so hellish, I feared I would burst through my window sash and all. Somehow I managed to drag my mattress to a lower floor lest I suddenly leap. A doctor came with a heavy sedative. Next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. And this combination soon landed me on the rocks. People feared for my sanity, so did I. I could eat little or nothing when drinking, and I was 40 pounds underweight. Now we see a guy who's dying from alcoholism. All of his food that he's getting is out of the alcohol itself. And getting his calories there, they are the empty calories, and he's dying from malnourishment. He might not have been around much longer if it hadn't been for his brother-in-law. My brother-in-law is a physician, and through the kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics, Towns Hospital, New York City. Under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. Belladonna was a drug that they used for withdrawal purposes. Today they use... Uh, Valium and various other things. Back then they were using belladonna. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise help much. Hydrotherapy is water treatment. And one time we got into an old style treatment center and they would take this alcoholic and strap them down on a gurney, move them into a shower room. The shower room was oval shaped and had shower heads all the way around it alternating hot and cold water. And the alcoholic would be in there for about 30 minutes. Now, it doesn't cure alcoholism, but it sure as hell makes a clean drunk out of you. I know that. <laughs> Best of all, I met a kind doctor. Now, he's referring to Dr. Silkworth, who explained that though certainly selfish and foolish, I had been seriously ill bodily and mentally. Dr. Silkworth explained his ideas about the physical allergy and the obsession of the mind. And Bill said it relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. My incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. For three or four months, the goose hung high. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. Surely this was the answer. Self-knowledge. 
For the first time, Bill understood what the problem was. And he thought, now that I know what the problem is, I'll not have to drink anymore. Self-knowledge would fix it. Let's see where he went on self-knowledge. But it was not. For the frightful day came when I drank once more. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. And after a time, I returned to the hospital. Second trip in 1934. This was the finish, the curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife was informed that all end with heart failure during delirium tremens, or I would develop a wet rain perhaps within a year. She would soon have to get me over to the undertaker of the asylum. Bill was laying in there sick, trying to detox and recover. Bill Lois and Dr. Silkworth standing outside in the hallway talking. She asked Dr. Silkworth, said, Dr. Silkworth, is he going to make it this time? He said, Lois, I don't think so. We're going to have to give him over the undertaker of the asylum because I don't think he's got enough to come back with. See, this is one reason why you can't scare an alcoholic. See what he said next. They did not need to tell me. I knew and almost welcomed the idea. See, you can't scare an alcoholic into staying sober. It was a devastating blow to my pride. I, who thought so well of myself and my abilities, of my capacity to surmount obstacles, cornered at last. Now I was plunged into the dark, joined that endless possession sought to have gone before. I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. You see, we see Bill in a hopeless condition of mind and body, totally without hope. And you know, we can't, none of us can live very long without hope. But Bill was hopeless and powerless over alcohol at this moment. Now let's look at the next paragraph very, very carefully. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. I've never seen a better description of step one. No step one written in those days. But this is where Bill took it. And he admitted he was absolutely powerless over alcohol. Alcohol had become his master. Now, if that should happen to you and I today, well, we probably would say, well, that being the case, I guess I better go to AA. <laughs> but Bill didn't have any AA to go to. He's in the best treatment facility he knows of. And even though he's taken what we know today as step one, admitted complete defeat, the only thing he can do is leave that hospital and try to stay sober. Trembling, I stepped from the hospital a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink. In an armistice day, 1934, I was off again. Everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere, would stumble along to a miserable end. How dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. I was soon to be catapulted in what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. Near the end of that bleak November, and I imagine it was a pretty bleak November, he took a drink on November the 11th, our mistress day. He's been drunk now for about three weeks. I sat drinking in my kitchen. With a certain satisfaction, I reflected there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and the next day. My wife was at work. 
I wondered whether I dared hide a full bottle of gin near the head of her bed. I would need it before daylight. My musing was interrupted by the telephone. The cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. He was sober. If you'll notice, that's in squiggly writing. <laughs> that's very, very important. He was sober. It was years since I could remember his coming to New York in that condition. I was amazed. Rumor had it that he had been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wondered how he had escaped. And he's referring, of course, to Abby Thatcher. And Abby was an old schoolmate, an old drinking buddy of Bill's. And Bill hadn't seen him in New York City in a long time. And he never had seen him in New York City sober. So Bill was amazed by this condition. So rumor had that he'd been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wonder how he escaped. And this, this fellow's name was Abby Thatcher. And Abby's family was a very prominent family in Albany, New York. In fact, the father was running for re-election to mayor. Abby's drinking was embarrassing his re-election campaign, so he decided to call him in and basically get him out of town, what he wanted to do. He said, Abby, you're embarrassing the family with you drinking and things that you're doing. I want you to go on over to East Dorset, Vermont, and hang around over there a little while and, and so we can get re-elected. So we, they had a summer place over in Vermont. Yeah, they have a summer place. While we're over there, you might as well clean up the summer place and paint it up and fix it up a bit. Try to stay sober if you can, because we'll be over next summer. So Abby went to Vermont, began to clean up and fix up the old summer place. And one day he was standing back admiring the paint job he just finished on the side of the house, naturally drinking a little bit. There were some pigeons under the eaves began to do things on the side of his house that he didn't like. So he went in the house and got his shotgun and began to shoot those pigeons, blowing the holes in the side of the house. Well, the neighbors don't like this at all. So they called the police, and the police took him to jail, and they're going to uh, send him to uh, the insane asylum for alcoholic insanity. Almost anybody can do that in those days. Your best friend, your wife, the police department, the judge, almost any, we were fair game. In other words, they could do that. But he got very lucky. There was two fellows who interceded on his behalf. One was this Roland Hazard and the other was Sebra Graves. It just so happened that Sebra Graves' father was a judge. And Roland and Sebra were members of the Oxford group. And they interceded on Abby's behalf and persuaded the judge to let him come with them so they could go to the Oxford group. Maybe they could get him sober the way those two were staying sober. Well, the judge didn't want to put him in jail or insane asylum any more than they do today. So they released Abby to their care. And he began to go to those Oxford group meetings. And sure enough, he began to stay sober. And after a couple of months of staying sober, he decided to go back to New York and stayed at the Calvary Mission, the headquarters of the Oxford group in New York. And while he was there, he remembered his friend Bill. He said, I think I'll go and see Bill and see if I can get him sobered up the way they sobered me up. So that's why he was there to see Bill. Now, of course, Bill didn't know any of this stuff. Of course, he would have dinner and I could drink openly with him. Unmindful of his welfare, I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. There was a time we'd charter an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility, the very thing an oasis. Drinkers are like that. The door opened and he stood there, fresh-skinned and glowing. There was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. What had happened? I pushed a drink across the table. He refused it. Disappointed but curious, I wondered what got into the fellow. He wasn't himself. Come, what's all this about, I queried. 
He looked straight at me simply, but smilingly he said, I've got religion. Now, I'm damn glad that didn't happen in my kitchen. (laughs) I have no idea what I would have done. But here's what Bill did. He said, I was aghast. So that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot, now I suspected a little cracked about religion. He had that starry eyed look. Yeah, the old boy was on fire, all right. But bless his heart, let him rant. Besides, my gin would last longer than his preaching. But he didn't know running. In a matter-of-fact way, he told how two men had appeared in court, persuading the judge to suspend his commitment. They had told of a simple religious idea. Which is step two. And a practical program of action. Steps three through twelve. That was two months ago, and the result was self-evident. It worked. Now Bill knows all three things. He got the problem from Dr. Silkworth way back in the summer of 33, but that didn't keep him sober. Now Ebby has brought him the solution, here referred to as a simple religious idea. I remember Ebby's coming out of the Oxford Roots, a group of people practicing first century Christianity to the best of their ability, and the terms that they used were highly religious in nature. So Bill said a simple religious idea as the solution, the need for the vital spiritual experience. And also, Abby gave him the practical program of action from the Oxford Group program. Now that he knows all three things, what is the problem, what is the solution, and what is the program of action? But Bill was just like all the rest of us. He had an extreme amount of difficulty with this religious idea coming out of the Oxford groups. Let's see where he was able to finally change his idea about this religious thing, Joe. He'd come to pass his experience along to me if I cared to have it. He said, I was shocked, but interested. Certainly I was interested. I had to be, for I was hopeless. See, Bill had already admitted that he was hopeless. He would already took step one, and here comes the solution. He didn't like that solution any more than most of us are not going to like it. But he began to think about it and questioning and wonder about it. On 10 and 11, Bill has already took step one. 10 and 11, he's somewhere between step one and step two, which he hasn't took yet. He said he talked for hours. Childhood memories rose before me. I could almost hear the sound of the preacher's voice I said on those still Sundays way over there on the hillside. There was that proper temper pledge I'd never signed. My grandfather's good-natured contempt of some church folk and their doings. His insistence that the spirit really had their music. But his denial of the preacher's right to tell him how he must listen. His fearlessness as he spoke of these things just before he died. These recollections well up from the past. They made me swallow hard. That wartime day in old Winchester Cathedral came back again. Bill's grandfather, Grandfather Griffin, had instilled in Bill that the preacher didn't have to, couldn't tell him how he must listen. You could listen the way you wanted to. He instilled that idea into Bill. The, the preacher always had a fight with, with Grandfather Griffin that always argued about these things, and Bill heard those arguments. He said that uh, I'd always believed in the power greater than myself. I'd often pondered these things. I was not an atheist. Few people really are. For that means blind faith in a strange proposition that the universe originated in a cipher and aimlessly rushes nowhere. 
My intellectual heroes, the chemists, the astronomers, even the evolutionists, suggested vast laws and forces at work. But despite contrary indications, I had little doubt that a mighty purpose and rhythm underlay all. How could there be so much a precise and immutable law and no intelligence? I simply had to believe in the spirit of the universe who needed neither time nor limitation, but that was as far as I'd gone. This is where I really began to identify with Bill. With ministers in the world's religion, I parted right there. When they talked of a God person to me who was love, superhuman strength, and direction, I became irritated and my mind snapped shut against such a theory. To Christ, I conceded the certainty of a great man, not too closely followed by those who claimed him, his moral teaching most excellent. For myself, I'd adopted those parts which seemed convenient and not too difficult. The rest I disregarded. Anybody in here identify with Bill Wilson? <laughs> the wars that had been fought, the burnings, the cannery, the religious dispute facilitated made me sick. I honestly doubted whether on balance the religions of mankind had done any good. Judging what I'd seen in Europe and since, the power of God in human affairs was negligible. The brotherhood of man, a grim jest. If there was a devil, he seemed the boss universal, and he certainly had me. So we can see Bill's having a hard time with this religious idea. But my friend sat before me, and he made the point-blank declaration that God had done for him what he could not do for himself. His human will had failed. Doctors had pronounced him incurable. Society was about to lock him up. Like myself, he had admitted complete defeat. Then he had, in effect, been raised from the dead, suddenly taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he had ever known. Had this power originated in him? Obviously it had not. There had been no more power in him than there was in me at that minute, and this was none at all. This is where the identification process is so important. Bill knew Abby, and he knew how Abby drank. And he knew that if Abby was staying sober, some power greater than Abby had to be working in Abby's life. Whether Bill likes it or not is beside the point. Abby is sitting there as living proof of it. That's what you and I have to offer today when we go out on a 12-step call. We're living proof that some power greater than human power is working in our lives also. Whether the newcomer likes it or not is beside the point. We are the living proof of it. Ebby was the proof of it to Bill, and he had to recognize that some power greater than Ebby had to be working in Ebby's life. Bill still doesn't like it. Let's go to page 12, first paragraph. He said, despite the living example of my friend, there remained in me the vestiges of my old prejudice. Now, old prejudice is old ideas. That's all prejudice is, is old ideas. The word God still aroused in a certain antipathy. When the thought was expressed that there might be a God personal to me, this feeling was intensified. I didn't like the idea. I could go for such conceptions that crave intelligence, universal mind, or spirit of nature. But I resisted the thought of the czar of the heavens, however loving his sway might be. I've since talked with scores of men who felt the same way. In other words, Bill's saying there's got to be a harder way to do this. <laughs> What you tell me is just too simple. Ebby <laughs> was coming out of the officer group who was speaking about the letter of the law. Oh, Bill had been instilled by his grandfather about the spirit of the law. Two different thoughts. 
I'd like to have been there that day. I'd like to have been sitting in the corner watching them. Now here's Eddie coming out of the Oxford groups, and he is on fire with this religious idea, trying to give it to Bill. Bill's sitting there about two-thirds drunk, been drunk for three weeks, and he's trying to resist everything that Eddie's telling him, and they're sitting there talking and arguing back and forth about this God thing. And Bill's saying, man, don't don't tell me about a kind and a loving God. Oh, yeah, I'll agree. There might be a great mind or a spirit of nature or something like that, but don't give me that God crap. And I guess Eddie finally got tired of it. Let's look at the next statement very carefully. And if you'll notice, it is in squiggly writing. That's italic. My friend suggested what then seemed a novel idea. He said, why don't you choose your own conception of God? And the instant he said that, his message changed from a religious message to a spiritual message. Religion says this is the way you have to believe. Spirituality says it really doesn't make any difference how you believe. The only question is, are you willing to believe? Why don't you choose your own conception of God? And surely, 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 This opened the door for Bill Wilson. This little statement has opened the door for literally millions of we alcoholics. You let us have our own conception of God, everything's okay. I think the reason it works so good for we alcoholics is we don't have any problem with our own conception of anything. (laughs) My idea has got to be good. Let us believe in God the way we want to believe in God. You bet you now then it's a different idea. Here's the effect it had on Bill. That statement hit me hard. It melted the icy intellectual mountain whose shadow I'd lived and shivered many years. I stood in the sunlight at last. It was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more is required of me to make my beginning. I saw that growth could start from that point. Upon a foundation of complete willingness, I might build what I saw in my friend. Would I have it? Of course I would, and this is where Bill took step two. No step two written in those days, but this is where Bill came to believe that a power greater than himself could restore him to sanity or help him out of this situation. And if you'll notice, he said, upon a foundation of complete willingness, I might build what I saw in my friend. Now this is Bill's first reference to a wonderfully effective spiritual structure. And he's going to start painting a picture in our mind using words. And he said the the foundation of that structure is willingness. Willingness comes from step one. When we can no longer when we, we can see that what we're doing is no longer going to work. That we're going to have to start trying to do something different. Then we become willing to change. That comes from step one. Later on, we're going to see where believing, step two, will be the cornerstone of that wonderfully effective spiritual structure. Later on in step three, he's going to refer to it as step three is the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we pass to freedom. Later on, he's going to tie that spiritual structure together through the asterisk to the appendix in the back of the book, The Vital Spiritual Experience. The beginning of the spiritual experience starts right here. We don't have to wait till we get to step 12 to get something. We start building it right here 
through willingness, step one, and then coming to believe in step two. Bill has now taken what we know today as steps one and step two. Abby immediately starts taking him to Oxford group meetings, but Bill's drunk. The allergies got him, and he can't stop. Finally, he has to go back in the town hospital for the third time on page 13. Now, let's see on page 13 if we can't see the last ten steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. We see one and two. Let's look for the last ten. He said, at the hospital, I was separated from alcohol for the last time. Treatment seemed wise, so I showed signs of delirium tremens. There I humbly offered myself to God as I then understood him to do with me as he would. I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. I admitted for the first time that of myself I was nothing. Without him, I was lost. Now, the first step in the Oxford group that they had was surrender. And Bill is making his surrender here in the town's hospital. Later on, when he wrote the 12 steps, he knew no self-respecting alcoholic is going to want to surrender to anything. So he made that surrender into our step three, where we make a decision. We will make a decision, but we certainly don't want to surrender. So we see Bill there taking what we know today as step three. He says, I ruthlessly face my sins. Their next step that they had in the Oxford group program was examine your sins. And Bill knew no self-respecting alcoholic was going to like the word sins. So he changed that to make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. We will take an inventory. There he's taking what we know today a step forward. And became willing to have my newfound friend take them away root and branch. I've not had a drink since. Newfound friend, if you'll notice, friend is capitalized. He's referring to God here. And he's really referring to what later became steps six and seven. We became willing to have God remove these defects of character, and we humbly ask him to do so. There we see what later became steps six and seven. My schoolmate visited me, and I put acquainted with my problems and deficiencies. They had a step they called confession and sharing. And no alcoholics wants to confess and share. <laughs> so he changed that to we admitted to God ourselves and another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. There he's taking what we know today as step five. We made a list of people I'd heard toward whom I felt resentment. I expressed my entire willingness to approach these individuals, admitting my wrong. Never was I to be critical of them. I was to write all such matters to the utmost of my ability. They had a step in the Oxford group program called restitution. And no alcoholic likes the word restitution. So Bill took that and made it into two steps, step eight and nine. We made the list, became willing to the list, and then we began to make the amends wherever possible. There we see eight and nine. I was test my thinking by the new God conscious within. Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. Now that's got to be step ten, where we continue to take personal inventory. I would sit quietly when in doubt, asking only for directions strength to meet my problems as he would have me. Never was I to pray for myself, except as my request bore on my usefulness to others. Then only might I expect to receive, but that would be in great measure. That's got to be step 11, where we sought through prayer and meditation, 
to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand Him, praying only for knowledge of His will and the power to carry that out. There we see step 11. My friend promised when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my Creator, that I would have the elements of a way of a living which answered all my problems. That's got to be the first part of step 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. Belief in the power of God, plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things were essential requirements. Simple, but not easy. A price had to be paid. It meant the destruction of self-centeredness. I must turn in all things to the Father of Light who presides over us all. Poor alcoholics got to give up the two most important things that we love most in this world. The first is our alcohol. The second is our self-centeredness, the things that we love so much. Simple, but not easy. Bill said these were revolutionary and drastic proposals. But the moment I fully accepted them, the effect was electric. There was a sense of victory followed by such a peace and serenity as I'd never known. There was utter confidence. I felt lifted up as though the great clean wind of a mountaintop blew through and through. God comes to most men gradually. But his impact on me was sudden and profound. For a moment I was alarmed and called my friend the doctor to ask if I were still sane. And he listened in wonder as I talked. And finally he shook his head saying, Something has happened to you. I don't understand. But you better hang on to it. Anything is better than the way you were. Now Bill always said that in the town's hospital he had a vital spiritual experience as the result of these steps during which old ideas were cast aside and replaced with a new set of ideas. Now, we were not there to see that, and we don't know for sure what happened, but we do know this was about December the 13th or 14th of 1934. We do know that Bill didn't die until January of 1971, He never found it necessary to take another drink for the rest of his life. Something profound took place in his life that day in the town's hospital as the result of these steps. This is why later on when he wrote the big book, when he wrote how it works, he was able to say, these are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. He took them in the town hospital using the Oxford Group program. Later on, he expanded them into the 12 steps. Interesting to note that he called the doctor, whom he liked. He said, I was alarmed. I called my friend the doctor, asked if I was still sane. He listened and wondered as I talked. Finally, he shook his head saying, something's happened to you I don't understand, but you better hang on to it. Anything's better than the way you were. The good doctor knows now sees many men who've had such experiences. He knows that they're real. The last conversation they heard from Dr. Silkworth, him telling his wife, we have to lock him up or get him over to the insane asylum. Billy thought he'd gone insane when he had this experience. He asked the doctor, am I still sane? He said, yeah, you are, but you better hang on to whatever it is that happened to you. It's better, it ain't better than the way you were. Something very profound happened to Bill. The, for the last two or three days, with the help of Ebby, he went over what we know today as the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. The question is always asked, well, how long do I have to stay sober to go through the 12 steps? Two or three days, be all right. 
you can always improve upon them as time goes by. But the quicker we go through them, the better off we're going to be through the first time. But something profound happened to Bill. He went into that hospital as a selfish, self-centered, egocentric maniac, alcoholic who couldn't stay sober. Something profound happened to Bill. He said, while I lay in the hospital, the thought came that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They, in turn, might work with others. He began to think immediately while he was in the town's hospital how he might help other people with the experience that he just had. Something profound happened to Bill that day. My friend, and this time it's a small F, he's referring to Abby, my friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. Particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. Faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again, and if he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed, and with us it's just like that. Bill spent the rest of his life trying to help other alcoholics, trying to help the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, trying to put this thing together so that we could have it today. And during all of that period of time, he managed to stay sober. You know, he went to see Dr. Bob, not to sober up Bob. He went to see Dr. Bob to keep Bill Wilson from drinking. And if it worked for Bill Wilson in those days and the rest of his life, then surely, surely, it will work for us today. You know, I find in my own particular life, if I don't work with other alcoholics, if I don't get a little puke on me once in a while, I tend to forget where I came from. And when I forget where I came from, I start getting lost out there. And I start thinking like I used to think before I ever got sober. And next thing you know, I can be in serious, serious trouble. But if I stay active in AA, and if I'm continually working with other alcoholics, new people, I can never forget where I came from. And as long as I don't forget where I came from, I'm going to stay sober. But let me, you know, we got good memories, we alcoholics have, but they're awful short when it comes to alcohol. And unless we're continually reminded of where we came from, then we're going to get in serious trouble. And I'm just like Bill. Working with others is absolutely imperative for me to do. The work's hard, but the pay's good. So the work's hard, but the pay's good. You get to stay sober. Okay, let's take a little short break, and then we'll jump right right on into Chapter 2. Let's take just about 10 minutes now is all. And by the way, the winning ticket for the big book and the raffle is still on the road. Okay. I can just see Bill as he, uh, as he writes the book. And as he finishes these chapters, he probably sits down and reviews it up to that point. He's probably able to say to himself now at the end of Bill's story, he can probably say, well, I was able to show them the problem in the doctor's opinion. I was able to give them an example of an alcoholic who had that problem in my story, Bill's story. And he probably says to himself, I think I've spent all the time I need to now 
in order to tell them what the problem is. And the next thing I need to tell them is what is the solution to that problem. And as we've talked before, if the problem is powerless, then obviously the answer is going to lie within power. And he sits down and he writes chapter 2, there is a solution. And in chapter 2, he's going to talk about two powers. He's going to talk first about the power of the fellowship that supports us. But he's also going to tell us that that alone is not sufficient. That we're going to have to have more than just the power of the fellowship. And in the last half of this chapter, he'll talk about the power that changes us. The vital spiritual experience, similar to what he had in the town's hospital when he recovered. So as we go through this chapter, let's be looking for the two powers, and let's see why fellowship alone is not sufficient, and why it's really necessary to have the spiritual experience in order to recover from alcoholism. Chapter 2, there is a solution to that condition he's just described through the doctor's opinion and Bill's story. Joe? And this guy that I sponsored, his name was Harold, and Thomas would have remembered Harold. Harold always kind of argued with me. He said, there's as many different solutions as there are people in AA. And I said, well, Harold, if you look at the chapter heading on page 17, they'll tell you how many solutions there are. There is a solution, only one, but two different powers. The power of the fellowship that supports us and the power of the vital spiritual experience that changes us. So we start off here and said we. There's that big word again. We of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were just as hopeless as Bill. Nearly all have recovered. They've solved the drink problem. It says we're average Americans. Today I say we're average citizens of the world. I learned in Toronto there's 180 nations around the world that has Alcoholics Anonymous in it. So we're average citizens of the world today. All sections of this country and men's occupations are represented, as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. We are people who normally would not mix. But there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness, and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. The fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. You heard it before the, we started the study. The laughing, the t- joking, the rubbing up against, the hugging, the talking loud, that's the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got sober on the fellowship. I felt good when I was at the fellowship. You know, the fellowship is very, very important. He said, we're people who normally would not mix. As I look around the rooms here today, we're people who normally would not mix. We're probably the most mixed up group of people in Washington, D.C. here this morning. But there exists among us a fellowship and a friendliness which is indescribably wonderful. You see, the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, extremely important. Now, Bill begins here to do one of his favorite things. He's going to talk to us about something we already know about, he assumes, and then he uses that to teach us something new. All great writers do that. And he's already said we're people who normally would not mix, but there exists among us a fellowship or friendliness and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. We are like the passengers of a great liner. 
the moment after rescue from shipwreck. And camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. Now remember, this was written in 1937, 38, and 39. And back in those days, nearly all the travel from one continent to another was done on the great ocean liners. And on the great ocean liners, you had a distinct class system. The immigrants, the poor people coming from Europe to the United States, they normally rode in what they called the steerage section, way down in the bowels of the ship, very little fresh air, dormitory-style living, and I call it the cheese sandwich section. The food wasn't too good. Now, if you had a little more money, though, and you wanted better accommodations, you could buy a third-class ticket, and you could come up a deck or two, and the accommodations were better, the food was better, and you got a little fresh air once in a while. If you wanted something better yet, you could buy a second-class ticket. You come up another deck or two, and now you're beginning to get into some small staterooms, a little better food, more fresh air. If you wanted the best accommodations, you bought a first-class ticket, way up in the top of the ship, nice staterooms, nice food, nice dining rooms, nice everything. But still, that wasn't the best place to be on the ship. If you had the right kind of money. Old, old money. Old money. No new money. If you had the right religion. If you had the right ethnic background. If you had the right everything that was required, you might be asked to dine at the captain's table. Now, the captain's table was the finest place on the ship. The best waiters, the best food, the best everything. Only the more elite members of society got to dine at the captain's table. Normally, the person from the steerage section would never meet the person who dines at the captain's table. In fact, they even had separate stairwells, so they could not run into each other accidentally. Now, in 1937, 38, and 39, the Titanic is still fresh on everybody's mind. And the night that the Titanic hit the iceberg and the ship began to sink, somehow, someway, the guy from the steerage section made his way up to the upper decks and he's standing there at the rail. Next to him is a guy that has just come from the captain's table. Now, the man from the steerage section's got on his old work overalls, his old work shirt, and his old brogan shoes. Standing next to him now is the guy from the captain's table. And he's got on his tuxedo. He's got on his little tie that goes with it. He's got on his jewelry and everything. And these guys had nothing in common with each other, period. Standing there next to the ship rail. And they had nothing in common until they both jumped overboard. And when their butts hit that cold water, they had something in common. How do we save ourselves? And they grabbed on to whatever they could grab on to. 
a lifeboat, a, a piece of planking, or whatever they could grab onto. And when they were both rescued, and they got back on another ship or back on land, there was a feeling amongst those two people which was indescribably wonderful. One of the greatest feelings a human being can experience is being together with a group of people who have escaped from the common peril. And that's one of the things that bind you and I together, is this great feeling that we have for each other, having escaped from the common peril. Bill used the sinking of the Titanic as that illustration. We are like the passions of a great liner the moment after rescue from shipwreck. When camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table, and God, you hear it in AA meetings everywhere you go. I've been listening to it here all weekend when we have the, the camaraderie and the joyousness and the democracy pervading us one from one to the other, period. But now he warns us. Unlike the feeling of the ship's passengers, however, our joy in escape from disaster does not subside as we go our individual ways. When they got back on land, and they probably looked at each other and they said, well, you know, we really don't belong together. And the guy from the steerage section, he went his way. And the guy from the captain's table went his way. And that great feeling they had for each other was lost, never to see each other again. But our escape from disaster does not subside because alcohol is right outside the door waiting on us all the time. And this feeling we have for each other is the same, believe me, the same anywhere in the world. We've been fortunate enough to go to many, many meetings in many, many different countries, and we get the same feelings there that we have here this weekend. So our escape from disaster does not subside as we go our individual ways because we can pick it up again at any time going to another AA meeting. An AA meeting. But listen to him. The feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which binds us. But that in itself would never have held us together as we are now joined. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism, not the news of the fellowship, but the news of the common solution. And later on we're going to see where the common solution is the vital spiritual experience which comes about through the working and living of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think one of the greatest tragedies I see in the world today, and God knows we got lots of tragedies going on all over the world, but I think one of the greatest tragedies that I can see today is that we people who are members of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous we are spending literally hundreds and thousands of dollars. We are spending hundreds and thousands of men and women work hours trying to attract other alcoholics to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
when we've got thousands and thousands and thousands of alcoholics who are in AA that are in the fellowship only and they're doing nothing about the common solution. And they're sitting around with untreated alcoholism and they usually go back to drinking and end up dying from alcoholism. You know, I think one of the things it's our responsibility as older members to do is to say to the newcomer, you bet you there's a lot of power in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. You bet you that power will keep you sober for a period of time. But if you don't do more than just come to the fellowship, sooner or later you're going to end up going back to drinking and you're going to die from untreated alcoholism. The real solution of alcoholism lies within the vital spiritual experience through the working of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. He gives us two powers here. The power of the fellowship that's going to support us, but the power of the common solution which is going to change us. Now, he's going to spend the first half of this chapter explaining to you and I why fellowship alone is not sufficient. And then he's going to spend the last half of this chapter explaining what the common solution really is. So let's look and see if we can't see why fellowship alone is not sufficient. Let's go to page 20. He said, you may already ask yourselves why it is that all of us became so very ill from drinking. Doubtless you are curious to discover how and why in the face of excellent opinion to the contrary, we have recovered from a hopeless condition of mind and body. Now, if you're an alcoholic who wants to get over it, you may already be asking, well, what do I have to do? Well, it's the purpose of this book to answer such questions specifically. We'll tell you what we've done. Before going into detailed discussion, it may well to be summarized some points as we see them. Remember, last night we talked about precisely, specifically, with clear-cut directions. Well, here's some of those specific things. How many times people said to us, I can take it or leave it alone, why can't he? Why don't you drink like a gentleman or quit? That fellow can't handle his liquor. Why don't you try a beer and wine and lay off the hard stuff? His willpower must be weak. He could stop if he wanted to. She's such a sweet girl. I should think he'd stop for her sake. The doctor told him that if he ever drank again, it would kill him. But there he is, all it up again. Now, these are commonplace observations on drinkers which we hear all the time. Back of them is a world of ignorance and misunderstanding. We see these expressions refer to people whose reactions are very different from ours. You see, I, a lot of people have us to believe today that we're in a, into denial. I've never been in denial about anything. But I've been into ignorance most of my life. <laughs> we have an ignorance problem. We don't have a denial problem. Back of them is a world of ignorance and misunderstanding. Now, those expressions that Joe just read is going to refer to two different kinds of drinkers. Let's look at the drinkers that they would refer to. First one is the moderate drinkers. drinkers. Moderate drinkers have little trouble giving up liquor entirely if they have a good reason for it. They can take it or leave it alone. We talked about them last night. They're the ones that get a slightly tipsy, out of control, beginnings of a nauseous feeling. Alcohol is no big deal for them. If they have any problems with it, period, they'll just quit drinking, period. They don't have any trouble with it. Those expressions that Joe dread up here would refer to the moderate drinker. 
Now let's look at a second one. Then we have a certain type of hard drinker. He may have the habit bad enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. It may even cause him to die a few years before his time. If a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warnings of a doctor becomes operative, this man can stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult and troublesome, and he may even need a little medical attention. We call this guy the heavy or the hard drinker. They drink similar to we alcoholics drink, but they're not alcoholic. If a good enough reason presents itself, they'll do one of two things. They may learn to moderate their drinking. They do not have the physical allergy. They may quit drinking entirely. They do not have the obsession of the mind. They drink like we alcoholics drink, but they're not alcoholic. And you see them all the time. They're the ones that say, when I was in the service, I was an alcoholic also. And I got out of the service, and I got married and went to church and quit drinking, and I don't see why you can't quit drinking. Those expressions that Joe read back here a while ago would refer to the heavy or the hard drinker, too. But what about the real alcoholic? Now, he may start off as a moderate drinker, which many of us did. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. Many of us stayed periodic. But at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. Now we're going to describe the real alcoholic. Here's a fellow who's been puzzling you, especially in his lack of control. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. He's a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Anybody, Anybody in here like that? that in here? Yeah. Huh? Okay. Charlie said last night that I drank moderately for a long period of time, then I crossed over that line into alcoholism. I don't know what line he was talking about, but I was drunk when I went over it. I know that. <laughs> He's, he is seldom mildly intoxicated. He's always more or less insanely drunk. Anybody like that in here? Okay. His disposition while drinking resembles his normal nature, but little. I always get good looking and out of debt, just like that, <laughs> when I drink. I, I end up, when I have four or five drinks, I look like Lee. Yeah, yeah, every time. <laughs> every time. He may be one of the finest fellows in the world. You let him drink for a day, and he frequently becomes disgustingly and even dangerously antisocial. Anybody like that in here? Wants to fight all time. He has a positive genius for getting tied at exactly the wrong moment, particularly when some important decision must be made or engagement kept. He is often perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything except liquor. But in that respect, he is incredibly dishonest and selfish. He often possesses special abilities, skills, and aptitudes. Has a promising career ahead of him. He uses gifts to build up a bright outlook for his family and himself and then pulls the structure down onto the head by a sensitive series of sprees. Anybody like that in here? Mm-hmm. You betcha. He's the fellow who goes to bed so intoxicated he ought to sleep the clock around. Yet early the next morning he searches madly for the bottle he misplaced the night before. If he can afford it, he may have liquor concealed all over his house to be certain no one gets his entire supply away from him to throw down his wa- the waste pipe. Pills and I on Friday used to buy a lug of whiskey. That's three. Three fifths or three quarts, three gallons, whatever. But three. One to share, 
and wanted to hide from each other. <laughs> she drank my whiskey if she found it. As matters grow worse, he begins to use a combination of high-powered sedative and liquor to quiet his nerves so he can go to work. Then comes a day when he simply cannot make it and gets drunk all over again. Perhaps he goes to a doctor which gives him morphine or some sedative to which to taper off. Then he begins to appear at hospitals and treatment centers. Excuse me, sanitariums. <laughs> Same thing, we just got a different word for them. <laughs> this is by no means a comprehensive picture of the true alcoholic, as our behavior patterns vary. But this description should identify him roughly. You know, thank God today, if our government has ever spent anything right in the field of alcoholism, it's been an education of the public as to what alcoholism is and what it isn't. A lot of the stigma has been removed from alcoholism because of that. And many, many people are getting here today before they have to do all these things that describe the real alcoholic. But I'll guarantee you, if you're a real alcoholic, you found yourself in there somewhere. At least one of those are going to match you. In my case, practically every one. One in particular. If he can afford it, he may have liquor concealed all over his house to be certain no one gets his entire supply away from him. Seven years after I got sober, I sold a 45,000, 40-acre broiler chicken operation. And for years after that, sometimes I would meet the guy that bought it, and he would wave and grin, and he'd say, Hey, Charlie, we have found another one. (laughs) Referring to partially empty vodka bottles. Under rocks and hollow trees, behind corner posts, coming out of feed bins. He found them for years. I certainly found myself. Now here's the question. Why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown him at one rate means another debacle with all its attendant suffering and humiliation, why is it that he takes that one drink? Why can't he stay on the water wagon? The moderate drinker can, the heavy drinker can. Why can't the alcoholic? What has become of the common sense and willpower that he still sometimes displays with respect to other matters? Perhaps there never will be a a full answer to these questions. Opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic reacts differently from normal people. We're not sure why. Once a certain point is reached, little can be done for him. We cannot answer the riddle. We know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink, as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. We're equally positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever into his system, something happens, both in the bodily and mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. The experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. Now these observations, the ones I just read, regarding this real alcoholic. These observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem the alcoholic centered in his mind rather than in his body. Would you read that again, please? Therefore, the main problem the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. 
You know, I can't get drunk if I don't take a drink. And I can't take a drink unless my mind tells me it's okay to do so. And always, just before I take a drink, I'm stone cold sober. No alcohol in my system at all. So my real problem centers in my mind telling me I can drink rather than my body that ensures that I can't. If you ask him why he started on that last bender, the chances are he'll offer you any one of a hundred alibis. Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really makes light in the havoc I think alcoholics drinking about creates. They sound like the philosophy of the man who having a headache beats himself on the head with a hammer so that he can't feel the ache. If you draw this fallacious reasoning to the attention of an alcoholic, he will laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. Once in a while, he may tell the truth. You know, strange as it may seem, there are times when we alcoholics tell the truth, not too often, but once in a great while. And I had a lady in al her husband was still drinking, and she come to me one day and she said, Charlie, all he does is lie, lie, lie. She said, how can you tell when one of you guys are lying? I said, lady, watch him closely. And if you see his lips moving, he's probably lying to you, all right. And then I said, you want me to tell you how to keep him from lying? And she said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, don't ask him those stupid questions. I said, said, he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. Some drinkers have excuses with which they are satisfied part of the time. But in their hearts, they really do not know why they do it. Once this malady has a real hold, they are a baffled lot. There is the obsession that someday, somehow, they will beat the game, but they often suspect they are down for the count. Now, there's the word obsession. And remember, an obsession of the mind is an idea that overcomes all ideas to the contrary. An obsession of the mind is an idea that is so strong it can make you believe a lie. And the great obsession of every alcoholic is someday, somehow, we're going to beat the game. Somehow, some someday, somehow, we're going to find some kind of liquor we can drink without getting drunk. Someday, somehow, we're going to find a place we can drink. Someday, somehow, we'll find a group of people. And that obsession is so strong that it makes us believe that it's okay to drink. And we take a drink, and that triggers the allergy, and then we get drunk. So the real problem centers in the mind telling us we can drink rather than the body that ensures we can't drink. Page 24, first paragraph, all squiggly writing. (laughs) The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into consciousness sufficient force to memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago without defense against the first drink. See, alcohol can't do anything to us unless it does something for us. And see, I have a wonderful memory. It's just short when it comes to drinking. I can't remember the divorce court. I can't remember the car wreck. I can't remember the fights. Only thing I can remember when I get ready to drink again is the sense and ease of comfort 
which might come at once by taking a few good drinks. Drinking always changed the way that I thought and the way that I felt. If taking a drink for a guy like me would make me look like my friend Lee over here, wouldn't you want a drink? (laughs) It did always did that for me. See, it can't do anything to me unless it does something for me. You see, and we've already learned our willpower is practically non-existent. Because when there's a battle going on between the willpower and the obsession of the mind, the obsession of the mind will win out every time because it's stronger than my will. We're without defense against that first drink. The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they are hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There is a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. You know, if you if you burned your hand on a hot stove, chances are you'll always remember that. Chances are you'll never go back and put your hand on a hot stove again because you remember the pain and the suffering. You know, I remember back during the Depression years, back in the 1930s, there's a few of you in here old enough to remember those days too. And we didn't have very much in those days. We, we, we were so poor, as Joe says, that we, we spelled poor with three O's in it. We were poor. And you didn't have hot and cold running water. You didn't have forced air heat. You didn't have all these things we got today. In the winter time, if we, we burned whatever we could to stay warm. We burn wood, we burn coal, we burn walnuts, we burn whatever we could get our hands on. Other people's houses, it didn't matter. Other people's houses. But it didn't make any difference how poor you are. Cleanliness was still next to godliness. And everybody in the family had to take a bath on Saturday night. Whether you needed a bath or not is beside the point. Everybody Mm -hmm. takes a bath on Saturday night. One time in the middle of the winter... Mother had heated the bath water on the old heating stove sitting in our living room, put that water in a number three zinc wash tub sitting behind that old heating stove. Everybody in the family takes a bath in the same water. Now, I'm the baby of the family. Time it got to me, the crud would be about that thick on it. Mother said, get in there and get yourself clean. And I thought to myself, how in the hell do I get clean in there? But I didn't say that to mother. You didn't talk to your mother that way in those days. And I scraped that crud back, and I got in an old tub full of water, standing there washing and soaping myself up, old heating stove right here next to me, red hot. And somehow I managed to bend over and stick my rear against that hot stove. Burned a blister on my rear end about as big as my hand. Hurt me worse than anything had ever hurt me up until that time. And do you know, I've never had an obsession of the mind to stick my ass on a hot stove since then. I can still feel it today. I know exactly how that felt. Now, alcohol has burned me. Over and over and over and over and over, just as bad as that hot stove ever burned me, but left on my own resources, I cannot remember what alcohol does to me. Because I get to thinking about what it's going to do for me. 
And the idea of what it's going to do for me pushes out what it does to me, and I think it's okay to drink. And I end up drunk all over again. Complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. Page 24, last paragraph. When this sort of thinking is fully established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, he has probably placed himself beyond human aid and unless locked up may die or go permanently insane. Now, if we've placed ourselves beyond human aid, then the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous will not bring about recovery. Because the fellowship is made up of a bunch of human beings who are just as powerless over alcohol as I am. So if I'm going to recover, I've got to have more than just the fellowship. Page 25. There is a solution to this deal that's just been described in the first half of this chapter. Even though we've placed ourselves beyond human aid, there is still a solution to the problem. He said, almost none of us like the self-searching, the levering of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, which the process requires for successful consummation. I come into AA and I saw the steps on the wall talk about taking an inventory. I didn't want to do that. But I saw that really worked in others. I saw that people around the meetings that I was going to said that they had worked those steps. They had changed and they didn't want to, didn't want to drink anymore. And I wanted to be like them. But we come to believe in the hopeless and futility life that we've been living in. When therefore we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. We have found much of heaven, have been rocketed, I like that idea, into a fourth dimension of existence of which we had not even dreamed. The great fact of just this and nothing less, that we've had deep and effective spiritual experiences. You notice that little asterisk right there? That wasn't in the first printing of the big book about cause anonymous. People began to write into that little office and ask Bill what he meant by spiritual experience and spiritual awakenings and those things. They said, we're doing the same thing that you do it, did, but we're not having those experiences. Are we doing something wrong? Well, Bill saw the, a little blank spot here. So in the next printing of the book, he put that asterisk right there. And bottom of the page, he said, fully explained on Appendix 2. He wanted us to know, make, make sure that we understand what he meant by those terms, spiritual experience and spiritual awakenings. Later on, on page 27, referring to the asterisk again, he said, for further application, see Appendix 2. Again, making sure that we understand what he meant by those terms. Page 47, it says, please see Appendix 2. We want to make real sure that we understand what he meant by those terms, the spiritual experience. And I had a misunderstanding about those terms of spiritual experience and spiritual awakenings. See, when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had the spiritual knowledge of a seven-year-old boy. And way back when I was seven years old, I told myself, if I ever get big enough they can't catch me, I'm not going to those churches no more. And I got big enough they couldn't catch me. And when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had the spiritual knowledge of a seven-year-old boy. And you can imagine what it was. We used to have those revivals down there in the south, a lot. My mother always went and tried to drag us kids there. They, they preached all day, and they had dinner on the ground. They sang all night, just boring, 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 you know. Well, one night my Aunt Mutch, and she, that's the reason we call her Aunt Mutch, because she's much of a woman. 
Aunt Mutch got into the spirit of that one night. And the next thing I know, she was jumping over those pews. And then she was rolling around in the sawdust. She began to talk in strange language that I never heard of before. And she was having a spiritual experience. And when they talked of a spiritual experience in this book, I thought that's what I was going to have to have. Now, I don't know about you, but I was dreading that. I didn't think I could do that. But for people like me, I told you, did I tell you I've been in ignorance all my life? Okay. For people like me, they put this in the back of the book to make sure that I understood what they meant by those terms. If I'm going to have to have a spiritual experience, it'd be a good idea if I understood what one of them was. Don't you think? So let's go back to page 569 and let's read about the spiritual experience. He said the term spiritual experience and spiritual awakenings are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading, and we know that alcoholics don't do careful reading, shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. I've already learned from that first paragraph something new. I've learned that it might be a spiritual experience or it might be a spiritual awakening. And in either case, it's going to be a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. Our personality is made up by the way we think, by the way we feel, our ideas and attitudes toward life in general. So this spiritual experience or spiritual awakening will be a change in our personality, changing to something different than what we were when we first came here. Dr. Silkworth called it a psychic change. Bill said a spiritual experience is a sudden type, happens right now like his was. Spiritual awakening develops slowly over a period of a long time. We do better as we know better. But in any case, it's a change in our personality. It is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. That's what my aunt much had. Spectacular upheaval. <laughs> I'm glad, I'm happily for everyone, this conclusion was erroneous. I'm glad to hear that. Now, the first few chapters of a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God-consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves, an inner resource. Remember that. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of, is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. 
Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can be recovered, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt, prior to investigation. See, I knew so many things that were not true when I arrived here. It was almost impossible to learn anything that was, was true, because my mind is snapshot against so many things. I already knew it all, I thought. Didn't know nothing, but I didn't know that. I was unaware. There seems to be one key word or one key idea running through this whole thing on spiritual experience, and that's the word change. Now, Bill Wilson repeats himself quite often in the big book, but when he does, he usually finds a different word, which means the same thing. Let's see how many times he said change on page 569 and how many ways he had of saying it. In the first paragraph, he called it a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. In the second paragraph, he again said personality changes. But then he said in the nature of a sudden and spectacular upheaval. An upheaval is to change something entirely. In the third paragraph, the first sentence, he said, sudden revolutionary changes. To revolutionize something is to change it entirely. Third paragraph, last sentence, he called it immediate and overwhelming God consciousness. To overwhelm something is to change it entirely. Third paragraph, last sentence, he called it a vast change in feeling and outlook. Fourth paragraph, first sentence, he said such transformations. To transform is to change. About the middle of the fourth paragraph, he called it a profound alteration. To alter is to change. So the key thing in this whole thing is to change from what we were when we came here to something entirely different. We come here restless, irritable, and discontented. We come here filled with shame, fear, guilt, and remorse. We come here very selfish, self-centered, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate human beings. And because of those conditions, that always led us back to drinking. Now, if we can change from that to something entirely different, we will have changed our personality sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. And that's all this spiritual experience is. has nothing to do with religion. I'm exactly like Joe. You know, I thought it was some great religious thing that you had to have. has nothing to do with religion. A change in personality sufficient to recover from alcoholism. I told you when I first got here, I stood in the back of the rooms, and I looked down at my feet, and I was ashamed. I'd become everything I detested in a human being, and I didn't like me at all. And I knew if you knew me, you wouldn't like me either. So when they began to talk about change, I became interested in that. I wanted to change. So what I did, I looked around the halls of, of Alcoholics Anonymous, 
and I found me some heroes. I think we all do that, and I think it's necessary for a while. Charlie was one of my heroes. So I did everything I could do to be like Charlie. I almost made it. <laughs> Good thing I didn't. But I try, I emulate other people trying to change and be like that. I didn't want to be like me. I want to be like you. See? And I tried to change. But I think the type of change that you're really talking about today is to change from what I had become to that which God intends for me to be. That's a marvelous experience in Alcoholics Anonymous that we must not miss. To be that which God intends for us to be. And he didn't make no junk, you see. Let's go back to page 25. That second paragraph. The great fact is just this and nothing less. That we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences. Now what did they do? Which have revolutionized or changed our whole attitude toward life toward our fellows and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we can never do by ourselves. If you are seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle-of-the-road solution. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible. And if we'd passed into the region from which there's no return through human aid, we had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could. Which is step one. And the other to accept spiritual help. Which is step two. This we did because we honestly wanted to, and we were willing to make the effort. You know, a lot of people in AA today say you better not talk too much about God or you'll run the newcomer off. And you notice the big book doesn't mind talking about God at all. The big book finally gets around to telling us, we just got two, one of two alternatives. We can continue to drink until we die from alcoholism, step one. Or we can accept spiritual help, step two. And it seems as though there's no other decisions for us to make except between those two. My old sponsor helped me out in this area. He said, Charlie, you don't need to run to worry about running a newcomer off talking about God. He said, if you do, whiskey will put him right back in here. <laughs> and said, when he comes back, he'll probably be willing to talk about God. He no, was exactly right. I, there's no door three. It's at one or two. Everybody has to make that decision. I can't make it for him. And the question is, if they run them off, where are they going to go? Where are you going to go? If you don't, if this don't work, where are you going to go? There's no place else. This is it. This is the last house on the block. This better work or we're all doomed. Thank God it does work. Now you would think, and I thought for a long time, that this idea of the great spiritual experience would have come from somebody in religion. And I'm always amazed when I look at this example on page 26 to see where this really came from. A certain American businessman had ability, good sense, and high character. Now, this is the guy named Roland Hazard. For years, he had floundered from one treatment center to another. He had consulted the best-known American psychiatrist. Then he had gone to Europe, placing himself in the care of a celebrated physician, the psychiatrist Dr. Young, who prescribed for him. 
Now, he didn't go to Dr. Jung for a 28-day treatment program. He was there for a full year with Dr. Jung. They had a session every week. Though experience had made him skeptical, he finished his treatment with unusual confidence. His physical and mental condition were unusually good. Above all, he believed he had acquired such a profound knowledge of the inner workings of his mind and its hidden springs that relapse was unthinkable. Nevertheless, he was drunk in a short time. More baffling still, he could give himself no satisfactory explanation for his fall. So he returned to this doctor whom he admired and asked him point blank why he could not recover. He wished above all things to regain self-control. He seemed quite rational and well-balanced with respect to other problems, yet he had no control whatever over alcohol. Why was this? He begged the doctor to tell him the whole truth, and he got it. In the doctor's judgment, he was utterly hopeless. He could never regain his position in society and would have to place himself under lock and key or hire a bodyguard if he expected to live long. That was a great physician's opinion. But this man still lives and is a free man. He does not need a bodyguard, nor is he confined. He can go anywhere on this earth where the other free man may go without disaster, provided he remains willing to maintain a certain simple attitude. Now, some of our alcoholic readers may think they can do without spiritual help. Let us tell you the rest of the conversation our friend had with his doctor. The doctor said, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I've never seen one single case recover where that state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you. Our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed on him with a clang. He said to the doctor, is there no exception? Yes, replied the doctor, there is. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. To me, these occurrences are phenomenal. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Change. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes that were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side. Change. And a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. Change. In fact, I've been trying to produce some such emotional rearrangement within you. Change. <coughs> With many individuals, the methods which are employed are successful, but I've never been successful with an alcoholic of your description. Asterisk, bottom of the page, for amplification, see Appendix 2. Can you just imagine the humility of this doctor? In those times we're referring to, there was three leading psychiatrists in the world. Dr. Freud, Dr. Adler, and Dr. Jung. Adler and Jung were both students of Freud. Jung had fallen out with Dr. Freud and Dr. Adler on one thing and one thing only. Freud and Adler believed that all answers would lie within the mind. Dr. Jung believed that some answers might come through spirituality. You know, thank God Roland didn't get to Freud or Adler. 
we'd still be sitting around psychoanalyzing ourselves, which unfortunately some AA meetings are doing that. Thank God they got to Dr. Yu. You know, he could have said, Roland, I believe you're suffering from a Valium deficiency. Let me write you a prescription. And you keep coming back, and we'll treat you for another year. Roland had plenty of money. But this little doctor was great enough to say, Roland, I've done all I can do for you. I can't help you anymore. With all my knowledge of the mind, I've done all I can do for you, and you are probably going to die from alcoholism. And Roland said, are there no exceptions to that? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Once in a great while. Alcoholics of your description have had vital spiritual experiences. He said, they're phenomena to me. I don't understand them. But they appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes. For once the guiding forces of the lives of these men are cast to one side and replaced with a new set of ideas, emotions, and attitudes... And Roland said, oh, great, I'm a church man. And you said, no, that's not going to work for you. You're going to have to do something different. Now, we don't know whether he told him to go to the Oxford groups or not. But we know that Roland got in the Oxford groups, used their program of action, had a vital spiritual experience, took that to Abby Thatcher. Abby Thatcher took that to Bill Wilson. And this whole thing started from this little guy back here. When I, when I look at these 12 steps, and I really think about where they came from, it just absolutely blows my mind. Now, step one came to us from a non-alcoholic doctor in New York City called Dr. Selfworth. Step two came to us from a non-alcoholic psychiatrist on the other side of the world over there in Switzerland. The last ten steps to, came to us from a group of non-alcoholic people who were practicing first century Christianity to the best of their ability. You know, Bill always said, when he wrote the twelve steps, he said, I knew none of these things. And he said, all these ideas from these diverse places entered into my mind. And from there, I was able to write the twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and they all came from non-alcoholic people. You know, we're proud of our 12 steps, and we ought to be. But we need to remember where they came from. And they really came to us from non-alcoholics. None of them came to us from alcoholics. Blows my mind every time I think about that. I think about the slender threads of AA. Roland came home and ultimately stayed sober about three months. His family was so happy that he was staying sober that they gave him a little vacation up in Manford, Ohio, I mean, Manford, uh, Vermont. Vermont, sorry. And they said, go up there and spend some time and enjoy yourself. Take a couple of friends and have a good time. The two friends that he took were Zebra Graves and another guy named Shep, who were all the members of the Oxford group. The slender thread was that the little friend that he took with him, his father happened to be the judge who had uh, Abby Thatcher in jail, who was getting ready to commit him to 
hospital for alcoholic insanity. It had that guy not stayed sober for three months. Had that family not gave him a little vacation. Had he not picked two friends to go with him. One of them's judge, dad was the judge. We may not be here. Slender threads, little things is happening. We see the hand of God all through this book. You see, I believe that Alcoholics Anonymous started right over there when Roland was told by Dr. Jung that here and there, just once in a while, alcoholics have what we call a vital spiritual experience. To me, these are a phenomena. I don't understand it, but I know they exist. Today, as we sit around these rooms today, we can look at each other and say with assurance that here and now, every time an alcoholic will apply these things to their life, they too can, can recover. I see the hand of Alcoholics Anonymous all through this book, don't you? See? And it started way back over there. Silkworth knew what the problem was, but he didn't have a solution for him other than just don't drink. Dr. Jung had the solution, but he didn't know what the problem was. The Oxford group had a planned program of action. They weren't interested in the solution at all. You see, all this information gelled in the mind of one person, Bill Wilson, and he put it down on this book so that we too could learn what he learned. Is that odd or is that God? Is that right? (laughs) All right, Bill finishes up now chapter 2. You want to do this? And Yeah, we're going to look at a little picture here now for just a moment to kind of illustrate what we've been talking about in chapter 2. We talked about the two powers necessary for our recovery. On the left-hand side of that sheet, you see the power of the fellowship that supports us where the older members through the sharing of their experience, strength and hope with the newcomer they provide enough support for the newcomer to be able to stay sober for a period of time and by the way it's a two way street as the older members support the newer members, the older members draw strength from that too great amount of power in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. It will be almost impossible today to be a member of AA and not begin to believe there must be some power greater than human power working within and throughout this fellowship. When you hear countless hundreds of people saying it's only by the grace of God or because of a power greater than I am, For because of God as I understand Him, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink for X number of days, weeks, months, years, or whatever. It's almost impossible to hear that over and over and over and over and not begin to believe there must be some kind of power greater than human power working in this this thing. The instant the newcomer begins to believe that, that opens the mind. And upon an open mind, they begin to investigate. And upon investigation, they find that simple kit of spiritual tools laid at her feet, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Then they in turn begin to apply those 12 steps, hopefully with the help of a good sponsor. And as they progress through the 12 steps, they have a personality change sufficient to recover from alcoholism. Old ideas, old attitudes... Old emotions are cast to one side, replaced with a new set of ideas, a new set of attitudes, a new set of emotions, and they have undergone a spiritual experience or a spiritual awakening.
Now, when that happens to the newcomer, then the newcomer now becomes an older member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they can go back to the left-hand side of the sheet. And they can support the next newcomer that comes in. And when that newcomer begins to believe, then they can take them by the hand and help them work their way through the steps. And they'll have a spiritual awakening and they become an older member. And they can go back and help the next newcomer that comes in. Now, if you'll notice, we're basing older memberships not on how long you've been sober, but it's on the quality of that sobriety. The book makes it clear that you can't give away something you haven't got. And you can't help another person have a spiritual awakening unless you had one yourself. And somewhere down the line, AA got away from this book. It got away from this life-changing program. And they quit working the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they began to stay sober on fellowship only. And when that happened to them, then in self-defense, they had to start measuring success by how long have you been sober rather than by the quality of that sobriety. And you see all kind of people in AA today. Once in a while you see a newcomer who got a good sponsor and they got right in these steps and they have undergone a personality change. And you just love to be around them. They're always laughing and cutting up and having fun and doing everything they can for AA and trying to help other alcoholics and they've only been sober a few months. Then you see some others that have been in here 8, 10, 12, 14 years, treated it like a cafeteria, took some and left some. They're better off than they used to be, but you never know what kind of shape they're going to be the next time you run into them. One day they're up and the next day they're down, and they're kind of like a yo-yo going back and forth. Then you see some people that have been in here 20, 25, 30 years, Never worked a step. Damn proud of it. <laughs> and they're the one that say, by God, if you want what we've got and you're willing to go to any damn... Some of those guys, you'd like to buy them a drink. You know, damn good and well, they would feel better. So. so we're not talking about how long we've been sober. We're talking about the quality of that sobriety. And only those that have had the spiritual awakening or spiritual experience can help another have the spiritual awakening and the spiritual experience. And I think Bill makes that quite clear in this in this chapter too. And as he finishes up that chapter, he, again he probably sits down and reviews what he's done up to this point. He's probably able to say to himself, I could show them the problem in the doctor." opinion and my story, Bill's story, I was able to show them now the solution to that problem in chapter 2. But he said, they're not going to like that solution any more than I did. And remember how Bill rebelled against these ideas that Ebby was bringing to him. And he said, I think I better show them just exactly what's going to happen to them if they don't find that solution. And he sits down, he writes chapter 3, more about alcoholism. And in chapter 3, he talks about one thing and one thing only. Step 2 says, We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. 
Well, if we've got to be restored to sanity, then that indicates we must be insane. And many alcoholics are highly offended when you bring that up. They say, oh, no, 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 I'm not insane. Yeah, I do some crazy, stupid things when I'm drunk. But when I'm sober, I'm much like normal people. Many other alcoholics say, well, we don't have any problem with that insanity because we remember the crazy, stupid things we did while drunk. In both cases, they're referring to the crazy, stupid things we did while drunk as insanity. No, that's not insanity. The crazy, stupid things we did while drunk is caused by a mind filled with alcohol, and alcohol lowers the inhibitions. And if your mind is filled with something that lowers the inhibitions, look out. You're going to do some pretty crazy, stupid things all right. But that's not insanity. That's caused by alcohol itself. And it bugged us, and it bugged us, and it bugged us. Until finally we went back to the dictionary. We looked up the words sanity, sane, and etc. The big book, or the, the, the dictionary defines sanity or sane as wholeness of mind or completeness of mind. If your mind is whole, if your mind is complete, then you can see the truth about everything around you. You make decisions based on truth, and life turns out to be pretty good. An insane mind is one that is less than whole, that cannot always see the truth about everything, makes decisions based upon a lie, and then life can become an absolute living hell. To be insane does not mean you're crazy. You know, if you're crazy, that means you've lost more than half your marbles. And you've got to be locked up somewhere to protect you and society from you. To be insane doesn't mean you're crazy. It just means you can't always see the truth. My friend Joe from Little Rock, he used an example which I think is the best I ever heard. He said, let's take a pie and set it here in front of us. And let's cut that pie in ten pieces. And you come along and I give you a piece of pie. He said, my pie is now less than whole, but I've still got 90% of it. Somebody else comes along, we give them a piece of pie, and our pie is now more or less than whole, but we've still got 80% of it. He said, insanity doesn't mean that you're all gone. It just means that you're not quite all here. (laughs) And when he said it comes to alcohol, it seems as though we're not quite all here because we can't always see the truth about alcohol and we make a decision based upon a lie and then we run into the truth and the truth cuts our head off for us so all through this chapter and he's going to do it in the best way in the world to teach he's going to use examples of the insane state of the mind just before we take the first drink can we or can we not see the truth? He's going to use the man of 30. He's going to use a fellow named Jim. He's going to use the jaywalker. And he's going to use a fellow named Fred. And each time we're going to look in the mind just before we take that first drink. 
Can we see the truth or can we not? If we can, we're sane. If we can't, we're insane. Try to say this whole chapter is about insanity. When you start reading this chapter, you're going to see a lot of words that uh, if you're not careful, you're going to think he's talking about different things, but he's only talking about one thing. Because you know he doesn't like to use the same words over and over and over again describe the same thing. He likes to change those around. For instance, we'll see words like obsession, illusions, delusions, insanity, all that. But he's talking about the same thing. I looked those up here a while back. Obsession means a disturbing preoccupation with an idea or feeling. Uh, illusion is a mistaken idea. A delusion is persistent belief in something false, typical of some mental disorders. Insanity, foolish, not mentally sound. They all, don't all those four words sound like the same thing? Insanity. More about alcoholism. This could say more truth about alcoholism. See, I've heard all my life, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. If you're not free, because you don't know the truth. This is an attempt to know the truth. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow someday we'll control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursued into the gates of insanity or death. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost self that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or present it may be has to be smashed. Now, like Joe said, he uses four different terms here. And if you aren't careful, you'll think he's talking about something different. But they all mean the same thing. Obsession. An idea that overcomes all ideas to the contrary. So strong it can make you believe a lie. Illusion. We all know what an illusionist is. An illusionist is a magician. And they can stand in front of you and with sleight of hands and a few props make you believe something that isn't true. Insanity. Insanity is a mind that is less than whole, that cannot always see the truth. Delusion. If you've deluded yourself, you've come to believe something that isn't true. So what we're going to do as we go through this chapter, we're going to look for the obsession, the illusion, the delusion, the insanity preceding the taking of the first drink. Let's go to page 32, second paragraph, a man of 30. So man of 30 was doing a great deal of speed drinking. He was very nervous in the morning after these bouts and quieted himself with more liquor. He was ambitious to succeed in business, but saw that he'd get nowhere if he drank at all. Once he started, he had no control whatever. Now, he made up his mind that until he'd been successful in business and had retired, he would not touch another drop. An exceptional man. He he remained stark, raving dry for 25 years. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And retired at the age of 55 after a successful and happy business career. Then he fell victim to a belief which practically every alcoholic has. That his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had quieted him, had qualified him to drink as other men. Out came his carpet slippers in the bottle. In two months he was in a hospital puzzled and humiliated. 
He tried to regulate his drinking for a while, making several trips to the hospital in the meantime. Then, gathering all his forces, he attempted to stop altogether and found that he could not. Every means of solving his problem which money could buy was at his disposal. Every attempt failed. Through a robust man of retirement, he went to pieces quickly and was dead within four years. Now, this case contains a powerful lesson. Most of us have believed that if we would remain sober for a long stretch, we could thereafter drink normally. But here's a man who, at 55 years, found he was just where he'd left off at 30. We've seen the truth demonstrated again and again. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Commencing to drink after a period of sobriety, we're in a short time as bad as ever. If we plan to stop drinking, there must be no reservations of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday we'll be immune to alcohol. And we know the truth to be this. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. We've never seen one single case where one of us could go back and drink successfully. Now, to believe anything any different than that is to believe a lie. This guy believed that after 25 years of sobriety, he can now drink like other people. And based on that idea, he took a drink, triggered the allergy. Four years later, he's dead from alcoholism. Now, is his real problem the fact that he's physically allergic to alcohol or that he has a form of insanity that tells him it's okay to drink alcohol after being sober 25 years? The real problem of the alcoholic centers in the mind telling us we can drink rather than in the body that ensures that we can't drink. My wife, Phyllis, there says that once the cucumber becomes a pickle, it'll never be a cucumber That's anymore. right. Always be a pickle. Let's go to page 34, second paragraph. For those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. We're assuming, of course, that the reader desires to stop. Whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he's already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. Many of us felt we had plenty of character. It was a tremendous urge to cease forever, yet we found it impossible. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it, this utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. How then we shall our readers determine to their own satisfaction whether they are one of us? The experiment of quitting for a period of time will be helpful, but we think we can render an even greater service to alcoholic sufferers and perhaps to the medical fraternity. So we shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking, for obviously this is the crux of the problem. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? Friends who have reasoned with him after a spree which has brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy are mystified when he walks directly into a saloon. Why does he? Of what is he thinking? Our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. Let's look at this example, and then after it we'll, we'll go to lunch. Let's look at Jim. Jim, or Joe loves Jim. Yeah, I like Jim. I like him a lot. Everybody get, likes Jim. He gets screwed up with him once <laughs> in a while. Let's see what he can do with him today, Joe. Okay. Our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. This man has a charming wife and family. He inherited a lucrative automobile agency. He had a commendable World War record, and he's a good salesman, and everybody likes him. 
Typical alcoholic, isn't he? You betcha. He's an intelligent man and normal so far as we can see, except for a nervous disposition. He did no drinking until he was 35. In a few years, he became so violent when intoxicated, they had to be committed. On leaving the treatment center, no, excuse me, on leaving the asylum, (laughs) the same thing, he came into contact with us. Now, we told him what we knew of alcoholism. They told him about step one. And the answer we had found. They told him about step two. And he made a beginning. Later on, we're going to see where step three is but a beginning. So apparently Jim took steps one, two, and three, and things immediately began to get better. His family was reassembled. He began to work as a salesman for a business he had lost through drinking. And all went well for a time. But he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. I'm going to find later on the only way we enlarge on step three is through four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and eleven. Jim didn't do any of those. Just one, two, and three. To his consternation, he found himself drunk a half a dozen times in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. Now, these are good AA members. You know, this guy got drunk six times in a row. And every time he got drunk, they went over there and worked with him, carefully reviewing what had happened. You get drunk six times in a row today, they're probably not going to have anything to do with you. These were really good AA members. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in serious condition. He knew he faced another trip to the treatment center if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family for whom he had deep affection. Yet he got drunk again. We asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. They're getting a little tired, Jim, now. <laughs> they said, they said, my God, Jim, this is seven times in a row. You know, we're getting tired of coming over here every time you get drunk. Sit down here and tell us just exactly how this happened. So this is his story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. We read this book for years before we saw this. I came to work on Tuesday morning. <laughs> bad about those Mondays. Bad, bad about Mondays. Yeah. He said, I remember I felt irritated I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. Now we're going to look at his mind. And we're going to see when he went from normal to abnormal, from sane to insane thinking. I remember I felt irritated I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. That's probably normal thinking. I think any of us that had to be a salesman for a concern we once owned, we'd probably be a little irritated by that too. I don't think that's insanity. I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. The boss probably said, say, Jim, by the way, where were you all day yesterday anyhow? <laughs> nothing real serious, just enough to get him irritated. Then I decided to drive into the country and see one of my prospects for a car. What's more normal than if you're a car salesman, you've had a few words with the boss, you want to get away from the shop, drive out in the country, see somebody we already know to try to sell a car to them. That's normal, sane thinking for an alcoholic car salesman. He said, on the way I felt hungry, so I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. I had no intention of drinking. I just thought I might get a sandwich. What's more normal than if you're hungry to stop in a place and get a sandwich? The fact they got a bar is beside the point. We have no intention of drinking, period. We're hungry, and we're going to get a sandwich. Normal, same thinking for an alcoholic car salesman. I also had the notion I might find a customer for a car at this place, which was familiar, for I've been going to it for years. We're not going in there to drink. 
We're going to go in there and get a sandwich because we're hungry, and we just might find another customer. We've been going in there for years anyhow. Normal, same thinking for an alcoholic car salesman. I'd eaten there many times during the months I was sober, so I sat down at a table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. What's more normal than if you're hungry? To sit down at a table and order a sandwich and a glass of milk. Normal, same thinking for an alcoholic car salesman. Still no thought of drinking. Ordered another sandwich, decided to have another glass of milk. Now, if you're hungry enough, <laughs> nothing wrong with two sandwiches and two glasses of milk. <laughs> and, unless you're a member of Overeaters Anonymous, you better look at it. But that would be normal, same thinking for an alcoholic car salesman. Now... Now comes the squiggly writing. And they said, suddenly, that means right now, suddenly, the thought crossed my mind that if I put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. This is absolute insanity. <laughs> For him to believe that he can take whiskey, mix it with milk, drink it on a full stomach, and it won't hurt him. Now, based on the insane idea, he now makes a decision and take some action. See, I ordered whiskey and poured it into the milk. And I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart. I felt reassured that I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. Now we've got it inside ourselves now. The phenomenon of craving takes over. And now then we're not going to be able to stop. The experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it into more milk. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. How many people in here besides me has ever put whiskey in the milk? What happens to it? Clabbers up, doesn't it? Okay. For you people who may go back out there and you intend to do this, use good scotch in the milk. It won't clabber it up. <laughs> Just a little information for you. I learned that. Thus started one more journey to the asylum for Jim. Here was a threat of commitment the loss of family and position, to say nothing of that intense mental and physical suffering which drinking always caused him. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. Whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion or the ability to think straight be called anything else? Now, is Jim's real problem the fact that he has a physical allergy to alcohol or that he has a form of insanity that tells him it's okay to drink alcohol mixed with milk on a full stomach? The real problem centers in our mind telling us we can drink rather than the body that ensures that we can't drink. Perfect example of the insanity of alcoholism. I think we better go to lunch. Don't you guys think so? Let's try to be back by try to be back by one thirty, okay? We'll be through at five o'clock this evening. tell you this story while we're getting ready about the lady whose husband passed. He was, she was an ally, so she called the obituary column and 
want to make an obituary for him. And, she said, and I said, well, what do you want to say? He said, well, he's dead. <laughs> I said, is that all you're going to put in there, that he's dead? She said, yeah. She said, surely you think of something else. He said, she said, I can't afford anything else, but he's dead. So well, we'll give you three more words just for the because you've, of your loss. And she said, "Okay, vote for sale." <laughs> that story about about is the little Catholic boy that wanted a bicycle for Christmas. And he went to his dad and asked him about it, and his dad said, Well, son, I'm sorry. He said, I, I can just barely provide food for you and your brothers and sisters. No way, and I can help you out with a bicycle. The little boy said, Well, what could I do? His dad said, Well, you never know. He said, Why don't you write a letter to God and ask him? You never know what's going to happen. So the little boy goes to his bedroom, and he sits down at a desk and gets a pencil and a piece of paper, and he begins to write. He said, Dear Jesus, he said, I'm a little Catholic boy and I've always been good to go to church and I've never had a bike. He said, Oh, hell, that won't work. And he tore it up and threw it away. He sat there and thought a little while and got another pencil, another piece of paper in his pencil. And he said, Dear God, I'm a young Catholic boy. I'm 14 years old. I've always done my part in church and I sure would like to have a bike. He said, Hell, that won't work. He tore it up and threw it away. And he's sitting there looking around, and he happened to look up on his dresser, and there's a little statuette of the Virgin up on the dresser, and suddenly his eyes lit up, and he jumped up, and he grabbed that statuette, reached in his underwear drawer, and got out a roll of socks, unrolled the socks, put the statuette inside, rolled them back up very carefully, put them way back in the back of the underwear drawer, sat down at his desk and got his pencil and his paper, and he said, Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mama again. (laughs) He might have been one of us, I guess. Okay. We, uh... We finished before lunch. We finished with uh, with old Jim's story, and we finished up at the top of page thirty-seven. And there it told us that uh, whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? Now you may think this is an extreme case. To us, it is not far-fetched, for this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every single one of us. We have sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences. It was always a curious mental phenomenon that parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. Next day, we would ask ourselves in all earnestness and sincerity how it could have happened. In some circumstances, we've gone out deliberately to get drunk, feeling ourselves justified by nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like. But even in this type of beginning, we're obliged to admit that our justification for a spree 
was insanely insufficient in the light of what always happened. We now see that when we began to drink deliberately instead of casually, there was little serious or effective thought during the period of premeditation of what the ter- terrific consequences might be. You know, and that was always one of my favorite things. I always said, well, hell, I can't feel any worse. I might as well get drunk. Can't feel any worse than I'm feeling the way I am now. And I'd go ahead and get drunk, and invariably I felt a hell of a lot worse before I got through with it, always. The inability to be able to see the truth about alcohol. Our behavior is as absurd and incomprehensible with respect to the first drink as that of an individual individual with a passion, say, for jaywalking. He gets out of thrill out of skipping in front of fast-moving vehicles. I don't understand this guy at all. <laughs> but I can see him standing out here on the interstate waiting for a big bus or a trust truck to come down through there, jumps out in front of it, spins around two or three times, sees how close it can come to hitting him without actually hitting him. For some reason, he gets a thrill out of it. Don't understand it, but I can see it. He enjoys himself for a few years in spite of friendly warnings. People are saying, hey, Jim, you better quit doing that. You're going to get hurt if you keep that up. He doesn't pay any attention to them. Up to this point, you would label him a foolish chap having queer ideas of fun. Luck then deserts him, and he's slightly injured several times in succession. Getting a little older now. He can't move as fast. They begin to hit him once in a while. Nothing serious. He just kind of bounces off of them. Now, you would expect him, if he were normal, to cut it out. But presently he's hit again, and this time has a fractured skull. He got hurt bad this time. Within a week after leaving the hospital, a fast-moving trolley car breaks his arm. He gets hurt bad again. Now he sings their national anthem. He says, I'll never jaywalk again as long as I live. (laughs) He tells you he's decided to stop jaywalking for good. But in a few weeks, he breaks both legs. On through the years, this conduct continues accompanied by his continual promises to be careful to keep off the streets altogether. Finally, he can no longer work. He's just so beat up now he can't hold a job. His wife gets a divorce. She's tired of supporting him and the hospital bills and everything else, and he's held up to ridicule. He tries every known means to get the jaywalking idea out of his head, not his body, his head. He shuts himself up in a treatment center, hoping to mend his ways. But the day he comes out, he races in front of a fire engine, which breaks his back. Such a man would be crazy, wouldn't he? Now, you may think our illustration is too ridiculous, but is it? We who have been through the ringer have to admit, if we substituted alcoholism for jaywalking, the illustration would fit us exactly. However intelligent we may have been in other respects where alcohol has been involved, we've been strangely insane. It's strong language, but isn't it true? Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, what you tell us is true, but it doesn't fully apply. We admit we have some of these symptoms, but we've not gone to the extremes you fellows did, nor are we likely to. For we understand ourselves so well after what you've told us that such things cannot happen again. 
We've not lost everything in life through drinking. We certainly do not intend to. Thanks for the information. Kiss my oath. (laughs) Thanks for the information. Now, you know, Jim, Jim is what we call a low-bottom drunk. Jim had lost everything. Jim had to be a salesman for he, for a concern he once owned. And it seems to be a little bit easier for the low-bottom drunk to really be able to see the problem than it is for the high-bottom drunk. Now, due to education, once again, we're getting many, many people in AA today who haven't lost everything. You know, every once in a while you see somebody come in here still got a job. Occasionally somebody comes in there and they're still married. I saw a guy come in the other day and he still owned an automobile. He really did. And we start talking to those guys about the insanity of alcoholism. And they said, man, man, don't tell me I'm crazy. Don't tell me I'm insane. I haven't lost my job. I haven't lost my marriage. I've still got my car. It's a little bit harder for a high-bottom drunk to see the truth than it is for the low-bottom drunk. But the high-bottom drunk, when they get drunk, they get drunk just exactly like the low-bottom drunk does. They have to believe a lie in order to get drunk. Now, we're getting ready to look at a guy named Fred. And Fred is a high-bottom drunk. He's never lost anything through drinking. But he gets drunk just exactly like Jim did. He believed a lie just before he took the first drink. Let's look at old Fred for just a minute or two. We have a lot of people named Fred coming into AA today, and they're high-bottom people. And so many people pull out their war stories and begin to talk about going to 129 treatment centers and 59 divorces and jail for 143 years and all that stuff. And Fred looks at that and says, well, I'm not an alcoholic. I, I haven't done those things. Well, being in jail doesn't make an alcoholic. Having car wrecks don't make an alcoholic. What makes an alcoholic is the allergy of the body, the obsession of the mind. If we talked about those things as we do in our group and beginners meeting, Fred could identify with those, and maybe he wouldn't have to go back out there and have a drink. That's what the book suggests that we do. But Fred is a partner in a well-known accounting firm. His income is good. He has a fine home, is happily married, and father of promising children of college age. He has so attractive a personality that he makes friends with everyone. If ever there was a successful businessman, it's Fred. To all appearance, he's a stable, well-balanced individual. Yet he's alcoholic. We first saw Fred about a year ago in a hospital where he'd gone to recover from a bad case of the jitters. It was the first, his first experience of this kind, and he was much ashamed of it. Far from admitting he was an alcoholic, <clears throat> he told himself he'd came to the hospital to rest his nerves. We see lots of nerve resters in AA today, just, just like old Fred, lots of them. The doctor intimated strongly he might be worse than he realized. For a few days, he was depressed about his condition. Now, he made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. It never occurred to him that perhaps he could not do so. In spite of his character and standing, Fred would not believe himself an alcoholic. He would not take step one. Much less accept a spiritual remedy for his problem. If you can't take one, you can't take two. And we told him what we knew of alcoholism. They told him about one and two. And he was interested and conceded he had some of the symptoms. But he was a long way from admitting that he could do nothing about himself. 
He was positive that his humiliating experience, plus the knowledge he had acquired, would keep him sober the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would fix it. Now, we heard no more of Fred for a while. One day we were told that he was back in the hospital. This time he was quite shaky. He soon indicated that he was anxious to see us. The The story he told us is most instructive. For here was a chap absolutely convinced he had to stop drinking, who had no excuse for drinking, who exhibited splendid judgment and determination to all his other concerns, yet was flat on his back nevertheless. Well, let him tell you about it. He said, I was much impressed with what you felt said about alcoholism, and I frankly did not believe it would be possible for me to drink again. And I rather appreciate your ideas about that subtle insanity which precedes the first drink. But I was confident it could not happen to me after what I'd learned. I reasoned I was not so far advanced as you fellows, most of you fellows, and that I was usually successful in licking my other personal problems, and I would therefore be successful where your men fail. I felt I had every right to be self-confident. That would be only a matter of exercising my willpower and keeping on guard. In this frame of mind, I went about my business, and for time all was well. Had no trouble refusing drinks and began to wonder if I had not been making too hard a work of a simple matter. I think Fred began to get drunk right here and mine began to tell him it's not as bad as they said it was. One day I went to Washington to present some accounting evidence to a government bureau. I'd been out of town during this particular dry spell, so there's nothing new about that. Physically, I felt fine. Neither did I have any pressing problems or worries. My business came off well and I was pleased and knew my partners would be too. It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. Fred was doing good, wasn't he? Staying sober, family was doing well, business is good. He's on top of the world. Everything's going great for Fred this day. He said, I went to my hotel and leisurely dressed for dinner. As I crossed the threshold of the dining room, the thought came to mind, it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails and go back to the hospital. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Now that's the truth, isn't it? But he couldn't drink on the truth. His mind just simply had to say it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. That was all, nothing more. Now based on the insane idea, he makes a decision and takes some action. I ordered a cocktail in my meal. Then I ordered another cocktail. Got it inside ourselves now. The physical allergy takes over. After dinner, I decide to take a walk. When I returned to the hotel, it struck me a highball would be fine before going to bed, so I stepped into the bar and had one. I remember having several more that night and plenty next morning. I have the shadowy recollection of being in an airplane bound for New York and of finding a friendly taxicab driver at the landing field instead of my wife. The driver escorted me about for several days. I know little of where I went or what I said and did. Then came the hospital with unbearable mental and physical suffering. As soon as I regained my ability to think, I went carefully over that evening in Washington. Not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time I had not thought of the consequences at all. I had commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. You know, old Fred, old Jim, vaguely sensed he wasn't being any too smart. Fred didn't even sense that. Fred just thought a couple of cocktails with dinner would be great. 
And based on that idea, he takes a drink, triggers the allergy, ends up drunk all over again. Is his real problem the fact that he has a physical allergy to alcohol? Or that he has a form of insanity that tells him it's okay to drink alcohol? The real problem centers in the mind telling us we can drink rather than in the body that ensures that we can't drink. Let's go to page 43, last paragraph. And he said once more... Now, he's only told us about six or seven times, okay? That's the way you talk to drunks. You tell them about six or seven times, then you tell them once more. You see, he told us through Bill's story that you can't stay sober on self-knowledge. On Roland's story that you can't stay sober on self-knowledge. Jim's story, you can't stay sober on self-knowledge. Jay Walker's story, you can't keep him jaywalking on self-knowledge. <laughs> Fred's story, self-knowledge. So once more, he tells us. The alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases. Neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. Can't heal a sick mind with a sick mind. Can't think your way out of it. Self-knowledge won't get it. Just won't do it. At the end of this chapter now, he shut the door on me. He's let me see. But if I don't find that power greater than human power because of the insanity of alcoholism, I'm going to go back to drinking again just as sure as anything. Now, whether I like the idea of the power greater than human power is beside the point. He's let me see here what's going to happen to me if I don't find that power. Now, if you're the kind of alcoholic that I am, and if you were raised in the church setting that I was raised in, then you would now find yourself in one hell of a dilemma. Because I fully realized at the end of this chapter that if I don't find this power, God as I understand Him or whatever you want to call Him, and get that in my life and I'm going to go back to drink it again. But I also fully understand or understood at that time I would be unable to find that power. Because, you see, I was raised in a good old Southern Baptist church. Now, please don't get me wrong. i got nothing against a Southern Baptist church. It's a good church then, and it's a good church today. But when I was a kid going to that Southern Baptist church, I'm quite sure that once in a while they talked about a kind and a loving God. But if they did, that message never got to the pew that I sat in. Because all I remember hearing about God as a kid growing up in church was hellfire and brimstone. Going to hell for lying and cheating and stealing and drinking whiskey and committing adultery. By the time I got to AA, I'd been doing that for 26 years. And I knew God had already told St. Peter, when that little four-eyed sucker gets up here, send him downstairs. We'll not need his kind. I remember so clearly when I separated from God and I separated from the church. As a kid growing up in that church, they gave me the rules. They told me what I could do and what I couldn't do. They said, if you do this, this, and this, you'll be okay. If you do that, that, and that, you're going to hell just sure as anything. And I didn't have a bit of problem with that until I got to be about 13 years old. And one day the minister looked me straight in the eye 
And he said, to think about doing it is just as bad as doing it. And I said, oh, shit. (laughs) I've had it now. Because I'd been thinking about doing it for about two years. And I said to myself, well, if you're going to go to hell for thinking about doing it, then you just might as well go ahead and do it. And I did it. And I didn't go to hell immediately. And I said to myself, that sucker has been lying to me all along. And I made up my mind that day that that minister and my parents and my teachers had joined together in a conspiracy to keep me from having any fun. And I said to hell with them. From this day on, I'm not going to pay any attention to what he says, what they say. From now on, I'm going to do it my way the way I want to, and if they don't like it, to hell with them. And I walked away from church. And I walked away from God. And I was about 12, maybe 13 years old. When I come to AA, I was 38 years old the first day I walked in the door of AA. And I had the spiritual knowledge of a 12 or 13-year-old kid that was absolutely scared to death about God. And it would seem to be able for me to be able to find God in my life. For God to do anything good for me would be an impossible thing, period. Thank God Bill Wilson's a real alcoholic. Thank God he knew how I was going to feel when I got here. And thank God he knew that based on old ideas about God, it would be impossible for me to make a decision about this God thing. And I think he said to himself, is maybe I better give that guy a little more information. Maybe I better give him some new ideas about God so that he can discard some old ideas about God, and then maybe he can make a decision about this God thing. And he sat around and he wrote the next chapter, chapter 4, We Agnostics. I think it's one of the greatest pieces of spiritual information I've ever read in my life. Nowhere does this chapter try to prove to me there is any kind of God. Nowhere does it try to force this God thing on me. What it does do is give me some new ideas about God, things that I'd never heard before. And based on the new ideas, I was able to discard some old ideas. And then I was able to make a decision... And since that time, God has proven to me that there is a kind and a loving God. Thank God for this chapter, We Agnostics. Let's look at it for a few minutes. Yeah, I love the chapter, We Agnostics. It's opened up my mind to a point. See, what I've learned up to this point is I can't stay sober on my willpower. I tried that. The reason I can't stay sober on my willpower is the obsession of the mind is stronger than my will. There's only one thing stronger than the obsession of the mind. That's he who made it. Getting right down to it now. Only God can remove the obsession of the mind. Because you can't heal a sick mind with a sick mind. Only God can do that. And people like me with the spiritual knowledge of a seven-year-old boy, I had a real problem. Because my understanding was that of a seven-year-old boy when I got here. Bill knew that we were going to feel that way. Because remember he said when they talked to me of a 
got my mind snapped shut against such series. He knew we too were going to have those kind of problems. Our book says later on that when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out physically and mentally. The word malady means illness, by the way. When the spiritual illness is overcome. See, I had a spiritual illness, a misunderstanding. Seven-year-old boy understanding. I needed another understanding. And this chapter we agnostic gives us another understanding. It's not in there to prove to us that there's a God or any particular type of religion. What it is in here for is for me to read and, and to study and ask questions to myself or this book. What does that mean to me? What does that mean to me? Does that have any relevance to me? Can I understand that? Talk to other people about it. Get a better understanding. Well, how it happens is that my mind opened up. And then God will prove to me that there's a God with an open mind. See, I never had any trouble with the idea about God. My trouble came from those people who were trying to tell me what their idea was and force it on me. That's where my trouble was. I resisted that, always did. The chapter we agnostic, the greatest piece of spiritual information that's ever been written, I suppose. It's there to open up our mind. And so God can prove to us that there's a God. And when that happens, then nobody but nobody but nobody could improve upon that. Because we'll have a God of our own understanding that's just ours. The greatest piece of spiritual information, the chapter we agnostic. Gnostic means knowledge, but the ag in front means without. Those of us who without knowledge, or at least the knowledge of a seven-year-old boy, I needed some different kind of knowledge. In the preceding chapters, you've learned something of alcoholism. We hope we've made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. If, when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely. That's because of the obsession. Or if, when drinking, you have little control of the amount you take. That's because of the allergy. You're probably alcoholic. We just love the simplicity of the big book. Two little questions to determine if you're alcoholic. I use them all the time. People come to me today. They say, Charlie, you think I might be alcoholic? And I say, I don't know. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Have you been able to quit drinking entirely, left on your own resources? They're real alcoholic. they got to say no. And I say, do you have any control over the amount you drink after you once start drinking? If they're real alcoholic, they got to say no. And I say, well, then you're probably an alcoholic. And it's just that simple. But you see how people love to expand on things. Our fellowship wasn't satisfied with these two little questions. They came out with a pamphlet that had ten questions in it to see if you're alcoholic. Some years later, that wasn't enough, so they came out with another that had twenty questions in it. I think they got one out now that's got 44 questions in it to see if you're alcoholic. No, we just need these two little simple questions. Joe and I had an old friend uh, used to live in Tyler, Texas. Wine old Joe. Wine old Joe. I've always felt sorry for anybody in AA that didn't get to meet wine old Joe. He was a real character. And he made up his own list of questions to see if you're alcoholic. And the first question on his list was, has the roof of your mouth ever been sunburned? (laughs) 
Joe used to lay out in them West Texas cotton fields and drink wine and lay there with his mouth open. <laughs> Rufus mouth would get sunburned. <laughs> his second question was, have you ever been arrested for drunk driving from the back seat of somebody else's car? <laughs> the question in the 44 question, do you drink alone? Think about that. If I'm buying, yes. And if you're buying, no. <laughs> Another question old Joe had that I just loved. He said, have, have you ever been arrested for public drunk? While in jail. (laughs) (laughs) We only need these two. Okay, now the book says, if that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. You know, we are very unique people. We're the only people in the world that have a twofold illness that can only be overcome by a spiritual experience. We probably number amongst the few people in the world that have a terminal illness. That we can come out of it in better shape than we went into it if we can have this spiritual experience. Now to one who feels he's an atheist or agnostic, such an experience seems impossible. But to continue as he is means disaster. Especially if he's an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. He doomed to be doomed to an alcoholic death. Step one. Or to live on a spiritual basis. Step two. Are not always easy alternatives to face. But it isn't so difficult. About half our original fellowship were of exactly that type. At first some of us tried to avoid the issue, hoping against hope we were not true alcoholics. But after a while we had to face the fact that we must find a spiritual basis of life or else. Perhaps it's going to be that way with you. But cheer up. Something like half of us thought we were atheists or agnostics, and our experience shows that you need not be disconcerted. And I think for me, right here, I had to stop. And I had to look at these words, atheist, agnostic, and what they really mean. Went to the dictionary and looked them up. And the dictionary defines as atheist as one who says there is no God, and even professes to be able to prove there's no God. Well, if the atheist really believes that, then they would have no power greater than human power to turn to. And they would have to stand on their own two feet and make their own decisions and run their own show. And a spiritual experience would seem to be an impossibility for them. I said, Charlie, are you an atheist? And I said, no, I'm not an atheist. Maybe you're an agnostic. And I looked up the word agnostic. And it's defined as one who believes there is a God, but acts as if he disbelieves. Stands on his own two feet, runs his own show, rules his own destiny, never turns to God for help. And he gets the same help from God that the atheist gets, which is nothing. I said, are you an agnostic? And I said, you bet your boots I am. Because I've always believed in God. Ever since I left that church, I believed in God. But I had no knowledge of God because I never tried to use God in my life. I ran my own show. I ruled my own destiny, just like the atheist did, even though I believed there was a God. Today, I believe the majority of the people coming to AA are agnostics. You know, I've never seen a true atheist in AA. 
Oh, I've seen some of them that profess to say there is no God, but they even believed in evolution. And if evolution isn't proof of some kind of power greater than human power, I don't know what is. I think most of us get here believing in God, but acting as if we disbelieve in God, and we don't turn to God for help. We don't turn to God for direction. We run and we rule our own show. And that's what got us in trouble. If a mere code of morals or a better philosophy of life were sufficient to overcome alcoholism, many of us would recover long ago. We alcoholics are not drunken bums. Drunken bums are just about where they want to be. They're not too interested in changing the situation. We alcoholics have a set of morals. We have a philosophy of life. We will be there with a drunken bum, but we don't want to be there. That's the difference. And if our morals and if our philosophies would have saved us, many of us would have recovered a long time ago. But we found that such codes and philosophies did not save us, no matter how much we tried. We could wish to be moral. We could wish to be philosophically comforted. In fact, we could will these things with all our might. But the needed power wasn't there. Our human resources, now that's what the atheist and agnostic are, that's what they're running on. Our human resources, as marshaled by the will, were not sufficient. They failed utterly. Lack of power, that was our dilemma. And I'm sure that's absolutely true. If you and I could have found the power in any other way, we would not have become members of Alcoholics Anonymous. We're here because this is the court of last resort. Everything else we tried, none of it worked. I've never seen a newcomer come in AA yet and, and say when I was 14 years old, I took a drink of alcohol and jumped up and down and shouted with joy and said I can hardly wait to be a member of AA when I'm 36. (laughs) No, we came here because we had no other choice. If we could have found the power in any other way, we wouldn't be members of AA today. We had to find a power by which we could live. And it had to be a power greater than ourselves, obviously. But where and how were we to find this power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. It doesn't say which will help you solve it, or which will enable you to solve it. It says which will solve your problem. And I find interestingly enough from page 45 on, we don't talk about alcohol anymore. We're through talking about alcohol. From page 45 on, we talk about one thing and one thing only. For those of us who are powerless, and that's all of us, how do you find the power? And if we can find the power, then the power will solve the problem. Joe? Let's go to page 46 for a moment. I had a little first sponsor. His name was George Gibbs. George was a little black guy that I was in the Army with. Come into AA. He ends up being closer to me than my own family. George is dead now. But he taught me a lot about this idea right here. 
I told him, I said, George, I'm having a hard time with this God idea. He said, I know, I can tell that you are. He said, why don't you do some things that I have done? He read this to me. He said, yes, we have agnostic temper and had these softened experience. Let's make haste to reassure you. We found that as soon as we were to lay aside prejudice and express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, we commenced to get results. Even though it was impossible for us, any of us, to fully define or comprehend that power which is God. He said, go home tonight and get your pencil and piece of paper out. Forget all that that you think you know, those old ideas that you have. And if you could, realize you can't, but if you could, write down what you would want God to be. See, I didn't know you could do that. You go to hell in Oklahoma for doing that. <laughs> you still will go to hell in Oklahoma for doing that. Go to hell in a hurry, too. <laughs> but he uh, he gave me permission to do that. I didn't. You know, I must have needed a permission. So I went home that night and I wrote down some things that I would like God to be. I presented those to George and he looked at them and he said, "That's good. You can start right there." See, I needed a starting point. And he gave it to me. Old ideas cast aside, new ones accepted. See, I didn't know you could do that. Much to our relief, we discovered we did not need to consider another's conception of God. Our own conception, however inadequate, was sufficient to make the approach and effect the contact with him. There's another old idea cast aside. Because I was taught that you have to believe as they believe. And if you didn't believe as they believe, you're going to hell just sure as anything. This book says that isn't necessarily true. We did not need to consider another's conception of God. Our own conception, however inadequate, was sufficient to make the approach and to effect a contact with him. An old idea cast aside, a new idea takes its place. You let me have my own conception of God. Then that old hellfire and brimstone begins to disappear. I begin to think just maybe. Might be a kind and a loving God that can help me out. Old idea cast aside, replaced with a new idea. Many years ago, I went to a preacher, my wife's preacher at that time, to see if I could get back home, you know, how we do, we'll have to do anything. So I went over and talked to this guy, and he looked at me and said, Well, Joe, what seems to be your problem? Well, I don't know what my problem is. So I told him what I thought it was, and it was her. And if you live with her, you'd drink too, I told him. Well, the most Southern Baptist preachers will give you a solution to your problem. And he said, you must, and boy, did he emphasize that word must. You must have faith in these things. And he told me what they were. And I just looked at him. I got up and left. How can you have faith in something that you don't even believe? See, I had to come to believe. And this was the process. I didn't have any faith. I had to come to believe. And George gave me a way to come to believe. As soon as we admitted the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction, provided we took other simple steps. We found that God does not make too hard a term for those who seek him. To us, the realm of spirit is broad, roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive or forbidding to those who earnestly seek. It is open, we believe, to all men. I said, George, you mean I gotta find God? And he said, Joe, God's not lost. <laughs> he said, it's not in the finding, it's in the seeking. You follow me? It's not in the finding, 
It's in the seeking. And if I will seek God in my life, he will disclose himself to me. It's in the seeking. It's not in the finding. Thank God I learned that one. Another old idea cast aside. I was taught the way to God is a very straight and narrow path. And if you fall off of the side of it, you're going to hell just sure as anything. And this thing says we found that God does not make too hard terms with those who seek Him. To us, the realm of the Spirit is broad and roomy. It's not that straight and narrow path that I thought it was. It's not that rigid thing that I thought you had to be. He says it's all-inclusive, never exclusive or forbidding to those who earnestly seek. Another old idea cast aside. I was taught that if you didn't believe like they believed, there's no way, no way that you could make it, that you're going to go to hell just sure as anything. And only those that believed as they believed were going to be able to go to the other good place. And this says that isn't necessarily true. It's all-inclusive. Never exclusive or forbidding to those who earnestly seek. It is open, we believe, to all men. Some old ideas cast aside, replaced with some new ideas. My concept of God is already beginning to change. Page 47. When therefore we speak to you of God, we mean your own conception of God. This applies too to other spiritual expressions which you find in this book. Do not let in your prejudice. Now, prejudice is old ideas. You may have against spiritual terms deter you from honestly asking yourself what they mean to you. That's all we're doing, asking ourselves what these things mean to us. At the start, this is all we needed to commence spiritual growth, to affect our first conscious relation with God as we understood Him. And then afterward, we found ourselves accepting many things which then seemed entirely out of reach. That was growth. But if we wished to grow, we had to begin somewhere. So when you, we used our own conception, however limited it was, and certainly in my case it was very, very limited, but it was a starting place. It was a starting place. And I've been seeking God into my life ever since. And every year that goes by, my will changes, my life changes, and my understanding of God changes. It's an ongoing process. Never get to a point that I know it all in this area. I'm always seeking. Now to those of us who are seeking this relationship with God, you've got to have a starting point. And this is where we start. We needed to ask ourselves but one short question. Do I now believe? The agnostic has always believed. Or am I even willing to believe? The atheist can become willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself. As soon as a man can say that he does believe the agnostic or is willing to believe the atheist, we emphatically assure him that he's on his way. It has been repeatedly proven among us that upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. Asterisk, bottom of the page, Please be sure to read Appendix 2 on spiritual experience. You see, the wonderfully effective spiritual structure that we're building is the spiritual experience. We don't have to wait to step 12 to get something out of it. We're in a process of building it now. 
as we go through. Step one, willingness was the foundation of that structure. Step two, believing, is the cornerstone of that structure. And later on, we're going to put some more stones in place as we build this structure. That was great news for us. For we'd assume we could not make use of spiritual principles unless we accepted many things on faith which seem difficult to believe. Now right here he separates the two words, faith and belief. Now one of the problems I always had as a kid in church is the minister always said, son, all you got to do is have faith and you'll be all right. Well, faith implies knowledge. Faith implies surety. Faith is after the fact information. I never had any faith that God would do for me what I couldn't do for myself. The best I can possibly do is to believe that God can do so. And then after certain things transpire and I receive God's power, then I'll know and then I'll have faith. Let me give you a good example. Let's say that I moved into this Washington, D.C. area. And two or three months after I move in here, I've got a problem with my automobile. I don't know a good mechanic anywhere in this area. But you've lived here for years. And I'm pretty sure you'll know somebody. So I come to you and I say, look, I've got a problem with my car. Can you recommend a good mechanic? And you say, sure. Take your car over there to John. He'll do you a good job and he'll charge you a reasonable price. Well, I don't know whether that's true or not. But if I believe you strong enough, I'll take my car over there to John, and sure enough, he does a good job and charges me a reasonable price. When I went there, I believed he would. When I left there, I know that he would. Now, the next time I have a problem with my automobile, I don't ask you or anybody else where to take it. I take it right back to John. Only this time I took it on faith. The first time I took it on belief. Then after certain things happened, I knew. And now I take it back on faith. You can't start with faith. The best you can possibly do is start with belief. Thank God step two says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. It didn't say we came to know. It didn't say we came to have faith. It said we came to believe. And that's the best we can do in the beginning is just to believe. If we're an agnostic, we already believe in God. If we're an atheist, we can become willing to believe in God. And we're assured then that we're on the way to the finding of this power greater than human power. Such a simple idea. Such a simple idea. I lived nearly, hell, I lived nearly over 40 years before I ever got this thing figured out, you know. Thank God it's very, very simple, you know. Okay, let's go to page uh, 51. If we know this, why, why and how would we keep this from coming into our, into our life? On page 51 it says, This world of ours had made more material progress in the last century than all the millenniums which went before. Almost everyone knows the reasons. Students of ancient history tell us that the intellect of men in those days was equal to the best of today. Yet in ancient times, material progress was painfully slow. 
The spirit of modern scientific inquiry, research, and invention was almost unknown. In the realm of material, men's minds were fettered by superstition, tradition, and all sorts of fixed ideas. If you've ever been up further up northeast from here, all those little towns up there and those little states up there, those people came over here originally for religious freedom. That's why they came here. And as long as everybody in that area was practicing their religion and somewhat like the others were, the group conscious of the area, if you will, you were okay. But if you had an idea that was different than the group conscience of the area and you expressed it, what would they do for you? They'd burn you at the stake for being a witch, wouldn't they? So if you had any ideas like that, you'd keep them to yourself. But you see, we have a, a spiritual liberation from that particular thing. And, and I used to wonder, why is it that we have televisions and airplanes and cars and all cell phones and all those things? Are we smarter than those people 500 years ago? The answer is no. The intellect of the men in those days was equal to the best of today. So why kept those, what kept those people in the dark ages? Superstition, tradition, and all sorts of fixed ideas kept them in the dark ages. Even today, I need an open mind more today than I've ever needed an open mind. Because superstition, tradition, and fixed ideas would keep me in the dark ages, so to speak. I need an open mind more today than I've ever needed an open mind. I continue to seek with an open mind. And my understanding gets better as time goes by. Not perfect. I don't know anybody, at least I don't know anybody that knows God 100%. You know, I know him better than I did when I started. That's all I can tell you. You see, through the seeking. Because superstition and tradition and old ideas would keep me in the dark ages. Some of the contemporaries of Columbus thought a round earth was preposterous. You know, I think Columbus is one of the greatest examples of what, of what a human being can do based upon belief. And we are, we, we are, are pretty well satisfied that Columbus had to be an alcoholic. You know, you've got to be stubborn and bullheaded to be able to stand there and express an opinion different than all the rest of the world. In Columbus's days, everybody thought that the world was flat. And Columbus was big enough to say, I don't believe that. He says, I think it's round. you got to be tough to do that. Another reason I think he was alcoholic, he, explained all, he, he displayed all the mannerisms of an alcoholic. When he left, he didn't know where he was going. <laughs> when he got there, he didn't know where he was. When he came back, he didn't even know where he had been. <laughs> and what really made him an alcoholic is a woman financed the whole trip for him. <laughs> Twice she did that. <laughs> Columbus was able... <clears throat> Columbus was able to change, basically, the map of the world. And based upon what he did and what he experienced, the entire world changed after that. And Columbus followed a little formula. You want to write down these key words. Columbus followed a little formula that the world has always known, that if you're going to change anything, period, there are certain things you have to do. 
And the first thing you have to do, you have to be willing to change. And circumstances are what makes people willing to change. In Columbus's days, they were trying to find a new trade route to the East Indies. The only way they had to go was to sail to the northeast end of the Mediterranean. And then they went by land, and it took literally years to get that to the East Indies and back, camelback, horseback, footback, however they travel. And they were looking for a new trade route. And somebody said, is there any way we could sail a ship to the East Indies? And they said, no, dummy. Don't you know the only thing you can do is sail to the northeast end of the Mediterranean and then you have to go by land? And they said, well, what if we sailed in the other direction? They said, well, idiot, don't you know the world is flat? And if you sail out there, you're going to sail right off the edge of this sucker and you're not coming back. Now, I don't know why they believed that. I assume some people sailed out there, didn't come back, and they assumed that they sailed off the edge of it, see? So circumstances trying to find a new trade route is what made old Columbus willing to change his ideas and what he believed. The second thing you got to do to change anything is to believe you can do so. And Columbus said, I believe that this world is round. I don't think it's flat. And he made one of the most drunk statements the world's ever heard. He said, I believe we can get east by sailing west. <laughs> If that isn't drunk thinking, I don't know what else is. But his belief didn't do him any good because he's still standing on the shore of the ocean the day he expressed it. Some days, weeks, months, years later, Columbus did the next thing you have to do in order to change anything. He made a decision. He said, by golly, I'm going to go find out whether this thing is round or flat or whether you can get east by sailing west. But his decision didn't do him any good either, because he's still standing on the shore of the ocean the day he expressed it. Some days, weeks, months, years later, he began to do the next thing you have to do. He began to take action. And he went to the king of Portugal and tried to get the king to finance the trip. And the king said, Columbus, there's no way I'm going to let you have this money. He said, you'll sail out there and sail right off the edge of this sucker, and I'll lose it all. That's why he ended up with the Queen of Spain. Sweet talked her out of the money on a promise that he would bring back gold and silk and spices. She gave him the money and he took the money and he bought three ships, put provisions in those three ships, put crew members in those three ships. They began to go east by sailing west, day after day after day after day, sailing straight west. Now, we don't know for sure, but we have a strong suspicion that on the first trip he hired a special sailor, put him on the bow of the lead ship at night, whispered in his ear, and said, I believe this thing is round, but if you see the edge of this damn thing, you holler so we can get turned around. <laughs> now, after sailing straight west day after day after day after day after day, they always got yeah, he got what you always get after the action. He got results. He found land on the other side. Now, we know he thought it was the East Indies. It wasn't. It was the West Indies. But what he had proven to himself is the world is not flat. It is round. You will not sail off the edge of it. 
He turned right around and came right back to Europe. Went right back to the Queen of Spain. And she said, Columbus, where's the gold, silk, and spices you promised you would bring me? And he said, sweetheart, I'm sorry, I didn't find any. But he said, I'll tell you what. If you'll refinance me, I'll go back. And this time I'll find it. Trust me, honey. Trust me, honey. <laughs> she refinanced him, and he got some more ships and more provisions and more crew members. And he began to go east again by sailing west with one big difference. He didn't hire the special sailor. Put him on the bow of the lead ship at night with a lantern. Because, you see, he went back in faith. He now knew that the world was round. You can't start with faith. You can only start with belief. And then certain things have to transpire. And then you get the results. And then you can have faith. Now, I'd like to sit here this afternoon and tell you the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are brand new. The world's never seen anything like them before. But if I did, I'd tell you a lie. Because they're based upon the same set of principles that Columbus and every other human being has ever used to change anything. In order for we alcoholics to recover from alcoholism, the first thing we have to do is to be willing to change. That comes from step one. When we can see what we're doing is no longer going to work, period. When we're desperate, as only as desperate as the dying can be, we become willing to change. The second thing you have to do is to believe you can do so. And that's step two. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. The third thing you have to do is make a decision. And that's step three. And the book is going to tell us that step three will have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strangest course of action. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and eleven are all action steps. Step twelve gives us the results. Having had a spiritual awakening is the result of these steps. I no longer believe that God will restore me to sanity. I know that He will because He has done so. I now have faith in it. And those of us that have been restored to sanity and we have the faith in this program, then we can go help the next newcomer come to believe. Then they can decide. And then we can take them by the hand and walk with them through the action steps and they'll have a spiritual awakening and they'll know and they can go help the next newcomer come to believe. There's only one thing you and I can't do for the newcomer. We can't make them willing. Willingness, step one, is a job they have to work on themselves. How does an alcoholic become willing to change? Very simple. Drink a lot of whiskey. Drinking whiskey. And if you drink enough of it and you're almost dead from it, then you become willing to change. And when they're willing, then we can help them come to believe and we can help them decide and we can help them act. But becoming willing is an inside job they have to do themselves. I had a guy tell me one time, he said, he said, I've been in AA 10 years and I've been working on step one in AA all that 10 years. And I said, no, you haven't. You don't work on step one in AA. You work on step one out there drinking whiskey. And then when you get here, then we can help you out. But first, you've got to be willing to change and admit you're powerless over alcohol 
your life has become unmanageable. Simple, such a simple little procedure. You know, I thought this finding God was going to be a complicated thing, but it's really not. It's a very, very simple thing. If I know I need God, if I know the beginning of the finding is to believe or be willing to believe, if I know the process necessary to find Him, then I just need to know one more thing. Where am I going to find God? And I think we get here just as confused about where God is as we ever were confused about what God was. I know as a kid growing up in church, I got a picture of God in my mind. I don't know whether I saw it or whether I imagined it. But to me, God was a tall, elderly gentleman standing on a cloud up in the sky. Long, flowing white robe. Long, flowing white hair. Golden halo around his head. Sun rays shooting out of it. And a big stick in his right hand. I think one of the reasons I thought God was there is because I noticed in church when I was a kid going to church that every time the minister talked about God, he always pointed up there. So I knew God had to be up there somewhere. But then what really confused me is I noticed every time the minister wanted to talk to God, he always looked down here. (laughs) Hell, no wonder we get confused as kids in church, you know. And I looked and I looked and I looked and I never could find God until I came to page 55 in the big book Alcoholics Anonymous and it tells me just exactly where I'm going to find God. Years ago, I was working with this halfway house in Tulsa we started and a young guy in there asked me if, uh, if I'd sponsor him. I said, well, sure, I'd be glad to. He said, uh, what would you want me to do? I said, well, first thing you need to do is get out of this halfway house. It's not a very good place to live, basically. And he said, well, it's easy for you to say, I don't have a job. I don't have a car. If I had a car, I could get a job because I'm very well qualified. I said, well, I'll take you back and forth and help you find a job, get you two or three weeks' paychecks, and then we'll get you a car. So that's what we did. But on the way to work one morning, he told me a story that was going to change my life. So all the time I'm helping him, but now he's going to tell me a story that changed my life. And the story went like this. There was these three wise men for the east, from the east, he told me. And they stole from man and woman the crown of life, the thing that would make us the happiest. And now they took it away from us and said, now what are we going to do with it? Well, one of them said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll hide it in the highest crevice on the highest mountain on the face of the earth, and they'll never be able to get it there. But the other two said, yeah, but you know how they are. They'll hunt and they'll search and they'll eventually find it. The second said, I'll tell you what, let's take it to the deepest, deepest ocean, put us in the deepest crevice in the deepest ocean, they'll never be able to find it there. But the other two said, yeah, but you know how they are. They'll hunt and they'll search it, and they'll eventually find it. The third one said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll hide it within himself, and he'll never look for it there. And our book said, yet we've been seeing another kind of flight, a spiritual liberation of this world, people who rose above their problems. They said God made these things possible and we only smiled. We had seen spiritual release but like to tell ourselves that it wasn't true. Actually, we were fooling ourselves. For deep down in, in every man, woman, or child is a fundamental idea of God. You see, it's just there. May be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship, by other things, but in some form or other it's there. 
for faith in a power greater than ourselves and miraculous demonstrations of power in human lives are facts as old as man himself. See, we're just born with it. It's just there. We finally saw that faith in some kind of a God was a part of our makeup, just as much as the feeling we have for a friend. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly, but he was there. He was as much a fact as we were. We found the great reality deep down within us. And the last analysis, only there they may be found. And it was so with us. Remember in the explanation of the spiritual experience, he said that inner resource, that's what he's talking about. God is within us, everyone. You know, we believe today that every human being on earth seems to be born with some form of basic knowledge lying at a subconscious level that seems to be able to tell us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. It seems to be able to tell us how we should live and how we shouldn't live. And, and I know some people might want to call that common sense. Other people might want to call it innate intelligence. Some might want to call it the conscience. Others might want to call it the soul. I don't think it makes any difference what we call it, as long as we realize it's there. And I know in my own life it's been there as far, far back as I can remember. I used to be getting ready to do something, and this little voice from within me would say, Charlie, I don't really think you ought to be doing this. And I wouldn't pay a bit of attention to it. I'd go ahead and do it, and I'd just get in one hell of a mess. And that same little voice would say, See, I told you not to do it in the first place. (laughs) Now, if that's God, then I'm 100% convinced that it is. And if God dwells within me, and I know that He does, then that means I've got my own God. I don't worry anymore about whether He's the God of the Baptist Church or not. I don't worry about whether He's the God of the Catholic Church, the Hebrew religion, or anybody else's religion. If He dwells within me, He's bound. And He and I can come together in very simple and very understandable terms. This is the greatest piece of information that I have ever learned. I don't have to go find God. If God's within me, I don't have to go find Him. I've just got to uncover the crap that keeps me from seeing God within me. And that's what all the rest of this program is about. To uncover that crap and get rid of it so that the God within me can begin to come to the surface. You know, and this is so simple that every time I think about it, it just blows my mind. You know, I thought this was going to be a complicated procedure. It's not complicated at all. We just have to do a few certain things and we'll get results and then we'll know and then we'll have faith. This thing really does work, Joe. To happen to be an atheist here, go to that Washington Monument, go all the way up the top, them little windows up there, and jump out. And before you hit the ground, I bet you holler, oh God. (laughs) Why? Because it's just within you. That's all. Now look at this next little paragraph. This sums up this whole chapter, We Agnostics. He said, we can only clear the ground a bit. If our testimony helps sweep away prejudice, these old ideas, 
enables you to think honestly. So that's what we're trying to do. Encourage you to search diligently within yourself. Then, if you wish, you can join us on the broad highway. With this attitude, you cannot fail. Now get this. The consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. You'll have a God of your own understanding that nobody but nobody but nobody could improve upon. The consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. It's in the seeking. It's not in the finding. It's in the seeking within ourselves, always. I can almost see Bill now as he finishes up this chapter. And he sits back and reviews what he's done up to this point again. Probably says to himself, in the doctor's opinion, in my story, Bill's story, I was able to show them the problem. In chapter 2, I was able to show them the solution. In chapter 3, I was able to show them what's going to happen to them if they don't find that solution. And in chapter 4, I was able to give them some new ideas so that they would be able to make a decision about that solution. Robbie says to himself, I think I've given them all the preliminary information they now need. It's now time to get down to the main object of the book, to tell them how to find that power. And he sits down and he begins to write on how it works. And Bill had a lot of difficulty with how it works for two or three reasons. Number one, we had people coming into AA, many Protestants. We had Catholics coming into AA. We had some Jewish people coming into AA. We began to see a sprinkling of Muslims coming into AA. And he's getting ready to write a set of directions on how to find God. And how in the world are you going to do that without offending a bunch of people? Also, they had made six little steps from the Oxford group. And Bill could see loopholes in those steps that the alcoholic mind was slipping through. And he felt they need to be expanded and strengthened. He didn't know how far. He just knew they need to be expanded and strengthened. And he said he tried and he tried and he tried and he tried. And he just could not get started. On chapter 5, he said one night while in bed, pillow behind his back, pad and pencil in hand, leaning against the headboard, trying to start chapter 5. And he said, I finally just gave up. He said, I put the pad and pencil down, closed my eyes, and prayed and meditated. I have no idea what he said. And I'm sure he asked God for help. And he said he prayed and meditated for 15 or 20 minutes. And then he said when he picked up the pad and the pencil, it felt as if the pencil had a mind of its own as it raced across the pages. In about a half hour, he had written how it works. This thing that we read at all of our AA meetings today which includes the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
<clears throat> when he got finished with it, he was highly enthused about it. There was another member of the Oxford group, alcoholic, that came by to see Bill. They knew that usually at night he stayed up late working on his stuff. And this other member was a guy named Howard. And Howard had a new pigeon with him. And they come to see Bill, and Bill got up, and he could hardly wait to show him the new 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Hmm. And Howard said, what in the hell is this? <laughs> he said, hell, Bill, Moses only had 10. <laughs> and here you've got 12. You know how you'd feel if you left your grown group last week and they had 12 steps, and you go back next week, and they got 24. <laughs> and the fight was on, and they fought, and they fought. Bill had to take this. Remember, that original 40 people said, we want to see the chapters as you write them, and we'll add to, delete from, and change around. Bill made copies of this, sent it to these other members, and that's when the crap hit the fan. Now, Joe is going to read to you the original, how it works, as Bill wrote it that night, not the way it is in the book today. And if you'll follow through with him, I think you'll be able to see the differences. I also think you'll be able to see what the other members objected to also. And I'm sure Joe, by changing the tone of his voice or pausing, will be able to point out these differences. Joe, would you read how it works, please. You'll also get to see what Bill really meant by these things, too. How it works. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has solely followed our directions. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They're not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a way of life which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those who suffer from grave emotional mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like and what happened and what we're like now. If you decide you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to follow directions. At some of these, you may balk. You may think you can find an easier, softer way. We doubt if you can. <laughs> With all the earnestness of our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go, absolutely. Remember that you are dealing with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for you. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. You must find him now. Half measures will avail you nothing. You stand at the turning point. Throw yourself under his protection and care with complete abandon. Now we think you can take it. Here are the steps we took which are suggested as your program of recovery. One, admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, 
came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over the care and direction of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely willing that God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly, on our knees, asking to remove our shortcomings, holding nothing back. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make complete amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our contact with God, praying only for the knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual experience as a result of this course of action, we try to carry this message to others, especially alcoholics, and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Now you may exclaim, what an order. I can't go through with it. But do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We're not saints. The point is that we're willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we've set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Our description of the alcoholic. We found that in the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, some of it in chapters 2 and 3. The chapters of the agnostic. Chapter 4. And our personal adventures before and after. Bill's story and those in the back of the book. Have been designed to sell you three pertinent ideas. (laughs) Bill was a salesman, you know. A that you are alcoholic and cannot manage your own life. Step one. B, that probably no human power can relieve your alcoholism. Part of step two. C, that God can and will. The rest of step two. Now, if you're not convinced on these vital issues, you ought to reread the book to this point or else just throw it away. (laughs) I don't think he was kidding around, was he? You know, it's evident. And Bill did not intend for this to be a set of suggestions. He intended for it to be a set of directions. He said so three or four different times. A set of directions to the individual alcoholic on how to recover from alcoholism. Because he kept saying, you got to do this and you got to do that and you and you and you and you and you. And that's when the crap hit the fan. The other member said, Bill, you don't have any business given anybody directions. Nobody can give directions in this little fellowship. And they said, you don't have any business telling any individuals what they have to do. And they said, Bill, this sounds too much like the Oxford Group absolutes. You're talking about on your knees, holding nothing back, complete amends. Sounds too much like absolute honesty, and so on and so on and so forth. They said, you need to change this. And Bill said, no, I don't either. I'm not going to change this. And they said, well, yeah, you are. And he said, no, I'm not. And they said, Bill, don't you remember? This is not your book, it's ours. And we have the right 
to insist on changing it any way we want to. Mill said, I don't care. I'm not going to change it. They said, yeah, you are. And he said, what you guys don't understand, these aren't even my words. He said, these are God's words. They came after prayer and meditation. And they said, we don't give a damn whose words they are. We're going to change it. And the fight was on. And they almost destroyed not only the book project, they almost destroyed the little fellowship over the writing of how it works. And Bill very, very reluctantly finally realized if they're going to get on with the rest of the book, he's going to have to compromise. So he said to them, he said, I'm willing to compromise, but you guys are going to have to compromise with me. And they said, well, what do you want? And he said, if I'm to finish the rest of the book, you're going to have to give me the authority to do so. He said, I'm tired. I'm not going to fight with you anymore. And they didn't want to give him that authority. He said, if you don't want to do that, then you finish the book. And they didn't want to give him that authority. But they didn't want to finish the book either. They very reluctantly agreed to make those changes. A non-alcoholic psychiatrist who was around in those days said, why don't you change it from directions to suggestions? He still would get your meaning across, and you probably wouldn't alienate so many people. And he said, well, you keep saying you, you, you. He said, don't do that. He said, say we, we, we. Tell them this is what we had to do rather than what you have to do. And where you keep saying must, must, change that to ought, ought. And probably more people would use your book. Now, we don't know. If they hadn't made those changes instead of two million worldwide today, we might have ten million. But also, if they hadn't made those changes instead of two million worldwide today, we might only have ten thousand. Who knows? We just know that this is the history behind this particular part of the book. But Bill was cunning and baffling and powerful too. Because when he forced this compromise on them, and they gave him the authority to finish the rest of the book, what they didn't know but what he knew is two pages later he's going to put directions right back in the book. (laughs) And he's going to put you and must right back in the book. He's had it all the way up to this time, jerked it out of how it works, and then turned right around and put it right back in and destroyed some of the continuity of the book. But now that we know what happened, we can see what actually transpired and took place there. The other thing that is so important is when he said our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, and our personal adventures before and after have been designed to sell you three pertinent ideas And the three pertinent ideas are contained in steps one and two. And then he said, if you're not convinced on these vital issues, you ought to reread the book to this point or else throw it away because you can't go any further unless you got one and two behind you. People come to us today and they say, well, how do you work steps one and two? And we say, you don't. They're not working steps. They're not action steps. 
They're conclusions of the mind that we draw based on information presented to us in the doctor's opinion in the first four chapters. I've always been powerless over alcohol. My life has always been unmanageable because of that. I just did not know that, nor did I know why. And not until I read the doctor's opinion in the first four chapters. There's always been a power greater than I am could restore me to sanity. I just didn't think that power would do so. Nor did I understand the insanity I had to be restored from until I read the doctor's opinion in the first four chapters. Now, if I can say to myself today, you betcha, I'm powerless over alcohol. My life has become unmanageable. I'm through with step one. If I can say to myself today, you betcha, I believe there's a power greater than I am can restore me to sanity. I'm through with step two. And I don't think it's by accident. The very next statement in the book says, being convinced on those vital issues, being convinced we are now at step three. You see, that's why you can't start with chapter five. Because chapter five starts with step three. And it's hard to start with three unless you got one and two behind you from the doctor's opinion and the first four chapters, you so it said, being convinced we were at step three. We're not ready to take step three yet. We're just let's, at step three. Let's talk about three for just a little bit, and then we'll take a break. Okay. Which is that we decided to turn our will and our life over to God's way understood him. Just what do we mean by that? Just what do we do? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? We're going to make a decision to turn our will. What is our will? Our will is our thinking. Our life is our actions. We're going to make a decision to turn our thinking in our life, our actions over the care and direction of God as we understood Him. Major, major decisions to be made here. I hear many people today say, I've been in AA five years. My life's still all screwed up. Don't understand why. Because I turned it over to God four years ago when it took step three. No, we don't turn anything over to God in step three. We make a decision to turn something over. And the word decision itself implies there's going to have to be some further action. A good example in my own life, my wife Barbara and I some years ago, we decided to go to Los Angeles, California to visit some relatives. But we didn't do anything to carry out that decision. And sure enough, we didn't get to California either. <laughs> The second year in a row, we made the same decision. Still didn't do anything to carry it out, and we didn't get to California either. Third year in a row, we made the same decision. Only this time, it was a little different. I took the car down and had it serviced. Barbara packed some clothes and a little food. And we got in our car, and we drove from our home to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Then we drove to Oklahoma City. Then we drove to Amarillo, Texas. Then we drove to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Then we drove to Flagstaff, Arizona. Then we drove to Barstow, California. Then we drove to Los Angeles. And we ended up visiting with our relatives in their living room. Not because we made a decision to do so, but because we took the action necessary to carry out that decision. 
All we're doing in step three is making a decision to do something. What are we deciding to do? We're making a decision to turn our will over to the care and the step originally said and direction of God as we understood it. Now, what is our will? Our will is nothing more than our thinking apparatus. Our will is nothing more than this thing up here in our head that tells us what to do and what not to do. You know, a good example of tying will and thinking together is let's say some of us are beginning to approach the end of our lives. We've gathered up a few material things and we become concerned with what's going to happen to them when we pass on. If we get concerned enough, we'll go sit down with an attorney and we'll tell that attorney what we want done with these things. I want this to go to my wife. I want this to go to my daughter. I want this to go to my son and etc. And that attorney will take my thinking from my mind that day, write it down in legal terms on a sheet of paper, and I'll sign it, and maybe the attorney will sign it as a witness, and we put it in the safe. Now, a year or two later, sure enough, I kick the bucket. And if my family's like the rest of them, they're not going to wait very long. <laughs> they're going to call the undertaker and say, come and get him and get him ready so we can get him out there and get him in the ground. Hell, used to, they waited four or five days. Today, they do it in just a day or two. They don't waste much time. They take me out to the cemetery, and I'm suspended in a box over a hole in the ground. few people standing around it, and I hope they're AA people. And hopefully somebody will utter a little prayer. And then they'll start dropping me in the hole. Now, if my family's like the rest of them, they don't even wait till I get to the bottom of the hole. <laughs> They jump in the car and they go right back to that attorney's office. And that attorney gets out that piece of paper and reads to them my thinking when I was in that office two or three years prior to that time. We know they call that piece of paper a will, and it's not by accident. Will, thinking, mind are all synonymous. I'm making a decision to turn my thinking apparatus over the care of God as I understand Him. And by the way, as far as we know, we're the only species on earth that's ever faced with this decision. As far as we know, we're the only species on earth that has this thing called self-will. Everything else on earth, they operate on God's will in God's time. But for some reason, He gave us the right to operate on self-will or God's will. So we're making a decision to turn our will over to the care of God as we understand it. What else are we deciding to turn over? We're making a decision to turn our life over to the care of God as we understand it. What is my life? My life is nothing more than my actions. What I am right now as of this moment sitting behind this table is the sum accumulative total of all the actions I've taken throughout my entire lifetime is what's made me what I am today. Now we know all action is born in thought. Say that again, please. All action is born in thought. Sometimes we react to a situation so fast, we think we do it automatically, but we don't. I can't even pick up this glass of water unless my mind tells my body to do so. 
So if all action is born in thought, then it stands to reason my life is going to be determined by how I think. If my thinking is okay, my actions are okay, and my life becomes okay. If my thinking is lousy, my actions are lousy, and my life is going to be lousy too. And I went to my sponsor and I said, I don't believe I can take step three. And he said, why? And I said, because if I turn my will and my life over the care of God's understanding, I have no idea what he would have me be. He want me to, he may want me to be a missionary. And he may want to send me to China. And I sure as hell don't want to go to China. <laughs> and he just laughed. <laughs> he said, well, let's look at it this way. At least it wouldn't be in the hands of an idiot, would it? <laughs> he said, let's look back through your lifetime, Charlie. He said, you've always been a selfish, self-centered, self-willed human being. You've always done what you wanted to do and the hell with the rest of them. Is that right? And I said, you know it is. He said, the end result is you've almost destroyed your life. And he said, just as important. You've almost destroyed the lives of those around you that care for you. He said, just think. If God could direct your thinking, it might become better. And he said, if your thinking becomes better, then your actions will probably become better. And he said, if your actions become better, then your life's going to become better. And he said, just as important, the lives of those around you that care for you might become better also. He stepped back about three feet, stuck his bony old finger right in the middle of my chest, and he said, now you have to make the decision. He said, I wish I could make it for you, but I can't. This is one you'll have to do yourself. And he got it through to me in such a way that I was willing to make the decision to turn my will and my life over the care of God as I understand him simply because of the fact that I had almost destroyed it myself and God couldn't do a worse job with it than I did. And based on that, I made the decision. Joe? My book says that the first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will could hardly be a, could hardly be a success. Remember, we talked about precisely, specifically, exactly with clear-cut directions. We're beginning to get those directions now. And it says the first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. On that basis, we're almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. Most people try to live by self-propulsion. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in his own way. If his arrangement would only stay put, if only people would do as he wished, the show would be great. Everybody, including himself, would be pleased. Life would be wonderful. Now, isn't that true? If everybody would mind me and do what I tell them to do, they would be happier and I would be happier. Now, I've been married to Phyllis for, off and on for 37 years. <laughs> Jim, I don't believe she's going to mind. <laughs> 37 years now, she doesn't mind. I don't think she's going to. The reason is, they say, I have a will for Phyllis. And Phyllis has a will for herself. Everybody's got one. That's the problem with it. And my will for Phyllis is not always her will for Phyllis. 
and I try to force my will on Phyllis, we have problems, big problems. Sometimes they throw your stuff out in the yard, which used to happen, because I'm trying to force my life and my, my will on Phyllis. I need to stop doing that. The first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a, a success. I have to give that up. Let's go over to page 62. First paragraph. Selfishness, self-centeredness. That, we think, is the root of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of fear. Self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. We step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation. And we invariably find that at some time in the past, we have made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves, and the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. Above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness. We must, or it kills us. God makes that possible. There often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without His aid. Many of us had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them even though we would have liked to. Neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own power. We had to have God's help. This is the how and the why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. You know, if this is a God-directed world, and everything I read leads me to believe that's so, then those of us who have been self-directed, and those of us who have been trying to direct everything and everybody around us, well, we've been trying to do God's work for Him. And we're not God, we've just been playing at being God. Next, we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director, not our suggester. <laughs> he is the principal, we are his agents. He is the father and we are his children. Most good ideas are simple. And this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we pass to freedom. Now we're referring to that wonderfully effective spiritual structure again. Step one, willingness was the foundation. Step two, believing was the cornerstone. Now he tells us we're building an arch that we're going to pass through to freedom. And the keystone of that arch, which is the stone up in top of the arch that holds it in place, the keystone is one simple little idea. We're going to let God be the director. Most good ideas are simple. And it couldn't be any more simpler than this. To decide, and instead of being self-directed, I'm going to start trying to be God-directed. And by the way, there's no other choices. I either operate on self-will or God's will, one of the two. I'm trying to get off of self-will, which almost destroyed me, and start trying to get on God's will, hoping that it will make it better in the future. almost missed that little simple idea. Because when I first started praying, I said, God, give me this, and God, give me that, and get my wife back for me, help me make more money, get me a new car. 
I use God like he would an errand boy to go out and take care of stuff for me. And after I'd been sober for a while, I read in that other, other big book, he said he, re- he worked for six days and then he rested. To my knowledge, he'd never go back to work anymore. <laughs> it looks to me like there's going to be any work being done around here. It's going to be me. He's the father. We're the children. He's the principal. We're the agent. Most good ideas are simple. And this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arts which we passed to freedom. I almost missed that. Our book says that when we sincerely took such a position, page 63, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. I'm supposed to perform his work well. I thought he was supposed to perform my work well, but he didn't. Now, now here's the results of this thing. We don't have to wait till step 12 to get something out of it. Look at the results of this decision. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. See, takers are losers, you see. Not only in AA, but everywhere. Takers are losers. I'm today, I'm trying to see what I can contribute to life instead of take. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter we were reborn. And boy, I used to hate that idea about being reborn. I sure did. They used to come over to my house and talk to me about being reborn, knocking on the door, want to come in and visit and talk to me about being reborn. And you know what I said to them? I said, boys, this is Monday night football. And I'm here drinking and having a good time, and you're coming over. Get your, and going back home, that was a nice version of it. And going back home, see, they were trying to help me. But I didn't know that. But I could buy these ideas that we've been talking about. And now I was ready to do this third step. I was definitely ready. Our book said we were now at step three. And I couldn't wait to get down to that little church the next Sunday. I got there about 11 o'clock, and they do this every Sunday about 11 o'clock, not only there, but in many, many places. They basically are asking people to come and do the third step prayer. Okay? And I got there about two or three minutes before 11. I didn't want to get there too early. I might hear something to help me. So I got there about two or three minutes before 11, and they asked people to come down and do the third step, basically. And this is what I did. Many of us said to our makers, we understood him. God, I offer myself to you to build with me and do with me as you will. Relieve me of the bonds of self that I may better do your will. Take away my difficulty that victory over them may bear witness to those that I would help of your power, your love, and your way of life. May I do your will always. We thought well before taking this, making this step, making sure that we were ready, that we could at last abandon ourselves utterly to him. Now, I don't know what happened that morning. I'm not smart enough to know. But I know from that morning until this day, my life hasn't been the same. It had been like I'd been on the dark side of the street for all those years. And after this third step, I'm on the sunny side of the street. I went over to my mom's house that afternoon. And she 
want to know what happened. You know, they always want to know what happened, don't they? Bill asked Abby, he said, what's this all about? I queried. What's this? In other words, what's happened to you, Abby? And my mother said to me, what happened to you? Benny Joe, that's my name. That's what she called me. <laughs> and I told her about this experience, and she smiled. That's all she ever wanted from her children, was to live that way. That's all she ever wanted. Later on, I went over to see Phyllis, and if Phyllis was telling this story, she would say that I was her Abby. There was something about my eyes. I was inexplicably different, she said. What happened? See, I don't know. There's a story in that other big, big book. They asked that guy, I said, what happened to you? He said, I don't know. He said, I was blind and now I can see. I don't know. I was drunk and now I'm sober. That's all I really do know, you see. We thought well before taking this step, making sure we were ready. And we can at last abandon ourselves utterly to Him. And I think utterly means completely, wholeheartedly, the whole ball of wax. Don't make the mistake I did. First time I took step three, I got on my knees, which I very seldom did. And I said, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage yourself, so on, so on, and so forth. And I said, now this applies to my alcohol. Don't fool with my sex life. <laughs> Stay out of my money. I can take care of that too. God probably said, water and order. I can't go through with it. <laughs> Today I realize that God doesn't want my alcohol. He probably doesn't even drink. <laughs> he wants all of me completely. And just think, if he could direct all my thinking, it might become better in the sex area. If he can direct all my thinking, it might become better in the economic area. If he could direct my thinking in all areas of my life, then my life should become better in all areas, not just dealing with alcohol, but everything else. We found it very desirable to take this spiritual step with an understanding person, such as our wife, best friend, or spiritual advisor. You know, we are... As human beings, we are tridimensional creatures. We are meant to live with God. We're meant to live with ourselves. We're meant to live with our fellow human beings. And if we take this step with another human being, for the first time now, we're starting to fix ourselves, fit ourselves back together as God intends for us to be in the first place. That's why it says to God and another, human being here in this thing. Now, we're going to ask you to do a favor just before we take the break. You don't have to do it if you don't want to, but we're going to ask you to anyhow. We're going to ask you to reach out and hold hands with those on each side of you. And I'm going to read this step, and I'm going to ask you to repeat it after me. God, I offer myself to Thee. God, I offer myself to Thee. To build with me and do with me as Thou wilt. To build with me and do with me as I will. Relieve me of the bondage of self. Relieve me of the bondage of self. That I may better do Thy will. That I may better do Thy will. Take away my difficulties. Take away. 
Away my difficulties. That victory over them may bear witness. That victory over them may bear witness. To those I would help of thy power. To those that I would help of thy power. Thy love. Thy love. And thy way of life. And thy way of life. May I do thy will always. May I do thy will always. Amen. Amen. You'll never have to worry about step three. You're just taking it right now. All we have to do now is do it every day, one day at a time. Let's take about a little short 10, 15-minute break, then we're going to jump right into step four. We need to be back now in about 10 or 15 minutes. We start into step four. And I think we need to face the fact that when Bill wrote the big book, he was a night school lawyer. He was a New York City stock speculator. But when he wrote the big book, he was able to write one of the most spiritual books dealing with human nature the world's ever seen. Surely, God used Bill's hand to write the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. Thirteen years later, he made a decision to write the 12 and 12. He'd been trying for years to sell the traditions to the fellowship, and the fellowship really didn't want them. And I think he felt if he could put the traditions together in a book with the steps, the traditions would be more acceptable than to the fellowship. We do not think the 12 and 12 was meant to replace the big book. You can't work the steps out of the 12 and 12. And the reason you can't is because there's no directions in there. And that's why a lot of people really love it. Because <laughs> they can get in it and dance around and philosophize and never have to do anything at all. But there's some information in there. And in the 12 and 12, he talks about, and actually it's in step four, about the first two or three pages, he talks about the three basic instincts of life, which are God-given, and that they are absolutely necessary for survival of the human race. Let's take a look at them for just a few minutes. It'll make it, it'll really show why we need to take step three, and it's going to set us up with some information that we need. Thank you. For step four. Joe, you want to put that on the screen? This coffee, you mean? Oh. <laughs> and, of course, you've got a picture now to match this in your handout sheet. And Bill tells us there that all human beings are born with these three basic instincts of life, that they are God-given, they are absolutely necessary for survival of the human race, and therefore they are good things. He talks about the social instinct, the security instinct, and the sex instinct. Yeah. <laughs> My feelings exactly. <laughs> and under the social instinct, he said all human beings are born with a desire to be liked, to be accepted, to be respected by other people. He said all human beings are born with the desire to come together in groups with other human beings. 
And he said, if we didn't have those desires, if we cared nothing about each other, that the world would go into a complete dog-eat-dog situation, complete anarchy would reign, and under those conditions, the human race would simply fail to survive. So those feelings that you and I have, to be liked, to be accepted, to be respected, to come together in groups with other human beings, they are good, God-given things, and therefore they are good. He uses several terms under that social instinct. He uses the word companionship, and that's nothing more than wanting to belong or to be accepted by other people. So many of us grew up on the outside of the crowd looking in, wanted to be a part of and knew we could not be, and knew that whatever we said, whatever we did would be wrong and people would laugh and we would be embarrassed and always scared to death with what other people thought of us. He uses the term prestige. Prestige is wanting to be recognized or be accepted as the leader of the group. And the world needs leaders. Somebody has to make decisions. I guess even in the old caveman days, somebody had to say, Jewel, get behind that tree with your spear. Billy Jack, you get behind that bush with your club. And Mary Jo and I will run this sucker through here and we'll have something to eat. Somebody has to do that. And most people will take one of two directions. Either let me be a part of or let me be the leader of. And in the case, it's going to be based upon what other people think of us. If they like us and accept us, we can become those things. Bill said it in his story. The great drive for success was on. I'd prove to the world I'm important. Self-esteem. Self-esteem is what we think of ourselves. And it's either usually too high or too low, what are the two? And it's usually based upon what other people think of us or what we think other people think of us. And if they like us and accept us and respect us, then we feel pretty good toward ourselves. If they don't, we feel pretty lousy toward ourselves. Pride. I'm glad I got in the habit of going to the dictionary. I always thought pride was something you're supposed to have. As a young boy growing up, all I ever wanted to be was a man who walked tall with pride and a little bit sideways like John Wayne did. That's all I ever wanted to be. But the dictionary defines it as an excessive and unjustified opinion of oneself. It's either too high or too low. It's very seldom the truth. Personal relationships are relations with the world, other human beings and the world around us. Ambitions are our plans for the future to gain acceptance, power, recognition, prestige, and etc. All human beings have these feelings. Now, if we want to be liked and accepted and respected by the world and the people in it, the first thing we got to do is decide, well, what is it we need to do? What is it we need to become? And society teaches us these things as we grow up. And as we watch the adults and we see what they do and we read about things, then we, in turn, begin to set goals for ourselves. And we write up a little script in our head as to what we're going to become and what we're going to do. 
And it'll vary in different parts of the world. One part of the world is to have a good education. Another part of the world is to be a large landowner. Another part of the world is to have a big family. Another part of the world is to be a good fisherman. It could be any number of things. And as we grow up, we determine what we're going to become. And we begin to set goals and we begin to work toward the completion of those goals. And as we work toward the completion of those goals, we're going to have to work at it. You can't just be a bum and sit on your duff and have people like you and accept you and respect you. At the same token, we're going to have to make some sacrifices. There are some things that I would really like to do as a human being that are very exciting and very pleasurable. But if I do them and you catch me at it, you're not going to like me at all. And I don't think you and I would do the work necessary to reach the goal. They'll make the sacrifices necessary to be acceptable unless we got a reward for doing so. And the great reward comes at the moment of successful completion of the goal. How many of us have set that goal for the education, for the new business, whatever it might be, and we work and we work and we strive and we strive, and the day we become successful and they pat us on the back and they say, Oh, Joe, you're a fine fellow, you're a great man, you're really a smart individual. And we get that praise and recognition, and there's a feeling that comes over us which really is one of those indescribably wonderful feelings. The only thing wrong with it, though, it seems to be just a temporary feeling. You know, the sooner reach the goal, you get the praise, you get the recognition, it feels great. And then you look around and you say, well, is this all there is to it? And you set another goal. And you work and you work and you strive and you strive and you reach the new goal. And you get the praise and the power and the recognition that comes with it, but it doesn't last long. And you set another goal. And it seems to create within we human beings an insatiable desire for more and more recognition, more and more acceptance, more and more power, and we're not getting it fast enough, not giving it to us the way we think they ought to, so what do we do? Well, we start taking shortcuts. We start doing a little lying, a little conning, a little manipulating, a little stepping on other people's toes and climbing on their backs, and the instant we do so, we create pain and suffering for others. They retaliate against us and create pain and suffering for us. The book says it's plain that a life run on self-will can hardly ever be a success because under those conditions we're always in collision with people, places, and things. Second basic instinct is the security instinct. Now, I know in AA we try to live one day at a time, but I also know just about everybody in this room has got an insurance policy. And the purpose of the insurance policy is to protect ourselves in the future. Bill said all human beings are born with this desire to be secure in the future. And if we didn't have that desire, we wouldn't provide the food, the clothing, the shelter, the things that we need. And next drought season, we would just starve to death. Next winter season, we would just freeze to death. So these desires that you and I have to be secure tomorrow is a basic God-given thing. Now, just like with a social instinct, 
If I'm going to be secure tomorrow, I'm going to have to decide, well, what is it that I need in order to be secure? Society teaches us these things, and it varies in different parts of the world. One part of the world, you only need $4. Another part of the world, you need 4000 Another part of the world, you need $4 million. Another part of the world, you need 192 coconuts, whatever it is that they use to measure and trade and barter by. And based upon what we see and what we're taught, we set goals for ourselves. And we begin to work toward reaching that goal. And you're going to have to work at it. You can't be a bum and sit on your duff and be secure tomorrow. You're going to have to make some sacrifices. You can't blow it all today and be secure tomorrow. And I don't think you and I would do the work nor make the sacrifices if we didn't get a reward for doing so. The great reward comes at the moment of successful completion of the goal, and it's now mine and nobody can touch it. My God, how many of us have done it? Started out as a kid, we wanted a new bicycle. And we worked and we worked and we strived and we strived and we finally got a bicycle that cost about ten bucks and enjoyed it for a little while. But after we rode the bicycle for a while, we looked around and said, hell, I'd rather have a car. So we set our goal for the new car. Then we set our goal for the new dress, for the new shoes, for the new home, for the new furniture, for the new this and for the new that, for the new business, for the new piece of property. And we work and we work and we strive and we strive and we reach the goal and every time we reach it and nobody can take it away from us, my God, what a great feeling that is. When I was a kid growing up, hardly anybody ever owned their own home. Nearly everybody rented. And once in a great while, somebody would get enough money to make a down payment on a little old three-room shack of some kind. And they would pay and pay and pay and pay and pay and pay. And the day that sucker was paid off, you know what we did? We had a party. We called in all the neighbors. And we celebrated by burning the mortgage. They can't take it away from us now. What a great feeling that is. The only thing wrong with it is just a temporary feeling. I no sooner get the new car and I look around and that guy right there has got a Cadillac and I'm driving a Chevrolet. <laughs> this guy over here has got a Brooks Brothers suit and I bought mine at Kmart's and it caused us to set a new goal. And we work and we work and we strive and we strive and it seems to create within we human beings an insatiable desire for more and more and more and more and more and we're not getting it fast enough. Not giving it to us like we think they should, so what do we do? We take shortcuts, we lie, we cheat, we steal, we con, we manipulate. And the instant we do so, we create pain and suffering for others. They, in turn, retaliate against us, create pain and suffering for us. Plain that a life run on self-will can hardly ever be a success. Under those conditions, we're always in collision with people, places, and things. Third basic instinct he talked about is the sex instinct. I always have to stop and take a drink of water before I start. He gets excited about this. He said all human beings are born with a desire to have sex. They may get turned off by bad teachings or bad happenings, but all human beings are born with a desire to have sex 
Because if we don't have sex, we can't reproduce ourselves. And if we don't reproduce ourselves, then sure enough, the human race is going to fail to survive. Just like the other two instincts. If you're going to reproduce yourself through the sexual act, you're going to have to work at it. You know, you can do more work in three minutes of sex. If you can last that long, (laughs) then you'll do all day digging a ditch. Don't you older guys remember how it used to be when you got through with it? My God, you just fall over sideways. The sweat's just pouring off of you. You can hardly get your breath. You feel like you've died, gone to heaven, and come back two or three times. (laughs) And I don't think you and I would do that kind of work if we didn't get a reward for doing so. And the great reward comes at the moment of successful completion of the sex act. One of the greatest feelings we can experience as human beings, both emotionally and physically. One of the greatest feelings you can possibly have. But also, just like the other two, it's just a temporary feeling. Hell, you no sooner get through with doing it than you get to thinking about doing it again. And it's such a pleasurable and such an exciting thing, the next thing you know, you get to thinking about doing it in different ways. And you get to thinking about doing it in different positions. And you get to thinking about doing it with different people. And the next thing you know, you're doing it at the wrong time, in the wrong way, with the wrong people. And the instant you do so, you create pain and suffering for others. Yeah. And they retaliate against us and create pain and suffering for us. Plain that a life run on self-will can hardly ever be a success because under those conditions we're always in collision with people, places, and things. God knows that these things are necessary for our survival. He also knows that we're not going to do these things if it's not pleasurable. And there's where the rub comes in. It is so pleasurable that all human beings at one time or another, will overdo in one or more of these areas and create pain and suffering for other people. It's just about that simple. You know, if if all human beings on earth today could fulfill these basic instincts of life at the level that God intends, there would be no conflict on earth today. But they are so pleasurable, we just can't resist overdoing in one or more of those areas and create all kind of problems with other people. And we're constantly in collision with other people. You know, every emotional problem on earth today, every emotional problem on earth today could be solved through these basic instincts of life if we all did them at the level that God intends for it to be. Every emotional problem stems from these three basic instincts of life. Now, coming out of those three basic instincts, you see a little circle called self. That's where self-will comes from. Trying to fulfill these basic instincts of life. That's what causes us to think the way we think and causes us to do the things that we do. And coming out of that self-circle, you see another one called wrongs. That's the word we have to look at. Somewhere in AA we got the idea that the word wrongs meant a list of dirty, filthy, nasty items. But you go to the dictionary and look it up, you'll find several definitions for that word. 
One definition of the word wrong is incorrect judgment of others. A little later on in step four, we're going to find out that's exactly what a resentment is. Another definition of the word wrong is incorrect believing. A little later on in the fourth step, we're going to find out that's what most of our fears are. They're really not true. Another definition of the word wrong are the harms and hurts that we do to others. And a little later on in step four, we're going to look at those things and see the truth behind them. Now, it's very easy to spot a selfish, self-centered human being. They will always display three common manifestations of self. Number one, they're going to be madder in hell all the time. Damn him and damn her, and by God, I'll show them, and they're not going to treat me that way, and I'll get even with those SOBs, and blah, 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 blah. Selfish, self-centered human being scared to death. Can't depend on God. Can't depend on other human beings. If we're an alcoholic reaching the end of the road, we can't depend on ourselves anymore. And we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but we know when it gets here, it's not going to be worth a damn, whatever it is. Absolutely scared to death. Selfish, self-centered human beings in trying to fulfill these basic instincts of life and in overdoing them, it's always going to create harms and hurts for other people. And we're not drunken bones. We got a conscience. And the guilt and the remorse associated with those things just literally eat us up. And it's easy to see that selfish, self-centered human being. They're always mad, always afraid, and they're always filled with guilt and remorse. Now, we're trying to find a way to live where we can have a little peace of mind and serenity so that we can stay sober in the future. And if we remain restless, irritable, and discontented, if we remain angry, resentful, and afraid, and filled with guilt and remorse, we don't feel good. And we're gonna, we're gonna exist under those conditions just so long. And the mind's gonna start seeking relief. It's gonna start thinking about the sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by taking a couple of drinks. Next thing you know, we become insane. And we end up drunk all over again. So we're going to have to do something about the way we think, about these things in our mind that are the result of a life lived on self-will. If God could direct our thinking, we could fulfill these instincts at the level He wants. If I direct my thinking, I'll fulfill them at the level I want, and I will always overdo it's just that simple. One another reason why we do this at this time is because these words that you see here, companionship, prestige, self-esteem, pride, ambitions, all those words are in and around the fourth step in the, in the big book. Bill didn't go into great detail expected to explain them. He assumed we knew what he was talking about, but I didn't. I don't know about you, but I didn't. That third column affects my. I didn't know what was there and why, what was affected by it. So I just skipped over that column. You see, and that's why we do this, to get a working knowledge of these words, primarily, I think, so we can look at the third column and see what part of self is affected by the actions that we have just had with others. 
we didn't understand what part of the self was affected. When those, the first column and second column, those are easy. It's what part of self is affected in the third column that we skip over, or at least I did. Okay, we finished up now with step three. We all did the prayer together a while ago. And now then it's time for us to go to work to start carrying out the decision that we made in step three. Bottom of page 63. Next, we launched out on a course of vigorous action. The first step of which is a personal house cleaning, which many of us had never attempted. Though our decision, referring to step three, was a vital and crucial step. It could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Our liquor was but a symptom, so we had to get down to causes and conditions. The first thing we look at is the time element between step three and step four. We hear this question asked all over the country. And we hear some people say, well, you ought to wait probably 30 days after you do step three. Another one might say you probably ought to wait six months. Uh, We heard a counselor in the field counseling people to wait a minimum of two years to do step four. And our question back to that counselor was, how many people have you killed with that statement? You see, we're trying to find a way to live where we can have a little peace of mind, serenity, happiness, and sobriety at the same time. The longer we put off step four, the longer we're restless, irritable, and discontented. The longer we're filled with anger and fear and shame and guilt and remorse and we don't feel good, the greater chance that we're going to take a drink. I don't know how long I could go under those conditions. And frankly, I'm not very interested in finding out. The book tells us when to take it. Step three will have little permanent effect unless followed at once by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things within ourselves which had been blocking us, blocking us from what? From carrying out that decision. And you know that makes sense. As far as I know, four has always followed immediately after three. So, as soon as we get three, we start in on four. Now, knowing that we might get drunk if we don't do that, why do we tend to continue to procrastinate on step four? I think one of the reasons is some of the older members play king off of the mountain with this step. They say, just wait till you get to step four. By God, we just literally scare them to death. Let us be the first to say today, if we do the step four the way the book says to do it, there's not a thing in the world to be afraid of. There's nothing to be scared about. Now, knowing that, and knowing we might get drunk, why do we tend to continue to procrastinate? And I think one of the reasons is for years and years and years, we didn't understand how to do step four here in the big book. And in our confusion, we read something in step five that said something about all your life story. And we said, oh, yeah, that's what they wanted us to do in four. And we begin to write our life story for step four. 
Now, my life story wasn't probably wasn't very important to other people. Must have been to me though, because I had 92 pages in it. And I took it to another poor, suffering alcoholic and asked him to read it. And he read it and said, not very pretty, is it? And I said, no. And he threw it in the waste paper basket. He said, you'll never have to be that way again. I learned nothing to contribute to my alcoholism by the writing of my life story. Everything I wrote down, I already knew. And as I look back at it today, 95% of my life story has nothing to do with my alcoholism. The fact that I was born in 1929 has nothing to do with my alcoholism. may have something to do with somebody else's alcoholism, but not mine. (laughs) The fact that I graduated from high school age 17 went immediately in the service. I don't think it's got a thing to do with my alcoholism. In fact, I was married at age 21. Got nothing to do with it. But i tell you what it did do. The 95% that had nothing to do with it very effectively covered up the 5% that did. And I learned nothing to contribute to my alcoholism from the writing of my life story. So in desperation, somebody in Minneapolis, Minnesota wrote a four-step inventory guide. And we got the Minneapolis guide, combined it with a big book, and we got more confused yet. Somebody in Dallas, Texas wrote a four-step inventory guide. And we got it and we combined it with a Minneapolis guide and the big book, and then we really got confused. I have no idea how many inventory guides are out there today. And we saw one one time that had 20 pages in it. And I'll guarantee you, if you wasn't crazy as hell before you took it, you would be when you were through with it. It was one of those kinds. And all the time, the instructions have been here in the book. We just didn't understand how Bill writes. And if we're going to understand how to do step four, we just kind of got got to kind of sit back and relax. And we got to realize two things. Number one, Bill loves to teach by making comparisons, talking about something we already know to teach us something new. He loves to compare two different things. Another thing he does all the way through the book, he repeats himself quite often, but when he does, he finds a different word that means the same thing. Bearing those two things in mind, let's just kind of sit back and relax, and let's see if we can't see how simple this thing really is. We're going to put a little picture up here on the screen. You got one that'll match it, called the Step 4 Inventory Comparison. Now let's see what he has to say about it. On one side of that is business and the other side is personal. And Joe's got them both covered up at the present time. And we're going to take a few key words out of the big book and put them up there on that screen. Therefore, we started upon a personal inventory. This was step four. Immediately, he goes to business. A business which makes no, takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. So I think his first comparison is this. If you've got a business 
and you don't inventory once in a while. And by the way, inventory is defined as a written list of items. If you don't inventory once in a while, you don't know what's been stolen from your store that you didn't get paid for. You wouldn't know what's been sold and you need to reorder to have something to take its place. If you didn't inventory once in a while, you wouldn't know what's become out of style. And you need to put it on sale and get rid of it. Because it's sitting in the store taking up valuable floor space, shelf space, probably paying interest on borrowed money to get it in the first place. And it sits there day after day after day after day, and it's costing you money. If you didn't inventory once in a while, you wouldn't know what's become damaged and unsaleable. Nobody wants to buy it. And you need to get it out of there so you can put new items in its place. Because the old damaged and unsaleable goods very effectively blocks out the new items coming in. You don't have room for it. If you didn't inventory once in a while in a business, and I don't care what it is, whether it's selling ladies' purses, men's watches, bicycles, or whatever, if you didn't inventory once in a while, you probably would end up going broke. And I think everybody would agree with that. Well, here's this first comparison between the business inventory and the personal inventory. In our personal lives, we have a business too. And our personal business is the business of finding a way to live where we can be sober and have a little peace of mind and serenity and happiness at the same time. And if we don't inventory in our personal business of sobriety, then we're probably going to go broke too. And going broke for us is simply to go back to drinking. So whether we're taking a business inventory or a personal inventory, in either case, without it, we're probably going to go broke. And I think just about everybody would agree with that. Now then he says, taking a commercial inventory... And Dad Burnham, he could have said, he could have said just a business inventory, but he don't want to use it twice, so he'll call it commercial this time. Taking a commercial inventory is a fact finding, and we're putting fact finding under the business. And a fact facing process, and we're putting fact facing under business. It is an effort to discover the truth. And we're putting truth under business about the stock in trade. And we're putting stock in trade under business. The stock in trade is what's in there to sell. The ladies' purses, the men's watches, the bicycles, or whatever. One object is to disclose damaged or unsaleable goods. And we're putting disclosed damaged or unsaleable goods under business and to get rid of them promptly and without regret. We're putting get rid of them promptly and without regret under business. If the owner of the business is to be successful, he cannot fool himself about values. He's going to have to be honest. Now, he doesn't like to admit that he made a mistake, 
And he say, he may say, well, the reason these ladies aren't buying these purses is they just don't understand what's good for them. And he may keep them in there much, much longer than he should. And if he does, it's going to cost him money every time he does it. He's got to be honest. Is there anybody in here would have any argument with this statement that Bill just made about taking a business inventory? We're going to try to find the facts. When we find them, we're going to face the facts. We're trying to discover the truth about the stock in trade, and we're looking for the damaged and unsaleable goods. The good items don't cause us to go broke. They sell over and over and over every day, and we make money on those. The damaged and unsaleable goods is what's going to cause us to go broke. When we find them, we're going to get them out of there promptly and without regret. Until they are removed, good items cannot take their place. And we're looking for the stock in trade that is damaged. Is that okay with everybody? All right, now watch him. He wrote a step for us. Using a series of words that mean exactly the same thing as these words that he used in the business inventory. He said, we made a searching. And we're putting searching straight across from fact-finding. To find the facts, to search out the facts, means the same thing. We made a searching and fearless. And we're putting fearless straight across from fact-facing to fearlessly look at those things, to face those things as they really are. We made a searching and fearless moral, and there's where we got in trouble. We said, oh, damn, there it is. There's that list of dirty, filthy, nasty items, and we don't want to look at them, and we sure don't want to show them to somebody else. I'm not really sure all Bill Wilson knew. But I know one thing, this guy understood the English language. And I really believe if he'd wanted you and I to make a list of dirty, filthy, nasty items, I think he would have said we made a searching and fearless amoral or immoral inventory. He didn't say that, he said moral. And bugged us and bugged us and bugged us. Finally, we went back to the dictionary. And you know what moral is defined as in a dictionary? Nothing in the world but truth. Things as they really are. The right and wrong of any given situation. So moral and truth mean identically the same thing. We made a searching and fearless moral inventory of what? Of ourselves. We're the only stock in trade that we have in this business of staying sober. Nobody else can make us sober. Nobody else can make us drink. Oh, yeah, I'll agree. They can make you thirsty once in a while, but they can't make you drink. We decide whether we drink or not. Now, what part of us decides whether we drink or not? Is it our mind or is it our body? The real problem, the alcoholic centers in the mind telling us we can drink rather than the body that ensures we can't. So somewhere up here, 
in my head up here, I've got some flawed thinking processes that block me off from the sunlight of the Spirit, that keep me from carrying out the decision I've made in step three. And I have to find those flawed thinking processes and get them out of my head promptly and without regret. And it's only when they're gone that God's thinking can take their place. As long as they're there, then God's thinking is blocked out. And I like to look at my head up here as a little bitty store. Not very much. One of these little quick trips or get and goes or come and get it or whatever they call them. <laughs> Not a hell of a lot up there. And this part of my store, I've got some display cases. And those display cases are filled with resentments. Damn him. Damn her. By God, I'll show them. Next time they do that, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get even with those suckers. They're not going to treat me that way. And on and on and on and on. God can't get in those display cases. He's very effectively blocked out by those resentments. Over here in this part of my store, I've got a file cabinet filled with fear. Oh, my God. What's she going to do when she finds out about this one? Oh, my God. What's that banker going to do when that check gets in there? He's already told me he'll file. Oh, my God. Is that my car sitting out in the front and the front end tore up and I don't? Oh, my God. And on and on and on. And God can't get in there. That file cabinet is already full of fears. He's very effectively blocked out. Back here in the back of my store, I've got a storeroom, and it's filled with guilt and remorse associated with the people I've hurt in the past. We're not drunken bums. we got a conscience. The guilt and remorse just literally eats us up. So if I want God to direct my thinking, I'm going to have to do something about the removal of these things before God's thinking can enter. He gave us self-will. And he said, I love you enough that I'll let you live on self-will till you destroy yourself. And he said, if you ever want to come back in the garden, and if you ever want me to take care of you again, then you have to give back to me what I gave to you, which is self-will. He said, I'll never take it away from you. And we cannot give it back until we clean it up. And it's just that simple. Now, my book is getting ready to show me how to get rid of these resentments, how to get rid of these fears, how to get rid of this guilt and remorse. It's going to show me a way to look at them honestly and see the truth behind them. And the greatest thing it's going to show me is how to keep them from coming back in the future. And when they're gone, then God's thinking can enter. But until they're gone, God is blocked out and will stay restless and irritable and discontented, filled with shame, fear, guilt, and remorse, madder in hell and scared to death. And under those conditions, sooner or later, we go back to drinking. And this is such a simple little process that it just literally blows our mind every time we look at it. For years, we complicated the hell out of it. 
And there's really nothing here to complicate. Listen to what he says. We did exactly the same thing with our lives. In other words, we're going to do the same thing he told us to do in the business inventory in our lives. We took stock honestly, truthfully, morally. First, we searched out the flaws in our makeup which caused our failure. Being convinced that self manifested in various ways that what had defeated us, we considered its common manifestations. Resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From it stem all forms of spiritual disease, for we've been not only mentally and physically ill, we've been spiritually sick. When a spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. In dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. Now, before we set them on paper, let's look at the word resentments just a minute. Make sure we all understand it the way the writer understood it. The word resentment comes from two old words. First is R-E. Anytime you see R-E, in front of another word, it means to redo or to do again. Replay, repaint, redo, so on and so forth. The last part of this word, sentiment, comes from an old word called centuri, which means to feel. So the word resentment means to re-feel or to feel over again. Okay, we're going through life. And as we go through life, somebody who is sick in self does something to us to threaten one of our basic instincts of life. Maybe they put me down in the eyes of others and threaten my self-esteem. Maybe they rip off my money. Maybe they threaten my sex life. Now, when they do that, that's not a resentment. That is a wrong on their part for doing so. It doesn't become a resentment until I go off in the next room or I go clear across town and sit down in my easy chair that evening and I replay that thing in my mind. Now, when they did it to me, it hurt. And they hurt me by doing so. But when I sit down in my easy chair and replay that thing in my mind, I hurt myself the second time. The stupidity in it now is they're not even in the room. They're on the other side of town. And I replay it and feel the pain the second time. And then I replay it again and feel the pain the third time. And I find out that I'm not always honest with myself when I do this. Because every time I play that thing over, I make what they did just a little bit worse. And I make what I did just a little bit less. And I make the pain just a little bit deeper. And let me play it over enough times I can say to myself, well, hell, I was just stand there doing nothing. And they come along and did it to me, and it's all their fault. (laughs) Kind of like football. 
I went up there at lunchtime and turned on the TV and was watching Ohio State and Michigan play. And one of those Ohio State receivers caught a pass that the quarterback threw to him way up in the air. He had to jump up to get it. They do that on purpose, you know, to keep the other guys from catching it. But the opposing team, they learned the time to hit that receiver is just when that ball reaches his hands. And if they can hit him up in the air and knock him loose from that ball, then it's an incomplete pass. And they hit this old boy, and he was about three feet off the ground. And they just turned him upside down. And he come down on his head. And one arm went this way, and a leg went that way. And he was really, really hurt. And you could tell that he was hurt laying there on the ground. Now, the receiver, or the guy up in the booth, the announcer, he's got a resentment machine up there. Because after a while, he said, let's look at that again. And we looked at it again, and man, it was in slow motion and living color. Looked twice as bad as it did before. You could really see the expression of pain on his face. Now the ball game is going on. This guy was hurt, but that didn't stop the game. They run out there, and if he hadn't hurt too bad, they'll pump a little air at him and get him up, start the game. Or if he's hurt too bad, they'll drag him off to the side and put somebody in his place. This guy, they drug him off and put somebody in his place, and the ball game is going on, just like the game of life goes on. But the announcer, after a while, he said, let's look at that again. <laughs> Ten minutes later, this announcer sitting over here bouncing this guy up and down, up and down, up and down, all, and that's just what a resentment does. You know, we alcoholics have got in our minds up here a little resentment replay machine. I guess Elanons do too, but I know we alcoholics do. And we got up in the morning and we clean the lens on it. We want to, we don't want to miss anything. We want to, we shine it on the world all day long with a clean set of lens so we can record everything that they do to us that day that is bad. We don't want to record none of that good junk. We record nothing but bad stuff. Go home in the evening, sit down in our easy chair, play it over our head, make ourselves sick, and blame others for doing so. There's some days, though, that we have a bad day. There's days they won't do anything bad to us. That's a bad day for an alcoholic. That's a bad day for an alcoholic. <laughs> Because we're shining around the world and we're waiting to record and they don't do anything that we can record. And that's a bad day for one of us. You know what we record those days? By God, we record what they're thinking. That's what we do. <laughs> Is there any way that God could enter a minefield with that kind of crap? Absolutely not. A bad thing about a resentment if you throw it out there long enough, after a while it's going to turn around and come right back at you. And when it comes back at you, it comes back as self-resentment. When we begin to resent ourselves for being in a position for them to do those things to us, and we can't stand self-resentment, and after a while self-resentment turns into self-pity. 
And that's the sickest, sickest feeling that a human being can have. And we alcoholics love self-pity. My God, we love to get up in the morning and put it on as a cloak of dignity. And we go out the door and we say, Here I come, you know, world. I know you're just waiting out there to get me all day long. <laughs> if you don't think we love self-pity, you try to feel sorry for an alcoholic. He'll tell you in a hurry, Don't you feel sorry for me? That's my damn job. Don't you mess <laughs> So if I want God to direct that part of my thinking, apparently I'm going to have to do something about these resentments and get them out of my head because whoever or whatever I'm resenting, they are controlling my thinking. When I'm resenting them, they're controlling the way I think. And if they're controlling the way I think, then God can't, and it's just that simple. Let's look at them for just a few minutes. There's only one thing wrong with this illustration on page 65. It's already filled out. And we're not quite sure how Bill filled it out. So if you were like me, you'd look down with this and have a a blank sheet and resemble that, the cause, and what part of self is affected. And we'd look at that first column and put down the name Mr. Brown, and then we'd change our mind and go to the cause and write down why we're upset with Mr. Brown and then why part of self was affected. Well, I don't know, so I just skip over that. Change my mind and come back to the second column and Mrs. Jones and why I'm upset with Mrs. Jones and what part of self was affected. I don't know, so I'll leave that blank. After a while, if you're like me, your mind goes tilt. And I say to myself, oh, heck, or worse that effect, they don't want this in here. What they want is all my life story. So I just fold that up and move on over to write my all my life story. But we think, after study and long time study, that these columns will be built out one column at a time from top to bottom. While our minds are on one thing and one thing only. Who we resent for that? Top to bottom, leaving that little space. When we get through with that, we go to the second column. What are we upset about? The cause. You notice that they're only using four or five little words to describe the cause. No long dissertation about that. And then the third column, what part of self was affected? Well, we've gone to the 12 and 12. We've got a working knowledge of these words. Now we know what part of self was affected. We then can fill it out in the third column. One column at a time, from top to bottom. That's the secret. So to avoid any confusion, we, we made, made up a little inventory sheet called a review of resentments. And we want to stress this is not anything new. We're not trying to bring another inventory into AA. Now, this is nothing in the world but page 65 in the blank form. The last two columns, just disregard them for the time being. We're going to use them in a couple pages later. We'll look at the first three columns. Column one, I'm resentful at... Column two is the cause. Column three affects mine. Page 65 in the blank form. Now let's see if we can see the directions on how to fill these things out. It says in dealing with resentment, we set them on paper. Well, we've got our paper now. We're ready to go. Now here comes the first instruction. We listed people, institution, or principles whom we're angry, period. We stop right there, going from top to bottom, one 
name one institution at a time, leaving that little space in between it, we write them down. Well, we got one thing and one thing only on our mind. Let's go from top to bottom, making a list of those resentments, leaving a little space between each name, as the example does here on page 65. I've never known an alcoholic yet that did not know just exactly who and what by God we're mad at. We spend thousands of hours sitting around in bars talking about it. All we have to do is take it out of our head, put them down on a sheet of paper. They came to me and they said, make a list of your resentments. And I said, I don't have any. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, surely you do. Maybe you don't understand what a resentment is. And they explained it to me. And I said, oh, yeah, i got a couple of those. They said, get them down on paper. And I took a sheet of paper and I listed about eight names on that sheet of paper. And I got another sheet of paper and listed about eight names. Another sheet and listed about eight names. Another sheet and listed about eight names. I got somewhere up around 162. And I said, man, you're madder in hell at everything. I did not know that. You can only see one resentment at a time in your head. And I don't think any of us will realize how many resentments we really do have, how much they control and dominate our thinking until we get them all down on a sheet on sheets of paper and see them in their entirety. Now, we've made decision to let God direct our thinking. If we've got that many resentments, then God can't. And it's just that simple. So I learned something very valuable just by filling out column one. Bill's example. In first column, he put Mr. Brown, Mrs. Jones, my employer, and my wife. He probably had more resentments. I just assume he didn't want to use any more space in the big book. But that is an example of how we fill out column one. Now let's look at the second instruction. We ask ourselves why we were angry, period. We stop right there. We go beside each name now. It's in the second column. Simplicity is the key. Four or five little words to describe the cause as to why we're angry. And we all know why we're angry. For instance, he's mad at Mr. Brown. Why? His attention to my wife. Told my wife of my mistress. Brown may get my job at the office. Now, I don't even know Mr. Brown. I'm getting upset with him myself. <laughs> he met Miss Jones. Why? Well, she's a nut. Come on up here, She snubbed me. She committed her husband for drinking. He's my friend, and she's a gossip. Put my best drinking buddy in a nut house to what she did, and then telling everybody about it. He's upset with his wife, with his employer. Why? He's unreasonable and unjust and overbearing. Probably want to know, by the way, where were you all day yesterday, anyhow? <laughs> he threatens to fire me for my drinking and padding my expense account. Very narrow-minded individual, isn't he? <laughs> now, he's really upset with his wife. Why? Well, she misunderstands and nags, and she likes old Brown, and she wants the house put in her name. You tie all that together, wanting her house put in her name and liking old Mr. Brown, it's time to get upset. 
pretty quickly. But simplicity is the key in the second column. Four or five words to describe the cause. If we know who we're mad at in column one, then we know why we're mad at them for column two. And we just use a few little words to put down the cause of the resentment. As I finished up column two, I learned something else that's become very valuable to me. I began to realize it's really not them I'm mad at. It's what they've done to me that's got me mad. I could take Mr. Brown out of here and put Mr. Green in. I'd be just as mad at Green as I am Brown if Green did the same thing. Take Mrs. Jones out and put Mrs. Smith in. I begin to realize it's not the people that's got me upset, it's what they've done to me that's got me upset. And the reason that's valuable is I'm getting ready to start out on a lifetime-changing process. And I'm going to try to develop the best possible relationship that I can with the world and everybody in it so I can have maximum peace of mind and serenity. Part of that relationship later on is I'm going to have to make amends to those I'm going to have to ask people to forgive me for what I've done to them. By the same token, I'm going to have to start forgiving people for what they've done to me. And the forgiving process can start right here in this column too. When I begin to get names out of the way and concentrate on what they did, not who they are. Very valuable information. Let's look at the third instruction. In most cases, it's found that our self-esteem, here's these words we talked about earlier, and what part of self was affected. In most cases, it's found that our self-esteem, our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relationships, including sex, were hurt or threatened, so we were sore, we were burned up. On our grudge list, we set opposite each name our injuries. Was it our self-esteem, our security, our ambitions, our personal sex relations which had been interfered with? We were usually as definite as this example. And again, not having any working knowledge of the basic instincts of life, I just couldn't do the third, the third column. But after going to the 12 and 12 and looking up some of these words, finding out about the basic instincts of life, then I have a working knowledge of these words, and then I can put them down on the third column. Very, very simple. The only way that I can get upset with you or with an institution is if you threaten my basic instincts of life in some way. If you threaten my social instinct, it upsets me. If you threaten my security instinct in any way, it upsets me. If you threaten my sex life in any way, it upsets me. So if I'm upset with you, at least one of those basic instincts is going to be affected. In many cases, all three of them. But at least one if I'm upset with you. And I think as you fill out the third column, you're going you're gonna to see a certain pattern start developing. You're going to see that you continually are writing down self-esteem, 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 self-esteem. And it begins to become clear that self-esteem is a real problem with you. Another person might be writing down security, 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 security. And they can see that security is a real problem with them. Another person, it might be sex, 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 and sex. And they can see that sex is a real problem. It's going to be a combination of all three, but at least one of those basic instincts is going to stand out 
for every individual that fills out this third column. And we can begin to see the part of self that we really got a problem with. In filling out the third column, I learned another piece of information which has turned out to be one of the most valuable things I ever learned. For the first time as I filled out the third column, I began to see where anger comes from. I've always had a problem with anger. And I've always acted and reacted in anger and hurt other people. And I'd be ashamed of it and I'd say, I'll not do that again and I'll turn right around and get angry and do it all over again. You can't do anything about a problem till you understand the problem. And I never knew where anger came from. I thought it was just one of those feelings that flitted into your mind. You could do nothing about it. But today I realize it comes from a threat to one of these basic instincts of life. That's what causes me to get angry. And it depends upon my reaction to that threat that determines whether I'm going to be angry or not. You know, if my relationship with God is right, and my instincts are under control at the level God intends, you can say and do about anything you want to to me, and it's not going to bother me at all. But if my instincts are not under control, and my relationship with God's not right about anything you say or do to me creates anger. I'll give you a good example. I'm married to a real black belt Al-Anon. 38 years in the Al-Anon program. She got a, she got a Al-Anon belt buckle about that big around. You know. <laughs> Great program. I love her deeply. I love her deeply. But Al-Anons get sick in self once in a while too. Now I know that they don't like to admit they do, but they do. And once in a while she'll be a little sick in self. And she'll say or do something to me that threatens one of my basic instincts of life. And when she does, it hurts. And I found that when that happens, one or two things are going to take place. If my instincts are under control, my relationship with God's right, I'm able to say, well, the poor old thing, they're, they're sick just like we are, and they can't help it any more than we can, and it'll just slide off of my back, and the rest of the day is okay. Now, 30 days from now, the same lady does the same thing. Only this time, my relationship with God's not quite right. My instincts are not necessarily under control, and I react with anger. And I romp and I stomp and I raise hell with Barbara and everybody around me all day long. The same lady did the same thing, but I choose to react to it in an entirely different manner based upon my relationship with God and whether my instincts are under control. Thank God I've learned that. Because you see, I can't do anything about Barbara. I can't do anything about any other human being on earth. But with God's help, I can do something about my reaction to it. And if I don't have to get angry, then I'm in much less chance of getting drunk. Remember, resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. I see more people get drunk in AA over anger than I do anything else. Thank God I've learned how to handle some of that stuff. Now, we filled out these three columns. We've learned three things. Number one, column one, 
how resentful we really are. We made a decision, let God direct our thinking. He can't because of the resentments. Column two. It's not them I resent, it's what they've done to me. Column three. It's not even what they've done to me. It's how I have chosen to react to it based on my own basic instincts of life. Very valuable information. You want to put... Uh, yeah, if you want to realize and look at this in this manner, that these this inventory is just little notes to yourself to talk about them in step five. That's all. Very, very, very simple. Just little notes to yourself. Okay, we're, we're going to put a couple of names up here, just an example. We're going to run for about maybe ten more minutes, and then we'll quit for the day. Wish we had more time, but we don't. They're going to have a... Big dinner in here this evening. They're going to have to get this thing ready. Wish they had a dinner for us, but they're not. <laughs> We're going to take a couple names from our inventories and put them on here. Just a couple of them. Uh, the first, the first name on my, uh, on my resentment sheet was this lady named Barbara. You know, some, uh, some 36, 37, 38 years ago, I hated this woman with a purple passion. If there was any way I could have killed her and got by with it, I believe I would have done it. You know, I used to lay awake at night and fantasize. Now, tomorrow morning on her way to work, and I always believed in her being self-supporting through her own contributions, and I'd think, now, tomorrow morning on her way to work, she's going to get run over by a big semi-truck. And it's not going to be just any semi-truck. It's going to be a very affluent trucking company. <laughs> and they're going to kill her, and then I'm going to sue them. And I'm going to get rid of her and get a couple million dollars out of this deal at the same time. You al are not the only ones that fantasize. We alcoholics did it too. <laughs> Second name on my sheet was the Internal Revenue Service. Now, if you wanted to hear a guy come unglued, you just mention their name in my presence. And I immediately begin to jump up and down, frothing at the mouth, and just threw an absolute fit. God, I hated those people. Joe, who was the first one on your sheet? Name was Rose. Now, who was Rose? Wife number one? Okay. Old Rose, wife number one, was Joe's first one. Okay, that's how easy it is now to fill out that first column. You, you don't have to be highly educated to do that. And if you can't write, you feed the names to somebody else and have them write them down. You know? Very simple. Column two. Why Samoa so upset with Barbara? Well, this lady had the audacity to file for divorce three times the last year before she went to Al-Anon. She's spending more money on lawyers than I'm spending on booze and everything that goes with it. And I really had it in for her. Other reasons too, but that was the main one. Why am I so upset with the Internal Revenue Service? Well, they're trying to put me in jail. That's why. (laughs) Joe, how come you're so upset with Rose? 
an affair with another man. That's how simple column two is. Column three. Which part of self is affected? Barbara filing for divorce three times within one year. Is that a threat to my self-esteem? Oh, yeah. What are the neighbors going to think about me now? This woman filed for divorce three times and I'm still letting her live in the same house I'm living in. What are they going to think about me now? Threat to my personal relationships? Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's going to take the kids and I probably won't get to see them anymore. Is it a threat to my security? Oh, yeah. By the time she and the lawyers get through with it, they'll have it all. What a little bit we got left. Is it a threat to my sex life? She probably won't let me have any after we get a divorce. I had a hard enough time getting her to give me some before we got married. I don't think she will after we get a divorce. Just wipe me out right across the board. Internal Revenue Service trying to put me in jail. Is that a threat to my self-esteem? You bet you what will people think about me now. Threat to my personal relationships? Oh, yeah, I'm going to be locked up. Can't have any relationship with my wife and my kids. Threat to my security? Oh, yeah, by the time they're through with their fines and everything, they'll have it all. Threat to my sex life? <laughs> the kind I'd like to have, yeah, there may there may be some in there I don't want. <laughs> Rose having an affair with another man. Is that a threat to Joe's self esteem? Oh, yeah. One of the neighbors going, not even man enough to keep his own wife at home. Is that his personal relationship? <laughs> I never look to see what he's put up there. I'm always afraid to. I... Is it a threat to his security? Sure it is. He's going to have to go to work now. That woman's been supporting him for the last ten years. he got to get a job now. Threat to his sex life? Why, sure it is. This wipes him out right across the board. That's how simple this thing is now. Now, it's just not difficult to do that. Okay, let's go back now to the bottom of page 65. Joe, you want anything you want on there? Oh, let's forget that last name. It's... <laughs> he can't put too much up there. Uh, I've just known him for 30 years. Uh, if he starts snitching on me, I'll snitch on him too. <laughs> Bottom of page 65. We went back through our lives. Nothing counted but thoroughness honesty. When we were finished, we considered it carefully. Well, the first thing apparent was this world and its people were often quite wrong. To conclude that others were wrong was as far as Moses have ever got. The usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us, and then we stayed sore. Sometimes it was remorse, and then we were sore at ourselves. 
But the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. As in war, the victor only seemed to win. Our moments of triumph were short-lived. Now, it's plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. To the precise extent that we permit this, that we squander the hours which might have been worthwhile. And I read that last statement, and I tried to look back in my life to see how much time I squandered in resentments. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I've got a good resentment churning around in my head, I'm pretty well paralyzed from doing anything worthwhile. And one of my favorite things I used to do when I was drinking was get up in the morning, have a drink of whiskey and a cup of coffee, and turn on my resentment replay machine (laughs) and replay what she did to me yesterday, what he did to me last week, what that damn neighbor said to me 90 days ago. What that damn policeman did to me a year ago. What that damn boss did to me five years ago. And what this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy. And I loved every moment of it. It took me just about an hour to run through that tape. And when I get through that tape, I'd have another drink of whiskey and another cup of coffee. And then I would turn on my get-even machine. (laughs) By God, the next time she does that... I'll do this, and she'll do that, and I'll say this, and waco. I'm going to put it on her. They're not going to treat me that way. Loved every moment of it. Took at least an hour to run through the get-even tape. I have spent literally thousands and thousands and thousands of hours in resentments. And as I look at them, I can't see where they ever did me any good whatsoever. Never made me any money. Never made me feel better, just made me feel worse. Never straightened up a relationship with another human being. It just made them worse and worse and worse and worse. And as far as I can tell, it was absolute wasted time. Now, I've reached a point in my life where I don't have a hell of a lot of time left. And I love to be sober and peaceful and happy and free. I enjoy every moment of my life. And what little time I've got left, I do not intend to waste any more of it in resentments because they absolutely block me off from God, from myself, and from my fellow human being. And they make me sick, and I don't want to be sick anymore. So I don't have to do that anymore. I found a way not to have to do that anymore. The wasting of the time is a bad thing, but that's not the worst thing. Here's the worst thing about a resentment. But with the alcoholics who hope is the maintenance and, and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave. We found that it is fatal. For when harboring such feelings, we shed ourselves off in the sunlight of the spirit. The insanity of alcohol returns and we drink again. And with us, to drink is to die. There's the worst thing wrong with the resentment. <clears throat> We're harboring a resentment in our head. We're blocked off from God. And blocked off from God, we don't feel good. And we're going to feel bad just so long. And we're going to start thinking about taking a drink in order to feel better. Next thing you know, we become insane. And we end up drunk all over again. And for us to drink is to die. That's the worst thing about resentments. I see more people get drunk over resentments and anger than anything else in AA.
If we were to live, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. We turned back to the list, for it held the key to the future. We were prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. Always before, I looked at it to see what those suckers had done to me. Today, I look at it to see what the resentment is going to do to me. And if it's going to get me drunk, then I'm looking at it from an entirely different angle. We begin to see that the world and its people really dominated us. In that state, the wrongdoing as others fancied or real had power to actually kill. And I read that and I said, Charlie, Charlie, how stupid can you be? All my life I've been proud of the fact that I stand on my own two feet. Nobody tells me what to do. I don't need your advice, thank you. And I suddenly realized that other people have controlled and dominated my thinking as far back as I can remember through my resentments toward them. And if they control and dominate my thinking, they control and dominate my actions, they control and dominate my life, and I've given them the power to actually kill me. And then I said, man, you really are stupid. Because some of these people have been dead and buried in the graveyard for years. And reaching out from the grave and had me but a yang-yang as far back as I can remember. And when I saw that, I said, to hell with those people. I'm not going to let those people live in my head rent-free any longer. I made a decision to let God direct my thinking. And if they direct my thinking, alive or dead, God can't, and it's just that simple. And you know, an amazing thing happened to me. You know, we alcoholics fancy ourselves as reasonably intelligent people. And I think we are. I don't think we're smarter than others, but we're reasonably intelligent people. And we don't like to look stupid. And we see the stupidity of letting other people control us and dominate us through our resentments toward them. That looks so stupid that about 95% of those resentments are going to automatically start disappearing because they look so dumb. Oh, they look good in your head. But you get them down on paper and you see what they're doing to you, they look double, double dumb on paper. And about 95% of my resentments begin to disappear. Now, we're going to have to quit. Uh, We're going to have three or four or five resentments that don't disappear because they look so dumb. And tomorrow morning we'll talk about how to get rid of them. And then we're going to talk about how to really see the truth behind those resentments and where they actually actually do come from. I think it'll be very revealing to you tomorrow morning. That's all we got for today. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Keith. My name is Joe, and I'm an alcoholic. And it's truly by God's grace and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous I find in a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm sober today, and for that I'm very, very thankful. And so are a lot of other people.
Especially Phyllis. Especially my wife, Phyllis. And I've been sober since November 3rd, 1973, and for that I'm truly thankful. I'd like to read the preamble, please. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem but help others recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We're self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. Does not wish to engage in any controversy. Neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. And uh, it's been a great weekend so far. You guys have really made it that way, and we thank you for that. I want to tell you a little story this morning. It goes along with what we're doing right now, the inventory. And it's a story about these three boys, about like Keith and Charlie and I. They were about 22, 23 years old, and they were in the sixth grade. <laughs> you have to kind of get the picture here. And the teacher wanted them, I mean, the principal wanted them out of the sixth grade desperately. So he called them in the office one day and said, boys, I'm going to ask you all a question. If you get to answer these questions correctly, you move on to the seventh grade. So they asked Keith, said, Keith, what is it that women have two of that men like to get their hands on? And he thought for a long time, and finally he said, well, women have two hands. Men like to hold women's hands. He said, that's good, Keith. You're in the seventh grade. He looked at Charlie. He said, now, Charlie, what is it that men have one of that women like to get their hands on? And he thought for a long time, and finally he said, well, men have one billfold. Women like to get their hands on a man's billfold. <laughs> he said, that's good, Charlie. You can go to the seventh grade. He looked at me, and he said, now, Joe, I'm going to ask you a simple question. I said, God, I hope so. I missed those first two. <laughs> The main problem of the alcoholic centered in the mind, isn't it? Are you through? I'm finished. All right. Good morning, everybody. My name is Charlie Parman. I'm a very grateful recovering alcoholic. Because I'm a member of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and by the grace of the power that I found through the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink for 13,136 days today, one day at a time. And this I'm very, very grateful. You guys really look good this morning. You really do. Not a resentment left in the whole bunch. You really worked on it. How many of you went back where you were staying last night and worked on at least one resentment? Could you see your hands? Yeah, a lot of you did. Great. How many of you got rid of at least one resentment? Could you see your hands? Yeah. How many of you did we give a new resentment to yesterday? <laughs> Pray for us. We need to pray and you need to practice. We always like to start Sunday morning off with a little spiritual story. And I've got one that I just love to share with other people. And this was about a new young priest. And he was so nervous during his first Mass he could barely speak. Before his second week in the pulpit, he asked the Monsignor what he could do to relax himself. And the Monsignor said it might help if you would put some vodka in the water glass, and after a few sips, everything would be fine. Well, the next Sunday, the new young priest put the suggestion into practice, and he was able to talk up a storm, and he felt great. Upon returning to the rectory, he found a note from the Monsignor which said, 
I suggest the following. Number one, next time, sip at the water rather than gulp at it. (laughs) Number two, there are ten commandments, not (laughs) twelve. Number three, there are twelve disciples, not ten. (laughs) Number four, David slew Goliath. He didn't kick the shit out of him. Number five, we do not refer to our Savior Jesus Christ and His apostles as J.C. and the boys. <laughs> Number six, next week there's a taffy pulling contest at St. Peter's. Not a Peter pulling contest at St. Taffy's. <laughs> Number seven, we do not refer, refer to the cross as the big T. And number eight, last but not least, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are not referred to as Big Daddy, Junior, and the Spook. (laughs) That's probably about as spiritual as we'll get this morning, too. Okay, we, uh, we finished up yesterday evening. We were in the process of talking, uh, about our inventory process. Uh, Joe, let's put it on the screen for just a moment. Or we might hit that fellow right there just to turn that switch on for us. Would you do that? That little red switch up there on the front of it. Yeah. Yeah, okay, great. Thank you, thank you. And uh, we uh, we made our list of resentments, and we found out uh, how many resentments we really did have. Most of us didn't think we had very many, and we start putting them all down on paper for the first time. We realize how many resentments we really do have. And if we've got that many resentments, then God can't direct our thinking because the resentments direct our thinking. Column two, we put down the cause of the resentment. And as we filled out that second column, we begin to realize it's not really them we're mad at. It's what they've done that's got us upset. And begins to get kind of names out of the picture. And we start centering in on what they did to us rather than who they are. Column three, we put down the part of self that was affected. And we found that in most cases we'd be one part of self is really going to stand out as we fill out that third column. Uh, one person may be writing in self-esteem all the time. Another one may be security. Another one it may be sex. With most of us, it'll be a combination of all three, but at least one part of self's going to stand out and show us the part of self we're having a real problem with. Column three, we also found out the source of our anger. We found that we cannot get upset unless somebody threatens one of the basic instincts of life. And if they threaten our social instinct, security instinct, or sex instinct in any way, then we usually react with anger and resentment, etc. We never could do anything about anger because we didn't know where it came from. But now that we know it comes from a threat to one of the basic instincts of life, then with God's help, maybe we don't have to react with anger all the time. And we're in much less chance of getting drunk than we were before we started this thing. We also found in the book that the resentments are an absolute waste of time. Because when they're churning around in our head, we're pretty well paralyzed from doing anything worthwhile. All we want to do is just sit there and turn that resentment over and over and over and over. 
replan what they did to us and replan how we're going to get even with them and how we're going to show them and et cetera. And for most of us, we've wasted thousands and thousands of hours in resentments and really can't see whether they did us any good at all. So that was the bad thing, the absolute waste of time. But we also found that wasn't the worst thing. The worst thing is that a resentment blocks us off from the sunlight of the Spirit. And blocked off from God, we don't feel good. And if we don't feel good, then sooner or later we start thinking about taking a drink. Next thing you know, we become insane. We take a drink and we trigger the allergy and we end up drunk over and over and over again. Resentments are the number one offender. We turn back to that list because it held the key to the, to the future. And for the first time, we begin to realize that other people have really controlled and dominated our thinking for us as far back as we can remember. And we always thought that we had it, that nobody told us what to do, and we didn't need anybody's advice. But we begin to realize that other people, through our resentments toward them, have actually controlled and dominated our thinking for years and years and years. With that came the realization that some of these people are already dead and buried in the graveyard and reaching out from the grave and had us by the yang-yang as far back as we can remember. And we saw that, that began to look pretty stupid, pretty stupid. And we fancy ourselves as reasonably intelligent people. We don't like to look stupid. And we see the stupidity behind these resentments. We see that it's letting other people control us and dominate our lives for us, it begins to look so dumb that those resentments that did look awful good in our head now begin to look pretty stupid on paper. And we don't like to look dumb. We don't like to look stupid. So about 95% of those resentments automatically begin to disappear when we see the stupidity behind them. But there are also going to be probably three or four or five resentments that have embedded, been embedded in our minds so long and so deeply that just seeing the stupidity behind them, they'll get rid of them. And the book recognizes now in every action step that self cannot overcome self, that in every action step we're going to have to have God's help. So we now come to the first prayer in the big book on step four. We hear always about the step three prayers, the step seven prayers. We never hear about the step four prayers. So let's look and see how we can get rid of those that are so deeply embedded that they don't automatically leave when we see their stupidity behind them. Joe? He said, this was our course. We realized that people who had wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. We're at the bottom of page 66. And though they did not, though we did not like their symptoms and the way they disturbed us, they like ourselves were sick too. Here's the first part of the prayer. We ask God to help us to show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. When a person offended, we said to ourselves, this is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God save me from being angry. Thy will be done. See, I used to lay awake nights like most people thinking about these people and how I was going to get even with them and how I could get even with them. Never could get even with them. But I finally found out how you get even with people. The way you get even with people is you pray for them. You see? And when you pray for them, then you're even. And I, I did that. But I had some deep-seated resentments, too, that I that didn't quite work like this. And I was in Apache, Oklahoma, 
one time. I was sober about, about four or five months. And I met this lady named Alabama Carruthers. Some of you all may have heard of Alabama. She's dead now, bless her heart. But she loved Alcoholics Anonymous, and she loved this program dearly. And she was speaking there that night. And she said a couple of things that kind of went off like a thunderbolt in my head. One of them said she had a soul sickness. And boy, soul sickness. Now that's what I, I finally heard a word I could put with the feeling that I had in the last days of my drinking, a soul sickness. And then she said another thing. She said, I've got a peace of mind tonight. Peace of mind. God, I, I thought to myself, how long has it been since I've had peace of mind? Could not remember. And after the meeting was over with, we were sitting around this hotel and my little friend George was laid over in her lap asleep. <laughs> He's sleeping in your lap too if you got a chance. But uh, that, that's George. And about three o'clock in the morning, I said, Alabama, you said you had peace of mind tonight. How did you get peace of mind? And she said, well, Joe, tell me what's going on in your mind. Hmm. See, I never told anybody that. Because I think they would think I was crazy if they knew what was going on in my mind. And I told them about my old rose there. And uh, when I drank back in those days, I drank and I'd go places. And I didn't come home right away either. Uh, sometimes I'd be gone overnight or two or three days or a week or a month or whatever. And I'd come home just like I just went out to the store to get a loaf of bread. You know? <laughs> Thought more, no more of it than that. But this one time I'd been gone about three months. And I was sitting at the bar one night called the Zebra Lounge. It's a lovely place. And uh, still smell it today. I almost smell it now. <laughs> but uh, I was sitting on the bar stool and I got to thinking. Now, you know, either drink or think, but don't get the two of them mixed up. <laughs> I got to thinking, well, old Rose hadn't seen me in about three months. I bet she's lonely. Wouldn't you be if you hadn't seen me in about three months? <laughs> and I said, I think I'll go home and visit. Anybody know what I mean by visit? Okay. So I'm going to go home and visit. So I went over to my house, and I banged on the door, and she kind of peeked out the door a little bit, and I just broke right in there is what I did, and got in my living room, and there's an old boy in my recliner watching my TV in my house with my wife, and I'm making payments on all that. But what are you going to do, Jim? <laughs> I did. I jumped on that old boy, and he liked to beat me to death in my own living room floor. <laughs> Put me out in the yard and told me not to ever come back. <laughs> boy, you think I didn't live on that one for a long time. And I told Alabama about that. I told how my mind used to race all the time thinking about that situation. How can going how can we get even with those people? And she said, Well, Joe, you're just full of resentments. And I said, Well, what is a resentment? She said, Resentments are old angers and old hurts that are refelt over and over and over again. And all that anger you intend to use on them, you're turning it on yourself. You're making yourself sick and blaming it on them. And uh she had to explain that to me several times before I finally got it. And I said, well, is there any solution for this? What can I do about this? Now, you have to know Alabama. She had a purse about that big and about that tall. And she began to dig down in that purse. You know how they are. And she was looking for something. She finally found this book down there. And she pulled it out. And she said, Joe, on page 551 of this book, 
in the freedom from bondage section is a story of a lady who has some deep-seated resentments like you do. If you read and do what she said and did, maybe it would help you. She said it had helped her, maybe it would help me. So she showed me on page 551 in the uh, third paragraph. This lady said, I've had many spiritual experiences since I've been in the program. Many that I didn't recognize right away, for I'm slow to learn, and they take many guises. But one was so outstanding that I like to pass it on whenever I can, and I hope it would help someone else as it helped me. As I said earlier, self-pity, resentment were my constant companions, and my inventory began to look like a 33-year diary, for I seemed to have a resentment against everybody I'd ever known. All but one responded to the treatment suggested in the steps immediately, but this one posed a problem, and it was against my mother. I was 25 years old. I had fed it, fanned it, and nurtured it as one might a delicate child. It had become as much a part of me as my breathing. It had provided me with my excuses for my lack of education, my marital failures, personal failures, inadequacies, and, of course, my alcoholism. And though I really thought I'd been willing to part with it now, I knew I was reluctant to let it go. If it did all that thing for me, I'd be reluctant to let it go, too. <laughs> but one morning, however, I realized I had to get rid of it before my reprieve was running out. And if I didn't get rid of it, I was going to get drunk, and I didn't want to get drunk anymore. In my prayers that morning, I asked God to point out to me some way to be free of this resentment. During the day, a friend of mine brought me some magazines to take to a hospital group I was interested in. And I looked through them, and a banner across the front of one featured an article by a prominent clergyman in which I caught the word resentment. Now, he said, in effect, and here it is, if you have a resentment you want to be free of, if you will pray for the personal thing that you resent, you will be free. If you will ask in prayer for everything you want for yourself to be given to them, you will be free. As for their health, their prosperity, their happiness, and you will be free. Even when you really don't want it for them and your prayers are only words and you don't mean it, go ahead and do it anyway. Do it every day for two weeks, and you'll find you've come to mean it and want it for them. And you realize that where you used to feel bitterness and resentment and hatred, you now feel compassion, understanding, and love. Well, I went home after that conference and got in bed that night. My mind started racing again. And I remembered, I said, I think I'll pray for those people. And I prayed for them, added some names to the list. Next morning I got up and I said, I think I'll pray for those people. And I prayed for them and some other people. And as the days went by, it seemed like I was in constant prayer for weeks two or three weeks or four, I don't know, all all day long. But I do know this one morning at the corner of 31st and Lewis in Tulsa, Oklahoma, after one of our cold winters, and I guess it was in early April, uh, I got stuck in a stoplight. And I looked over there at this beautiful home sitting on the corner. Now, this was just the length of a stoplight. I noticed those tools were red and yellow, full bloom. They were just gorgeous. The grass was green and the birds were singing and the trees were blooming out. And so, boy, I said to myself, it's a beautiful morning, isn't it? Absolutely a beautiful morning. And then I said to myself, well, Joe, how long has it been since you've seen a morning like this? I could not remember. I could not remember. See, I've been looking in black and white for so long. There was no color in my life. But that morning, everything was vivid. And I knew that morning was the morning that this program would work for me. You see, I prayed for those people. They didn't change. But I did. And my feelings toward them did. And then I realized I wasn't laying awake not thinking about them either. You see, we were even. I was even with them because I prayed for them. 
And this book talks about being cut off in the sunlight of the Spirit. I know what that means. I mean, I really do know what that means. And I don't ever want to go back there again. Ever. Thank God for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you've got a resentment that you don't want to get rid of, for God's sake, don't pray about it. Because <laughs> if you do, it's probably going to disappear. You know, I had one of those against a guy and another one of those that I would gladly have killed him if I could get by with it. I got to that part of the recovery program and I told my sponsor, I said, uh, I said, I can't, I don't want to get, I can't get rid of this resentment. And he said, why? And I explained it to him and he said, oh, Charlie, said, you've got to get rid of that resentment. That if you don't, sooner or later it's going to get you drunk. In my usual smart mouth manner, I said, okay, how in the hell do I do that? And he took me to this page in in the book that Joe just read. And he said, now go home and do what it says. And you'll be okay. You'll get rid of that thing. And I went home and got down on my knees, which again, I very seldom did in those days. And I said, God, I want you to give that son of a bitch everything he deserves. That's the only prayer I had for him that day. <laughs> and the next day I prayed again, and the next day I prayed again, and three or four or five or six days later, I don't know how long, I found myself saying something I didn't intend to say. I found myself saying, God, give him in his life what I want in my own. Give him the same peace of mind and serenity and happiness that I seek for myself. And three or four or five or six or eight days later, I don't know when, one morning I woke up and that resentment was gone. Never, never to return. And the irony in the whole situation is it wasn't two months and this guy moved in as my next door neighbor. (laughs) (laughs) And we were allowed to visit back and forth again in each other's homes and eventually we became good friends again. This thing really does work. I think the reason it works so good is prayer for the welfare, for the benefit of another human being is one of the great expressions of love that one human being can have for another. And love and hate can't exist on the same plane. One's going to have to replace the other. And as we as we pray for their prosperity and their welfare, do it every day for two weeks. If it don't work, do it two more weeks. If that don't work, do it two more weeks. And eventually, eventually, those kind of resentments are going to disappear also. Now just think, if 95% of the resentments disappear because they look so stupid, if the other 5% can be removed through prayer, then that means this display cases up here in my little store that were filled with resentments have now been emptied out. They've now been emptied out. The damaged and unsaleable goods called resentments are gone. And when that happens, there's another natural law that applies. And that law is that nature abhors a vacuum. No such thing as a vacuum or a void. There's always something rushing in to fill it up. If those resentments disappear, God's not going to leave another hole in my head. I've got enough of those already. (laughs) If they disappear, they're going to have to be replaced with something else. And the only thing that can possibly replace them will be the opposite of the resentment. And where my mind used to be filled with resentments, 
Now then, that part of it is filled with love, patience, tolerance, compassion, and goodwill toward my fellow man. You know, that's God's thinking. And I found out to my amazement that to get love, patience, tolerance, compassion, and goodwill, I didn't have to go to any other fellowships, and I didn't have to read any other books. If God dwells within me, and my book says that He does, then those things have always been a part of my makeup. I just never could use them before. In my chase for money, power, prestige, sex, all what I thought were the good things of life, the love, patience, tolerance, compassion, and goodwill had to be repressed to let me operate on the level I wanted to operate on. But now that the resentments are gone, they automatically come to the surface. The most amazing thing that I've ever seen actually takes place. A third of my mind now, I'm in much less chance of drinking. We don't have to wait till we get to the end of this thing to get something out of it. If resentments have been replaced by love, patience, tolerance, compassion, and goodwill, then I'm beginning to get a little peace of mind, a little serenity, and a little happiness all at the same time. You know, this thing really does work. It always amazes me when it does. Now, it would do no good, though, for me to get rid of those resentments if I didn't know how to keep them from coming back. Because the world's full of sick people. And they're going to do it to me again tomorrow. And if I'm not careful, I'll resent. And I can't have just one resentment. If I get one, if I don't do something about it, the next thing you know, I've got two. And then I've got four, and then I've got eight, and then I've got 16, and I'm a basket case all over again. So we need to do one more thing. Let's go to page 67. And now let's look at the last two columns on that inventory sheet. On page 67, the middle paragraph down the middle of the page, it says, referring to our list again. You see, this is why you've got to have a written inventory. This is the second time we've had to go back and refer to that list again. If you had a mental inventory, you would have lost it already. <laughs> referring to our list again, putting out of our minds the wrongs others have done, we resolutely look for our own mistakes. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> We've always looked to see what those suckers did to us. We've never looked to see about our own mistakes. Or had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? Though a situation had not been entirely our fault, we tried to disregard the other person involved entirely. Where were we to blame? The inventory was ours, not the other man's. When we saw our faults, we listed them. We placed them before us in black and white. We admitted our wrongs honestly and were willing to set these matters straight. So I go back to the inventory sheet and look at column four. And if you'll notice, column four is headed up. What did I do? Putting out of mind the wrongs others had done, I resolutely looked for my own mistakes. What did I do, if anything, to set in motion trains of circumstances which in turn caused people or institutions to hurt me and eventually led to my resentment of them for doing so? So I went to that first name on my sheet, that lady named Barbara. I said, okay, Charlie, 
Now let's do what your book's telling you to do. <clears throat> you forget what Barbara did. You forget about her filing for divorce three times in that one year. What did you do, if anything, to set this thing in motion? And it took me about five seconds. And I said, if I hadn't been out there screwing around, I wouldn't have got caught. <laughs> Joe calls that committing adultery. I just call it screwing around. <laughs> I wouldn't have got caught, and she probably wouldn't have filed for divorce in the first place. Another five seconds. If I hadn't been sneaking around behind her back lying to her all the time, she probably wouldn't have filed for divorce in the first place. Another five seconds. If I hadn't been blowing all of our money on what I thought was important, paying no attention to what my wife and kids actually needed, she might not file for divorce in the first place. And for the first time, I began to realize why I loved resentments. You see, I can play a resentment over and over and over and over in my head. And every time I play it over and over in my head, I distort the picture just a little bit every time. And every time I distort the picture, I made what she did a little worse and what I did a little bit less. And let me play it over long enough, I'm finally able to transfer all blame to Barbara and make myself just as pure as the driven snow. Yeah, I don't think we alcoholics could live with ourselves when we're out there doing our thing if we didn't have the ability to transfer blame to others. The guilt and remorse eats us up bad enough. But if we had to actually see the truth behind the things that we're doing when we're out there drinking, you know, I don't think we could possibly stand it. So with these resentments, we can play them over and over and over and gradually, gradually transfer blame to others and never have to look at ourselves and go on and live the kind of life we're wanting to live. I said, my God, is there any more like this on here? I looked at the Internal Revenue Service. Hated those people with a purple passion. I said, now forget the fact they're trying to put you in jail. What did you do, if anything, to set this thing in motion? It's very simple. If I hadn't cheated on my income tax, they wouldn't have been trying to put me in jail. And rather than admit that I'm a liar and a, and a thief and a cheat, I play that resentment over and over and over in my head, transfer all blame to them, make myself as pure as the driven snow. Joe with old Rose. Same kind of thing. Joe, what did you do, if anything, to set that little deal in motion? <laughs> Committing adultery, he said. <clears throat> did you do any lying to her? Yeah, lots of lying to her. <laughs> Did you hear what he said? Always spending their money trying to impress people he didn't like in the first place, you know. <laughs> Typical alcoholic. <laughs> and what we do with those resentments, we play them over and over and over in our head, gradually transfer blame to others, make ourselves as pure as the driven snow, and then keep right on living the same kind of life we wanted to live. 
And we men go from woman to woman to woman. You ladies go from man to man to man. We go from job to job to job. We go from city to city to city and state to state to state, and it's always their damn fault. I think that fourth column is one of the most revealing things that any of us can do for ourselves, to look to see the part that we played in this thing. If we didn't play any part in it, if they did it to us and we didn't do anything to set it in motion in column four, we just put nothing. But in most cases, in my case, everyone, I didn't have a resentment that I had not done something to set that thing in motion, created a problem for them, and they retaliated against me. And then I resented and played it over and over, transferred all blame to them. The book also says, where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? And we've added one more to that inconsiderate because we're going to use it in a couple pages anyhow. And that lists the character defects talked about in the big book. Character defects are selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate. So we go into the fifth column now. And this little deal with Barbara where I was out there doing my thing, paying no attention to her and the kids and etc., Was I selfish under those conditions? You better bet I was. Was I dishonest? You bet I was. Was I self-seeking and frightened? Oh, yeah, I'm saying to myself, man, you're getting close to 40 years old. If you're going to get, say we're going to get some of that, you better get out there and do it now before you get too old. (laughs) Fear. Fear drives us to do many things we would not normally do. Was I inconsiderate of my wife and children? You bet I was. If I really considered their needs and wants first, ahead of my own, I wouldn't have been out doing those things. I looked at the Internal Revenue Service. Cheating on my income tax, was I selfish? Sure I was. Was I dishonest? Sure I was. Was I self-seeking and frightened? Sure I was. Afraid I wasn't going to have enough money to do what I wanted to do, so I ended up trying to cheat them out of their money. And how about Joe with Rose? Joe selfish? Yeah. Was Joe dishonest? Yeah. Was Joe self-seeking and frightened? Yeah. Was he inconsiderate? Yeah, if he really considered old Rose, he wouldn't be gone two or three months at a time. (laughs) He wouldn't come home and find some boy sitting in his easy chair if he stayed home once in a while. (laughs) So for the first time, for the first time, we look in that fifth column, and we see the type of personality that we have developed through our life of living, through, through our, our living life run on self-will throughout our entire lifetime. And I didn't like what I saw. I always thought that I was a pretty good guy. I just drank a little too much. But when I looked into that fifth column and I saw how selfish I had really become and how dishonest and how self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate, I begin to realize for the first time, you know, if I stay that way, 
then I'm going to keep right on doing the same old things I've always done. And if I keep right on doing the same old things I've always done, I'm going to continue to hurt people and institutions. And they're going to retaliate, and I'm going to resent, and I'm going to end up drunk over it. I begin to see in the fifth column where I'm going to have to start changing some of those things if I want a little peace of mind, serenity, and happiness in the future. Just think, if I could become a little less selfish, I'll never be perfect. But if I could become a little less selfish, if I could become a little less dishonest, if I could become a little less self-seeking frightened, if I could become a little less inconsiderate, then maybe I wouldn't be doing those things that's going to hurt people and institutions. And then they wouldn't have to retaliate, and then I wouldn't have to resent. At the very least, I'm going to have to do something about that fifth column. And really, that's the whole purpose of this inventory, is to get me to that fifth column. Column one, we got to have it, and column two, and column three, and column four. But the whole purpose of those four columns is for me to see in that last column, column five, the character defects that I have developed through living a life run on self-will. And those are the things we'll have to work on. Now, we're in the process of taking step four. We'll put a little four up here at the top of that sheet. This is the inventory part, the uh, resentment part of it. In the fifth column, we now see the exact nature of the wrong that we're going to talk to another human being about in step five. The resentment is the wrong. That's what blocks me from God. But what's the exact nature of it? And the exact nature of something is what is at the core of it? What's the inherent characteristic of it? So we're going to talk about that in step five. A guy comes to me today with a step four to do a step five. I don't care how many times he's stolen. Whether he's stolen twice or 200, what I'm interested in is what's within him that causes him to steal. Does he do it because of plain dishonesty? Does he do it because he's self-seeking frightened? Does he do it because he's inconsiderate? That's what we got to find out. I don't care how many times he's committed adultery, whether it's 10 or, or 100. What I'm interested in is what's within him that causes him to do that. Those are the things we'll work on. That's what we talk about in step five. The whole purpose of this inventory is to get us into that fifth column. Also in the fifth column, we now see the character defects that we're going to become willing to turn loose of in step six. Knowing full well if I don't turn loose of those things, if I stay that way, then I'm not going to get a bit better. Also in the fifth column, I now see the shortcomings. I'm going to ask God to take away in step seven. And in my case, all the names in column one, in your case, some of them, in my case, all of them, are going to be taken off column one and added to the sheet to be used later on for steps eight and nine. We get to 8 and 9, the book says we have the list, we made it, and we took step 4. Now, we didn't really realize we'd hurt all those people 
until we worked our way all the way across the inventory sheet and found out we'd been using resentments in order to transfer blame to them. And we didn't realize we had hurt them until we finished up this particular part of the inventory. The most amazing thing I've ever seen. And it's just that simple. It doesn't take very long to do this either. You know, you can do this thing in a matter of two or three hours. Hell, I see people doing this, trying to do this in a matter of two or three months. We can do it in just two or three hours. Just follow the simple little instructions. Joe, you got anything else there? Okay. Now, we don't want to try to give you the impression that you can always be 100% free of resentments. God never gave us anything bad. It's only what we do with it determines whether we're bad or not. A resentment, if used correctly, can be used for a worthwhile purpose. For instance, if somebody does something to me that threatens my self-esteem, if it causes me to look at me and see some changes I need to make, and I go ahead and make those changes in my personality, then the resentment was used for a worthwhile thing. But if I just keep letting it fester and fester and fester, and blaming them for doing so, then it's going to make me sicker and sicker and sicker. Give you a good example. Let's say we're living in the neighborhood and all the old houses are torn or in bad shape. They all need painting. They've all got broken window panes and torn window screens. My house is no worse than anybody else's. And I'm very complacent about that situation. I go home from work in the evening, I sit on my front porch, and I rock, and I rock, and I rock, and I enjoy life. One day I look up and some idiot has moved in across the street. Yeah, he's out there painting his house. (laughs) Fixing the window screens and window panes. Makes my house look bad. (laughs) And I resent the hell out of him for doing that. I say, who in the hell is he moving in here screwing up the whole neighborhood? If I use that resentment right, it'll cause me to look at my house and become a little bit ashamed of it. Next thing you know, I'll paint my house and fix the window screens and the window panes. My next door neighbor resents me for doing so. Next thing you know, he's cleaned up his house. After a while, God's got the whole neighborhood cleaned up like it should have been in the first place. But we alcoholics won't use it that way. We'll sit there and we'll resent and we'll resent and 30 days later at midnight we'll go over and burn his damn house down. One one more little thing on resentments and then we're going to leave them alone. I hear some of you saying, and, and, and I hear good, I really do, I hear you somebody saying, well, Charlie, this is probably all true. For people that we ourselves have harmed. But how, how about those that hurt us and we didn't have anything to do with that? You know, how about the mental abuse and the physical abuse and the sexual abuse that we experienced as kids growing up? How about all those things that, abusive things that happened to us in our marriages? Aren't we justified in having that kind of resentment? I guess we are if we want to get drunk over it. 
But you see, a justified resentment does the same thing an unjustified resentment does. It blocks you off from the sunlight of the Spirit. And it'll get you drunk just as fast as an unjustified resentment will get you drunk. Whoever or whatever we're resenting, they're controlling our thinking, justified or unjustified. Now, it really doesn't make any sense to let somebody hurt us 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago and then let them continue to hurt us every day for the rest of our life. Because every time we play that thing over, we experience that pain again over and over and over and over and over and over. And we've given those people the power to actually kill us. Not only did they hurt us, but through our resentments, we're giving them the power to actually kill us. And if we've got one of those people, one of those kind of resentments, we better get it down on this sheet of paper. Who are they? Column one. What did they do? Column two. Which part of self affected? Column three. What did I do, if anything? Column four. Nothing. But then let's look into the fifth column. Let's look into the fifth column. Are we using that resentment to rationalize and justify things? The lady in the book did it. She used this resentment against her mother to justify her lack of education. Bull. The greatest excuse in the world is I could have gotten an education if mother hadn't have done that to me back there when I was a little kid. Bull. If she wanted an education, she could get it. She used it to justify her marital failure. Bull. Mama didn't have anything to do with that. She even used it to justify her alcoholism. Bull. I'll tell you why she became alcoholic. She kept on drinking whiskey. <laughs> the greatest excuse in the world is if they hadn't have done that to me, then I wouldn't have to do these things I'm doing. Or if they hadn't have done that to me, then I would be able to do these things out here. We call that rationalization or justification. I think the new name for it is victimization. We don't have any room in AA for victimization. You know, we're trying to get some peace of mind, serenity, and happiness. And as long as those old resentments are rolling around in our head, we're never going to have peace of mind, serenity, and happiness. And the only way we can get rid of those things, the only way we can live free is to get rid of those things. Now, if we look at them and see the truth and see the stupidity of letting them control our life and hurt us every day, many times they will automatically disappear. If they don't automatically disappear, then we've always got the recourse of praying for them. The hardest thing in the world today is to pray for another human being who has hurt you badly. But that doesn't mean we approve of what they did. That doesn't mean we're going to walk hand in hand with them the rest of our life. What it means is we're tired of letting sick people make us sick. And they are sick people. They're not necessarily bad people. They would have done it to anybody in that situation. And if we can even begin to realize that, we can begin to get rid of those kind of resentments also until we can become resentment-free at least to the level that God intended for us to do. Joe?
we're going to talk about a bit about fears here in a little bit and uh want to restate something I think we said yesterday. We're not going to psychoanalyze ourselves when we look at our fears. A lot of people like to do that. We're not going to say that the reason we have these fears is because Mommy set us on a potty chair backwards or something. We're, <laughs> we're not going to do that. Did she really do that? Did yes. <laughs> What we're going to do is what the book suggests. We're going to find the facts, and we're going to face the facts, and then we're going to engage in the process to accept the facts. And that's what this inventory is about. You know, we're looking for our own moral fiber. The ideas, the emotions, and attitudes, which Dr. Hume said was the controlling issues of our life, ideas, emotions, and attitudes, and where they came from, how fearful they were. And I didn't know that I had any. Let's go to page 18 for just a moment. That one little paragraph up there tells my whole story, really. I can find my whole story, a lot of my story, almost any paragraph, but that particular one tells my whole story. It says, an illness of this sort, and we've come to believe it an illness, involves those that bounce away no other human sickness can. If a person has cancer, all is sorry for him, and no one is angry or hurt. But not so with the alcoholic illness. For with it goes annihilation of all things worthwhile in life. It engulfs all whose lives touch the sufferers. It brings misunderstanding, fierce resentment, financial insecurity, disgusted friends and employers, warped lives of blameless children, sad wives and parents, and anyone can increase the list. In other words, alcoholism is a family illness. And if you live with one of us very long, you're going to be affected by it. Generally not very good. As I look back in my life, I see that my dad was an alcoholic. I didn't know that in, in those days. I thought it was no good rotten SOB. But he was an alcoholic. And he had an obsession to drink. And my mother had an obsession to see that he didn't drink. And it seemed like every time my dad took a drink, my mother had a personality change. <laughs> yeah. And they fought and they fussed a lot about that. We left the farm in the middle 30s. Went out to California. Didn't fit in real well out there at that time. Came back to Tulsa, Oklahoma on the west side of the river. Charlie's family lived about three or four miles down the, the river from us. And the whole side of town was basically fearful. Cause we were, when we lived on the farm, we were pretty safe there. But when we got away from the farm, we broke up the family unit. And everybody went off in every direction at one time. And we ended up over in West Tulsa. My dad got a job as an ice man, back breaking work six days a week. No minimum wage in those days, so it was less than the minimum wage. Hauling ice to people's houses. Saturday evening late, he would go get off work, get his little check, and go down and buy him a little pint of whiskey for $2. Rock got whiskey in the bootleg. And didn't have the real stuff in Oklahoma at that time. And he'd come home to have a drink. And see, I think he deserved a drink after six days of back-breaking work. But my mother saw those $2 taking away food from her five kids. And she was very fearful, too. My whole family was fearful. And they began to fuss and fight about that a lot. And I grew up in this. And uh, from time to time, my dad would pull out a knife and threaten my mother with it. And from time to time, he would tell us kids, boys, I'm taking your mom out this weekend. I'm going to kill her. And I'm, you know, I'm five, six years old. And I believe that. See? And I used to sit at home and eat on my fingernails all the way down to the quick, worried about those things. And I got, I got a, a fearful attitude as a result of that. Eventually, my mother had to have him arrested 
and put in Eastern State Hospital in Bonita. That's our local nut house. And there was no alcoholic treatment board in that nut house at that time. It was 1948. And, uh, but what they did have was a criminally insane board. And that's where they put my dad. And he was to stay there till they got well. Think about that. Could be there a while, right? Well, my dad was in the criminally insane ward for three years and seven months and 13 days. And he was an alcoholic. And I used to hitchhike up to my brother and I up the old 66 highway and walk those three miles from 66 back to the hospital, take him a couple of dollars and a carton of cigarettes from time to time. Go up on, on the third building three up on the fifth floor in the back and saw things back there that nobody's supposed to see. Nobody supposed to see those things. And on the way home, I began to get a bunch of ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which become the guiding force of my life. And I taught myself these things. No one taught, I was not taught these by other people. One of the thoughts that came to me was like this. If God is going to do this to me and to us and to hell with him, if I ever get big enough, they can't catch me. I'm not going to church anymore. This is what he's going to be like. And that was an attitude that I got at about seven years old and didn't go anymore either. So when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had the spiritual knowledge of a seven-year-old boy, and you can probably guess what it was. Another thought came to me one day was this. Hey, if it hurts like this to love people, I'm not going to love anybody anymore. hurts too bad. So I began to push people out of my life, and I was good at that. I'm still good at it. Sitting at the table this morning, someone was talking to me. I didn't even hear them. Right next to me. I have the ability to tune you out. <laughs> you see? And, uh, he has selective hearing. That's what it is. <laughs> I walk right past you, not even see you. But that's the way it was. I put people out of my life. And another, another thought came to me one day was anything good is going to happen in my life. It's going to happen because I, all along, without any help from anybody, made it that way. And you see, I thought those were very brave attitudes on my part. I didn't need God, nothing, or nobody. Turns out they're the most fearful attitudes anyone could possibly have. And certainly I didn't know that. I, I used those as a coping skills for a long time. And they're not very good coping skills, by the way. They put you in jail for that. They did for me. Put you in prison for that, and they did that for me. They divorced you for those kind of attitudes, and they did that for me. How many times? Too many times. <laughs> but I keep trying to get him to say he's been married to two women seven, seven times. Yeah. <laughs> Phyllis only agrees with one, but I divorced her twice and it wasn't even my turn. But uh, not very good coping skills, what I'm telling you. They don't, they don't divorce you for being a good husband and a good father and a good provider. They divorce you for being like I was. So anyhow... Over, over in our part of the, uh, our part of town, Charlie lived about three or four miles down the road. And uh, there was two kinds of kids in school. One, one type of kid was those that ran home from school. And the other type was those that ran people home from school. <laughs> and I knew that if they ever got you to running, they wouldn't let you quit. So I became one of those that ran people home from school out of a defense, you see. And I became that way for many, many years of my life. If I perceived a threat from you, it was not good for you. I would retaliate even though I hadn't had a threat, you see. So that was the way I arrived in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, like I said, I didn't know that any of these things were fearful thoughts on my part. 
I thought they were very brave on my part until I did an inventory process. Turns out the most fearful attitudes, ideas, emotions that anyone could possibly have. So now let's go to page 67. Joe said in his neighborhood, he became one of those that ran other kids home from school. Well, I never was big enough to do that. Hmm. So I just stood on the corner and talked them out of it as they went by. (laughs) (laughs) Charlie was always talking to the girls. Bottom page 67. Notice that the word fear is bracketed alongside the difficulties with Mr. Brown, Miss Jones, the employer, and the wife. This short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. It was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. It set in motion trains and circumstances which brought us misfortune. We felt we didn't deserve. But did not we ourselves set the ball rolling? Sometimes we think that fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. And here's the instructions. We reviewed our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper, even though we had no resentment in connection with them. We asked ourselves why we had them, and here it was for me. Wasn't it because that self-reliance had failed us? Self-reliance was good as far as it went, but it didn't go far enough. Some of us once had great self-confidence, but didn't fully solve the fear problem or any other. When it made us cocky, it was worse. Okay, in that paragraph that Joe just read, we see basically the same set of instructions to look at fears as we had for resentment, except worded a little bit differently which is Bill's way of doing things. He's not about to repeat himself exactly the same way twice in a row. So we made up another little inventory sheet called a review of fears. And it looks almost like the resentment sheet. It's got the five columns in it. Column one, who or what do I fear? Column two, the cause. Column three affects my. Column four, what did I do? And column five, where had I been? So we go back to column one, and just like with resentments, we make a list of our fears. Going always from top to bottom. Now we men tend to say, well, we don't have much fear, we're tough, we're macho. But we're not talking about physical fear as much as we are all these fears that run through our mind that really control us and rule us and dominate us, that determines what we do and what we don't do, and etc. And I know just like resentments, I didn't think I had much fear. In fact, I told, told my sponsor, I don't really have any fear. He said, oh, surely you're afraid of something. And I said, well, not that I know of. He said, are you afraid of snakes? I said, well, hell yes, everybody's afraid of snakes. (laughs) He said, write that down. (laughs) And I wrote snakes down, and that started started the thing going. And I began to fill out, once again, sheet after sheet after sheet after sheet of fears. We all got fears. Fears connected with our marriages. Fears connected with our children. Fears connected with our jobs. Fears connected with the aging process. Fears connected with this and that and so on and so forth. All we have to do is just make a list of them. 
just like we did with the resentments. When I made up that list of fears, I, I never realized I had that much fear. You can only see one at a time in your head. And I don't think any of us will really realize how much fear controls and dominates our thinking till we get them all down on paper and see them in their entirety for the first time. Column two. What's the cause of the fear? Now, like Joe said, we're not going to attempt to psychoanalyze ourselves. We're not going to say that I'm afraid of the dark because Mother set me sideways on the potty when I was two years old. Fear is like resentment. Fear can be used for a worthwhile purpose. You know, it can bring caution and keep us out of trouble. Yeah, I'm a little bit afraid of the dark. Why? I don't have headlights and I can't see at night. And that keeps me from getting hurt. I'm a little bit afraid of heights. Why? I don't have wings and I can't fly. And that keeps me from getting hurt. But if those kind of fears keep me from going outside after dark, keep me from riding in an elevator or an airplane, then I better get them on this paper and look at them because they're controlling my life for you. Most of our fears, just like the book says, did we ourselves not set the ball rolling? Most of our fears are going to be centered around just two or three things. I'm scared to death I'm going to lose something I've already got. Scared to death I'm not going to get something I want. Or I've done something I shouldn't have done, and I'm scared to death what they're going to do whenever they find out about it. Nearly all my fears stem from those kind of things. Let's give you a couple of fast examples. Column one, let's put down my boss for the first fear. Column two, let's put down the police for the second fear. Now, we can list many of them, but those are just a couple common ones. Column two, what's the cause of that fear with my boss? I'm afraid he's going to fire me. Very simple. What's the cause of my fear with the police? Well, I'm afraid they're going to put me in jail. Very simple reasons for that. Column three. What part of self is affected? If my boss fires me, is that going to be a threat to my security? Going to be a threat to my self-esteem? Sure. If the police put me in jail, is that going to be a threat to my security? Going to be a threat to my self-esteem? Going to be a threat to my sex life? Once again, the kind I'd like to have, yeah. Some in there I don't want. Column four. What did I do to set this thing in motion? Before my boss is concerned, I'm always late for work. He's threatened me a half a dozen different times, but I'm always coming in late for work, and he's getting pretty tired of that. How about this deal with the police? Well, I'm always breaking the law. I'm exceeding the speed limit every time I get out there. I'm always stealing from people. I'm scared to death they're going to catch me now and put me in jail. Column five. Where had I been? This deal with my boss. Am I selfish? Sure, I'm selfish. Am I inconsiderate? You betcha I'm inconsiderate. You know, if I really, if I really needed one to do the things I'm supposed to do, I'd be at work on time 
wouldn't be creating this kind of problem for my boss. He wouldn't have to be threatened to fire me. Complete inconsideration of other people. This deal with the police. Am I selfish? Oh, yeah. Hell, I'm driving 85 mile an hour, taking a chance on killing a half a dozen different people. Why don't I just drive by the speed limit, see? Am I inconsiderate? You betcha. Am I dishonest? Sure I am. Same old character defects behind these fears. That's behind the resentments. And again, what we're trying to do is work our way into that fifth column. You see, if I wasn't so selfish, I wouldn't have to be afraid of losing what I've got or not getting what I want. If I wasn't so dishonest, I wouldn't be doing those things that create problems for others and I'm scared to death what they're going to do when they catch me. If I wasn't such a self-seeking, frightened individual in the first place, I wouldn't have to experience so much fear. If I wasn't so inconsiderate of other human beings, I wouldn't be doing the things that create problems for them. We the same old character defects out there in that fifth column that's behind the fears as we had behind resentments. But if I could become a little less selfish, a little less dishonest, a little less self-seeking frightened, a little less inconsiderate of others, then maybe I wouldn't have to experience so much fear. At the very least, I'm going to have to do something about those things in the fifth column. Because if I stay that way, then fear is going to continue to eat me up. And fear blocks me off from God, just like a resentment does. And the fears control and rule and dominate my thinking for me. Now, once again, we're doing step four. This is the fears part of it. Fifth column, we see the exact nature of the wrong. We're going to talk to another human being about the fear is what blocks me from God. That's the wrong. But what's with it be that creates that fear in the first place? In the fifth column, I see the character defects I'm going to be willing to turn loose of in six. In the fifth column, I see these shortcomings I'm going to ask God to take away in seven. Quite naturally, some of the names in column one are going to be people and institutions I've harmed. And I'm scared to death what they're going to do when they catch me. So their names are going to come off of column one and be added to the sheet to be used later on for steps eight and nine. So we've given ourselves everything we need now for resentments and for fears as far as steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine are concerned. Now you think resentments look stupid. Wait till you get your fears down on paper. Oh, they look good in your head. But they look double, double dumb when you get them down on paper and really see the truth behind them. And they look so double, double dumb that a lot of those fears are going to begin to disappear automatically simply because we see how dumb they really are. They'll no longer have any meaning for us. 
But then just like with resentments, there'll be one, two, three, or four that have been embedded in our minds so long that they don't disappear automatically. And we're going to have to have God's help on that also. We now come to the second prayer in the big book on step four. We had one for resentments. Now we've got one for fear. Page 68. He said, perhaps there's a better way. We think so, for we're now on a different basis. The basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust our infinite God rather than our finite selves. See, but now I've done step three, so I have a God in my life. We are in the world to play the role He assigns. Just to the extent that we do as we think He would have us and humbly rely on Him, does He enable us to match calamity with serenity. Now, we never apologize to anyone for depending upon our Creator. We can laugh at those who think that spirituality is a way of weakness. Paradoxically, it's the way of strength. The verdict of the ages is faith means courage. All men of faith have courage. They trust their God. We never apologize for God. Instead, we let Him demonstrate through us what He can do. And here's the prayer. We ask Him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what He would have us be. And at once, we commence to outgrow fear. We hear always about the promises on page 83 and 84. We never hear about the promises spread throughout the entire book. Joe just read one of the greatest promises to be found anywhere in the big book. We ask God to remove our fear and direct our attention to what He would have us be instead. And at once, we commence to outgrow that fear. Just like with the resentments, we can take these deeply embedded fears one at a time, ask God to remove them on a daily basis, ask Him to direct our attention to what He would have us be instead, and at once we commence to outgrow that fear. Now just think, if 95% of these fears disappear automatically because they look so stupid and dumb, if the other 5% that can be removed through prayer, then that means that this little file cabinet I had up here in my head that was full of fears has now been emptied out. The damaged and unsaleable goods called fear have now been removed. And once again, God is not going to allow another hold in my head. Got enough of those already. If the fears are removed, they have to be replaced. And the only thing that can replace them will be the opposite of them. And where my mind used to be filled with fear, now my mind is filled with faith and courage. And I find that I can do many, many things that I was always afraid to do. And just as importantly, I can quit doing many things that I was afraid to quit. Automatically, that comes to the surface. It's always been a part of my makeup, faith and courage has. But in my chase for money, power, prestige, sex, those things had to be repressed to let me operate on the level I wanted to operate on. And now that they're gone, or now that fear is gone, they automatically come to the surface. Another very positive happening. Two-thirds of my little store now has been straightened up. Isn't that something? Now, just like with a resentment, if you've got a fear that you don't want to get rid of, for God's sake, get it on this sheet. Knowing full well it might get you drunk. If you don't want to get rid of it, let's get it on this sheet and see the truth behind it. 
That's what a moral inventory is, seeing the truth behind these things. Let me give you an example of how fear can control us and rule us. Be honest with me now. How many of you in this room this morning would like to go back to school and finish your education? Can you see your hands? Oh, man, they're popping up all over the room. Okay. I'm asking another question. Please be honest. How many of you really intend to do that? Can I see your hands? <laughs> Less than 20% of them went up this time. Why? Nothing in the world but fear. Fear that we can't measure up. Fear of failure. Fear of hard work keeps us from actually doing things that we really would like to do. All my life I've loved to work with my hands. I always wanted to build a set of kitchen cabinets. But I never would do it because I knew there would be a lot of mistakes in them. They wouldn't look good. People would laugh and I would be embarrassed. After I worked this program several years, I built a set of kitchen cabinets with my hands. Now, they don't look very good, and there's a lot of mistakes in them, and people laugh, but I don't give a damn anymore. (laughs) I had this young guy named Todd that I sponsored years ago, and he was unemployed and unemployable, 29 years old, and he had had 13 jobs that last year of his sobriety, or last year of his drinking. Well, he'd been sober a couple of years, now he's 29 years old, and I said, Todd, what are you going to do with your life? He said, well, I don't know. I said, well, how about uh, what have you always wanted to do? He said, I've always wanted to be an engineer. I said, well, why don't you go back to school and be an engineer? He said, I don't even have a high school education. I said, well, you can get a high school education if you want one. He said, Joe, do you have any idea how old I'll be by the time I get become an engineer? I said, do you have any idea how old you're going to be anyhow? <laughs> uh-huh. Todd went to went to Tulsa Junior High, Tulsa uh, College, Junior College, and got a high school diploma and got on the dean's honor list. Became a very good student. He wasn't dumb, and eventually got a scholarship to the University of Oklahoma Engineering School. Completed that course. He's now working, or he was working out, and is working out in Modesto, California, for an engineering firm. And he told me last fall that he had one more semester and he'd be graduating. That's 15 years ago, and now he's a full-fledged engineer. But he did it because he had the the faith and courage to do so. My sponsor, Franklin, at this time, George, had gotten some trouble, and uh, I had another sponsor named Franklin. And Franklin told me about the two most important things about prayer. He said, absolutely, the two most important things about prayer. One was to start, and the other was to continue. As I look back at that advice, every time I prayed, I've changed just a little fuzz. Hardly enough that anybody would notice, including me. The next time I prayed, I changed another little bit, hardly noticeable. And as the years go by, there's a major, major change in me. I'm not what I used to be, thank God. I'm just not that, thank God, because of prayer. Can't heal a sick mind with a sick mind. Only God can heal a sick mind, see. And every time I pray, I change just a little bit. Slowly over a period of time, there's a major change within me. Okay, we've removed our resentments to the level God intended. They're replaced with love, patience, tolerance, compassion, and goodwill. 
We've removed our fears to the level God intended. They've been replaced with faith and courage. Now, I've got a storeroom back here in the back of my store, though, that's filled with guilt and remorse associated with the people I've hurt in the past. I'm going to have to start doing something about that because that guilt and remorse controls and rules and dominate my thinking. And the first thing I've got to do with that guilt and remorse is to take an honest look at it to really see the truth behind it. And it seems as though we human beings hurt each other more, faster, and easier in the sexual area than we do in any other way. And I think there's some valid reasoning behind that. Most of the other animals here on earth, they got the same kind of sex urge we do so that they can reproduce themselves. But the difference in their sex life and ours is they don't have this thing called self-will. Whatever they do is on God's time. When it comes time for them to reproduce themselves, they usually God usually signifies that by some physical change in the female of the species. The male senses the change, prepares himself, the two join together. It's kind of like bang, bang, thank you, ma'am. And when it's over with, they normally go their separate ways. Not always, but usually. They see, they don't think about having sex before they have it. They can't decide when they're going to have sex. That's on God's time. In most cases, they can't decide who they're going to have sex with. They can't decide whether they're going to have it with one or more sexual partners. And they can't even decide what position they're going to do it in. So therefore, you see very few sexual problems amongst the other animals here on earth. I've never seen a cow on a psychiatrist's couch yet. talking about sexual dysfunction. <laughs> we human beings though, are a little bit different. You see, God gives us that sex urge also so that we will reproduce ourselves. But He gives us this thing called self-will. And we can make decisions about our sex life. Now, we can have sex every day of the year we want to, anytime. We can decide who we're going to have sex with. We can decide whether we're going to have sex with one or more partners. We can decide how many times we're going to do sex, providing we're physically capable of doing so. We can even decide what position we're going to do sex in. They tell me there's something like 64 different positions a human being can have sex in. I have no idea what they are. <laughs> I only found three in my lifetime. <laughs> and two of those damn near killed me. I'm not sure I'm going back to that. So what we're going to do here for just a few minutes this morning, 
is we're, we're not going to talk so much about how we do sex <laughs> as to how we think about sex. Because how we think about it determines how we're going to do it. And that in turn determines whether it's going to hurt other people or not. And that in turn determines whether we're going to have to suffer the retaliation and the shame and the guilt and the remorse associated with those things. I'm always amazed how how simple this thing is regarding this sex thing. Just a couple of pages to let you and I look at our own past sex life, see what we've been doing with it, see if we need some changes, and then how to go about making those changes so we can still enjoy sex, yet at the same time not hurt other people. Let's go to the bottom of page 68. Now about sex. God damn, don't leave you on hell, just a good part. <laughs> I've known old Jim and Jewel forever, so I can get by with that. Jim's going to get a cup of coffee. <laughs> Now about sex, many of us needed an overhauling there. But above all, we tried to be sensible on this question. So easy to get way off the track. Here we find human opinions running to extremes, absurd extremes perhaps. One set of voices cried that sex is a lust of our lower nature, a base necessity of procreation. I've heard them all my life. They're the ones that say sex is a dirty thing, that you ought to do it and one time with one person and the only reason to do it is to reproduce yourself and if you enjoy it it's a sinful thing I've heard them as far back as I can remember they are to the extremes on one side then we have the voices who cry for sex and more sex who bewail the institution of marriage who think that most of the troubles of the race are traceable to sex causes they think we do not have enough of it or that it isn't the right kind, and they see its significance everywhere. You hear them today. They're the ones that say you ought to be able to have sex any time you want to, with as many people as you want to, in any position as you want to, and you ought to be able to enjoy it every time, and if you don't, there must be something wrong with you. Well, maybe they call that the sexual revolution. Main thing I see wrong with it, it happened 25 years too late for me to participate in it. <laughs> One school would allow a man no flavor for his fare, and the other would have us all on a straight pepper diet. And we want to stay out of this controversy. We do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We all have sex problems. We hard to be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? And I read that last statement with great relief. As I knew this book was getting ready to condemn me for what I had been in the past, I knew it was getting ready to tell me what I was going to have to do in the future. And I'd already made up my mind that I wasn't going to pay any attention to it at all. And I'm glad to find out we're not going to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We're not going to get into that question at all. Now, this book is meant to be helpful to anybody anywhere. 
And if we start trying to tell people how to conduct their sex lives, what they can do and what they can't do, then surely we're going to start alienating people. Besides that, what is sexually acceptable in one part of the world may not be acceptable at all in another part of the world. So we're not going to get into that question. What we are going to do is see a way to review our own past sex conduct, to see what really is behind those things that we did, to see if maybe we can shape a new kind of sex life in the future where we can still engage in it and enjoy in it, yet not hurt other people. And primarily, that's all this is about. Joe? I don't want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct for sure, and I need an overhauling in that area when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. We're going to do what the book says, though. We're going to find the facts, and we're going to face the facts, and we engage in the process to accept the facts. And we're going to look for the ideas, the emotions, and attitudes, not necessarily how we do sex, but what we think about sex. Our ideas, our emotions, and our attitudes. In my case, my dad now, his three years and seven months and 13 days later and a little bit later than that, he went off to California. And that left me and my five, four brothers and one sister at home with my mother. And I couldn't talk to him about it because he's gone. I got to be about 11, 12 years old. And I got to thinking about this a lot. I mean, a lot. Got to have a little brain damage from thinking about it. (laughs) No one to talk to, so I finally went to my mom. I said, Mom, I've been thinking about sex. I'll never forget. Scared the heck out. Oh, my God. She said, that's a dirty, filthy, rotten thing to be thinking about, she said. And you ought to save it for the one you love. (laughs) Something. She said the only reason you should have sex in the first place is to have children. Uh, well, I figured that out right quick. She had five children. Then the thought came, well, no wonder my dad was in the nut house. <laughs> so I went to school, and we had sex edu- education when I went to school, except they called it recess. <laughs> I learned a lot of things out there. And... Uh, in West Tulsa, Oklahoma, in front of a place called the Jenkins Cafe, there was a bunch of wise, intelligent, experienced men and women who knew all there was to know about sex. 15, 16 years old. Yeah, 15, 16 years old. They knew it all. And they were more than happy to share it with us little 11, 12-year-old kids. And some of those guys were telling me how often they were having sex with two or three different women a night, they said. My eyes got to be that big around. I like that. <laughs> the fallacy of all this is this. I'm sober two or three years in AA, but I figured out they were lying to me. <laughs> or at least I hope they were lying to me, you know. Because I tried to live my life based upon what I learned on the streets from people that didn't know any more about it than I did. You think I didn't need an inventory when I got here to find out what was right and what was wrong just for me? See, I had the spiritual knowledge of a seven-year-old boy, the coping skills of an eight- or nine-year-old boy, the sexual knowledge of an 11- or 12-year-old boy that I learned off the streets from people that didn't know any more about it than I did. See, I, I was mixed up in all those areas. I needed an inventory. Uh, remember when the first time I got married there in the beginning, I did real good for about t- three years, no problem. 
And one time I went out on my wife, and, it, and the next day I felt bad. I mean, I really felt bad. I didn't know you were supposed to feel bad, but I did. I was supposed to keep you from doing those kind of things, but it didn't. The next time it wasn't quite so bad as the first time. Then the next time it wasn't quite so bad as the time before. And then one day I woke up and it didn't hurt at all. And then I noticed something else. See, if you don't have any principles to live by, ultimately you won't have any reasons to live. And that's where I found myself in the end of my, the end of my drinking. Charlie likes me to tell you the first time I had sex. I was selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, inconsiderate, and I was also alone. <laughs> I don't think you want to hear anything from sex about me, from me. So what we can do is do what this book is going to suggest for us to do, and we'll find our own way. That's why he's wearing glasses today, too. <laughs> Every time I say that, I look out there and half a dozen of you guys have jerked your glasses off and put them in your pocket. <laughs> Did you get that? You jerked your glasses off? <laughs> Okay, let's look at the instructions now. Moving right along. (laughs) We reviewed our own conduct over the years past. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Column five. Whom had we hurt? Column one. Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Column four. Where are we at fault? What should we have done instead? We got this all down on paper and looked at it. Basically the same set of instructions to look at our sex life as we had for resentments. So we just made up another little sheet, another little inventory sheet, called it a review of my own sex conduct. Five columns. Who did I hurt? What did I do? Which part of self is affected? What feelings did I create in others? And where had I been? Now, I don't think anybody in this room has ever hurt anybody in the sexual area that we don't know just exactly who that is. That seems to be a form of common knowledge that we have. Uh, There may be some question about what do we do to hurt people in the sexual area. Of course, we hurt them in many ways. If I'm in a marriage situation, I go out there and have sex out there and my wife finds out about it, then surely I've created a problem for her, if not physically, at least emotionally. If there's children in my home and that sexual escapade out there creates a real rift between my wife and myself and I've hurt my children too. If the lady I had sex with out there becomes common knowledge, then I've hurt her too. And if she has a husband and children, I've hurt them also. One sex act can hurt several different people. I think sometimes we hurt people in a sexual area by simply demanding that they do with things, us, things with us sexually that they really don't want to. Rather than consider their needs and wants, we selfishly demand our own way. I think sometimes we hurt people in a sexual area by demanding more than our fair share. 
Maybe our partner isn't too keen about having sex when we want to, and we selfishly demand they do those things with us when they really don't want to sometimes. I think sometimes we hurt people in a sexual area by withholding sex. Maybe we're not too keen about having sex every time our partner wants to, and sometimes we will selfishly withhold sex when maybe we ought to give in once in a while. A lot of different ways we hurt people in the sexual area. I think we all know what they are. We just simply make a list of those people we've hurt through our own sex conduct. Column two. What did I do to hurt them? Did I commit adultery? Did I force them to do something sexually they didn't want to? If we know who we hurt, we know what we did to hurt them. Column three. Sport itself is affected here. I think this might be one of the most revealing things we can ever do for ourselves. You know, you would think if I hurt anybody in the sexual area, it would be caused by the sex instinct. And I guess once in a while, to get the physical, emotional gratification that comes at the moment of completion of the sex act, Maybe I'm doing the wrong thing at the wrong time with the wrong person because of the sex instinct. But if I carefully look at each situation, I think I'm going to find that the other two instincts are involved just as much as a sex instinct, in many cases even more so. And sex really doesn't have a hell of a lot to do with it. Now, I'm going to express an opinion. I want to be sure that you understand it's my opinion, not Joe's, not AA's, just mine. I am convinced today that God gave us the sex urge so that we could reproduce ourselves. I'm also convinced he made it a very enjoyable thing so we would do so. I just don't think you and I would do the kind of work involved in the sex act if we didn't get some kind of reward for doing so. Now, if we're doing sex for purposes other than reproduction or enjoyment, we just might be doing sex for purposes other than what God intended. Let me give you for instance. We boys learned at a very early age that you can use sex to build your self-esteem. After all, the more members of the opposite sex you can attract to yourself, the greater man you really are, we thought. We boys called that John Wayneism. I don't know what you girls called it. Jane Wayne, Wayne, Joe said. (laughs) But some of you girls tell me you use sex for the same purpose. Now, if that's what we're doing, that's not to reproduce. That's not to enjoy. That's to fulfill a part of the social instinct. Sex really doesn't have a hell of a lot to do with that. Sometimes we use sex to buy a personal relationship. Maybe we're just lonesome. Want somebody to pay attention to us. We found out a long time ago that we can give sex and buy back a personal relationship. That's not to reproduce. That's not to enjoy That's to fulfill a part of the social instinct. Sometimes we use sex to buy material security. 
Maybe we're in a sexual situation we really would rather not even be in. We've come so overly dependent upon another human being for our material well-being that we give sex to buy back material well-being. That's nothing to do with reproduction or enjoyment. That's to fulfill the security instinct. Sometimes we use sex to get even with another human being. Maybe our partner's gone out and done something they shouldn't do. We say, we'll show them, and we'll go out and do the same identical thing. And the fallacy in it is, is after we've done it, we can't afford to tell them we did it. But there, we didn't use sex to reproduce or to enjoy. We used it to get even with another human being. Sometimes we use sex to force our will on another human being. Maybe our partner isn't doing what we think they ought to do. So we say, we'll show them, we'll just cut them off at the pass, and we won't let them have any until they come around our way of thinking. Now, we boys aren't very good at that. We only last about two days. <laughs> but you girls have honed it to perfection. You know exactly how to do that. And I don't blame you. I'd do that too if it worked that good for me. It's absolutely amazing if we really, really look at each one of these sexual things and see which part of self is really involved in it. And the majority of the time, sex doesn't have a hell of a lot to do with it. It's usually to fulfill the social instinct or the security instinct or to force our will upon another human being. Two things happened to me in the third column. First thing that happened to me is a lot of my guilt began to disappear. I thought I was just a dirty, rotten, no-good SOB. But I found out that isn't true that I use sex for purposes other than what God intended, not because I'm a bad human being, because I'm a sick human being. And I used it to build my self-esteem and etc. The second thing that happened to me is a lot of the desire to go do it in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person began to become less and less and less when I saw the truth behind this thing. You see, I always thought and bragged that I was oversexed. No, I wasn't oversexed. Hell, I was undersecure. And I used sex to build my security and my self-esteem and etc. I can't speak for you ladies, but I can speak for we men. And the majority of we men, 90% of our problems in the sexual area is simply this self-esteem thing. Trying to build our self-esteem, trying to build security and etc. Very revealing information. Column four. What feelings did I create in others? Did I unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? What should I have done instead? You know, not only are we looking at what we did, but we're trying to shape a new sex life in the future where we can still engage in it and enjoy it. What should I have done instead? I need to be looking at that too. Column 5. Same character defects. Where had I been selfish? Where had I been dishonest? Where had I been self-seeking frightened? Where had I been inconsiderate of other people? Once again, I see the character defects out there in that fifth column. It causes me to do those things that creates problems for others. At the very least... I'm going to have to start doing something about that personality in that fifth column. Because if I stay selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate, 
Keep right on doing the same old things over and over. Keep right on hurting people. They're going to retaliate. And I'm going to resent them for doing so. I'm going to be scared to death they're going to catch me. And eventually that's going to cause me to drink. Just like with the other parts of the inventory. This is step four. This is the sex part of it. In the fifth column, we see the exact nature of the wrong. The sexual harm was the wrong, but what's the exact nature of it? What's within me that caused it? The exact nature of the wrong for step five. I see the defect of character. I'm going to ask to be willing to turn loose of in six. I see the shortcomings in column five. I'm going to ask God to take away in seven. And quite naturally, all the names in column one will be people I've harmed. And they'll come off of this sheet to be added to the sheet to be used later on for steps eight and nine. We've got everything we need now in the sexual area for steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. And one thing that really surprised me is I kept seeing the same names in many cases appearing on all three sheets. I resented Barbara. I feared Barbara. Still a little bit afraid of her today. <laughs> if she ever finds out everything I was doing some 36 or 37 years, she might file for divorce again. And I certainly hurt Barbara in this area. I even had the internal revenue service on all three sheets. I resented them and, and I feared them and I gave them a pretty good screwing before I got through with them. <laughs> better quit saying that. They may come after me someday. <laughs> okay, now we had prayer for resentments. We had prayer for fears. Now let's look at the prayers we have for the sexual thing, Joe. We have three different prayers in the sexual area. He said, in this way, the way we just described, in this way, we tried to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. We subjected each relation to this test. Was it selfish or not? First prayer. We asked God to mold our ideals and help us to live up to them. We remembered always that our sex prayers were God-given and therefore good, neither to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be despised or loathed. Whatever our ideal turns out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. We must be willing to make amends what we've done harm, provided that we do not bring about still more harm in so doing. In other words, we treat sex as we would any other problem. More prayer. In meditation, we ask God what we should do about each specific matter. The right answer will come if we want it. Now, God alone can judge our sex situation. Counsel with others, persons, is often desirable. But we let God be the final judge. We realize that some people are as fanatical about sex as others are loose. We avoid historical thinking or advice. You know, this is an area that I don't think we need a whole lot of advice in. You know, if you go around and start asking people advice on a sexual thing, and you ask a half a dozen people, you're probably going to get a half a dozen different answers. You're still going to have to decide what's right and what's wrong. I think all we need to do is listen to that little voice inside ourselves. 
You know, I've never been in a sexual area yet that was wrong, that I didn't know it was wrong before I ever got into it. Didn't keep me from getting into it, but I knew it was wrong before I ever got into it. I think all we need to do is listen to that little voice inside, and I think each one of us know, you know, what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing, etc. Besides that, I can't think of a worse place in the world to get advice on sexual matters than Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> a bad place to look for sexual advice. Now, suppose we fall short of the chosen ideal and stumbles. Does this mean we're going to get drunk? Well, some people tell us so, but this is only a half-truth. It depends on us and our motives. If we're sorry for what we've done and have an honest desire to let God take us to better things, we believe we'll be forgiven and have learned our lesson. Now, if we're not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we're quite sure to drink. We're not theorizing. These are facts of our experience. Now, to sum up about sex, more prayer. We earnestly pray for the right ideal, for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity and strength to do the right thing. If sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves a harder into helping others. We think of their needs and work for them. This takes us out of ourselves. It quiets a horny condition. <laughs> no, excuse me. It quiets the imperious urge when the year would be heartache. <laughs> okay, now we're going to do one more little thing and then we'll take a break. When we get to step eight, it's going to say we have the list. We made it and we took step four. And some of those names have come off the resentment sheet. Some have come off the fear sheet. And some have come off the sexual harm sheet. But there's probably some people we've hurt in other ways other than sexually that haven't shown up on these three sheets yet. So what we're going to suggest is one more little inventory form. And it's called a review of harms other than sexual. Perhaps it's somebody we've stolen from, or perhaps it's somebody we've hurt physically, or perhaps it's somebody we undercut them and took their job away from them, or many ways we hurt people. In column one, we just list who did I hurt. Column two, what did I do to hurt them? Column three, which part of self is affected? Column four, what feelings did I create in others? And column five, which character defect caused me to do that in the first place? Just like I did with the other sheets. And we'll be doing step four. Fifth column, we see all the information now we'll need again for five, six, and seven. First column, all those names will come off of this one and be added to the sheet to be used later on for steps eight and nine. And when we're through with this sheet, then we've gathered up all the information we need now for steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. How long did it take us to do this thing? How long have we been talking about it? Three, three and a half hours, all told. That's about as long as it takes to do the inventory. You really, really don't need to spend a lot of time on this inventory. Just follow the directions, fill these little sheets out, gather up the information, see what you've learned from it, and then you can go ahead with the rest of the program. But we can't do really do five, six, seven, eight, and nine 
until we have completed step four. Let's see what the book says. If we've been thorough about our personal inventory, we have written down a lot. We have listed and analyzed our resentments. Now, a lot of people don't like the word analyze. But to analyze something simply means to get down to the truth of it. This is another word that Bill uses. We've taken an honest, truthful, analytical, moral inventory. All of it meaning the truth. Now, he didn't say it, but we've listed and analyzed our fears. We've listed and analyzed our sexual harms. We've listed and analyzed our harms other than sexual. We've begun to comprehend their futility and their fatality. We've commenced to see their terrible destructiveness. Now, here's another promise. And again, we say you don't have to wait till you get to step 12 to get something. We have begun to learn patience, tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies. My God, what a personality change for an alcoholic. And all we've done is step four. For we look on them as sick people. We have listed the people we've hurt by our conduct and are willing willing to straighten out the past if we can. In this book, you read again and again that faith did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We hope you are convinced now that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from Him. If you already made a decision, Step 3. And an inventory of your grosser handicaps, Step 4. You have made a good beginning. That being so, you have swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself. Isn't that something? Hmm? Now, I don't know whether you guys have noticed or not, but nearly all the information in the big book on sex is on page 69. (laughs) It really is. I I don't know that that got any meaning or anything. It just happens to be on page 69. (laughs) We heard a a story about a young lady who who was fairly new to AA, been sober just a few months, and, and she went to her sponsor and she said, Sponsor, I've got a problem. And her sponsor said, what is it? And she said, well, it's a sexual thing. She said, anything I've ever done in a sexual area, tried to attract a member of the opposite sex, has always been while drinking. And she said, sober, I just don't know what to do and how to function in this area. The sponsor said, well, go home and get out your book. Read page 69. Do what it says and everything will be okay. So the young lady went home, got out her book, and proceeded to read. But she got confused on page numbers. Instead of page 69, she read page 96. Just for the hell of it, go to your book and see what it says in page 96. I think that's one of the most appropriate things I've ever read. It just goes on and on and on and on. Let's, let's take about a 15-minute break. We'll come back and start finishing this thing up. It's not going to take too long now. 72 now. This chapter is chapter 6. is called Into Action. It's not into thinking. It's into action. And action is a magic word now because it's anonymous. 
says, having made our personal inventory, well, what should we do about it? Now, that's a good question, isn't it? Well, we've been trying to get a new attitude. Remember, Dr. Jung said ideas, emotions, and attitudes were the guiding force of the lives of these people are suddenly cast to one side. So we're trying to get a new attitude and a new relationship with our Creator. Remember back on page 45, it said the main object of this book which enabled me to find a power greater than myself, which would solve my problem. So I'm trying to get a, a new attitude, a new relationship with my, with my creator, and discover the obstacles in our path. And what are some of those obstacles, the resentments, the fears, the guilt, shame, remorse, the harm we've done to other people? Those are some of our obstacles in our path. We admitted certain defects. And what are those defects? Column 5, selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate attitudes. We've ascertained in a rough way what the trouble is. We'll put our weak, put our finger on the weak items in our personal inventory. Now these are about to be cast out. This requires action on our part, which when completed will mean that we've admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our defects. This brings us to the fifth step in the program of recovery mentioned in the preceding chapter. Okay, we've got to stop now and look at a couple of words. We know the step five says we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. But if you'll notice here in the narrative, he said this requires action on our part, which when completed will mean that we've admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our defects. In the step itself, he used the word wrongs. But in the narrative here, he uses the word defects. And people used to ask Bill about this. And they would say, Bill, why did you use wrongs in step five? But in the narrative, you used the word defects. And by the way, Bill, what's the difference anyhow between a wrong in five, a defect in six, and a shortcoming in seven? Now, Joe and I, we've known two ladies that worked with and for Bill for years, and they both tell us the same thing. People would ask Bill that question, and he would kind of rear back and smile. And he said, when I took English and writing courses in college, they taught me not to use the same words over and over and over. Shows how dumb you are if you do. You know, you know, you know, you know. He said, there's really no difference in these things. He said, in step four, we're going to find those things that block us from God. In step five, we're going to talk about them to another human being. In step six, we're going to have, be willing to have God remove them. In step seven, we're going to ask him to take them away. And he said, you can call them anything you want to, a wrong, a fault, a mistake, a defect, a shortcoming, a personality flaw, or whatever you wish to. And we're convinced in our mind that Bill just simply used these words interchangeably so he wouldn't be repeating himself over and over and over using the same term. Later on, I followed it up into the 12 and 12. And not only does he does it in 12 and 12, he does it even worse there than he did in the big book. And we're going to see him do it again here two or three times in this area of five, six, and seven. 
He said, this is perhaps difficult, especially discussing our defects. There he does it again. Instead of wrongs, he uses the word defects. With another person. We think we've done well enough at admitting these things to ourselves. Well, there's doubt about that. In actual practice, we usually find that a solitary self-appraisal is insufficient. Many of us are necessary to go much further. We've evolved reconciled discussing ourselves with another person when we see a good reason why we should do so. Well, the best reason first. If we skip this vital step, we may not overcome drinking. It's a good good idea and good reason to go ahead and do the fifth step so we want, we can overcome the drinking. Here's a solitary self-appraisal was insufficient. I did the very best I could do filling out these forms with the limited knowledge that I have. And by the way, I don't know of anybody in AA anywhere that's ever done this inventory process perfectly. So you won't be the first, so don't even try. But a solitary self-appraisal is insufficient. I did the best I could do with filling out these forms. Uh, to give you an idea why a solitary self-appraisal is insufficient, I can look around the rooms here today and see your defective character very, very plainly. There's one sitting right here on the front row. See, there's nothing between me and Jim except air. I can see him plainly. He can see me plainly. But you see, I can't see me plainly because there's a lifetime of rationalization and justification in me that I just can't see past. I need another human being to look at me and look at these things objectively to help me see things that I couldn't see. Look says time after time newcomers have tried to keep to themselves certain facts about their lives. Trying to avoid this humbling experience, they've turned to easier methods. Almost invariably they got drunk. Having persevered with the rest of the program, they wondered why they fell. Well, we think the reason is that they never completed their house cleaning. They took inventory all right, but hung on to some of the worst items in stock. They only thought they had lost their egoism and fear. They only thought they had humbled themselves. But they had not learned enough of humility, fearlessness, and honesty in the sense we find it necessary until they told someone else all their life story. Now that's the little statement that fouled us up in step four. Didn't know how to do step four, so we read about all our life story and we started writing our life story for a step four. And like we said yesterday, I didn't really learn anything to contribute to my alcoholism by the writing of my life story. If the guy I took it to, if he had really known what he was doing, he might have been able to help me see these things, but he didn't know any more about it than I did. So he just read it and threw it in the waste paper basket. 95% of my life story has nothing to do with my alcoholism anyhow. But I'll tell you what I've done. If I've done the inventory the way the big book says, I've shared all my life story resentment-wise. They didn't come in my mind just yesterday. They've been popping in my head as far back as I can remember. Some of mine went all the way back to my early childhood. I've shared all my life story resentment-wise. If I did the inventory the way the book says, I've shared all my fears. Fears, I've shared all my life story fears-wise. Those fears didn't come in my head just today. They've been popping in my head as far back as I can remember all the way back to my childhood. If I've shared all my harms done to others, 
sexually and otherwise. I've shared all my life story harms-wise. I didn't hurt people just yesterday. I've been hurting people all my life. My mother said to me one time, she said, Charlie, you were the meanest kid I ever saw. (laughs) She said, I had a little problem loving you myself. When mama's got a problem loving you, look out, there's something going on. (laughs) I shared all my life story harms-wise. And you know, that really is my life story. It revolves around resentments and fears and harms and guilt and remorse and all that kind of stuff. So if we've done it the way the big book says to do it, you know, we have no argument with this statement at all. We have shared all of our life story with another human being. Now here's why we really need to do it. More than most people, the alcoholic leads a double life. He's very much the actor. To the outer world, he presents his stage character. This is the one he likes his fellows to see. He wants to enjoy a certain reputation, but knows in his heart he doesn't deserve it. The inconsistency is made worse by the things he does on his sprees. Coming to his senses, he's revolted at certain episodes he vaguely remembers. These memories are a nightmare. He trembles to think someone might have observed him. As fast as he can, he pushes his memories far inside himself. He hopes they will never see the light of day. He is under constant fear and tension, and that makes for more drinking. Psychologists are inclined to agree with us. We have spent thousands of dollars for examinations. We know but a few instances where we've given these doctors a fair break. We have seldom told them the whole truth, nor have we followed their advice. Unwilling to be honest with these sympathetic men, we were honest with no one else. Small wonder many in the medical profession have a low opinion of alcoholics and their chance of recovery. You know, I think we have to face the fact that we alcoholics have become the world's greatest con artist. You have to if you're going to be a practicing alcoholic. You can't be a practicing alcoholic unless you learn how to lie, how to, how to steal, how to cheat, how to con how to manipulate. And I think the one we have to con the most is ourselves. I don't think we could live with ourselves if we had to honestly see what's going on when we're out there doing our thing. But you see, we never have to see those things because we have that convenient little thing called resentments. And we play them over and over and over in our head and gradually transfer all blame to others and make ourselves as pure as the driven soul. Now, if you've been doing that for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, or 40 years, it's almost impossible to be honest with yourself. We do the best we can in step four. Now then, I need to take this to another human being, one who has walked this walk before me, one who understands steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, according to the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous, and have them help me see those things I can't see about me. They're not going to change anything in column one. They're not going to change anything in column two. They're probably going to change some things in column three, column three where I said this particular thing was, was caused by the sex instinct. He said, oh, no, 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 no. 
You're just trying to build your self-esteem here. That's all you're doing. Sex really doesn't have a hell of a lot to do with this. Probably not going to change anything in column four. May change some things in column five. I said this one was caused by fear. He said, oh, no. No, this is just plain damn dishonesty. That's all this is. And he helped me see things about me I can't see. The greatest spiritual minds in the world today will tell you the same thing. They never, never make decisions without first checking it with somebody else to make sure they're looking at it truthfully. You know, I've been sober 35 years. I'm coming on 36. And I've got a sponsor today. And he's been sober the same length of time I have, six months more than I have. He never lets me forget it either. He reminds me of that. And if I've got something real important in my life that I've got to make a decision on, I always go talk to him. And I'm amazed how many times he says, Charlie, you're blowing smoke up your tail again. This is not true. And he helps me see things I can't see about me. That old rationalization and justification steps in and makes me believe some things that aren't true sometimes. I don't think we'll ever get over it. We need this. Now, I know confession is good for the soul. And if you belong to a religion that requires it, you need to go do that. But I still think we need then to take this to somebody who really understands our program. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, according to the big book. Yeah, otherwise it's just going to be a confession. But those that really understand this can help us see the things we can't see about ourselves. Page 74. Page 74 deals with who to take this thing with. Now, you got to remember, in 1939, when the book was published, the first person in California, they didn't have an AA sponsor to go to. The first one in Florida didn't have an AA sponsor. It was difficult for them to find somebody to take this fifth step with. That's what page 74 is dealing with. But today we got plenty of good AA sponsors. We got plenty of good AA members that understand step four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine and can help us see those things we can't see. For me, that's the criteria for who we should take it with. If you, if you belong to that religion, go do it. And hopefully, hopefully the priest might be a member of AA and they can really help you with it. But if they don't understand four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, then we need to get with somebody that understands those things and help us really see these things that we just can't, simply can't see for ourselves. Page 75 tells us how to do this step. Uh, by the way, Donald Rees, Donald Rees, have a, have a credit card here of yours. Be up here after the meeting. Let me have that. Yeah. I better put that in my pocket now. <laughs> said when on page seventy five, when we decide who is to hear our story, we waste no time. There's that time factor again. We have a written inventory and are prepared for a long talk. We explain to our partner what we're about to do and why we have to do it. He should realize that we're engaged upon a life and death errand. Most people approaching this will be glad to help. They'll be honored by our confidence. I went over to see my sponsor, Franklin, at that time, and 
he knew I was coming. I said, well, I'm here to do my inventory. And he said, that's good, Joe. I said, but first of all, let you and I do the third step prayer and ask God to be with us in this process. That's the kind of sponsor that he was. Thank God. And we sat there and began to do my inventory. Now this, well, these, these forms really come in handy now. I mean, really come in handy. Now I can discuss these items from left to right rather than from top to bottom, column to column. I go from left to right. All the way across, gleaning all the information that I can from those columns and him asking me questions about this particular incident or person, how it affected me, what they do, and all, what I should have done. Ask me all those questions all the way across. Keeps us in some kind of an order too. And I can talk about these things all I wish to. I can tell someone else all my life story resentment wise now. And this will keep us in order. We get through with that first one, and we go to the second one. Discuss it all the way across, left to right, all the way across, gleaning all the information that we can from it. Him asking me questions, him asking me questions about these situations, helping me see things I couldn't see. When that's done, we go to the next one, and the next one, and the next one. Keeps you in some kind of order and helps you see things that you couldn't see by him asking questions of, of things about the, these situations. Very, very important at these forms at this time. Our book says that we pocket our pride to go to it, illuminating every twisted character, every dark cranny of the past. Once having taken this step, withholding nothing, we get some more promises. Here's some more promises now. We can look the world in the eye. We can be alone in perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our Creator. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but Step we Step two, we came to believe. But now we have begin to have a spiritual experience. The feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. We feel as we're on a broad highway walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. I don't know about you, but I used to lay awake nights thinking, if I could ever get all this stuff back to zero, if I could ever fix those particular situations, everything would be okay. Well, now after doing step, this inventory and doing step five, I could see the steps ahead. I was anxious then to do these steps ahead because I wanted to get it back to zero just one time. And this was a starting place for me to do that. And I love this step five and the information that I learned from it because then I could repair the damage done in the past. Now, if you've done steps four and five, you've done a lot of work up to this point. You're probably tired. Big Bush going to give you a little rest stop. Returning home, we find a place where we can be quiet for an hour. He didn't say 62 days, did he? Every time he mentions time, it's right now. Carefully reviewing what we've done, we thank God from the bottom of our heart that we know him better. We don't know him yet, but we know him better. Taking this book down from our shelf, we turn to the page which contains the 12 steps. Carefully reading the first five proposals or steps, we ask if we've admitted anything, for we're building an arch through which we shall walk a free man at last. Is our work solid so far? Are the stones properly in place? Have we skimped on the cement put into the foundation? Have we tried to make mortar without sand? And again, he's referring to this wonderfully effective spiritual structure. 
the building of the personality change sufficient to recover from alcoholism. Step one, willingness was the foundation. Step two, believing was the cornerstone. Step three, he told us, is arch through which we'll pass to freedom. And step three was the keystone of that arch. Now we've put two more stones in place. We're gradually building this spiritual experience as we go through the steps. Page 76. If we can answer to our satisfaction, we then look at step six. We have emphasized willingness as being indispensable. Are we now ready to let God remove from us all the things which we have admitted are objectionable? Can He now take them all, every one? If we still cling to something we will not let go, we ask God to help us be willing. That's all of step six. And if you'll notice, he didn't say a thing in there about defects of character. Step six says we're entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. But here he didn't say anything about defects of character. What he did say are those things which we have admitted are objectionable. Now surely, surely, as we took our inventory, and we looked out in that old fifth column, We saw that old selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate human being we had become. When we could see that those are the things that cause us to do the things that creates harms and hurts for other people and causes them to retaliate and causes us to resent, that those are the things that cause us to have all the fears that we got, that those are the things that cause us to hurt other people sexually and otherwise, then surely that type of character has now become objectionable to us. And if so, and if we're willing to have God remove those objectionable things, then we've already done step six. But please don't make the mistake I did. Because I was convinced that God is all-powerful, and I still am today. And I was convinced that He can do anything He wants to, and I'm still convinced of that today. And I thought all I would need to do would turn to God and say, Okay, God, here I am. Warts and all. Zap me and give me the twenty-nine ninety-five special. <laughs> and I'd never have to worry about that again. But I found out that it doesn't work that way. Because if I want God to remove those things from me, then I have to be willing to do my part. And sometimes when we see those things, even though we can see they're objectionable to us, sometimes we're still not willing to turn them loose. Now, we human beings are funny things. Sometimes we would rather sit in today's pain and suffering because we've kind of learned how to handle that. We would rather sit in today's pain and suffering than take a chance on changing in the future because we don't know what future change will bring. If I'm going to have to get rid of my selfishness, then how am I going to get what I want? 
If I'm going to have to get rid of my dishonesty, how in the world am I going to make a living? I I knew nothing about honesty when I came here. If I'm going to have to get rid of my self-seeking, frightened attitude, well, where am I going to get the courage to do the things I need to do? If I'm going to have to get rid of my inconsideration of other people and start considering them, then who's going to consider me? (laughs) And sometimes we would rather sit in today's pain and suffering than take a chance on changing. And again, I went to my sponsor and I said, I don't think I can do step six and seven. He said, why? I said, because if God removes all my character defects, I'm not going to have any personality left at all, period. And he said, you're about 100% right. But he said, what you don't understand is if God takes those things away from you, they're going to have to be replaced with something else. And he said, what replaces them will be so much better than anything you've ever had before. You'll wonder why it took you so long to get around to having God asking God to replace them. But he said, Charlie, you'll never know that unless you're willing to take the chance. And the book tells me, can he now take them all, every one? If we still cling to something and will not let go, we ask God to help us be willing. Prayer again. Every one of these action steps recognizes self cannot overcome self. We're always going to have to have God's help. And through the help of my sponsor and by asking God to help me be willing, I finally became willing to turn loose of those things. Now, when ready, we say something like this. My Creator, I'm now willing you should have all of me good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character. Whoop, whoop. We're in step seven now. Step seven says shortcomings, and here he calls them defects. You see what he's done to us? He interchanged these words back, and he confused the hell out of us. That's what he did. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. We have then completed step seven. Like I said, I thought all I'd have to do would be ask God to take them away. And they would automatically be gone. But then once again, God's not going to allow another hole in my personality. I've got enough holes in my head already. If this old selfishness is going to disappear, if God's going to take it away, He can't leave a blank in my personality. It'll have to be replaced, and the only thing that can replace it is unselfishness. And unselfishness does not come automatically. If I want God to take away my selfishness, then I must, in every situation that comes up, gather all the willpower I can and get all the help I can from God and start trying to practice unselfishness. And oh, that's very, very difficult for me to do. But over a period of time, as God reboots and as I practice the opposite, slowly, 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 the old idea dies. And a new idea takes its place. 
And over a period of years, I have become a relatively unselfish human being. Practice, 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 practice. If I won't even take away my dishonesty, then I must in every situation that comes up, with all the willpower I can muster and all the help I can get from God, I must practice being honest. And my God, it was almost impossible for me to do that in the beginning. But with God's help, I started trying to practice honesty. I quit lying so much. I quit stealing. I quit doing those things with God's help. And slowly, slowly, God removed the dishonesty, and I became a more honest human being. Practice, practice, practice. If I want to take away my self-seeking, frightened attitude, then I've got to muster up all the courage I can, and with God's help, force myself to do those things I was afraid to do. And just as importantly, to force myself to quit doing those things I was afraid to quit. And slowly, 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 the old idea dies, and a new one takes its place. Today I'm a human being that acts most of the time with faith and courage. Fear doesn't bother me very much anymore. But it takes time to do this. Practice, practice, practice. If I won't even take away my inconsideration of others, then I must force myself with all the strength I can gather and everything I can get from God to start trying to consider other people first, their needs and their wants and their desires, damn near impossible for people like me to do. But as we practice at it, it slowly, slowly becomes a habit, and the old idea dies and a new one takes its place. And my sponsor was 100% right. You know, life is so much better since I've become an unselfish human being. Life is so much better since I've become an honest person. Life is so much better since I've become a person with faith and courage. Life is so much better when I've become a considerate human being. And he was right. I wondered why it took me so long to do it. Now, God's not going to do this for us by himself. But he gave us self-will. He said, you can keep it as long as you want it. He said, I'll let you die on it if that's what you want to do. We must do our part. And as we practice over and over, God removes and we practice the opposite. We change into different human beings. I have been reborn. I have been reborn. I'm not what I was when I came to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm beginning to realize now what the book means when it said some of us tried to hold on to our old ideas. And the result was nil until we let go completely. You can't become selfish and unselfish at the same time. You're going to be one of the two. You can't become honest and dishonest at the same time. You're going to be one of the two. Always, always, we have to do our part and work at it. I think we're the luckiest people in the world. You know, most people out there are sick. Most of them are going to the grave sick, not even knowing they're sick. We not only know what's wrong with us, we found that out in steps four and five. Through steps six and seven, we have a way to change that situation. And we get to live two lifetimes in one lifetime. Most people never get that opportunity. 
Now make no mistake about this. If you buy into this idea, then that means from this day on, you are responsible for what you are. If you stay selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate, that must mean that's the way you want to be. Because we don't have the luxury of blaming it on mother anymore. Can't blame it on daddy. Can't blame it on God and can't blame it on society. If we stay screwed up, it's because we want to stay screwed up. We don't have to be that way. Most people don't get this chance, Joe. You know, there's always a paradox in AA, isn't there? Everything's exactly opposite of what I thought it was going to be. The paradox here, to give you an idea of what a paradox is, how many of you have ever called your sponsor so you could listen? <laughs> a few hands. Most of us call so we can talk, right? It's supposed to be listening. You end up listening. You should. The paradox in this two steps is this. They took the doctor's opinion in the first four chapters to do steps one and two. Three and a half pages to do step three, eight pages to do step four, four pages to do step five, and a whole chapter with working with others. The paradox is this, that two of the biggest steps in all of Alcoholics Anonymous are on two little paragraphs. That's the paradox. These steps here are the tools of change. They're also the tools of acceptance. There was a movement here a while back about acceptance. Like people just walk around accepting things, you know. I never could do that. Acceptance is not an event. It's a process. And this is a process. Six and seven. Two of the biggest steps in all of Alcoholics Anonymous. And where do these come from? These are the two steps that Bill added to the tenants of the Oxford group. And there was a story in that other big, big book about this guy named Saul, S-A-U-L. Saul was riding his, way I read it, riding his ass on the way to, to Damascus. That's what it said. That's what it said. Big bolt of lightning come down and knocked him off his ass on his ass. That's the way I read it. <laughs> Paul, Saul standing there dusting himself off. And big booming voice said, hey, Saul, can we talk? Now you guys' attention. He said, yeah, we can talk. What do you want to talk about? Maybe alcoholism got our attention, too. He says, Saul, you're a very selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate individual, and you've harmed an awful lot of people, basically. So he told him that. And I want you to not do that anymore. He said, well, how do you not do that? He basically said, do six and seven. If you'll do those things, then you'll change. And when you change, we'll call you Paul. And we all know that Paul was one of the greatest writers the world's ever known. And sometime in Corinthians, they asked the guy, Paul asked, the guy asked Paul a question. He said, hey, Paul, he said, what is the secret to life? Everybody wants to know what the secret to life is. And he said, the secret to life is daily dying. The old Saul had to die, so the new Paul came alive. Six and seven. Two of the biggest steps in all of Alcoholics Anonymous. By the time I got to six and seven, a little doubt began to come into my mind. Can he really, can he really do this? I see what I have become. Can he really change me? Really? A little doubt became in. And I had to reaffirm a, a statement I read other, er, earlier. God either is or isn't. Either he can or he can't. What's my choice going to be? And I had to choose to believe that he could. And I set about to do that. 
And see, I see this kind of change. I see what I had become. The change is now I'm trying to be what? Trying to become that which God intends for me to be. Six and seven is the tools of change. Then the tools of acceptance. I have accepted what I've become because I'm not that way anymore. Thank God. Through six and seven. Two of the biggest steps in all of Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, yeah. Yeah, an example. I uh, went to the grocery store one time. Phyllis was working. I liked her being self-supporting also. (laughs) And I went by the the Safeway in our area and picked up some salad dressing and some salad stuff to go home and cook a steak for her when she come home from from work. And uh, I was paying up at the cash register. And this little girl gave me change for a $20 bill. But I had only given her 10 And I stood right there and watched her. And I took the money and put it in my pocket and walked out the door. See, I thought it was worth a lot more than that. I sold out for $10. I, mean, I thought it was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. I got out in my car and I felt about that big. And I got back out of my car, went back in there. And I said, you counted me up too much change. Here's your $10 back. She said, boy, I sure do appreciate that. said, uh, I would have had to pay for that. You know? And I said, well, uh, she said, thank you for being honest. I said, well, I'm a member of a fellowship that requires me to be honest. And she said, I've never heard of a fellowship like that before. <laughs> and I said, well, I haven't either. But until then. So the next time I walked out, I felt good again. Ten little dollars. Sell it out for that, being dishonest for 10 bucks. God, I thought it was worth a lot more than that. Practice, 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 and practice. And slowly those things become habitual. And the old dies and a new one takes its place. Just that simple. Now, we got rid of resentments. That was replaced with love, patience, tolerance, compassion, and goodwill. We got rid of fear. That was filled with faith and courage. We looked at the people we've harmed, but we really haven't done anything about the removal yet of the guilt and remorse associated with those people we've harmed. But if I want to be a complete human being again, I want God to direct my entire thinking, and I've got to clean out this storeroom back here in the back of my head that's filled with guilt and remorse. And it's long been known how you do that. The world is known forever that you get rid of guilt and remorse by making restitution for those things you've done in the past that ended up hurting others. Now, the original alcoholics in our fellowship did not like the word restitution. And Bill didn't like it either. So he decided to change that from restitution to making amends, which is the same thing. It's just a little easier and softer. I don't know of anybody in AA that really, really, really likes to make restitution or to make amends. Nobody wants to have to go out and apologize to people for what we've done in the past. Nobody wants to take from today's money and livelihood to pay back for things we've stolen in the past. The only question is, can we afford not to? Can we afford not to? 
You know, I've yet to see anybody enter AA and read the steps off the wall and say, man, that steps eight and nine look like lots of fun. I can hardly wait until I get there. Nobody wants to do this. But the question is, can we afford not to do it? Way back in the forward of the second edition, we were talking about the history and talked about when Bill called on Bob. It sounded like Dr. Bob got sober immediately and never had another drink. But that really isn't true. Dr. Bob had one more drunk left in him. Not too long after Bill called on him, Dr. Bob found it necessary, he thought, to go to the medical convention over here in New Jersey. And his wife, Ann, begged Bill not to let him go. said, Bill, if he goes over there, he'll get drunk. He does it every year. Bill said, let him go. That he's going to have to learn to live in society where there's always going to be plenty of alcohol. If he gets drunk, we'll do something about it when he gets back. Sure enough, Dr. Bob went to the convention, got drunk, came back to Akron drunk, showed up at his nurse's home. And she called Ann and she said, come and get him. He's drunk. And said, get him sobered up. Because he's got surgery scheduled in the morning. And he's the only doctor on staff that can do this particular surgery at the present time. Dr. Bob was a proctologist. <laughs> now, I'm not sure where my procto is, but I'm glad he wasn't working on it the next morning. <laughs> They went over and they got him and they brought him home, Bill and Ann did. And they walked him and they coughed him and they sobered him up to the best of their ability. Next morning, Bill takes him to the hospital. Parking lot of the hospital, Dr. Bob said, Bill, I can't do this surgery. I'm sick and I'm shaking and I'm trembling and I'm going to hurt somebody. And Bill reached in the back seat of the car and got out a bottle of beer. Popped the top on it and said, drink this and you'll be okay. Dr. Bob drank the beer, went upstairs, did the surgery, and sure enough, it came out just fine. The only problem is Bill's waiting on him down in the parking lot. Dr. Bob disappears. Bill waits for two or three hours. And he assumes that the beer's triggered the allergy and Bob has sneaked off and he's running again. Goes back to Dr. Bob's house. And Bill and Ann wait all afternoon. Late, late, late evening, Dr. Bob shows up at home, and he's sober. Bill said, where in the hell have you been? He said, I've been going up and down both sides of the street, making amends to those I've harmed in the past. He never would do that before. That's why he never could apply their program to the depth necessary to recover. He was afraid to make amends. He was afraid people would find out he's alcoholic. And he would lose what little profession he had left. He didn't know that everybody already knew it anyhow. (laughs) The day he made his amends was the last drink he ever took, that bottle of beer, June the 10th, 1935. Now, if it's good enough for Bob, it's probably good enough for me too. Let's look at steps eight and nine now for just a little bit. Generally, when you go to a step study meeting, when we're talking about step eight, somehow or other the conversation bleeds over to doing step nine. Well, step eight is a definite step that needs to be done. We make the list and become willing to the list. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, steps eight and nine were two of the best steps that I've ever done. 
I don't know about you, but I, I have been very physically ill from drinking. I mean, extremely ill from drinking. And I've had lots and lots of hard, hard hangovers. You see, suffered a lot. And But those weren't the things that caused me to want to quit drinking. Now, they were contributing factors. But the one, what really wanted me, caused me to want to quit drinking was the guilt, shame, and remorse that I had as a result I'd done, the harms I'd done to other people. I just could not stand it when I was sober. I just couldn't do it. So making amends is also a way to make amends to yourself. We make the amends to others, we we feel better and we feel free from those things. So let's look at it in that light. And we need our sponsors more in the area of step nine than we've ever needed our sponsor. We'll talk about that more later. Now we need more action, without which we find that faith without works is dead. Let's look at steps eight, and then later nine. We have a list of all the persons we've harmed. We take all those people off of column one that we've harmed and put them on one long list, and to whom we're willing to make amends. We made it when we took inventory. See, we've already got the list. It's already there. Just take all those people off the column one, put them on a long list. We subjected ourselves to drastic self-appraisal. We did that through those other columns in step five. Now we're about to go out to our fellows and repair the damage done in the past. We attempt to sweep away the debris which has accumulated out of our effort to live on self-will and run the show ourselves. More prayer, step eight. If we haven't the will to do this, we ask until it comes. Remember, it was agreed in the beginning that we'd go to any length for victory over alcohol. And step eight, again, is a very simple little step. You make the list, becoming willing to the list, and if we're not willing, we simply ask God to help us to become willing to make amends to them all. Every action step recognizes self cannot overcome self. We've got to have God's help in all these situations. If we haven't the will to do this, we ask until it comes. And again, I went to see my sponsor. And I said, I don't believe I'm going to be able to do steps eight or nine. He said, why? I said, because some of those people that I've harmed, they harm me just as bad as I ever harmed them. And I'll be damned if I'm going to make any amends to them. He said, well, as usual, you're getting the cart before the horse. He said, step eight doesn't talk about making amends. That's in step nine. He said, in step eight, you just have to make the list, which you've already done, and become willing to the list. And I said, well, that's the problem. He said, what do you mean? I said, I'm not willing to make amends to them all. Therefore, I can't do eight. If I can't do eight, I can't do nine. He said, let me help you. He said, I believe I can help you. He said, let's look at your list. And I'd already shown it to him once before. He said, now some of these people on this list, you love them and they love you. And you really would like to make amends to them. So there's your daughter and your son and your mother and your father. He said, I'm not sure about Barbara either, but we'll talk about that later on. He said, you'd like to make amends to them right now, wouldn't you? And I said, yeah, sure I would. He said, take their name off of that list, put them on another list, and call it right now. Can you do that? And I said, yeah. He said, we'll do it and come back. And I did. And he said, now then, there's some of these people on this list that you know 
You know you're going to make a man stone. Not too keen about it, but sooner or later you're going to do it. And I said, sure. He said, take their name off of this list and put them on a list called later. Can you do that? I said, I think so. And he said, do it and come back. And I did. He said, now there's some on here you're really, really not sure about. You may or may not make amends to them. Is that right? And I said, sure. He said, take their name off and put it on a list and call it maybe. Can you do that? And I said, yeah. He said, do it and come back. And I did. And I came back and he said, now all these that's left here are the ones that you're not ever going to make amends to, right? And I said, you betcha. He said, take them, take them off of that list and put them on another list and label it never. Can you do that? And I said, yeah. And he said, do it and come back. And I did. And he said, now then, I want you to start making amends to these on the right now list. He said, by the time you're through with the right now list, I think you'll be ready to start on those on the later list. And he said, by the time you do those on the later list, I think you'll be ready to do those on the maybe list. And he reached in his billfold and took out $10. And he said, I'm going to bet you $10. By the time you're through with that maybe list, you'll be ready to start on the nevers list. And you know the old fool was right. <laughs> he didn't let me take just three or four or five names and block myself off from the whole process. He gave me a way to become willing to make amends to them all by separating it into four different lists. It really did work for me. I wouldn't have thought of that, would you? Now, step eight, then, is quite simple. We make the list, which we've already done. We come willing to the list. And if we're not willing, then ask God to help us be willing until we become willing. And we're through with eight. Step nine is a very definite, multiple-part step. Step nine tells us the kind of amends we need to make. Direct amends. It tells us when to make them. Wherever possible. Now, a lot of times I hear people read how it works and they read whenever possible. No, it says wherever possible. You tell an alcoholic to do something whenever, just forget it. It's not going to get done. <laughs> it said wherever possible. And then it tells us when not to make them, except when to do so would injure them or others. Now, Bill very carefully addresses all three of these issues in the following pages, paragraph by paragraph. The first thing is direct amends. And we think there's probably two kinds of direct amends. One of them is eyeball to eyeball, face to face, one on one. The purpose of me making my amends is not to get you to like me. Hopefully you will. But the purpose of making my amends is to get rid of my fear and my guilt associated with that thing, whatever it is. And if I go to you eyeball to eyeball, face to face, and make my amends to you to the best of my ability, I'll never have to worry about it again. You will have done all you're going to do to me right then. I will know I've done my utmost, and I can be free of that. He 
gives us an example of direct amends. On page 77, in that paragraph there in the middle of the page, and it really starts with the third sentence in that paragraph. I don't know why, but that's where he started it. The question of how to approach the man we hated will arise. Everybody see that? This is a direct amend, eyeball to eyeball. He said the question of how to approach the man we hated will arise. It may be he's done us more harm than we've done him. And though we may have acquired a better attitude toward him, we're still not too keen about admitting our faults. Nevertheless, with a person we dislike, we take the bit in our teeth. It's harder to go to an enemy than to a friend. But we find it much more beneficial to us. We go to him in a helpful and forgiving spirit, confessing our former ill feelings and expressing our regret. Under no condition do we criticize such a person or argue. Simply we tell him that we will never get over drinking until we've done our utmost to straighten out the past. We're there to sweep off our side of the street, realizing that nothing worthwhile can be accomplished until we do so, never trying to tell him what he should do. His faults are not discussed. We stick to our own. Now, if our manner is calm, frank, and open, we'll be gratified with the results. In nine cases out of ten, the unexpected happens. Sometimes the man we're calling upon admits his own faults. So fews of years standing melt away in an hour. Rarely do we fail to make satisfactory progress. Our former enemies sometimes praise what we're doing and wish us well. Occasionally they will offer assistance. It should not matter, however, if someone does throw us out of his office. We've made our demonstration done our part. It's water over the dam. And every time I read that, I think about my cousin Gary. Gary and I were raised up next door to each other. And it seemed to me like all of our life, all we did was fight each other, physically, verbally, every other way. We were just exactly alike, I guess. Never could run around together without fighting. So we kind of agreed not to run around together anymore. And I didn't see him, and he didn't see me. But one day when I got into this area of making amends, I was in this restaurant. And I've never been in that restaurant before or since. And I looked up, and Gary was at the front door waiting to be sat down. And I motioned him over. And he came over very reluctantly. He wasn't quite sure what I might do. And I asked him to sit down, and he did. I said, Gary, I've joined Alcoholics Anonymous and quit drinking, and I'm trying to get my life straightened out. And I'd like to ask you to forgive me for all the harm that I've caused you. He kind of relaxed and he said, Joe, won't you forgive me for the harm I've done you? The whole thing went away just like that. Now, the best part about this whole story is that from time to time, Gary comes to Alcoholics Anonymous. And when he does come, sometimes he comes to our group. Been a long time since he's been there. But he's making progress. He used to be a daily drinker, now he's a periodic. See? So he's doing pretty good. And uh, that would have never happened had we not had that encounter a long time ago. See, God makes the wherever possible. Or is that odd or is that God? You see, God makes the wherever possible in a lot of cases. Now, if that kind of a man would work on somebody you hate, then surely it would work on those that you just kind of dislike. Probably work on those you're not too crazy about. I'll bet you'd work on somebody you love, too. Eyeball to eyeball, face to face, one-on-one. Another kind of direct demand is in equal proportion. Now, some of we alcoholics tended to uh, 
Write hot checks we never did pick up. Run up bills we never did pay. Tear up automobiles we never did fix. We've hurt many people in the area of economics. Now, how do we go about making that kind of restitution? Bill handles that in the next paragraph. Most alcoholics owe money. I think that's the understatement of the year, isn't it? (laughs) We do not dodge our creditors, tell them what we're trying to do. We make no bones about our drinking. They usually know it anyway, whether we think so or not. Nor are we afraid of disclosing our alcoholism on the theory it may cause financial harm. Approaching this way, the most ruthless creditor will sometimes surprise us. Arranging the best deal we can, we let these people know we are sorry. Our drinking has made us slow to pay. We must lose our fear of creditors, no matter how far we have to go, for we're liable to drink if we're afraid to face them. I think what he's saying to me is this. If I owe you money, I need to go see you. You say, now you and I both know that I owe you $1,200. And I'd love to pay you today, but I can't do it. But if it's okay with you, I'd like to start paying you $10 a week. And you'd rather have $10 a week than nothing. And I start paying you $10 a week. And some morning I wake up and I say, by golly, that sucker is all paid off. I don't owe him anymore, and I go to the next one. You and I both know I owe you fourteen, fifteen hundred dollars. Can't pay you today, God. I'd love to, but I can't. But I'd like to start paying you about twenty a week. By this time, I'm probably making a little more money, and I start paying you twenty a week. Next thing you know, I wake up and I call you that one's paid off too. And I go to the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And some morning I wake up, and by golly, they're all paid off. And the fear and the guilt and the remorse associated with those things are all gone. I've lived long enough to know and fully understand that time is going to pass. You can't stop it. I wish we could, but you can't. As it passes, I can use it for a worthwhile purpose and come out on the other end of it in good shape. Or I can let it slide and let it slide and let it slide and five or ten years from now be in the same kind of shape and maybe drunk over it in the meantime. You know, we we, Joe and I had an old friend that used to live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. His name was Dan, and Dan finally moved out to California. Dan would have been sober 50... 52 years this coming January. 52 years this January if he was still alive. He's dead now. Dan was 29 years sober. And he said to me one day, Charlie, I paid the last one of them last week. Took him 29 years to pay them. When Dan was in the drinking, he was down in Texas in the oil business. And he hooked them, and he hooked them big, too. Took him 29 years to pay them all back. I said, Dan, how do you feel? He said, man, I feel about eight foot tall. And Dan's a little bitty fellow, about five foot one. He said, this is the first time in my life that I can ever remember that I don't owe somebody something for what I've stolen from them in the past. Tell you how good a con artist he was. His wife, Sarah, who turned out to be a beautiful, beautiful Al-Anon, 
down in Texas when Dan was drinking. One day she took him to the state insane asylum in Big Springs, Texas, to have him admitted for alcoholic insanity. And the head psychiatrist interviewed Sarah, and then he interviewed Dan. And after a while, Dan left, and Sarah was locked up. (laughs) She stayed there for a year. They taught her how to live better electrically with all that kind of crap they do in there. Like to kill that woman. She said she forgave him for everything else, but she couldn't hardly forgive him for that one. That was the worst. So if old Dan could do it, I probably could too, you know. And I, and I hear some of you saying, and again, I hear awful good. I hear some of you saying, Charlie, that's probably true for a thousand or fourteen hundred or fifteen hundred dollars. What if it's fifty thousand? What if it's a hundred and fifty thousand? What's it, what if it's a half a million? Could we pay that back? Well, I don't know why we can't. If we're smart enough to steal it. They're probably smart enough to pay it back. You know, I think we forget from step three on, God's going to be with us. And if we are to do these things, God's going to make it possible, providing we are willing to do so. Dan was just one example. I don't know how much money was involved, but it was a hell of a lot of money. I know that much. And old Dan finally paid them all back. This thing really does work. I spent a lot of time at Dan's house and Sarah sitting across the table from him. Phyllis and I, they spoon feeding this AA. Fixing dinner for us, playing bridge, supposed to be playing bridge, where we were talking about AA, Allen on things. And he never, he always had a nice car. Wasn't brand new, but a nice car. Lived in a nice home. Had nice furniture. Went places all the, all the, uh, AA compass we ever wanted to go to. Went on a cruise or two with him. So he had enough money in, in, in addition to pay back that money that he owed, you see. So he, he found a way to do it. Bottom of page 78, we're not going to go through all these examples. It just takes too long. But the bottom of page 78, it talks about criminal offenses. In the middle of page 79, it talks about where other people are involved. We need to consider others. You know, if it's going to hurt them or somebody else, we have to be very, very careful in this kind of situation. Over on page 80, it talks about him going to some other people and getting their permission before he made the amends because there's a possibility they would be hurt by it. At the bottom of page 80, it talks about domestic problems. Page 81, it talks about sex outside of marriage. What are we going to do about those kind of things? Now, Joe and I both agree that I've never really had anybody come to me with questions about making amends. But we kind of can't find the answer for it here in the book somewhere. You know, it's pretty complete on all these different kind of situations. Our, our main suggestion is before you start making amends, get you a good sponsor. And then talk to that sponsor about these amends. Because I'm not sure, I'm, I'm not sure that we're capable of honestly seeing it good enough to see whether we should make it or whether we shouldn't make it. Whether it will hurt somebody or whether it won't. 
And I know that's what I had to do finally. And some of those that I really wanted to make. And I would talk to him about them. And he said, no, you can't do that. If you do it, you're going to hurt them or somebody else just as bad. You're just going to have to wait. And over a period of years, finally, finally, the wherever possible became possible for them too. And I really got to make my last one here just a few years ago. And it was dealing with family issues. And I simply could not do that without hurting somebody else. And due to a death in the family, finally I was released and free to be able to go ahead and do that. And I just had to hold on to it in that time. Some of them, I said to him, you know, I believe if I make this amend, I'm going to hurt him. And he'd look at it and he'd say, no, not this time. He said, you just go ahead and make this one. It'll be okay. Now, I don't really think we're capable of determining by ourselves whether we should or shouldn't. That's where a good sponsor comes in. Let's go to page 83, third paragraph. There may be some wrongs we can never fully right. We don't worry about them. We can honestly say to ourselves that we would write them if we could. Some of these people are already dead and buried. Some of them, to make amends, would hurt them or others. We don't worry about them. If we can honestly say that we would write them if we could. Some people cannot be seen. We send them an honest letter. There may be a valid reason for postponement in some cases. But we don't delay if it can be avoided. We should be sensible, tactful, considerate, and humble without being servile or scraping. As God's people, we stand on our feet. We don't crawl before anyone. And one mistake we see people making is they'll go to somebody to make their amends and they won't accept it. And we're just crushed by that. And we tend to want to go back and go back and go back and literally beg those people to forgive us. No. The book says we don't need to do that. Make our amends to the best of our ability. If they don't accept it, there's nothing we can do about that. About all we can do is hold ourselves in readiness, and if the opportunity comes to do it again at a later date, maybe so then. We don't have to beg anybody. As God's people, we stand on our own feet. We don't have to crawl. Joe? Always reminds me of a situation with a little daughter, Gail. I got divorced from the other lady. And now I start thinking real good. And I'm sitting at the bar thinking. And this time I'm going to find me a woman that drinks. <laughs> I'm thinking good now. These women that don't drink are mean and ugly. And one night I looked up and pillows came in the door. And I'm sitting out at the end of the bar like this. And the bartender said, Phyllis, what would you like to drink? She said, give me some of what he's drinking. And pretty soon we were introduced. Phyllis said, you know, Joe, you look like my third husband. And I said, my God, how many have you had? She said, two. I kind of like that. And I said, did it hurt? She said, what? Did what hurt? I said, when you fell out of heaven. Isn't that something? <laughs> I've been watching Phyllis. She's been drinking and staying up late like I did. And 
Phyllis was the queen bee of the zebra lounge. You, you, you guys know her. She's the one who took up the collection and played the jukebox. That's her. And we started drinking and running around together. And uh, six or eight months later, we got married. And she had a little daughter by a previous marriage who was living with her dad at that time. And, and, we, and I liked her very much. And she came over to live with us. And Phyllis said, you know, we're drinking an awful lot. Let's... Let's not drink so much in front of Gail. I said, that's a good idea. And I, I, I was going, wanting to do that, but not knowing that I couldn't quit, see. And uh, after 30 days, I couldn't stand anymore and got drunk again. Well, Phyllis and I were drinking together, and we couldn't go to the bar together without fighting. But you see, I came out of this marriage with a list of things that were about this long that this one's not going to do that that other one did. Phyllis had a list of things about that long that this one's not going to do that that other one did. And now we're enforcing our list on each other. And God, did it get awful then? I'm telling you, that's a whole new story. We got so that we couldn't even drink together. So we made a deal. 41st Street in Tulsa is kind of the halfway between north and south. And Phyllis could have the south half of 41st Street. 41st and south, and I get 41st and north. And we would meet at home from time to time and visit <laughs> and do our drinking. She does hers there, and I do mine over here. Got a good deal. And that went on for a long time, and uh, I had a little mobile home up on the, the lake west of our city. And, and uh, one night, Gail and Phyllis showed up there. And, three o'clock in the morning and embarrassed me in front of my girlfriend and stuff. That was uh, another situation. Just kill me. Just really, just just kill me to have that situation. How are you going to make amends to a little old girl for that? What are you going to say? A remorseful mumbling that I'm sorry, is that going to do it? No. She'd heard that from us before. But she got married when she's about 17 years old and began to have her children and and Phyllis and I are getting sober now and early in our sobriety. And what we did was that we, we were there every time she had a child. We were at the hospital. We lived sober and did the right thing. See, I wasn't a very good father, but I'm a damn good grandfather, I can tell you that. And I'm that, and Phyllis is a great-grandmother. And after two or three years of this, they move off to Ohio. Phyllis and I talked it over, and we didn't mind Gail and Jim moving, but they took our grandkids with them. <laughs> and up there, after a year or two up there, something happened to her sister-in-law, who was young, 32 years old, and died and left three kids to her husband. And, and Gail called us one night, and she said, Papa, I said, yeah, she told me this story. She said, if something was to happen to Jim and I, would you and Mom take the kids? Uh, that's when I know it was okay with us. A remorseful mumbling that I'm sorry won't cut it. But living sober, doing the right thing, being there, that will do it. The action is a whole lot more better than words. And that happened with us. And today we have a good relationship together. They're back in Tulsa now. But after you've done all you can do to make amends, there'll come the day when you say, I'm not making any more amends. Well, you see, we'll make each other pay forever if we'll pay.
Someday, you quit making amends. You quit being the guilt, feeling that guilt, shame, remorse. Cause we'll put it on each other and make each other feel bad forever. Someday you say, hey, I'm not paying them all. That's it. Through. Okay. We've, uh, read way back in the book to beginning a step forward. It said we're spiritually ill mentally ill and physically ill. And that's referring to the three dimensions of life. All human beings are born to live in three dimensions. We have the dimension of the Spirit. And if God dwells within each of us, and that means we're going to have to live with God whether we like it or not, it's beside the point. The only question is, do we live there in harmony or disharmony. I don't know of any group of people in the world that ever got in more disharmony with God than we alcoholics have. We have also what they call the mental dimension. We all have a mind. And we're going to have to live with our mind. Whether we like it or not is beside the point. We don't have any other choice. The only question is, do we live there in harmony or disharmony? I don't know of any group of people that ever got in more disharmony in their own minds than we alcoholics have. We also have what they call the physical dimension. Now, for years, I thought that dealt with my body only. But the physical dimension is the world and everything in it. The physical dimension is not just my body. It's your body, my wife's body, my children's body, my job, my car, my bird dogs, my everything. We don't have any place to live except here on earth. Whether we like it or not is beside the point. The only question is, do we live here on earth in harmony or disharmony? I don't know of any group of people in the world that ever got in more disharmony in the physical dimension than we alcoholics did. We were sick spiritually, mentally, and physically. There's also a statement in the big book which talks about this program is a design for living that really works. And one day we got to looking at that design for living, comparing it to the three dimensions of life. And it looks to us as though the first nine steps are designed to put us back together as God intended for us to be in the first place. Through steps one, two, and three, we get right with God. Because we were powerless, we saw the need for the power, and we made a decision to go after that power. And that put us in the right relationship. God is going to be the director. He's the father, we're the children. He's the employee, we're the employee. First time we've had that relationship with God, for most of us, the first time in our life. Now that removed just enough self-will to let us start looking into our own minds and see what was going to block us off from carrying out this decision that we made in step three and through four, five, six, and seven. We found all those character defects that create our problems for us. 
talked about them to another human being, began to work on them in six and seven. We began to get well in the mental dimension through steps four, five, six, and seven. That removed just enough self-will to let us start reaching out to our fellow man. And through steps eight and nine, we got right with the world and everybody in it. And we are no longer sick people. If you're right with God in one, two, and three, if you're right with yourself in four, five, six, and seven, if you're right with your fellow man in steps eight and nine, then you have put been put back together the way God intended for you to live in the first place. A design for living that really works. And if you're right with God and right with yourself and right with your fellow man, you're probably going to feel pretty good. And I don't think it's by accident the very next thing in the big book at the bottom of page 83 happens to be the promises that we're always reading. Let's take a look at them for just a moment. If we're painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we're halfway through. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past or wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we can see how our experience will benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They're being fulfilled among us sometimes quickly, spiritual experience, sometimes slowly, spiritual awakening. They will always materialize if we work for them. I'm going to read them again. I read them the second time for two reasons. Number one, I love the way I read them. <laughs> Number two, I'm going to add some words to them. And the words I'm going to add to them refer to a time when I was young and when I could drink alcohol and be Fred Astaire on the dance floor and the world's greatest lover in the back seat of a 36 Chevrolet. This is the way alcohol used to make me feel before it turned against me and literally destroyed me. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, I knew a new freedom, a new happiness. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, I did not regret the past or wish to shut the door on it. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, I would comprehend the word serenity and I have no peace. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, no matter how far down the scale I'd gone, I could see how my experience would benefit others. <laughs> Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, that feeling of uselessness and self-pity would disappear. 
Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, I would lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in my fellows. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, self-seeking would slip away. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, my whole attitude and outlook upon life would change. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, fear of people and of economic insecurity would leave me. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, I would intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle me. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, I would suddenly realize that alcohol was doing for me what I could not do for myself. Now think about that for a minute. My God, no wonder I became obsessed with the idea of drinking alcohol. When you find something that will do this for you, over and over and over and over again, you're becoming to become absolutely obsessed with the idea of using it. And for several years, alcohol was my friend. So for several years, alcohol allowed me to function in society. I look back at it now, I don't believe I could have functioned in society without alcohol or something to give me these kind of feelings. But then one day, my friend alcohol turned against me. And all the things I was afraid would happen to me now begin to happen because of the alcohol. And I became a very, very confused individual. Not knowing I was alcoholic. Not knowing I would never be able to recapture these things from alcohol. I spent the last five or six years of my drinking desperately trying to recapture these things. And alcohol almost destroyed me. And I came to AA, and you handed me a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I began to apply that program in that book in my life. And one day I woke up with these promises in my mind. And they don't deal with the body, they're all in my mind. I woke up with these promises in my mind. And I said to myself, you know, these first nine steps have given me everything good that alcohol used to give me. That's why I don't drink. If I hadn't found them here, I'd still be looking for them. I'd be dead somewhere. But you see, I don't need to drink because the first nine steps through these promises have given me everything good that alcohol ever gave me before. That's the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And with that thought came another thought. So far, the first nine steps have never turned against me as alcohol did. I've never been placed in jail because of the first nine steps. <laughs> no woman has ever drugged me through a divorce court because of the first nine steps. I've never had the hell beat out of me because of the first nine steps. Damn near did a time or two, but never really because of the first nine steps. You see, that's the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you look at them, they all deal with the mind. None deal with the body. Now, we come here restless, irritable, and discontented. We come here filled with shame, fear, guilt, and remorse. We come here very selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate people. We come here as very angry individuals. Now, if we've gone from that state of mind to the state of mind called out in these promises, 
then surely we have undergone a great change in our personality. A personality change sufficient to recover from alcoholism. Surely we've had a spiritual experience or a spiritual awakening right here. Now, if that's true, then what is the purpose of the last three steps? And a lot of people will tell us they are maintenance steps. I'll agree that they're going to help us stay sober. But the word maintenance itself is a misnomer. To maintain something means to keep it as is. And another law in our universe applies here that says nothing in our universe ever stays as is. Everything in our universe is in a constant state of change. It's either growing or it's dying. It's progressing or it's regressing. You watch a beautiful tree grow, and it grows and grows and grows, and every day it gets more beautiful. Till one day it quits growing. And the day it quits growing, it begins to die. And it reverts back to where it came from. The human body is one of the most miraculous things that God has ever produced. And it grows and grows and grows till it gets to be about 19 years old. And then it quits growing. And the day it quits growing, it begins to die. And eventually reverts back to where it came from. Everything is true in the material world is also true in the mental world, the emotional world, and all areas of life. If I tried to stop here and maintain these promises in my life and grow no further, then after a while I start slipping back. Next thing you know, I start having trouble with people. Next thing you know, I start having trouble with me up here. Next thing you know, I'm blocked off from God. And next thing you know, I'm drunk all over again. I am convinced in my mind this is what happens to people who have had a good program and they're 20 and 25 and 30 years sober and they quit coming to AA and they quit growing. And they end up getting drunk out there too. We We see it happen to people all the time who are good members of AA. They simply quit growing. You can't coast uphill. You can only coast downhill. Let's look at the last three steps for just a few minutes. And let's see if we can't see the growth factor rather than the maintenance factor. See, one thing we did as a fellowship is we took all the steps out of the book, put them on these little cards, put them on the wall. And I like them on the, on these little cards and on the wall. There's nothing wrong with that. The only thing is that we left the instructions on how to work the steps in the book. People come into AA and they try to take the steps off these cards or off the wall and miss the whole point. And if you're trying to take the steps off the wall and you read come to step 10, it would say continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. It looked like if you were wrong and you promptly admitted it, you were doing the intent of step 10. Somehow or other, we got the idea that step 10 is to be done at night while in bed. Well, I've talked this over a great deal with Charlie, and I don't get in trouble at night <laughs> while, in, <clears throat> while in bed. The nighttime portion of the steps over step 11, anyhow, is not even in step 10. So let's look at the, the growth factor in step 10. 
So this thought brings us to step 10, which suggests that we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set right any mistakes as we go along. We vigorously commenced this way of living as we cleaned up the past. We have entered the world of the spirit. We've had a spiritual experience or a spiritual awakening. Our next function is to grow. To grow. Not maintain, not stay where we are, but to grow. In understanding and in effectiveness. Now this is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. What step did we use to do that in the first place? Anybody remember? Step four, okay. When these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. What steps did we use there? Six and seven. Six and seven, okay. We discuss them with someone immediately. What step was that? Five. And make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone. What steps did we use there? Eight and nine. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and talents of others is our code. You know, it looks to me like if we do step ten the way the big book says, we're going to be doing steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine on a daily basis for the rest of our life. I would defy anybody in this room to do steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine on a daily basis and stay the way you are. You absolutely cannot do that. See, I've got that little inventory sheet up here in my head. I can see it just as plain as day. And if I get screwed up about 9 o'clock in the morning, it doesn't make any sense for me to wait till I go to bed at night to do something about it. Because if I'm screwed up at 9 o'clock, I've cussed two or three people out by 11 o'clock. <laughs> two or three's cussed me out by 2 o'clock. By night time, I'm a basket case, and I've wasted another day. What I have finally learned to do, it's taken a long time to do it, but I finally learned that if I get screwed up about 9 o'clock in the morning to stop, get off in the corner by myself. Okay, Charlie, who are you mad at? What did they do to you? Which part of self is affected? What did you do, if anything, to set it in motion? Which character defect has come back to the surface? I can't get really upset unless that old selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, or inconsiderate human being has come back to the surface. I can spot it just like that. I turn to God and I say, Okay, God, you know I don't want to be this way. Please take this dishonesty away from me or this inconsideration, whatever it is. Please take this away from me. Discuss it with someone as soon as I can. He says immediately, sometime we can't do it immediately. As soon as I can, preferably my sponsor if I can do so. And then I make amends quickly if I'm harmed anyone. 15, 20, 30 minutes, the whole thing is gone. And the rest of the day is okay. I've wasted all the time I want to waste in anger and resentment and fear and that kind of crap. I don't feel good when I'm that way. It blocks me off from God and my fellow human beings. It makes me sick. And I don't have to feel that way anymore. Now, you absolutely cannot do step four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine 
over and over and over again and stay the way you are. You just can't do that. Twice in the big book, Bill talks about a fourth dimension of existence. Once in his story, once in chapter 2. Now, the normal three are the spiritual, the mental, and the physical. And we got right and well in all three of those through the first nine steps. But there's another dimension of existence far, far beyond the normal three that we never dreamed existed. You can't explain it and you can't understand it. You can only grow into it. And that's what this step is for. And as our relationship with God gets better and better, as our relationship with herself gets better and better, as our relationship with our fellow man gets better and better, then we move into an entirely different dimension of living. And thank God there's no end to it. Because you see, if there was an end to it, I would get bored. And I would quit doing it and I would be in trouble. But it's fascinating for me today to see just how far we can grow in this thing. Just how much better our relationship can become with God and ourselves and our fellow human being. A very definite growth step to move us into another dimension of living. Now this is another reason you don't need to be too concerned about doing a perfect job in step four. Because you're going to be doing this inventory thing the rest of your life. So do the best you can in four and get on with the rest of the program and then you'll come to step ten. And we'll be re-inventorying from now on. A definite growth step, Joe. Once we do this for a while, we get some more promises. And our book said that we've ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, sanity will have returned. Remember it said on step two that we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity? Well, we get our sanity back on page 84. We've been now we're restored to sanity. And once we have our sanity back, he says we will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we find this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That's the miracle of it. We're not fighting it, and neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we've been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We're not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It did not, it does not exist for us. We're neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we relax so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. And remember back on page 45, it said the main object of this book, which enabled me to find a power greater than myself, which would solve my problem. Didn't say would help me solve my problem. Said would solve my problem. Well, somewhere between page 45 and 85, there's the steps. I worked the steps. And one day I looked up and looked around and said, what happened to that? great obsession that I used to have to drink. It was gone. Just gone. That's the miracle of it. Those times prior to AA, I had the forced sobriety. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I'd be sober and be thumbing through a magazine and I'd see a picture of a bottle of whiskey in there. Just a picture. Water running down the sides, cold. My mouth would water. Phyllis said I slobbered a lot. 
just looking at a picture. That's the kind of obsession to, to drink that I had. And what happened? It just went away. See, God removed that from me, evidently. I'm not tough like some people who can do it a day at a time and, and stay sober one day at a time. And God had to remove the obsession to drink from me in order for me to stay sober. I'm just not that tough. Now it says, now it's easy to let up on a spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. You know, by this time, things are pretty good. By the time you get around to this part of the program, things are good. If you're lucky, you may be back home. If you're real lucky, the dog's not biting you anymore. <laughs> if you're really, really lucky, you may be back in the bedroom. You see, things are pretty good. Going to work regularly, getting a full paycheck at the end of the week, making more money, doing good. Probably a lot of people move into a new house, buy new furniture, buy a new car, all on credit, by the way. <laughs> and we find ourselves, uh, things begin to kind of compete for our sobriety. We have to work more overtime to pay for them, you know, work nights and weekends. We kind of get too busy to go to AA. We rest on our laurels. Charlie said a while ago, we can only coast downhill. If we're not careful, those things will compete for our sobriety, and they will get your sobriety too. If you're too busy to go to AA, you're just too busy. That's all I can tell you. We're headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol is a subtle foe. We're not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. There's the word maintenance. One day at a time. We can't maintain forever. But we can do it one day at a time. Every day is a day we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It's the proper use of the will. We get our willpower back on page 85. We've been saying all weekend the willpower is no avail to us. God never gave us anything that was bad. He gave us willpower for a purpose. We get our sanity back on page 84 and our willpower back on page 85. Wouldn't it be awful to have our willpower and no sanity? The way it was, don't want to do with it. And again, it says, How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It's the proper use of the will. God gave us willpower for a reason. And that's it right there. It's the proper use of the will. Only thing is, I misused the willpower and didn't know that. Now, Much has already been said about receiving strength, inspiration, and direction, not suggestion, from him who has all knowledge and power. If we've carefully followed directions, not suggestions, we've begun to sense the flow of his spirit into us. To some extent, we've become God-conscious. We've begun to develop this vital sixth sense but we must go further, and that means more action. Now here we're talking about God consciousness as being a vital sixth sense of direction. You know, everything I've learned on a conscious level 
I've learned through five senses of direction. I can see, I can smell, I can taste, I can hear, and I can touch. Those are the five senses of direction. And about everything we learn on a conscious level, we learn through one of those five senses. Now you can take everything I know and everything Joe knows and everything you guys know and everything every human being on earth knows and add it all together and it's just a tiny, tiny speck of information compared to the knowledge of the universe. Now if God has all knowledge and all power and I'm convinced he does because my book says so. If God dwells within each of us, I'm convinced he does. Our book says so. Then that means you and I have within ourselves all the knowledge and all the power that we can ever need to handle any conceivable situation which might come up in the future. Provided we know how to tap into that knowledge and that power. The sixth sense of direction or God consciousness. It's been known for thousands of years how you do this. You do it through prayer and meditation. <clears throat> Most of us, when we come to AA, we're absolutely bankrupt in those areas. I knew nothing about meditation. Oh, I'd read in places where it might be lying down and listening to soft music, where it might be chanting certain words over and over, where it might be clearing your mind of all thought. And I don't know about you, but I know about me. I've never been able to clear my mind of all thought. I get up in the morning, that sucker turns on, and it runs all day. I've never been able to stop it. I knew nothing about meditation at all. And even being raised in church, I knew very little about prayer. When I got to AA, I had two prayers. One of them went like this. Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I don't even like that prayer anymore. <laughs> it's dealing with death, and I'm not into that at all. <laughs> The other one I used, and I'm sure some of you used it too, went like this, God, if you'll get me out of this damn mess, I swear I'll never do this again. Now, it would seem to be an impossibility for me to be able to develop a life of prayer and meditation. Thank God Bill was a real alcoholic. Because Bill Wilson didn't know anything about prayer and meditation either. And thank God he didn't. Most people that are really knowledgeable in those areas, when they write on them, they write so far over my head that I can't understand them. Bill couldn't do that. So rather than try to tell us what prayer and meditation is, he was forced to give us a few little suggestions that if we will follow those suggestions, 
each of us will develop our own life of prayer and meditation. And it'll be good enough that nothing or nobody can improve on it. Mine may not be exactly like yours, and yours may not be exactly like Joe's. But we'll develop our own life of prayer and meditation where we can begin to tap in to that sixth sense of direction. Bottom of page 85, he said, Step 11 suggests prayer and meditation. We shouldn't be shy on this matter of prayer. Better men than we are using it constantly. It works if we have the proper attitude and work at it. It would be easy to be vague about this matter. He's saying, I, you know, I wish I didn't have to write on this. <laughs> Yet we believe we can make some definite and valuable suggestions. Now he's going to tell us what we need to do when we go to bed at night. Here's the night time. It's in step 11. I know it's in 10 and 12 and 12, but it's in 11 in the big book. He's going to tell us what to do upon awakening. He's going to tell us what to do when we face indecision. He's going to tell us how to pray. He's going to tell us what to do when we are agitated or doubtful. And if we'll follow each one of these little suggestions, then each one of us will begin to develop our own life of prayer and meditation. Let's see what we do when we go to bed at night. And now look carefully. And this first paragraph on 86, you're going to see steps 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Once again. said, when we retire at night, we constructively review our day. Will we resentful, selfish, dishonesty, or afraid? There's step 4. Do we owe an apology? There's eight and nine. Have we kept something to ourselves which we should discuss with another person at There's once? five. Were we kind and loving toward all? What could we have done better? Maybe that's column four. We were thinking of ourselves most of the time, column five. Or were we thinking of what we should do for others, of what we could pack into the stream of life? But we must be careful not to drift into worry, remorse, or morbid reflection, for that would diminish our usefulness to others. After making our review, we ask God's forgiveness and inquire what corrective measures should be taken. And there's step six and seven again. Mm-hmm. So really, the nighttime thing when we go to bed is a repracticing. That's steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. It's impossible to do four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine and stay the way you are. We made up a little inventory sheet that you might want to use just as an example. Basically, you could use anything you want. But on one side of that sheet, we put the personality characteristics of a self-willed person. We took the basic character defects out of the big book, selfish and self-seeking, dishonest, frightened, inconsideration. Went to the 12 and 12, picked up everything we could find there. And they're all offshoots of the top four, by the way. On the opposite side, we put the personality characteristics of God's will. Tried to find the opposite and put it on the right side. Now all we're trying to do is get from the left-hand side of the sheet to the right-hand side of the sheet. It only takes just a few minutes to run down through this thing in the evening and see where we've been that day. I've never yet found myself on either side of the sheet completely. I find that I changed 
these check marks from time to time. But what I do find is I'm gradually checking more on the right than I am on the left. This shows me what I need to continue to work on. And as I continue to work on those things, it gets better and better and better and better. Now, I know one thing for sure. I am going to inventory. I am going to inventory. I've got one or two choices. I can wait until I'm so sick and so fouled up that I'm almost drunk and start trying to dig myself out from under that mess with the possibility of getting drunk. Or I can take a few minutes each day and keep myself in fit spiritual condition without that possibility of getting drunk. And I find that it takes less time to do it on a daily basis than it does to wait till I'm almost drunk and then start doing it. A very definite and valuable suggestion. There was a philosopher called Carl Sandburg. And Mr. Sandberg said, when a society fails, there's always one thing present. And that is that they forgot where they came from. And he said, when they forget where they came from, they forget where they're going and they get lost out there somewhere. If you and I fail, it'll be because we forget where we came from. And if we forget where we came from, we're going to get lost out there too. And we're going to end up drunk as sure as anything. I think this is one of the best suggestions in the book. Five or ten minutes, a little daily inventory thing, in the evening before we go to bed. Now then in the morning, on awakening, now he didn't say after we get up and have a cup of coffee. <laughs> he didn't say after we're in the car driving to work. He said, on awakening. I think that means just as soon as we wake up. Let us think about the 24 hours ahead. We consider our plans for the day. Before we begin, we ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. Under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties with assurance. For after all, God gave us brains to use. Our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is cleared of wrong motives. Most of us jump out of bed. First thing we do is go to the bathroom. I had a guy tell me first thing he did was get on his treadmill. And I said, man, you got a better bladder than I do. I go to the bathroom. <laughs> we go to the bathroom, we relieve the body. And we go to the kitchen, and we get a cup of coffee and maybe a little food, and we feed the body. And after we fed the body, we go back to the bathroom, and you ladies fix your hair and your face, and we men do whatever we do, shave or whatever, taking care of the body. After we get the head taken care of, we go to the closet, and we pick out the clothes that we're going to wear that day. We spend a lot of time on clothes. They've got to match. Everything just got to be perfect. And we clothe the body. 
We get ready to leave the house. If we've got a cat or a dog, we feed the cat and dog before we leave. And we go out the door and we lock the door because we want to be sure nobody gets our material junk away from us while we're gone. <laughs> we go out to the car and we walk around the car and make sure the tires have all got air in them. We get in the car and sit down and turn on the switch and check the fuel level. And we start the car and we take off down the road. Now we did all of those things that morning to take care of our body and all of our material stuff. What do we do about our mind? Well, the mind's going to run the whole show all day long. The body doesn't run it, the mind runs it. If you and I spent one-tenth of the time on our minds as we spend on our bodies, my God, there's no telling what we could become. But you see, most of us won't do that. They'll suggest let's take just a few minutes in the morning early before we ever get out of bed. And let's, let's feed the mind a little bit. Let's check the air and the water in the mind before we ever get up and start the day and taking care of our body. Very definite, valuable suggestion. In thinking about our day, we may face indecision. We may not be able to determine which course to take. Here we ask God for inspiration, intuitive thought, or decision. We relax and take it easy. We don't struggle. We're often surprised how the right answers come after we've tried this for a while. I used to when I faced indecision. I'd be struggling with something up here and couldn't determine the answer or what to do. And my little thing up here, I've just got a little bitty computer up here. And it's old and it's wore out. And it's got software and it's just not much good. And I'll struggle with it and all of a sudden it'll pop out on this side. And it'll say, we don't have the answer to that. And I grab it and I come in there and I stick it back in again. And it runs in there and struggles a little bit and says, we don't have the answer and pops out the other side. And I grab it and stick it in there again and finally it says tilt. And it's just frustration, you know. The book says, let's quit doing that. They said, if we face indecision, let's ask God for the right thought or action. Let's ask God for the intuitive thought. Realizing we don't know the answer. If I knew the answer, I wouldn't be struggling with it. So I asked God for the answer. And then it said, let's relax and take it easy. I don't think it means I lay down. I think it means I need to get my mind off of that subject. I've asked God for the answer, and if I'm struggling with it, God can't answer. Now how do I get my mind off of that subject? I'll go start mowing the grass, painting the house, doing the dishes, doing something worthwhile. And 30 minutes or an hour or two or three later, my mind goes back to that subject. There's information there I didn't have before. He said, why don't you call Joe and see what Joe thinks? I didn't think about that before. And I called Joe and explained the situation. I said, what do you think about this? And Joe's got the answer for me. When I first started doing this, I used to say, my, wasn't it lucky I called Joe? <laughs> and the occasional thought or inspiration comes in. I have finally, finally, finally learned to do one of the hardest things I've ever done. I have finally learned to listen to people. 
used to, I couldn't, I couldn't hear what you're saying because I'm waiting for you to shut up so I can say what I want to say. <laughs> I never could hear you before. But today I've learned that God answers these things for me through other people. He very seldom speaks to me direct. I know he does to some people, but he doesn't to me very often. But he speaks to me through other people. And maybe I'm standing in a supermarket checkout line. Two little ladies standing in front of me checking out. And they're talking, and I happen to tune tune into their conversation. And you know they're talking about what I was struggling with yesterday. They've got the answer for me. If I just learn to listen to people. And he doesn't use learned people. He uses ordinary people. And I've tried to learn to listen to everybody, not just the hot shots, but everybody that I come in contact with. It's amazing what this thing will do. Page 87 tells you about this. What used to be the hunch or the occasional inspiration gradually becomes a working part of the mind. We intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle us. Being still experienced and having just inexperienced and having just made conscious contact with God, it's not probable that we're going to be inspired at all times. We might pay for this presumption in all sorts of absurd actions and ideas. Nevertheless, we find that our thinking will, as time passes, be more and more on the plane of inspiration. We come to rely upon it. Practice, 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 practice. And these things get to be a habit. It really does work. Now he tells us how to pray. You know, communication is the beginning of all understanding, isn't it? Communication is the beginning of all understanding. To give you, for instance, when we started here last night, Friday night, we didn't know each other very well, did we? But we've been communicating, talking and listening. And we know each other better today than we did Friday night. Talking and listening. Communication. Now, if that would work with you and I, wouldn't that work with God? Talking and listening. Do a lot more listening than talking. You see, communication is the beginning of all understanding. Page 87 says, We usually conclude the period of meditation with a prayer. That we be shown all through the day what our next step is to be that we be given whatever we need to take care of such problems. We ask especially for freedom from self-will, and we're careful to make no requests for ourselves only. We may ask for ourselves, however, if others will be helped. We're careful never to pray for our own selfish ends. Many of us have wasted a lot of time doing that, and it doesn't work. You can easily see why. I used to pray, God, give me this, and God, get me a new car, and God, get me a new house. God, help me make more money. And for something I forgot to ask you for, well, give me that also. <laughs> give me, give me, give me. See, and I, those are very selfish prayers. You know why that won't work. Praying only for the knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry that out. That's all I really need to know. Praying only for the knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry that out. See, if it's circumstances warrant, we ask our wives. Several years ago, Phyllis there, sitting in her recliner and I was sitting in mine and pretty soon she asked me she said honey I said I don't have time for that this morning <laughs> you know how they are 
She said, no, you old silly thing. What I want you to do is read this little meditation book to me and explain it to me. I said, well, I can do that. So I read it to her and explained it to her a lot more than she wanted to know. <laughs> and the next day was the same thing. We discussed it. So that began a little thing for us that we do time to time as we talk and listen to each other and do some meditation. I've heard all my life that the people that pray together stay together. How long has it been since you and Phyllis have had a divorce? 29 years, honey. 29 years. <laughs> more than that. How long? That's 31. Well, thank you. I'm glad to know that. But it's been a while. So that's good. Tickles the hell out of me. Well, anyhow, people who pray together stay together 31 years, okay? If our circumstances were, we ask for wives or friends to join us in morning meditation. We belong to a religious domination which requires a definite morning devotion. We attend to that also. If not members of a religious body, we sometimes select to memorize a few set prayers which emphasize the principles we're discussing. There are many helpful books also. Suggestions about these may be obtained from one's priest, minister, or rabbi. Be quick to see where religious people are right. Make use of what they offer. They came to me and they said, Charlie... Pray only for knowledge of his will and the power to carry that out. I said, well, how in the hell is he going to know what I want? (laughs) And they said, he's not interested in what you want. They said, he's interested in what you need. They said, Charlie, you've been trying to get what you want all your life. You've almost destroyed yourself in the process. That God knows what you need. And that's all you really need is what you need, and the only thing you really need is knowledge of God's will and the power to carry that out. And if you'll do that, everything will come out just right for you. And for me, that's happened over and over and over and over again. If I'd made a list in the very beginning of the things I wanted, and if I'd said, God, if you'll give me these, I'll never ask you for anything else. And if he had given me those things only, I would have shorted myself. Because he's given me not only those kind of things, but so much more, so much more than I ever dreamed would be possible, period. And all I need is knowledge of his will and the power to carry that out. And knowledge of his will is very simple. He's always told the human race, you only got to do two things to be happy. He said, Put no other gods before me. That could be money, power, prestige, sex, or anything else. And then he said, do what you can for your fellow man, and you'll be happy. Well, that's what I try to do in my life today. I try to put God first, and I try to do what I can for my fellow man, especially alcoholics. And the end result is I've received much more than I ever thought I could. Bottom of page 87. As we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. We constantly remind ourselves we're no longer running the show. Humbly saying to ourselves many times each day, Thy will be done. Now here's the results. We are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. We become much more efficient. 
We do not turn so easily. We are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we are trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. And here's the shortest paragraph in the big book. It works. It really does. <laughs> paragraph is in entirety. We alcoholics are undisciplined. So we let God discipline us in a simple way we've just outlined. But this is not all. There's action and more action. Faith without works is dead. The next chapter is entirely devoted to step 12. And of course, we're not going to try to go through the next chapter working with others. It takes too long. It takes too long. But I will say one thing. It is just as valid today as it was in 1939. It tells us just exactly what we need to do in working with other alcoholics. Tells us how to 12 step. Tells us what we need to be talking about. Tells us how to take care of them as they're getting sober. <laughs> Everything in that chapter is just as valid today as it was in 1939. Let's talk just a little bit about step 12. A multiple three part step. First part, step 12, is the greatest promise to be found anywhere in the big book. Having had a spiritual awakening is the result of these steps. Not a result, not some result, but the result. I think that's a promise to me, that if I will apply the first 11 steps to the best of my ability, I'm guaranteed to have a spiritual awakening. Now, what is a spiritual awakening? Well, the appendix says it's a personality change sufficient to recover from alcoholism. Bill says in the 12 and 12, there's many kind of spiritual awakenings. There are people in AA, but they've all got certain things in common. And that is that we're able to feel, believe, and do things we could never do before on our own strength unaided. And if that's the criteria, then I've had them. I feel things I've never felt before. I feel love, patience, tolerance, compassion, and goodwill. Before AA, I could have cared less about you. Oh yeah, you could have some, but only after I extracted what I wanted first. I always came first. I don't feel that way anymore. I believe things I've never believed before. I believe God is a kind and a loving God. I believe He stands ready to help any human being on earth. The instant they're ready to turn up on, to, to turn loose of self-will and turn back to Him. I believe He's a God of mercy, not a God of justice. Thank God He isn't a God of justice. If He was, I wouldn't be here today. Some of you guys wouldn't be here today even if He was a God of justice. Surely, surely. He's pure mercy and pure love. I believe that with all my heart. I can do things I never could do before. By God, I can stay sober. I never could do that before. And because of that sobriety, I'm allowed to do many, many things that I always dreamed of being able to do, but never could do them. And I've been able to go places and see things and meet people and enjoy life that I never could before when I was drinking. So if that's the criteria, then I've had a spiritual awakening. But you don't get something for nothing. Excuse me. We are now charged with the responsibility. Those who have had the spiritual awakening were now charged with carrying this message to other alcoholics. Not a message, not the message, not some message, this message. What is this message? 
It's very simple. Having had a spiritual awakening, I'm not like I used to be. I've had a spiritual awakening. And if you're new in AA, and if you're not feeling good, if you're thinking about doing a little drinking, or if you've been out there doing a little drinking, we know just exactly where you're coming from. That's where we came from. We came to AA and picked up the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. We applied the first 11 steps in our lives to the best of our ability. We've had a spiritual awakening and we're not that way anymore. Now, if you don't want to be that way anymore, then you do what we did. You come to AA and pick up the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. Let us take you by the hand and walk with you as you apply the first 11 steps to your life. And you'll have a spiritual awakening. And you're not going to be that way anymore either. And that's the only message that AA's got. Some of us get to thinking we're healers. Some of us get to thinking we're marital and economic advisors. I don't know of any group of people in the world that screwed those things up worse than we did. We only know one thing. And we know it better than anybody in the world knows it. We know about alcoholism than anybody alive. We're the only people that's ever experienced it. We know more about recovery from alcoholism than anybody alive. We're the only people that's ever done it. We are the experts, you and I, in the field of alcoholism. I have got to believe, as I look through our book and look through our history and the great history that Gail presented the other night, I've got to believe that God got tired of seeing people like us die back in the 1930s. I've got to believe that he took Bill and Bob, Dr. Young, Dr. Silkworth, Eddie Thatcher, and all the rest of them, and put this thing together so we could have it today. God's always worked with people through people. I'm convinced he picked all the first 100 so we could have this thing today. Now, if he picked the first 100 to do his job, and they're all dead now, every one of them, they're all gone. If he picked them then, would he still not be picking them today? There's not an alcoholic in this room that ought to be here. Every one of us ought to be dead. Some of us several times. And we used to say, my, wasn't we lucky last night? Now, I don't think luck's got anything to do with it. I think God picked you out. He let you suffer your alcoholism so you would know what He wants you to know. And when He got ready to use you, then he removed the obsession to drink. And now the only question is, what are we going to do with it? Are we going to carry this message to others? Are we going to be of unique value to our fellow man? Now God has given us the knowledge and the opportunity to avert death in countless thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Most people don't get that opportunity. I think we're the luckiest people in the world today. I've got to do one more thing now. through. I have to try to practice these principles in all my affairs. And what are the principles? 
I've heard people argue for days over this. Principle of one's that, and the principle of two's this, and the principle of no, I don't think that's true. In the 12th step, Bill had already used the word steps. Having had a spiritual experience or awakening as the result of these steps, he didn't want to use steps again. So then he said and tried to practice these principles or these steps in all our affairs. In the 12 and 12, he says, the 12 steps are a set of principles, spiritual in nature. So I'm sure he's talking about the steps. Easy for me to practice them in AA. I love you and I hope you love me and we're going to do our best not to hurt each other. But I'm only in AA hour or two a day at the most. What do I do out there? Do I practice these principles in my home with my wife? Can I realize how powerless I really am over that lady? Can I realize the insanity of trying to control her knowing full well I can't? Can I make a decision to turn her will and her life over the care of God as I understand it? <laughs> Can I inventory me and find those character defects that keep me trying to control her? Can I talk about that to another human being? Can I ask God to remove those? Can I make amends to her quickly when I've harmed her? There's times I'm ashamed of me. There's times I treat absolute strangers on the street with more courtesy than I treat my own wife in my own home. You'll just think, if I could practice there with her and she with me, we might pick up 10, 12, 14 hours a day. We can be peaceful, happy, and free. Can I do it with my children? If I can, what little time I've got left with them is good times. If I can't, I try to control and they resist. Now, we've got one daughter that's 51 years old, and I find myself still trying to tell her how to run her business. You know? <laughs> can I do it on the job with my co-workers? You know, I might be happy on the job 8, 10 hours a day if I can practice these principles there. Aren't we really saying God has given us the ability through our program, to be peaceful, happy, and free 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Make no mistake now, God's not going to do it for you. Other people aren't going to do it for you. But you, with God's help and the help of other people, can do it for yourself. I think we're the luckiest people on earth today. I really do. Let's go to page 164. Go to page 164. I <clears throat> remember reading in that other big, big book this story about these guys that were practicing these principles and carrying this message. And they were in a little town called Surnan. And after the guy was talked that night, why, they told me of a fellow they had locked in a cave up on the side of the hill. And he said, I want to go up and see this guy. And they, they said, no, you don't want to see him. And man, he's a selfish, self-centered, angry, hateful individual. And we got him locked up. He said, no, I want to go see him. He said, tell me what his name is. He said, well, his name is Legions, for he is many. You know, many defects of character. He said, well, I'm going to go up there and talk to him. So he went up and talked to him a little bit, cut loose the chains of resentment and fear and guilt, shame, and remorse, and set him free. He wrote a little step for us right here. And the guy asked him, he said, can I go with you and do what you do? And he said, no, Legions. He said, I want you to stay here. And tell people what happened to you. He, I think it's called Pass It On. <laughs> On page 164, it says this. 
Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you than us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who's still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right. And great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. We did that in steps one, two, and three. Admit your faults to him and your fellows. We did that in four, five, six, and seven. Clear away the records of your past. We did that in eight and nine. Give freely what you find and join us. We do that through ten, eleven, and twelve. And we shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you treads the road of happy destiny. May, May God, God bless, bless you and keep, keep you until then. Thank, Thank you all you for letting us be here. We love you. We love you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.